This is Audible. Brissinger by Christopher Paolini Read by Carrie Shale Aragon stared at the dark tower of stone wherein hid the monsters who had murdered his uncle, Garrow. He was lying on his belly behind the edge of a sandy hill dotted with sparse blades of grass and thorn bushes. The brittle stems of last year's foliage pricked his palms as he inched forward to gain a better view of Hellgrind, which loomed over the surrounding land like a black dagger thrust out from the bowels of the earth. To his left, Aragon heard the steady breathing of his cousin, Roran, who was stretched out beside him. The normally inaudible flow of air seemed preternaturally loud to Aragon, with his heightened sense of hearing, one of many such changes wrought by his experience during the Ageti Blodrin, the elves' blood oath celebration. He paid little attention to that now. Closing his eyes, Aragon slowly extended his consciousness outward. He proceeded with caution, ready to withdraw at a second's notice if he happened to brush against the minds of their prey, the Razak, and the Razak's parents and steeds, the gigantic Leatherblaka. Aragon was willing to expose himself in this manner only because none of the Razak's breed could use magic. They had no need of it, when their breath alone could induce a stupor in the largest of men. And though Aragon risked discovery by his ghostly investigation, he, Roran, and Sephira had to know if the Razak had imprisoned Katrina, Roran's betrothed, in Hellgrind for the answer would determine whether their mission was one of rescue or one of capture and interrogation. Aragon searched long and hard. When he returned to himself, Roran was watching him. His gray eyes burned with a mixture of anger, hope, and despair. I think I felt her, Aragon said. It's hard to be certain, because we're so far from Hellgrind, but I think she's in that forsaken peak, concealed somewhere near the very top. Aragon refrained from mentioning, however, that he had detected a second person as well, one whose identity he suspected, and the presence of whom, if confirmed, troubled him greatly. What I didn't find were the Razak or the Leather Blaka. In a low, flat voice, as if talking with himself, Roran said, It doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. How so? We dare not attack tonight. Night is when the Razak are strongest. Agreed? Yes. So, we wait for the dawn. By unspoken consent, Aragon and Roran crawled down from the low hill they were hiding behind and along a narrow gully toward their camp. Aragon sat with his back propped against the knobby scales of Sephira's thick right foreleg. Opposite him, Roran was perched on the shell of an ancient tree trunk, Aragon had just finished recounting the day's activities to Sephira. Normally, he never had to tell her what he had been doing, as thoughts, feelings, and other sensations flowed between them as easily as water from one side of a lake to another. But in this instance, it was necessary, because Aragon had kept his mind carefully shielded during the scouting expedition, aside from his disembodied foray into the Razak's lair. Leaning forward to take his weight off Sephira's sharp-edged scales, Aragon picked up the hawthorn staff that lay by his side. 
He rolled it between his palms, admiring the play of light over the polished tangle of roots at the top and the much-scratched metal ferrule and spike at the base. Roran had thrust the staff into his arms before they left the Varden on the burning plains, saying, Here, I know you lost your sword, and I thought you might have need of it. Remembering the staff Brom had always carried, Aragon had decided to forego a new sword in favor of the length of knotted hawthorn. After losing Zarok, he felt no desire to take up another, lesser sword. That night, he had fortified both the knotted hawthorn and the handle to Roran's hammer with several spells that would prevent either piece from breaking, except under the most extreme stress. Unbidden, a series of memories overwhelmed Aragon. A sullen orange and crimson sky swirled around him as Sephira dove in pursuit of the red dragon and his rider. The jolt of sword striking sword as he dueled that same rider on the ground. Tearing off his foe's helm in the midst of combat to reveal his once friend and traveling companion, Murtag, whom he had thought dead. The sneer upon Murtag's face as he took Zarok from Aragon, claiming the red sword by right of inheritance as Aragon's elder brother. Murtag. Drawing and releasing a slow breath to clear his head, Aragon tried to force his mind back to the present, but could not. The morning after the massive battle on the burning plains, Aragon had gone to Naswada and Arya, explained Roran's predicament, and sought their permission to help his cousin. He did not succeed. The debate raged on for so long. At last, Sephira had interrupted with a roar that shook the walls of the command tent. Then she said, I am sore and tired, and Aragon is doing a poor job of explaining himself. Now listen to me. It was, reflected Aragon, difficult to argue with a dragon. Sephira supported Aragon, because she understood so long as the Empire held Katrina captive, Roran, and through him Aragon, was vulnerable to manipulation by Galbatorix. If the usurper threatened to kill Katrina, Roran would have no choice but to submit to his demands. It would be best, then, to patch this breach in their defenses before their enemies took advantage of it. A fountain of amber motes billowed and swirled as Roran tossed a branch onto the disintegrating coals. He caught Aragon's look and shrugged. Cold, he said. Aragon walked to their saddlebags and retrieved the small earthenware jar Oric had given him before they parted, then poured two large mouthfuls of raspberry mead down his gullet. Warmth bloomed in his stomach. Aragon passed the jar to Roran. Several drinks later, Aragon said, We may have a problem tomorrow. What do you mean? Over the past century, Galbatorix may have placed wards around the Razak that will protect them against the whole range of spells. I probably won't be able to kill them with any of the words of death I was taught. Force of arms may be the only means by which we can slay the Razak. If that's true, I'll just be in your way tomorrow. Nonsense. You may be slower than the Razak, but I have no doubt you'll give them cause to fear your weapon, Roran Stronghammer. The compliment seemed to please Roran. Could you teach me to use magic? When Aragon hesitated, Roran added, Not now, of course. We don't have the time, and I don't expect one can become a magician overnight anyway. But in general, why not? I don't know how someone who's not a rider learns to use magic, 
confessed Aragon. Glancing around, he plucked a flat round stone from the ground and tossed it to Roran, who caught it backhand. Here, try this. Concentrate on lifting the rock a foot or so into the air and say, Stener Risa. Stener Risa? Exactly. Roran frowned at the stone, his lips tightened into a snarl, and he growled, Stener Risa. With enough intensity, Aragon half expected the stone to fly out of sight. Nothing happened. Scowling even harder, Roran repeated his command. Stenerisa! The stone exhibited a profound lack of movement. Well, said Aragon, keep trying. That's the only advice I can give you. But, and here he raised a finger, if you should happen to succeed, make sure you immediately come to me, or if I'm not around, another magician. You could kill yourself and others if you start experimenting with magic without understanding the rules. If you cast a spell that requires too much energy, you will die. Roran nodded, still looking at the stone. Magic aside, I just realized there's something far more important that you need to learn. Oh, yes. You need to be able to hide your thoughts from the Black Hand, Duvrangergata, and others like them. You know a lot of things now that could harm the Varden. I understand, but why did you include Duvrangergata in that list? They serve you and Naswada. They do, but even among our allies, there are more than a few people who would give their right arm to ferret out our plans and secrets, and yours too. Now that you know what it feels like when one mind touches another, you might be able to learn to reach out and touch other minds in turn. Either way, before you spend time finding out, you should first devote yourself to the art of defense. His cousin cocked an eyebrow. How? Choose something, a sound, an image, an emotion, anything, and let it swell within your mind until it blots out any other thoughts. That's all? It's not as easy as you think. Go on, take a stab at it. When you're ready, let me know, and I'll see how well you've done. Several moments passed. Then, at a flick of Roran's fingers, Aragon launched his consciousness toward his cousin, eager to discover what he had accomplished. The full strength of Aragon's mental ray rammed into a wall composed of Roran's memories of Katrina and was stopped. Roran's defenses exceeded any Aragon had previously encountered, for Roran's mind was devoid of anything else Aragon could grasp hold of and use to gain control over his cousin. Then Roran shifted his left leg, and the wood underneath released a harsh squeal. With that, the wall Aragon had hurled himself against fractured into dozens of pieces as a host of competing thoughts distracted Roran. Taking advantage of his confusion, Aragon rushed forward, and by the force of his will, immobilized Roran before he could shield himself again. You understand the basic concept, said Aragon, then withdrew from Roran's mind and said out loud, but you have to learn to maintain your concentration, even when you're in the middle of a battle. I'll work on it, promised Roran. In a quiet voice, Aragon said, you really love her, don't you? How did it happen? I liked her. She liked me. What importance are the details? Come now, said Aragon. I was too angry to ask before you left for Theronsford, and we have not seen each other again until just four days ago. I'm curious. The skin around Roran's eyes pulled and wrinkled as he rubbed his temples. Well, there's not much to tell. I've always 
been partial to her. It meant little before I was a man, but after my rites of passage, I began to wonder whom I would marry and whom I wanted to become the mother of my children. During one of our visits to Carvajal, I saw Katrina stop by the side of Loring's house to pick a moss rose growing in the shade of the eaves. She smiled as she looked at the flower. It was such a tender smile, and so happy. I decided right then that I wanted to make her smile like that again and again, and that I wanted to look at that smile until the day I died. Tears gleamed in Roran's eyes, but they did not fall, and a second later he blinked and they vanished. I fear I have failed in that regard. After a respectful pause, Aragon said, You courted her then. Aside from using me to ferry compliments to Katrina, how else did you proceed? You ask like one who seeks instruction. I did not. You're imagining come now yourself, said Roran. I know when you're lying. You get that big foolish grin and your ears turn red. The elves may have given you a new face, but that part of you hasn't changed. What is it that exists between you and Arya? The strength of Roran's perception disturbed Aragon. Nothing! The moon has addled your brain! Be honest, you dote upon her words as if each one were a diamond, and your gaze lingers upon her as if you were starving, and she uh, a grand feast arrayed an inch beyond your reach. A plume of dark gray smoke erupted from Sephira's nostrils as she made a choking-like noise. Aragon ignored her suppressed merriment and said, Arya is an elf, and very beautiful. Pointed ears and slanted eyes are small flaws when compared with her charms. <laughs> you look like a cat yourself now. Arya is over a hundred years old. That particular piece of information caught Roran by surprise. His eyebrows went up, and he said, I find that hard to believe. She's in the prime of her youth. It's true. Well, be that as it may, these are reasons you give me, Aragon, and the heart rarely listens to reason. Do you fancy her or not? If he fancied her any more, Sephira said to both Aragon and Roran, I'd be trying to kiss Arya myself. Sephira! Mortified, Aragon swatted her on the leg. Roran was prudent enough not to rib Aragon further. Then answer my original question and tell me how things stand between you and Arya. Have you spoken to her or her family about this? I have found it's unwise to let such matters fester. Aye, said Aragon, and stared at the length of polished hawthorn. I spoke with her. To what end? When Aragon did not immediately reply, Roran uttered a frustrated exclamation. Getting answers out of you is harder than dragging Birka through the mud. Aragon chuckled at the mention of Birka, one of their draft horses. Safira, will you solve this puzzle for me? Otherwise I fear I'll never get a full explanation, said Roran. To no end, no end at all. She'll not have me. Aragon spoke dispassionately, as if commenting on a stranger's misfortune, but within him raged a torrent of hurt so deep and wild he felt Safira withdraw somewhat from him. I'm sorry, said Roran. Aragon forced a swallow past the lump in his throat, past the bruise that was his heart, 
and down to the knotted skein of his stomach. It happens. I know it may seem unlikely at the moment, said Roran, but I'm sure you will meet another woman who will make you forget this, Arya. Contrary to what you, Arya, and everyone else seem to believe, I am aware that other eligible women exist in Alagazia and that people have been known to fall in love more than once. Regardless of whether I can shift my affections to another, and the heart, as you observed, is a notoriously fickle beast, the question remains, should I? Your tongue has grown as twisted as the roots of a fir tree, said Roran. Speak not in riddles. Very well. What human woman can begin to understand who and what I am, or the extent of my powers? Who could share in my life? Few enough, and all of them magicians, and of that select group, or even women in general, how many are immortal? Roran laughed, a rough, hearty bellow that rang loud in the gulch. You might as well ask for the sun in your pocket, or— He stopped and tensed, as if he were about to spring forward, and then became unnaturally still. You cannot be. I am. Roran struggled to find words. Is it a result of your change in Ella's Mera, or, or is it part of being a rider? Part of being a rider. Well, that explains why Galbatorix hasn't died. Aye. I'm not invincible, Aragon pointed out. I can still be killed with a sword or an arrow, and I can still catch some incurable disease. But if you avoid those dangers, you will live forever? If I do, then yes, Sephira and I will endure. It seems both a blessing and a curse. I, I cannot in good conscience marry a woman who will age and die while I remain untouched by time. Such an experience would be equally cruel for both of us. You should sleep, said Zephira to Aragon and Roran. It is late, and we must rise early tomorrow. An hour after the three of them had retired, Aragon was lying on his back alongside Zephira, muffled in layers of blankets, against the night cold. Without moving, Aragon whispered in his mind, Sephira? Yes, little one. What if I'm right, and he's in Hellgrind? I don't know what I should do then. Tell me what I should do. I cannot, little one. This is a decision you have to make by yourself. The ways of men are not the ways of dragons. I would tear off his head and feast on his body. But that would be wrong for you, I think. Will you stand by me, whatever I decide? Always, little one. Now rest. All will be well. Daybreak was fifteen minutes away when Aragon rolled upright. He snapped his fingers twice to wake Roran. They looked at each other and shivered. If I die, said Roran, you will see to Katrina? I shall. Tell her, then, that I went into battle with joy in my heart and her name upon my lips. I shall. Aragon muttered a quick line in the ancient language. The drop in his strength that followed was almost imperceptible. There, that will filter the air in front of us and protect us from the paralyzing effects of the Razak's breath. Sephira kneaded the soil beneath her feet. Let us be off. 
Zephira spiraled up around Hellgrind, searching for an entrance to the Razak's hideout. Not even a hole big enough for a wood rat, she declared. She slowed and hung in place before a ridge that connected the third lowest of the four peaks to the prominence above. Casting his mind outward, Aragon confirmed the presence of the two people whom he had discovered imprisoned within Helgrind the previous day, but to his concern, he still could not locate the Razak or the Leatherblaka. If they aren't here, then where? he wondered. Searching again, he noticed something that had eluded him before. A single flower, a gentian, blooming not fifty feet in front of them, where, by all rights, there ought to be solid rock. How does it get enough light to live? Zephira answered his question by perching on a crumbling spur several feet to the right. As she did, she lost her balance for a moment and flared her wings to steady herself. Instead of brushing against the bulk of Hellgrind, the tip of her right wing dipped into the rock and then back out again. Sephira, did you see that? I did. Leaning forward, Sephira pushed the tip of her snout toward the sheer rock, paused an inch or two away, as if waiting for a trap to spring, then continued her advance. Scale by scale, Sephira's head slid into Hellgrind, until all that was visible of her to Aragon was a neck, torso, and wings. It's an illusion, exclaimed Sephira. With a surge of her mighty thews, she abandoned the spur and flung the rest of her body after her head. It required every bit of Aragon's self-control not to cover his face in a desperate bid to protect himself as the crag rushed toward him. An instant later, he found himself looking at a broad vaulted cave, suffused with the warm glow of morning. Twisting around, Aragon saw no wall behind them, only the mouth of the cave and a sweeping view of the landscape beyond. Roran swore and said, Warn me before you do something like that again. Hunching forward, Aragon began to unbuckle his legs from the saddle as he studied their surroundings, alert for danger. The opening to the cave was an irregular oval, perhaps fifty feet high and sixty feet wide. From there, the chamber expanded to twice that size before ending a good bowshot away in a pile of thick stone slabs. Like mysterious keyholes, five low tunnels pierced the sides of the cave, as did a lancet passageway large enough to accommodate Zephira. Aragon examined the tunnels carefully, but they were pitch black and appeared vacant, a fact he confirmed with quick thrusts of his mind. Undoing the last few straps, Aragon swung his right leg over Sephira's spine, so he was sitting side-saddle, and prepared to jump off her back. Roran did the same on the opposite side. Before he released his hold, Aragon heard a score of simultaneous clicks. The sound repeated itself a half-second later. He looked in the direction of the noise, as did Sephira. A huge, twisted shape hurtled out of the lancet passageway, eyes black, bulging, rimless, a beak seven feet long, bat-like wings, the torso naked, hairless, rippling with muscle, claws like iron spikes. Sephira lurched as she tried to evade the leather blaca, but to no avail, the creature crashed into her right side with what felt to Aragon like the strength and fury of an avalanche. What exactly happened next, he knew not, for the impact sent him tumbling through space. His blind flight ended as abruptly as it began, when something hard and flat rammed against him, and he dropped to the floor.
He reached out, grasped his staff from where it had fallen beside him, and pulled himself up onto his feet. Zephira and the leather blacca rolled across the cave, kicking and clawing and snapping at each other with enough force to gouge the rock beneath them. A torrent of blue fire erupted from between Zephira's jaws and bathed the left side of the leather blacca's head in a ravening inferno hot enough to melt steel. The flames curved around the leather blacca without harming it. Undeterred, the monster pecked at Zephira's neck, forcing her to stop and defend herself. Fast as an arrow loosed from a bow, the second Letterblacka darted out of the lancet passageway, pounced upon Sephira's flank, and opening its narrow beak, uttered a horrible, withering shriek that made Aragon's scalp prickle. The smell now, with both Letterblacka present, resembled the sort of overpowering stench one would get from tossing a half-dozen pounds of rancid meat into a barrel of sewage and allowing the mixture to ferment for a week in summer. A few paces away, Roran lay crumpled against the side of the cave. Even as Aragon watched, his cousin lifted an arm and pushed himself onto all fours and then to his feet. His eyes were glazed, and he tottered as if drunk. Behind Roran, the two Razak emerged from a nearby tunnel. They wielded long, pale blades of an ancient design in their malformed hands. Unlike their parents, the Razak were roughly the same size and shape as humans. An ebony exoskeleton encased them from top to bottom, although little of it showed, for even in Hellgrind, the Razak wore dark robes and cloaks. They advanced with startling swiftness, their movements sharp and jerky, like those of an insect. And yet, Aragon still could not sense them, or the leather blacca. Perhaps the Razak could conceal themselves from the minds of humans. If so, he understood why they had been so successful in hunting magicians when they themselves could not use magic. Raising his right hand above his head, Aragon cried, Brissinger! and threw a roaring fireball toward the Razak. They dodged, and the fireball splashed against the rock floor, guttered for a moment, and then winked out of existence. The spell could cause no conceivable damage if Galbatorex had protected the Razak like the leather blacca. Still, it distracted the Razak long enough for Aragon to dash over to Roran and press his back against his cousins. Hold them off for a minute, he shouted, hoping Roran would hear. Whether he did or not, Roran grasped Aragon's meaning, for he covered himself with his shield and lifted his hammer in preparation to fight. The amount of force contained within each of the leather blacca's terrible blows had already depleted the wards against physical danger that Aragon had placed around Sephira. Without them, the leather blacca had inflicted several rows of scratches, long but shallow, along her thighs, and had managed to stab her three times with their beaks. In return, Sephira had laid open the ribs of one leather blacca and had bitten off the last three feet of the other's tail. At the moment, the leather blacca had withdrawn from Sephira and were circling her, lunging now and then in order to keep her at bay while they waited for her to tire or until they could kill her with a stab from one of their beaks. Aragon feared that even if she prevailed, the leather blacca would maim her before she slew them. Taking a quick breath, Aragon cast a single spell that contained every one of the twelve techniques of killing that Oromus had taught him. He was careful to phrase the incantation as a series of processes, so that if Galbatorix's wards foiled him, he could sever the flow of magic. 
It was well he took the precaution. Upon release of the spell, Aragon quickly became aware that the magic was having no effect upon the leather blaca, and he abandoned the assault. He had not expected to succeed, but he had to try. Behind him, Rorin shouted, Yeah! An instant later, a sword thudded against his shield, followed by the bell-like peal of a second sword bouncing off Rorin's helm. The Razak struck again and again, but each time their weapons glanced off Rorin's armor or missed his face and limbs by a hair's breadth, no matter how fast they swung their blades. Aragon smiled. The cocoon of charms he had spun around Rorin had done its job. He hoped the invisible net of energy would hold until he could find a way to halt the leather blaca. Then Aragon began to chant as fast as he could without mispronouncing the ancient language. Each sentence he uttered contained the potential to deliver instant death. As he recited his improvised soliloquy, Sephira received another cut upon her left flank. In return, she broke the wing of her assailant, slashing the thin flight membrane into ribbons with her claws. A number of heavy impacts transmitted themselves from Rorin's back to Aragon's, as the Razak hacked and stabbed in a lightning-quick frenzy. The largest of the two Razak began to edge around Rorin in order to attack Aragon directly. And then, amid the din of steel against steel and steel against wood and claws against stone, there came the scrape of a sword sliding through mail, followed by a wet crunch. Rorin yelled, and Aragon felt blood splash across the calf of his right leg. Out of the corner of one eye, Aragon watched as a hump-backed figure leapt toward him, extending its leaf-bladed sword so as to impale him. He only had time for one more spell before he would have to devote himself to stopping the Razak from inserting the sword between his liver and kidneys. In desperation, he gave up trying to directly harm the leather blaca, and instead cried, Garzla! Leta! It was a crude spell, yet it worked. The bulbous eyes of the leather blaca with the broken wing became a matched set of mirrors as Aragon's magic reflected the light that otherwise would have entered the leather blaca's pupils. Blind, the creature flailed at the air in a vain attempt to hit Zephira. Bringing his hands together at the center of the staff, Aragon widened his stance as the two Razak converged upon him. He began to mouth the same spell that had proved itself against the leather blaca, but the Razak executed high and low slashes before he could utter a syllable. The swords rebounded off the hawthorn with a dull bonk. They did not dent or otherwise mar the enchanted wood. Aragon's own wards were scant. Since he had lavished the bulk of his attention on Zephira and Rorin, Aragon's magical defenses soon failed, and the smaller Razak wounded him on the outside of his left knee. The injury was not life-threatening, but it was still serious, for his left leg would no longer support his full weight. Gripping the spike at the bottom, Aragon swung the staff like a club and bashed one Razak upside the head. The Razak collapsed, but whether it was dead or only unconscious, Aragon could not tell. Advancing upon the remaining Razak, he battered the creature's arms and shoulders and with a sudden twist knocked the sword out of its hand. Before Aragon could finish off the Razak, the blinded, broken-winged leather blaca flew the width of the cave and slammed against the far wall, knocking loose a shower of stone flakes from the ceiling. The sight and sound were so colossal, they caused Aragon, Rorin, and the Razak to flinch and turn, simply out of instinct. 
jumping after the crippled leather blaca, which she had just kicked. Zephira sank her teeth into the back of the creature's sinewy neck. The leather blaca thrashed in one final effort to free itself, and then Zephira whipped her head from side to side and broke its spine. Rising from her bloody kill, Zephira filled the cave with a savage roar of victory. The remaining leather blaca did not hesitate. Tackling Zephira, it dug its claws underneath the edges of her scales and pulled her into an uncontrolled tumble. Together they rolled to the lip of the cave, teetered for a half-second, and then dropped out of sight, battling the whole way. Zephira! cried Aragon. Tend to yourself! This one won't escape me! With a start, Aragon whirled around, just in time to see the two Razak vanish into the depths of the nearest tunnel, the smaller supporting the larger. Closing his eyes, Aragon located the minds of the prisoners in Hellgrind, muttered a burst of the ancient language, then said to Roran, I sealed off Katrina's cell so the Razak can't use her as a hostage. Only you and I can open the door now. Good, said Roran through clenched teeth. Can you do something about this? He jerked his chin toward the spot he had clamped his right hand over. Blood welled between his fingers. Aragon probed the wound. As soon as he touched it, Roran flinched and recoiled. You're lucky, said Aragon. The sword hit a rib. Placing one hand on the injury and the other on the twelve diamonds concealed inside the belt of Beloth the Wise strapped around his waist, Aragon drew upon the power he had stored within the gems. Waste a hail! A ripple traversed Roran's side as the magic knit his skin and muscle back together again. Then Aragon healed his own wound, the gash on his left knee. Hurry, said Roran. They're getting away. Right. Hefting his staff, Aragon approached the unlit tunnel and flicked his gaze from one stone protrusion to another, expecting the Razak to spring out from behind one of them. He moved slowly in order that his footsteps would not echo in the winding shaft. When he happened to touch a rock to steady himself, he found it coated in slime. After a score of yards, several folds and twists in the passageway hid the main cavern and plunged them into a gloom so profound even Aragon found it impossible to see. Maybe you're different, but I can't fight in the dark, whispered Roran. If I make a light, the Rozak won't come near us. Not when I now know a spell that works on them. They'll just hide until we leave. We have to kill them while we have the chance. Hold on to my belt and be ready to duck. Step by step, Aragon led the way as they burrowed farther into the bowels of Hellgrind. The tunnel slanted downward and often split or turned so that Aragon would have soon been lost if he had not been able to use Katrina's mind as a reference point. I'm back, Zephira announced, just as Aragon put his foot on a rugged step, hewn out of the rock below him. He paused. She had escaped additional injury, which relieved him. And the leather blacker? Floating belly up in Leona Lake, I'm afraid that some fishermen saw our battle. They were rowing toward Dras Leona when I last saw them. Well, it can't be helped. See what you can find in the tunnel the leather blacker came out of, and keep an eye out for the Razak. After what seemed like an hour trapped in the darkness, though Aragon knew it could not have been more than ten or fifteen minutes, and after descending more than a hundred feet through Hellgrind, Aragon stopped on a level patch of stone. Transmitting his thoughts to Roran, he said, Katrina's cell is about fifty feet in front of us, on the right. 
We can't risk letting her out until the Razak are dead or gone. What if they won't reveal themselves until we do let her out? For some reason, I can't sense them. They could hide from me until doomsday in here. So, do we wait for who knows how long, or do we free Katrina while we still have the chance? I can place some wards around her that should protect her from most attacks. Roran was quiet for a second. Let's free her then. They began to move forward again feeling their way along the squat corridor with its rough, unfinished floor. Aragon had to devote most of his attention to his footing in order to maintain his balance. As a result, he almost missed the swish of cloth sliding over cloth and then the faint twang that emanated from off to his right. He recoiled against the wall, shoving Roran back. At the same time, something augured past his face, carving a groove of flesh from his right cheek. Kvikva! shouted Aragon. Red light, bright as the midday sun, flared into existence. The sudden blaze dazzled Aragon, but it did more than that to the lone Razak in front of him. The creature dropped its bow, covered its hooded face, and screamed, high and shrill. A similar screech told Aragon that the second Razak was behind them. Roran? Aragon pivoted, just in time to see Roran charge the other Razak, hammer held high. The disoriented monster stumbled backward but was too slow. The hammer fell. For my father, shouted Roran. He struck again. For our home! The Razak was already dead, but Roran lifted the hammer once more. For Carvajal! His final blow shattered the Razak's carapace like the rind of a dry gourd. Aragon turned to confront the remaining Razak. The tunnel before them was empty. He swore. Aragon strode over to the twisted figure on the floor. He swung the staff over his head and brought it down across the chest of the dead Razak with a resounding thud. I've waited a long time to do that, said Aragon. As have I. Extinguishing the omnipresent red glow, Aragon said, Brissinger Rauder and created a red wear-light that remained anchored six inches from the ceiling. Now that he had an opportunity to examine the tunnel in some detail, Aragon saw that the stone hallway was dotted with twenty or so iron-bound doors. He pointed and said, Ninth down on the right. You go get her. I'll check the other cells. The Razak might have left something interesting in them. Roran sprinted to the door, abandoned his shield, and set to work on the hinges with his hammer. Each blow created a frightful crash. Aragon did not offer to help. His cousin would not want assistance now. And besides, there was something else Aragon had to do. He went to the first cell, whispered three words. Then, after the lock snapped open, pushed aside the door. All that the small room contained was a black chain and a pile of rotting bones. Those sad remains were no more than he had expected. He already knew where the object of his search lay, but he maintained the charade of ignorance to avoid kindling Roran's suspicion. Two more doors opened and closed beneath the touch of Aragon's fingers. Then, at the fourth cell, the door swung back to admit the shifting radiance of the wear-light and reveal the very man Aragon had hoped he would not find. Sloane. The butcher sat slumped against the left-hand wall, both arms chained to an iron ring above his head. His ragged clothes barely covered his pale, emaciated body. Roused by the clang of Roran's hammer, Sloane lifted his chin toward the light, 
and in a quavering voice asked, Who is it? Who's there? His hair parted and slid back, exposing his eye sockets, which had sunk deep into his skull. With a shock, Aragon realized that the Razak had pecked out Sloane's eyes. What he then should do, Aragon could not decide. The butcher had told the Razak that Aragon had found Safira's egg. Furthermore, Sloane had murdered the watchman, Bird, and had betrayed Carvajal to the Empire. If he were brought before his fellow villagers, they would undoubtedly find Sloane guilty and condemn him to death by hanging. It seemed only right to Aragon that the butcher should die for his crimes. That was not the source of his uncertainty. Rather, it arose from the fact that Roran loved Katrina and Katrina, whatever Sloane had done, must still harbor a certain degree of affection for her father. Aragon was convinced that taking Sloane back with them would sow discord between him, Roran, Katrina, and the other villagers, and might distract them from their struggle against the Empire. The easiest solution, thought Aragon, would be to kill him, and say that I found him dead in the cell. He glanced over his shoulder as Roran broke the last hinge to Katrina's cell door. Dropping his hammer, Roran prepared to charge the door and knock it inward, but then appeared to think better of it. Give me a hand here, he shouted. I don't want it to fall on her. Aragon looked back at the wretched butcher. He had to choose. I don't know what's right, he realized. Lifting his hand, he whispered, Slither. Sloane's manacles rattled as he went limp, falling into a profound sleep. As soon as he was sure the spell had taken hold, Aragon closed and locked the cell door again and replaced his wards around it. What was in there? asked Roran as Aragon took his place opposite him. Sloane. Aragon adjusted his grip on the door between them. He's dead. Roran's eyes widened. How? Looks like they broke his neck. For an instant, Aragon feared that Roran might not believe him. Then his cousin grunted and said, It's better that way, I suppose. Ready? One, two, three. Together they heaved the massive door out of its casing and threw it across the hallway. Without pause, Roran rushed into the cell, which was lit by a single wax taper. Aragon followed a step behind. Katrina cowered at the far end of an iron cot. Let me alone, you toothless bastards! I... She stopped, struck dumb, as Roran stepped forward. Her face was white from lack of sun and streaked with filth, yet, at that moment, a look of such wonder and tender love blossomed upon her features, Aragon thought he had rarely seen anyone so beautiful. Never taking her eyes off Roran, Katrina stood, and with a shaking hand, touched his cheek. You came. I came. A laughing sob broke out of Roran, and he folded her in his arms, pulling her against his chest. They remained lost in their embrace for a long moment. Drawing back, Roran kissed her three times on the lips. Katrina wrinkled her nose and exclaimed, You grew a beard! Of all the things she could have said, that was so unexpected, and she sounded so shocked and surprised that Aragon chuckled in response. For the first time, Katrina seemed to notice him. She glanced him over, then settled on his face, which she studied with evident puzzlement. Aragon? Is that you? Aye. 
He's a dragon rider now, said Roran. A rider? You mean... She faltered. The revelation seemed to overwhelm her. Glancing at Roran as if for protection, she held him even closer and sidled around him, away from Aragon. To Roran, she said, How... how did you find us? Who else is with you? All that later. We have to get out of Hellgrind before the rest of the Empire comes running after us. Wait, what about my father? Did you find him? Roran looked at Aragon, then returned his gaze to Katrina and gently said, We were too late. A shiver ran through Katrina. She closed her eyes, and a solitary tear leaked down the side of her face. So be it. While they spoke, Aragon frantically tried to figure out how to dispose of Sloane. Abandoning further reflection, Aragon sprang into action. He had much to do in little time. Girda! he cried, pointing. With a burst of blue sparks and flying fragments, the metal bands riveted around Katrina's ankles broke apart. Katrina jumped in surprise. Magic, she whispered. Together, the three of them exited the cell. The trio emerged into the main cavern, even as Sephira appeared from the depths of the lancet opening opposite them. Seeing her, Katrina gasped and clung to Roran, digging her fingers into his arms. Aragon said, Katrina, allow me to introduce you to Sephira. I am her rider. She can understand if you speak to her. It is an honor, old dragon, Katrina managed to say. She dipped her knees in a weak imitation of a curtsy. Sephira inclined her head in return. Gesturing at Sephira, Aragon said, Go on, climb onto her. I'll join you in a moment. Katrina hesitated, then glanced at Roran, who nodded and murmured, It's all right. Sephira brought us here. Roran lifted Katrina high enough to pull herself over the upper part of Sephira's left foreleg. From there, Katrina clambered the looped leg straps of the saddle, as if a ladder, until she sat perched upon the crest of Sephira's shoulders. Like a mountain goat leaping from one ledge to another, Roran duplicated her ascent. Crossing the cave after them, Aragon examined Sephira, assessing the severity of her various scrapes, gashes, tears, bruises, and stab wounds. Her injuries were severe enough that in order to complete his spells, he had to empty the belt of Beloth the Wise of energy. Flicking a finger toward the places where the leather blaca had skewered her with their beaks, he said, You should have Arya inspect my handiwork on those. I did my best, but I may have missed something. I appreciate your concern for my welfare, she replied, but this is hardly the place for soft-hearted demonstrations. Once and for all, let us be gone. Stepping back, Aragon edged away from Sephira in the direction of the tunnel behind him. No, I'm staying here. You, Roran started to say, but a ferocious growl from Sephira interrupted him. Listen, shouted Aragon, one of the Razak is still on the loose. And think what else might be in Hellgrind. Scrolls, potions, information about the Empire's activities, things that can help us. To Sephira, Aragon also said, I can't kill Sloane. I can't let Roran or Katrina see him, and I can't allow him to starve to death in his cell or Galbatorix's men to recapture him. I'm sorry, but I have to deal with Sloane on my own. How will you get out of the Empire? demanded Roran. I'll run. I'm as fast as an elf now, you know. No, Sephira placed her head on the ground and uttered a mournful keen, her eyes large and pitiful. 
Ganga, I love you, Safira, but you have to go. She snuffled at him, mewling like a cat. Little one? Aragon hated to make her unhappy. Safira's misery flowed across their mental link, and coupled with his own anguish, almost paralyzed him. Somehow he mustered the nerve to say, Ganga, and don't come back for me, or send anyone else for me. I'll be fine. Ganga, Ganga! Safira howled with frustration, and then reluctantly walked to the mouth of the cave. From his place on her saddle, Roran said, Aragon, come on, don't be daft. You're too important to risk... A combination of noise and motion obscured the rest of his sentence as Safira launched herself out of the cave. She said, A week. That is how long I shall wait. Then I shall return for you, Aragon, even if I must fight my way past Thorn, Shri Khan, and a thousand magicians. Aragon sat bathed in the heatless radiance from his crimson wearlight in the hall lined with cells near the center of Hellgrind. His staff lay across his lap. Thirty feet in front of him stood the Razak. Blood dripped from the hem of the creature's ragged robes. My master does not want me to kill you, it hissed. But that does not matter to you now. No, if I fall to your staff, let Galbatorix deal with you as he will. He has more hearts than you do. Aragon laughed. Hearts! I am the champion of the people, not him! Foolish boy. The Razak cocked its head slightly, looking past him at the corpse of the other Razak, farther up the tunnel. She was my hatchmate. You have become strong since we first met, Shade Slayer. It was that or die. Will you make a pact with me, Shade Slayer? What kind of a pact? I am the last of my race, Shade Slayer. We are ancient, and I would not have us forgotten. Would you, in your songs and in your histories, remind your fellow humans of the terror we inspired in your kind? Remember us as fear. Why should I do that for you? Tucking its beak against its narrow chest, the Razak clucked and chittered to itself for several moments. Because, it said, I will tell you something secret. Yes, I will. Then tell me. Give me your word first, lest you trick me. No, tell me, and then I will decide whether or not to agree. Over a minute passed. After another squall of sharp clicks, the Razak said, He has almost found the name. Who has? Galbatorix. The name of what? The Razak hissed with frustration. I cannot tell you the name, the true name. You have to give me more information than that. I cannot. Then we have no pact. Curse you, Ryder. I curse 
you. May you find no roost, nor den, nor peace of mind in this land of yours. May you leave Allegasia and never return. The nape of Aragon's neck prickled with the touch of cold dread. In his mind, he again heard the words of Angela, the herbalist, when she had cast her dragon bones for him and predicted that selfsame fate. The Razak swept back its sodden cloak, revealing a bow that it held with an arrow already fit to the string. Lifting and drawing the weapon, the Razak loosed the bolt in the direction of Aragon's chest. Aragon batted the shaft aside with his staff. As if this attempt were nothing more than a preliminary gesture that custom dictated before proceeding with their actual confrontation, the Razak stooped placed the bow on the floor, then straightened its cowl and slowly and deliberately pulled its leaf-bladed sword from underneath its robes. While it did, Aragon rose to his feet and took a shoulder-wide stance, his hands tight on the staff. They lunged toward each other. The Razak attempted to cleave Aragon from collarbone to hip, but Aragon twisted and stepped past the blow. Jamming the end of the staff upward, he drove its metal spike underneath the Razak's beak and through the blades that protected the creature's throat. The Razak shuddered once and then collapsed. Aragon stared at his most hated foe, stared at its lidless black eyes. He yanked the staff free and whispered, For our father, for our home, for Carvajal, for Brahm. I have had my fill of vengeance. May you rot here forever, Razak. Going to the appropriate cell, Aragon retrieved Sloane, who was still deep in his enchanted sleep, slung the butcher over his shoulder, and then began to retrace his steps back to the main cave of Hellgrind. Hot sunlight stung Aragon's cheeks when he stumbled out of the network of tunnels and went to the edge of the vast cave, where he gazed down the precipitous side of Hellgrind at the hills far below. To the west, he saw a pillar of orange dust billowing above the lane that connected Hellgrind to Drasleona, marking the approach of a group of horsemen. It's almost a mile down, he murmured. Securing his hold on Sloan, Aragon fixed his eyes on a narrow ledge about a hundred feet below. This is gonna hurt, he thought, preparing himself for the attempt. Then he barked, Outer! Aragon felt himself rise several inches above the floor of the cave. From! he said, and the spell propelled him away from Hellgrind and into open space, where he hung, unsupported, like a cloud drifting in the sky. Accustomed as he was to flying with Sephira, the sight of nothing but thin air underneath his feet still caused him unease. By manipulating the flow of magic, Aragon quickly descended from the Razak's lair, which the insubstantial wall of stone once again hid, to the ledge. Aragon leaned his back against Hellgrind, using it to help him prop up Sloane's limp body. That wasn't too bad, he observed. The effort had cost him, but not so much that he was unable to continue. I can do this, he said. The approaching riders caught his eye again. They were noticeably closer than before. It's a race between them and me, he realized. I have to escape before they reach Hellgrind. With a grunt, Aragon pushed himself off Hellgrind. Again, he said, 
Outer! And again he became airborne. This time he relied upon Sloane's strength, meager as it was, as well as his own. Together they sank, like two strange birds, along Helgrind's rugged flank, toward another ledge, whose width promised safe haven. In such a manner, Aragon orchestrated their downward climb. He did not proceed in a straight line, but rather angled off to his right, so that they curved around Helgrind, and the mass of stone hid him and Sloane from the horsemen. When he finally dropped onto the sun-baked soil, too weak to keep Sloane and himself from ramming into the dirt, Aragon lay with his arms folded at odd angles underneath his chest. Sloane weighed on his back like a pile of iron ingots. By sheer force of will, Aragon pushed his left hand free of his chest and grasped the wooden stem of a nearby shrub. Like a leech or a tick or some other parasite, he extracted the life from the plant, leaving it limp and brown. Dragging himself forward, he seized another shrub and transferred its vitality into his body, then a third shrub and a fourth shrub, and so on, until he once again possessed the full measure of his strength. Aragon knew that he had been careless with the magic, and that his reckless behavior would have doomed the Varden to certain defeat if he had died. In hindsight, his stupidity made him wince. Brom would box my ears for getting into this mess, he thought. Returning to Sloane, Aragon hoisted the gaunt butcher off the ground. Then he turned east and loped away from Helgrind. Wind whistled across the empty land. The sun had set, and in its absence, everything was blue and purple. Nothing moved, save for the blades of grass that fluttered, and Sloane, whose fingers slowly opened and closed in response to some vision in his enchanted slumber. Battling the Razak, casting numerous spells and bearing Sloane upon his shoulders for most of the day, had left Aragon ravenous. The problem was, he had no supplies. Water was easy enough to come by. He could draw moisture from the soil whenever he wanted. Finding food in that desolate place, however, was not only far more difficult— it presented him with a moral dilemma that he had hoped to avoid. He could, as he had before, drain the energy from the plants and insects around their camp, and while it might keep him and Sloane on their feet, transfusions of energy were far from satisfying, as they did nothing to fill one's stomach. Or he could hunt. After sharing the thoughts and desires of numerous animals, it revolted him to consider eating one. Nevertheless, he was not about to weaken himself, and perhaps allow the Empire to capture him just because he went without supper in order to spare the life of a rabbit. Stealing himself, Aragon sent out tendrils from his mind and probed the land until he located two large lizards and curled in a sandy den a colony of rodents that reminded him of a cross between a rat, a rabbit, and a squirrel. Deja, said Aragon and killed the lizards and one of the rodents. They died instantly and without pain, but he still gritted his teeth as he extinguished the bright flames of their minds. Gathering thin, flat stones, he built a small oven, lit a fire within, and started the meat cooking. The initial bite was the worst. It stuck in his throat, and the taste of hot grease threatened to make him sick. Then the urge passed. After that, it was easier. He consumed the entire rodent and then part of a lizard, chagrined to realize that in spite of himself he had enjoyed the meal. 
Perhaps, he mused, when I return, if I am at Naswada's table and meat is served, perhaps I might have a few bites. By the light from the coals in the oven, Aragon studied Sloane. I can't just let him go, he murmured. If he did, Sloane might track down Roran and Katrina, a prospect that Aragon considered unacceptable. Besides, even though he was not going to kill Sloane, he believed the butcher should be punished for his crimes. What, however, would constitute proper punishment? I refuse to become an executioner, thought Aragon, only to make myself an arbiter. What do I know about the law? Rising to his feet, he walked over to Sloane and bent toward his ear and said, Vakna! With a jolt, Sloane woke, scrabbling at the ground with his sinewy hands. Aragon said, Here, eat this. He thrust the remaining half of his lizard toward Sloane, who, although he could not see it, surely must have smelled the food. Where, where am I? asked Sloane. With trembling hands, he began to explore the rocks and plants in front of him. He touched his torn wrists and ankles and appeared confused to discover that his fetters were gone. The elves, and also the riders in days gone by, called this place Mernathor. The dwarves referred to it as Wergatten, and humans as the Grey Heath. If that does not answer your question, then perhaps it will if I say we are a number of leagues southeast of Hellgrind, where you were imprisoned. Sloane mouthed the word Hellgrind. You rescued me? I did. What about— Leave your questions. Eat this first. After an initial tentative lick to determine what it was Aragon had given him, Sloane dug his teeth into the lizard and ripped a thick gobbet from the carcass. With each bite, he crammed as much flesh into his mouth as he could and only chewed once or twice before swallowing and repeating the process. He stripped each bone clean with the efficiency of a man who possessed an intimate understanding of how animals were constructed and what was the quickest way to disassemble them. The bones he dropped into a neat pile on his left. Then he drew his hand across his lips and said, Thank you, strange sir, for your hospitality. It has been so long since I had a proper meal. I think I prize your food even above my own freedom. If I may ask... Do you know of my daughter, Katrina, and what has happened to her? She was imprisoned with me in Hellgrind. His voice contained a complex mixture of emotions, respect, fear, and submission in the presence of an unknown authority, hope and trepidation as to his daughter's fate, and determination as unyielding as the mountains of the spine. The one element Aragon expected to hear but did not was the sneering disdain Sloane had used with him during their encounters in Carvajal. She is with Roran. Sloane gaped. Roran? How did he get here? Did the Razak capture him as well? Or did— The Razak and their steeds are dead. You killed them? How? Who? For an instant, Sloane froze. Then he shook his head. No. No, 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 it can't be. The Razak spoke of this. In a gasping whisper, as if he were forced to speak after being punched in the middle, Sloane said, You can't be Aragon. A sense of doom and destiny descended upon Aragon. I am Aragon, and far more. I am Argetlam, 
and Shade Slayer and Fire Sword. My dragon is Sephira, she who is also known as Byatskular and Flame Tongue. We have fought the Urgles and a Shade and Murtag, who is Morzan's son. We serve the Varden and the peoples of Alagazia, and I have brought you here, Sloan Aldenson, to pass judgment upon you for murdering Bird and for betraying Carvajal to the Empire. Sloan did not collapse and grovel, as Aragon thought he might. Instead, the butcher's demeanor became cold and flinty. Blast you, he said. I don't have to explain myself to you, Aragon, son of none. Understand this, though. I did what I did for Katrina's sake, and nothing else. I know. That's the only reason you're still alive. Do what you want with me, then. I don't care, so long as she's safe. Well, go on. What's it to be? A beating? A branding? Or will you leave me to starve or to be recaptured by the Empire? I have not decided yet. Sloane nodded with a sharp motion and pulled his tattered clothes tight around his limbs to ward off the night cold. He sat with military precision. He did not beg. He did not ask for mercy. His bravery impressed Aragon. Abandoning for the moment the question of punishment, Aragon considered what he knew about Sloane. The butcher's overriding love for Katrina, obsessive, selfish, and generally unhealthy as it was, although it had once been something wholesome, his hate and fear of the spine, which were the offspring of his grief for his late wife, Ismira, who had fallen to her death among those cloud-rending peaks, his estrangement from the remaining branches of his family, his pride in his work, the stories Aragon had heard about Sloane's childhood, and Aragon's own knowledge of what it was like to live in Carvajal. Aragon took that collection of scattered, fragmented insights and turned them over in his mind, pondering their significance. Like the pieces of a puzzle, he tried to fit them together. He rarely succeeded, but he persisted, and gradually he traced a myriad of connections between the events and emotions of Sloane's life, and thereby he wove a tangled web, the patterns of which represented who Sloane was. Throwing the last line of his web, Aragon felt as if he finally comprehended the reasons for Sloane's behavior. Because of that, he empathized with Sloane. More than empathy, he felt he understood Sloane, that he had isolated the core elements of Sloane's personality, those things one could not remove without irrevocably changing the man. There occurred to him, then, three words in the ancient language that seemed to embody Sloane, and without thinking about it, Aragon whispered the words under his breath. The sound could not have reached Sloane, yet he stirred, his hands gripping his thighs, and his expression became one of unease. A cold tingle crawled down Aragon's left side, and goosebumps appeared on his arms and legs as he watched the butcher. He considered a number of different explanations for Sloane's reaction, each more elaborate than the last, but only one seemed plausible, and even it struck him as being unlikely. He whispered the trio of words again. As before, Sloane shifted in place, and Aragon heard him mutter, Someone walking on my grave. Aragon released a shaky breath. It was difficult for him to believe, but his experiment left no room for doubt. He had, quite by accident, chanced upon Sloane's true name. The discovery left him rather bewildered. Knowing someone's true name was a weighty responsibility. 
for it granted you absolute power over that person. It dawned upon Aragon that in order to guess Sloane's true name, he must understand the butcher better than he did himself, for he had not the slightest inkling of what his own might be. The realization was an uncomfortable one. He suspected that, given the nature of his enemies, not knowing everything he could about himself might well prove fatal. He vowed then to devote more time to introspection and to uncovering his true name. Whatever the doubts and confusion Sloane's true name roused within him, it gave Aragon the beginning of an idea for how to deal with the butcher. Sloane tilted his head in Aragon's direction, as Aragon rose and walked out of their camp into the starlit land beyond. Where are you going? asked Sloane. Aragon remained silent. He wandered through the wilderness until he found a low, broad rock with a bowl-like hollow in the middle. Adurna Rusa, said he. Around the rock, countless minuscule droplets of water filtered up through the soil. He waited until the surface of the water became perfectly still, and then he said, Dromarkopa, and many other words besides, reciting a spell that would allow him to not only see, but speak with others at a distance. Oramus had taught him the variation on scrying two days before he and Sephira had left Elismira for Surda. The water went completely black. A moment or two later, an oval shape brightened in the middle of the water, and Aragon beheld the interior of a large white tent. With a sound akin to ripping cloth, the entrance flap to the tent flew open as Queen Islanzadi thrust it aside. Islanzadi's slanting eyebrows narrowed as she looked upon Aragon. With that expression, she bore a striking resemblance to Arya, though her stature and bearing were even more impressive than her daughter's. She was beautiful and terrible, like a frightful goddess of war. I was not pleased to hear of your raid on Hellgrind, but I take it the assault is already over and was successful? Yes, Your Majesty. Then my objections are for naught. I warn you, however, Aragon Shurtugal, do not imperil yourself on such needlessly dangerous ventures. It is a cruel thing, I must say, but true nevertheless, and it is this. Your life is more important than your cousin's happiness. Now, tell me, why did you seek this audience? Aragon clenched his teeth several times before he could bring himself to, in a civil tone, explain the day's events, the reasons for his actions in regard to Sloane, and the punishment he envisioned for the butcher. When he finished, Islanzadi whirled around and paced the circumference of the tent, her movements as lithe as a cat's, then stopped and said, You chose to stay behind, in the middle of the empire, to save the life of a murderer and a traitor. You are alone with this man, on foot, without supplies or weapons, save for magic, and your enemies are close behind. I see my earlier admonishments were more than justified. As for your request, such a thing is unprecedented in our history. If I had been in your place, I would have killed Sloane and rid myself of the problem then and there. I know you would have, but I couldn't. His fate rests with you now. As you have seen fit to save this man's life, at no little trouble and effort on your own part, I cannot refuse your request and thereby render your sacrifice meaningless. 
If Sloane survives the ordeal you have set before him, then Gilderian the wise shall allow him to pass, and Sloane shall have a room and a bed and food to eat. More I cannot promise, for what happens afterward will depend on Sloane himself. But if the conditions you named are met, then, yes, we shall light his darkness. Thank you, Your Majesty. The glowing image on the surface of the water flickered and then vanished into darkness as Aragon ended the spell he had used to create it. Then he retraced his path across the grass and scrub to the camp, where Sloane still sat upright, rigid as cast iron. Aragon struck a pebble with his foot, and the resulting noise revealed his presence to Sloane, who snapped his head around, quick as a bird. Have you made up your mind? demanded Sloane. I have said Aragon, since my conscience prevents me from killing you. Your punishment is to be the most terrible I could invent, short of death. I'm convinced that what you said before is true, that Katrina is more important to you than anything else. Therefore your punishment is this. You shall not see, touch, or talk with your daughter again, even unto your dying day, and you shall live with the knowledge that she is with Roran, and they are happy together without you. That is your punishment? Ha! <laughs> you cannot enforce it. You have no prison to put me in. I'm not finished. I will enforce it by having you swear oaths in the elves tongue, in the language of truth and magic, to abide by the terms of your sentence. You can't force me to give my word, Sloane growled, not even if you torture me. I can, and I won't torture you. Furthermore, I will lay upon you a compulsion to travel northward until you reach the elf city of Elismera, which stands deep in the heart of Duweldenvarden. Then Aragon, who had no interest in continuing to chastise Sloane, uttered the butcher's true name loud enough for him to hear. An expression of horror and revelation crawled across Sloane's face, and he threw his arms up before him and howled as if he'd been stabbed. He fell forward onto the palms of his hands and remained in that position and began to sob, his face obscured by shocks of hair. Aragon watched, transfixed by Sloane's reaction. Does learning your true name affect everyone like this? Would this happen to me as well? Hardening his heart to Sloane's misery, Aragon set about doing what he said he would. He repeated Sloane's true name and schooled the butcher in the oaths that would ensure Sloane never met or contacted Katrina again. Sloane resisted, but he had no choice but to obey whenever Aragon invoked his true name. And when they finished with the oaths, Aragon cast the five spells that would drive Sloane towards Elismera, would protect him from unprovoked violence, and would entice the birds and the beasts and the fish that dwelled in the rivers and lakes to feed him. Aragon fashioned the spells so they would derive their energy from Sloane and not himself. Aragon placed his hand on Sloane's upper arm. Sloane stiffened at the contact. Aragon, he whispered. Aragon, I am blind, and you send me to walk the land, to walk the land alone. I am forsaken and forsworn. I know who I am, and I cannot bear it. Help me. Kill me! Free me of this agony! On an impulse, Aragon pressed the hawthorn rod into Sloane's right hand and said, 
Take my staff. Let it guide you on your journey. Kill me! No. Then bending over him, Aragon placed his mouth close to Sloane's ear and whispered, I am not without mercy, so I give you this hope. If you reach Elasmera, you will find a home waiting for you. The elves will care for you and allow you to do whatever you want for the rest of your life, with one exception. Once you enter Dueldenvarden, you cannot leave. Sloane, listen to me. When I was among the elves, I learned that a person's true name often changes as they age. Do you understand what that means? Who you are is not fixed for all of eternity. A man could forge himself anew if he so wanted. Sloane made no reply. Aragon left the staff next to Sloane and crossed to the other side of the camp and stretched out his full length on the ground, then allowed himself to drift into the soothing embrace of his waking rest. The Grey Heath was cold, dark, and inhospitable when Aragon awoke. Groaning as he stretched sore muscles, he got to his feet and looked for Sloane. The butcher was gone. I want him to succeed, Aragon thought with mild surprise. I want him to succeed because it will mean we may all have a chance to redeem ourselves for our mistakes. And if Sloane can mend the flaws in his character, he will find his plight is not so bleak as he believes. For Aragon had not told Sloane that if the butcher demonstrated that he truly regretted his crimes, reformed his ways, and lived as a better person, Queen Islanzadi would have her spellweavers restore his vision. But we are your people. Fadawar, a tall, high-nosed, black-skinned man, spoke with the same heavy emphasis and altered vowels Naswada remembered hearing from her childhood in Farthandur, when emissaries from her father's tribe would arrive and she would sit on Ajihad's lap and doze while they talked. Naswada was standing in front of the carved chair where she held her audiences inside her red command pavilion. The sun was close to setting, and its rays filtered through the right side of the pavilion as through stained glass and gave the contents a ruddy glow. Just outside the entrance to the large tent, she knew the six members of her personal guard, two humans, two dwarves, and two urgles, were waiting with drawn weapons, ready to attack if they received the slightest indication she was in peril. Jormundr, her oldest and most trusted commander, had saddled her with guards since the day Ajihad died, but never so many for so long. However, it was Naswada who had insisted upon recruiting the force from each of the three mortal races arrayed against Galbatorix. By doing so, she hoped to foster greater solidarity among them. To Naswada's disappointment, her human and dwarf guards had been hostile to the Urgles they served with, a reaction she anticipated but had been unable to avert or mitigate. Still, she viewed it as encouraging that the warriors chose to name their corps the Nighthawks, for the title was a play upon both her coloring and the fact that the Urgles invariably referred to her as Lady Nightstalker. Since the day the Nighthawks first assumed their duties, they had not left Naswada alone with another person, save for Farika, her handmaid. That was until now. Naswada had sent them out of the pavilion because she knew her meeting with Fadawar might lead to the type of bloodshed the Nighthawks' sense of duty would require them to prevent. 
Even so, she was not entirely defenseless. She had a dagger hidden in the folds of her dress, and an even smaller knife in the bodice of her undergarments, and the prescient witch-child, Elva, was standing just behind the curtain that backed Naswada's chair, ready to intercede if need be. Fadawar tapped his four-foot-long scepter against the ground. The chased rod was made of solid gold. Gold bangles covered his forearms. A breastplate of hammered gold armored his chest, and upon his head rested a resplendent gold crown. Fadawar's men were garbed in the same fashion, although less opulently. The dark-skinned peoples of Alagazia had long been renowned for the quality of their jewelry, which at its best rivaled that of the dwarves. Fadawar again jabbed his scepter into the ground. Blood is the most important thing. If a man does not help his family, whom can he depend upon to help him? Friends are fickle, but family is forever. You ask me, said Naswada, to give positions of power to you and your fellow kinsmen, because you are my mother's cousin, and because my father was born among you. I always welcome new allies. However, I cannot indulge in favoritism. Be content with what you have, warlord, and do not seek more than is rightfully yours. You admit we are your people. Then, do you still follow our customs and worship our gods? I do, she said. A sense of resignation overwhelmed Naswada. So, Elva was right. It is inevitable, she thought. Then, and as is my right, I challenge you to the trial of the long knives. If you are triumphant, we shall bow to you and never again question your authority. But if you lose, then you shall step aside, and I shall take your place as head of the Varden. Perhaps I am mistaken, but I thought it was tradition that whoever won assumed command of his rival's tribes as well as his own. Is that not so? Naswada almost laughed at the expression of dismay that flashed across Fadawar's face. You didn't expect me to know that, did you? It is. I accept your challenge, then, with the understanding that should I win, your crown and scepter will be mine. Are we agreed? Fadawar scowled and nodded. We are... He stabbed his scepter deep enough into the ground that it stood upright by itself, then grasped the first bangle on his left arm and began to work it down over his hand. Wait, said Naswada. Going to the table that filled the other side of the pavilion, she picked up a small brass bell and rang it twice, paused, then rang it four times. Only a moment or two passed before Farika entered the tent. She cast a frank gaze at Naswada's guests, then curtsied to the lot of them and said, Yes, mistress? Naswada gave Fadawar a nod. We may proceed. Then she addressed her handmaid. Help me out of my dress. I don't want to ruin it. The older woman looked shocked by the request. Here, ma'am, in front of these men? Yes, here, and be quick about it, too. Naswada stood motionless as Farika picked and pulled at the laces to her dress. When they were loose enough, Farika lifted Naswada's arms out of the sleeves, and the shell of bunched fabric dropped in a pile around Naswada's feet, leaving her standing almost naked in her white chemise. Farika snatched the garment out of the dirt. 
Across from Naswada, Fadawar had been busy removing the bangles from his forearms, revealing the embroidered sleeves of his robes beneath. Finished, he lifted off his massive crown and handed it to one of his retainers. The sound of voices outside the pavilion delayed further progress. Marching through the entrance, a message boy, Jarsha was his name, Naswada remembered, planted himself a foot or two inside and proclaimed, King Oren of Surda, Jormunder of the Varden, Triana of Duvrangagatar, and Nako and Ramusewa of the Inapashuna tribe. Jarsha very pointedly kept his eyes fixed on the ceiling while he spoke. Snapping about, Jarsha departed, and the congregation he had announced entered, with Oren at the vanguard. The king saw Fadawar first, and greeted him, saying, Ah, warlord, this is unexpected. I trust you and— Astonishment suffused his youthful face as he beheld Naswada. Why, Naswada, what is the meaning of this? I should like to know that as well, rumbled Jormunder. I have summoned you here, she said, to witness the trial of the long knives between Fadawar and myself, and to afterward— Speak the truth of the outcome to everyone who asks. Jormunder said, Have you taken leave of your senses, my lady? This is madness. You cannot. I can, and I will. But, Naswada, said King Oren, this trial, is not it where... It is. Blast it, then. Why don't you give up this mad venture? I have already given my word to Fadawar. Oren faltered for a moment, but he persisted with his questions. To what end? That is, if you should lose... If I should lose, the Varden shall no longer answer to me, but to Fadawar. Naswada had expected a storm of protest. Instead, there came a silence, wherein the hot anger that animated King Oren's visage cooled and sharpened, and acquired a brittle temper. I do not appreciate your choice to endanger our entire cause. To Fadawar, he said, Will you not be reasonable and release Naswada from her obligation? I will reward you richly if you agree to abandon this ill-conceived ambition of yours. I am rich already, said Fadawar. I have no need for your tin-tented gold. No, nothing but the trial of the long knives can compensate me for the slander. Naswada has aimed at my people and me. Bear witness now, said Naswada. Oren clenched tight the folds of his robes, but he bowed and said, I, I will bear witness. Fadawar's four warriors produced small, hairy, goat-hide drums. Squatting, they placed the drums between their knees and struck up a furious beat, pounding so fast their hands were sooty smudges in the air. Without missing a single note, the oldest of Fadawar's men reached inside his vest, and from there drew two long curved knives that he tossed toward the peak of the tent. Naswada watched the knives tumble, haft over blade, fascinated by the beauty of their motion. When it was close enough, she lifted her arm and caught her knife. Fadawar successfully intercepted his as well. He then grasped the left cuff of his garment and pushed the sleeve past his elbow. Naswada kept her eyes fixed upon Fadawar's forearm as he did. His limb was thick and muscled, but she deemed that of no importance. Athletic gifts would not help him win their contest. 
What she looked for instead were the telltale ridges that, if they existed, would lie across the belly of his forearm. She observed five of them. Five, she thought. So many. Her confidence wavered. The only thing that kept her from losing her nerve altogether was Elva's prediction. The girl had said that in this, Naswada would prevail. As he was the one who had issued the challenge, Fadawar went first. He held his left arm straight out from his shoulder, palm upward, placed the blade of his knife against his forearm just below the crease of his elbow, and drew the mirror-polished edge across his flesh. His skin split like an overripe berry, blood welling from within the crimson crevice. He locked gazes with Naswada. She smiled and set her own knife against her arm. The metal was as cold as ice. Theirs was a test of wills to discover who could withstand the most cuts. The belief was that whoever aspired to become the chief of a tribe should be willing to endure more pain than anyone else for the sake of his or her people. Naswada understood the ability of the gesture to earn people's trust. Although the trial of the long knives was specific to the dark-skinned tribes, Besting Fadawar would solidify her standing among the Varden and, she hoped, King Oren's followers. She offered a quick plea for strength to Gokukara, the praying mantis goddess, and then pulled on the knife. The sharpened steel slid through her skin so easily she struggled to avoid cutting too deeply. She shuddered at the sensation. She wanted to fling the knife away and clutch her wound and scream. She did none of those things. Then Fadawar slashed himself a second time. Naswada saw it was her turn again. In her mind, she saw her father and Jormundur and Aragon and the people of the Varden, and she thought, For them, I do this for them. I was born to serve, and this is my service. She made the incision. A moment later, Fadawar opened up a third gash on his forearm, as did Naswada on her own. The fourth cut followed soon thereafter, and the fifth. A strange lethargy overtook Naswada. It occurred to her, then, that tolerance of pain might not decide the trial, but rather who would faint first from loss of blood. With a howl, Fadawar succeeded in completing his sixth cut. Best that, you feckless witch! He shouted over the noise of the drums, and dropped to one knee. She did. Fadawar trembled as he transferred his knife from his right hand to his left. Tradition dictated a maximum of six cuts per arm. Naswada imitated his movement. Now Fadawar started on his right forearm, releasing a spray of blood from his rigid muscles. He's clenching, she realized. She hoped the mistake would be enough to break him. Naswada could not help herself. She uttered a wordless cry when the knife parted her skin. The razor edge burned like a white-hot wire. Halfway through the cut, her traumatized left arm twitched. The knife swerved as a result, leaving her with a long, jagged laceration, twice as deep as the others. Her breath stopped while she weathered the agony. For the eighth time, Fadawar positioned the blade above one of his forearms, and there he held it the pale metal suspended a quarter of an inch away from his sable skin. He remained thus, and it appeared as though his courage might have failed him. But then he snarled, and with a quick yank, sliced his arm. His hesitation bolstered Naswada's flagging strength. 
A fierce exhilaration overtook her, transmuting her pain into an almost pleasurable sensation. She matched Fadawar's effort, and then, spurred onward by her sudden, heedless disregard for her own well-being, brought the knife down again. Best that, she whispered. The prospect of having to make two cuts in a row, one to equal the number of Naswadas and one to advance the contest, seemed to intimidate Fadawar. A spasm distorted his left hand, and the knife dropped from his contorted fingers, burying itself upright in the ground. I submit, he said. The drums stopped. The ensuing silence lasted for only an instant before King Oren, Jormunder, and everyone else filled the pavilion with their overlapping exclamations. Naswada paid no attention to their remarks. Groping behind herself, she found her chair and sank into it. The last thing she wanted to do was pass out in front of the tribesmen. A gentle pressure on her shoulder alerted her to the fact that Farika was standing next to her, holding a pile of bandages. My lady, may I attend to you? asked Farika, her expression both concerned and hesitant, as if she were uncertain how Naswada would react. Naswada nodded her approval. As Farika began to wind strips of linen around her arms, Nako and Ramusewa approached. They bowed, and Ramusewa said, Never before has anyone endured so many cuts in the trial of the long knives. Both you and Fadawar proved your mettle, but you are undoubtedly the victor. We shall tell our people of your achievement, and they shall give you their fealty. Thank you said Naswada. She closed her eyes as the throbbing in her arms increased. My lady. Around her, Naswada heard a confused medley of sounds, which she made no effort to decipher, preferring instead to retreat deep inside herself, where her pain was no longer so immediate and menacing. Her respite was interrupted by the voice of Triana, as the sorceress said, Leave off what you're doing, handmaid, and remove those bandages, so I can heal your mistress. Naswada opened her eyes to see Jormunder, King Oren, and Triana standing over her. Fadawar and his men had departed the pavilion. No, said Naswada. But why? The trial of the long knives requires participants to allow their wounds to heal at their natural pace. Otherwise, we won't have experienced the full measure of pain the trial entails. If I violate the rule, Fadawa will be declared the victor. Will you at least allow me to alleviate your suffering? asked Triana. I know several spells that can eliminate any amount of pain. If you had consulted me beforehand, I could have arranged it so that you could lop off an entire limb without the slightest discomfort. Naswada laughed and allowed her head to loll to the side, feeling rather giddy. My answer would have been the same then as it is now. Trickery is dishonorable. I had to win the trial without deceit, so that no one can question my leadership in the future. In a deadly soft tone, King Oren said, But what if you had lost? I could not lose. Even if it meant my death, I never would have allowed Fadawa to gain control of the Varden. Grave, Oren studied her for a long while. I believe you. Only, is the tribe's loyalty worth such a great sacrifice? 
You are not so common that we can easily replace you. The tribe's loyalty? No, but this will have an effect far beyond the tribes, as you must know. It should help unify our forces, and that is a prize valuable enough for me to willingly brave a host of unpleasant deaths. Pray tell, what would the Varden have gained if you had died today? No benefit would exist then. Your legacy would be discouragement, chaos, and likely ruin. Whenever Naswada drank wine, mead, or especially strong spirits, she became most cautious with her speech and motions, for even if she did not notice it at once, she knew the alcohol degraded her judgment and coordination, and she had no desire to behave inappropriately or to give others an advantage in their dealings with her. Pain-drunk as she was, she later realized she should have been as vigilant in her discussion with Oren as if she had imbibed three tankards of the dwarves' blackberry honey mead. If she had, her well-developed sense of courtesy would have prevented her from replying so. You worry like an old man, Oren. I had to do this, and it is done. Tis bootless to fret about it now. I took a risk, yes. But we cannot defeat Galbatorix unless we dance along the very cliff edge of disaster. You are a king. You ought to understand that danger is the mantle a person assumes when he or she has the arrogance to decide the fates of other men. I understand well enough, growled Orin. My family and I have defended Serda against the Empire's encroachment every day of our lives, for generations while the Varden merely hid in Farthendor and leached off Hrothgar's generosity. His robes swirled around him as he turned and stalked out of the pavilion. That was badly handled, my lady, observed Jormunder. Naswada winced as Farika tugged on her bandages. I know, she gasped. I'll mend his broken pride tomorrow. A gap appeared then in Naswada's memories. She only became aware of the missing time when it dawned upon her that Jormunder was shaking her shoulder and saying, Keep looking at me, blast it. That's the thing. Don't go to sleep again. You won't wake up again if you do. You can let go of me, Jormunder, she said, and mustered a weak smile. I'm all right now. Farika appeared from the side and hovered over Naswada. Oh, ma'am, you gave us quite a fright there. Well, I'm better now. Naswada pushed herself upright in the chair, ignoring the heat from her forearms. You can both go. I shall be fine. Jormundar, send word to Fadawar that he may remain chief of his own tribe so long as he swears loyalty to me as his warlord. He is too skilled a leader to waste. And Farika, on your way back to your tent, please inform Angela, the herbalist, that I require her services. She agreed to mix some tonics and poultices for me. Naswada lifted her hand, indicating her permission for them to leave, and Jormundur and Farika hurried from the Red Pavilion. For a long minute, perhaps two, the only sound Naswada heard was the harsh cry of gore crows circling above the Varden's encampment. Then, from behind her, there came a slight rustling, like that of a mouse nosing about for food. Turning her head, she saw Elva slip out of her hiding place, emerging between two panels of fabric into the main chamber of the pavilion. Naswada studied her. The girl's unnatural growth had continued. 
When Naswada first met her but a short while ago, Elva had appeared between three and four years old. She now looked closer to six. She wiped her rosebud mouth with the back of her hand, and Naswada asked, Were you ill? Elva shrugged. The pain I'm used to, but it never gets any easier to resist arrogance spell. I am hard to impress, Naswada, but you are a strong woman to withstand so many cats. You are stronger. I did not have to suffer through Fadawa's pain as well. Thank you for staying with me. I know what it must have cost you, and I am grateful. Grateful? <laughs> There's an empty word for me, Lady Nightstalker. Elva paused. I lied about the trial of the long knives. What do you mean? I foresaw that you would lose, not win. What? If I had allowed events to take their course, your nerve would have broken on the seventh cut, and Fadawar would be sitting where you are now, so I told you what you needed to hear in order to prevail. A chill crept over Naswada. If what Elva said was true, then she was in the witch-child's debt more than ever. Still, she disliked being manipulated, even if it was for her own benefit. I see. It seems I must thank you once again. Elva laughed then, a brittle sound. And you hate every moment of it, don't you? <laughs> no matter. You need not worry about offending me, Naswada. We are useful to each other. No more. Naswada was relieved when one of the dwarves guarding the pavilion, the captain of that particular watch, banged his hammer against his shield and proclaimed, The herbalist Angela requests an audience with you, Lady Nightstalker. Granted, said Naswada, raising her voice. Angela bustled into the pavilion, carrying several bags and baskets looped over her arms. As always, her curly hair formed a stormy cloud around her face, which was pinched with concern. At her heels padded the werecat, Solembum, in his animal form. He immediately angled toward Elva and began to rub against her legs, arching his back as he did. Depositing her luggage on the ground, Angela said, Really, between you and Aragon, I seem to spend most of my time among the Varden healing people too silly to realize they need to avoid getting chopped into tiny little pieces. While she spoke, the herbalist marched over to Naswada and began unwinding the bandages around her right forearm. She clucked with disapproval. I will recover, won't I? asked Naswada. You would if I could use magic to seal up these wounds. Since I can't, it's a bit harder to tell. You'll have to muddle along like most people do and hope none of these cuts get infected. Naswada stifled a groan and gazed upward as Angela stitched each of her wounds and then covered them with a thick, wet mat of pulped plants. Barzul, muttered Angela. Only men would think of cutting themselves to determine who the pack leader is. Idiot. It hurt to laugh, but Naswada could not help herself. Indeed, she said, after her fit subsided. Just as Angela finished retying the last strip of cloth around Naswada's arms, the dwarf captain outside the pavilion shouted, Halt! And there came a chorus of shimmering bell-like notes as the human guards crossed their swords, barring the way to whoever sought entrance. My lady! 
shouted a man. Aragon and Zephira fast approach from the northeast. Pushing herself out of her chair, Naswada said to Angela, Help me dress. Angela held the garment open in front of Naswada, who stepped into it. Then she gently guided Naswada's arms into the sleeves, and when they were in place, set about lacing up the back of the dress. Elva joined her. Together, they soon had Naswada properly attired. Naswada lifted her chin. Elva, if you sense I am about to faint, please tell Angela and have her catch me. Shall we then? The three of them gathered into a tight formation, with Naswada at the lead. Salembum walked alone. Naswada picked her way between the rows of tents, toward the large clearing set aside as a place for Safira to land and take off. Her guards and companions accompanied her, but she paid them little heed, eager as she was to rendezvous with Aragon and Safira. Safira was still a number of miles away from the camp, and it took her almost ten minutes to traverse the remaining distance. In that time, a massive crowd of warriors gathered around the clearing. Humans, dwarves, and even a contingent of gray-skinned ergles led by Nar Gosvog, who spit at the men closest to them. Also in the congregation were King Oren and his courtiers, who positioned themselves opposite Naswada, Narheim, the dwarf ambassador, who had assumed Oric's duties since Oric left for Farthandur, Jormunder, the other members of the Council of Elders, and Arya. The tall elf woman wove her way through the crowd toward Naswada. Even with Sephira nigh upon them, men and women alike tore their gaze from the sky to watch Arya's progress. She presented such a striking image. Dressed all in black, she wore leggings like a man, a sword on her hip, and a bow and quiver on her back. As she watched her, Naswada felt a hard tug on the back of her dress. Looking around, she saw that it was Elva, and that the girl was beckoning. Bending, Naswada placed an ear close to Elva, who muttered, Aragon's not on, Zephira. Rorin is there, and a woman. I guess it is Katrina. Naswada's chest tightened, restricting her breathing. She peered upward. Safira circled directly over the camp, some thousands of feet high. Straightening, Naswada clapped her hands and said, Jormunder, allowing her voice to ring forth. Jormunder came running. He was experienced enough to know when an emergency was at hand. My lady? Clear the field. Get everyone away from here before Safira lands. Including Orin and Naheim and Gazvog? She grimaced. No, but allow no one else to remain. Hurry! As Jormunder began shouting orders, Arya and Angela converged upon Naswada. They appeared as alarmed as she felt. Arya said, Safira would not be so calm if Aragon was hurt or dead. Where is he then? demanded Naswada. What trouble has he gotten himself into now? A raucous commotion filled the clearing as Jormunder and his men directed the onlookers back to their tents, laying about them with swagger sticks whenever the reluctant warriors lingered or protested. Fortunately, the Urgles, at the word of their war chief, Garzvog, left without incident, although Garzvog himself advanced toward Naswada, as did King Oren and the dwarf Narheim. Naswada felt the ground tremble under her feet as the eight-and-a-half-foot-tall Urgel approached her. He lifted his bony chin, baring his throat, as was the custom of his race, and said, 
What means this, Lady Nightstalker? Yes, I'd bloody well like an explanation myself, said Orin. His face was red. And I, said Narheim. Naswada pointed at Sephira and said, She shall provide the answers you desire. Just as the last stragglers quit the clearing, Sephira swooped to the ground and a dull boom resounded across the camp. Unbuckling themselves from her saddle, Rorin and Katrina quickly dismounted. Rorin bowed to Naswada, and Swiveling also to King Orin. My lady, he said, his face grave. Your majesty, if I may, this is my betrothed, Katrina. She curtsied to them both. Welcome to the Varden, Katrina, said Naswada. We have all heard your name here on account of Rorin's uncommon devotion. Songs of his love for you already spread across the land. You are most welcome, added Orin. Most welcome indeed. Katrina blushed and smiled. Thank you, she said. Along with her embarrassment at such attentions, a hint of pride colored her expression. Naswada looked past Rorin and Katrina to Sephira. Naswada opened up the barriers she usually maintained around her mind so she might hear what Sephira had to say, and then asked, Where is he? With the dry rustle of scales sliding over scales, Sephira crept forward and lowered her neck so her head was directly in front of Naswada, Arya, and Angela. Aragon, said Sephira, decided to remain in the Empire. For a few seconds, Naswada was unable to move or think. The others reacted in various ways from which Naswada deduced. Sephira had spoken to them all at once. How could you allow him to stay? she asked. Small tongues of fire rippled in Sephira's nostrils as she snorted. Aragon made his own choice, but fear not, he can take care of himself. So far, no misfortune has befallen him. I would know if he was hurt. Arya spoke. And why did he make this choice, Sephira? It would be faster for me to show you rather than explain with words. May I? They all indicated their consent. A river of Sephira's memories poured into Naswada. She saw black hell grind from above a layer of clouds, heard Aragon, Rorin, and Sephira discussing how best to attack, watched them discover the Razak's lair, and experienced Sephira's epic battle with the Leather Blacka. Lastly came Aragon and his confrontation with Sephira. However, the reasons Aragon gave for staying, killing the last Razak, and exploring the remainder of Hellgrind, were reasons Naswada deemed inadequate. She frowned. Aragon may be rash, but he's certainly not foolish enough to endanger everything we seek to accomplish merely so he could visit a few caves and drain the last bitter dregs of his revenge. There must be another explanation. She wondered whether she should press Sephira for the truth, but she knew Sephira would not withhold such information on a whim. Perhaps she wants to discuss it in private, she thought. Blast it! exclaimed King Orin. Eregon could not have picked a worse time to set off on his own. What matters a single Razak when Galbatorix's entire army resides but a few miles from us? We have to get him back. I agree said Narheim. However it is done, we must ensure his safe return. Arya knelt, and to Naswada's surprise, began to unlace and retie her boots. Holding one of the cords between her teeth, Arya said, 
Safira, where exactly was Aragon when last you touched his mind? In the entrance to Hellgrind. And have you any idea what path he intended to follow? He did not yet know himself. Springing to her feet, Arya said, Then I shall have to look everywhere I can. Like a deer, she bounded forward and ran across the clearing, vanishing among the tents as she sped northward as fast and light as the wind itself. Arya, no! shouted Naswada, but the elf was already gone. Aragon had made slower progress than he had hoped. Hundreds of Galbatorix's patrols, containing both soldiers and magicians, swarmed across the land, and he often had to hide in order to avoid them. That they were searching for him, he had no doubt. He had decided to travel on established roads and trails wherever possible. The events of the past week had pushed him to the limits of his physical and emotional endurance. He preferred to allow his body to rest and recover rather than strain himself, forging through brambles, over hills, and across muddy rivers. The time for desperate, violent exertion would come again, but now was not it. Returning to the Varden was Aragon's primary concern, and it rankled him to plod along like a common vagabond. Still, he appreciated the opportunity to be by himself. He had not been alone, truly alone, since he found Saphira's egg in the spine. Always her thoughts had rubbed against his, or Brahm, or Murtag, or someone else had been at his side. In addition to the burden of constant companionship, Aragon had spent all the months since he had left Palankar Valley engaged in arduous training, breaking only for travel or to take part in the tumult of battle. Never before had he concentrated so intensely for so long or dealt with such huge amounts of worry and fear. He welcomed his solitude then, and the peace it brought. The absence of voices, including his own, was a sweet lullaby that, for a short while, washed away his fear of the future. He had no desire to scry Sephira. Although they were too far apart to touch each other's minds, his bond with her would tell him if she was hurt, or to contact Arya or Naswada and hear their angry words. Far better, he thought, to listen to the songs of the flitting birds and the sighing of the breeze through the grass and leafy branches. The sound of jingling harnesses, clomping hooves, and men's voices jarred Aragon out of his reverie. Alarmed, he stopped and glanced around, trying to determine from what direction the men were approaching. A pair of cackling jackdaws spiraled upward from a nearby ravine. The only cover close to Aragon was a small thicket of juniper trees. He sprinted toward it and dove under the drooping branches just as six soldiers emerged from the ravine and rode cantering out onto the thin dirt road not ten feet away. Normally Aragon would have sensed their presence long before they got so close, but since Thorne's distant appearance, he had kept his mind walled off from his surroundings. The soldiers reined in their horses and milled around in the middle of the road, arguing among themselves. I'm telling you, I saw something, one of them shouted. He was of medium height, with ruddy cheeks and a yellow beard. His heart hammering, Aragon struggled to keep his breathing slow and quiet. He touched his brow to ensure the cloth strip he had tied around his head still covered his upswept eyebrows and pointed ears. I wish I was still wearing my armor, he thought. In order to avoid attracting unwanted attention, he had made himself a pack, using dead branches and a square of canvas he had bartered from a tinker, and placed his armor within it. 
Now he dared not remove and don his armor, for fear the soldiers would hear. The soldier with the yellow beard climbed down from his bay charger and walked along the edge of the road, studying the ground and the juniper trees beyond. Like every member of Galbatorix's army, the soldier wore a red tunic, embroidered with gold thread in the outline of a jagged tongue of fire. The thread sparkled as he moved. His armor was simple, a helmet, a tapered shield, and a leather brigandine, indicating that he was little more than a mounted footman. As for arms, he bore a spear in his right hand and a longsword on his left hip. As the soldier approached his location, spurs clinking, Aragon began to whisper a complex spell in the ancient language. The words poured off his tongue in an unbroken stream, until to his alarm he mispronounced a particularly difficult cluster of vowels and had to start the incantation anew. The soldier took another step toward him, and another. Just as the soldier paused in front of him, Aragon completed the spell and felt his strength ebb as the magic took effect. He was an instant too late, however, to completely escape detection, for the soldier exclaimed, Aha! and brushed aside the branches, exposing Aragon. Aragon did not move. The soldier peered directly at him and frowned. What the— he muttered. He jabbed his spear into the thicket, missing Aragon's face by less than an inch. Aragon dug his nails into his palms as a tremor racked his clenched muscles. I'll blast it said the soldier, and released the branches, which sprang back to their original positions, hiding Aragon once more. What was it? called another of the men. Nothing, said the soldier, returning to his companions. He removed his helmet and wiped his brow. My eyes are playing tricks on me. What does that bastard Braithen expect of us? We've hardly gotten a wink of sleep these past two days. Aye, the king must be desperate to drive us so hard. To be honest... I'd rather not find whoever it is we're searching for. It's not that I'm faint-hearted, but anyone who gives Galbatorix paws is best avoided by the likes of us. Let Murtag and his monster of a dragon catch our mysterious fugitive, eh? Unless we be searching for Murtag, suggested a third man. You heard what Morzan Spawn said as well as I did. An uncomfortable silence settled over the soldiers. Then the one who was on the ground vaulted back onto his charger, wrapped the reins around his left hand, and said, Keep your yap shut, Derwood. You talk too much. With that, the group of six spurred their steeds forward and continued north on the road. As the sound of the horses faded, Aragon ended the spell, then rubbed his eyes with his fists and rested his hands on his knees. A long, low laugh escaped him and he shook his head, amused by how outlandish his predicament was compared with his upbringing in Palankar Valley. I certainly never imagined this happening to me, he thought. The spell he had used contained two parts. The first bent rays of light around his body, so he appeared invisible, and the second hopefully prevented other spell weavers from detecting his use of magic. The spell's main drawbacks were that it could not conceal footprints, therefore one had to remain stone still while using it, and it often failed to completely eliminate a person's shadow. Picking his way out of the thicket, Aragon stretched his arms high over his head and then faced the ravine from whence the soldiers had emerged. A single question occupied him as he resumed his journey. What had Murtag said? Ah, uh, ah! Uh.
the gauze-like illusion of Aragon's waking dreams vanished as he tore at the air with his hands. He twisted nearly in half as he rolled away from where he had been lying. Scrabbling backward, he pushed himself to his feet and raised his arms in front of himself to deflect oncoming blows. The dark of night surrounded him. Above, the impartial stars continued to gyrate in their endless celestial dance. Below, not a creature stirred, nor could he hear anything but the gentle wind caressing the grass. Aragon stabbed outward with his mind, convinced that someone was about to attack him. He extended himself over a thousand feet in every direction, but found no one else in the vicinity. At last, he lowered his hands. His chest heaved, and his skin burned, and he stank of sweat. In his mind, a tempest roared, a whirlwind of flashing blades and severed limbs. For a moment, he thought he was in Farthendur, fighting the Urgles, and then on the burning plains, crossing swords with men like himself. Each location was so real he could have sworn some strange magic had transported him backward through space and time. He saw, standing before him, the men and the Urgles whom he had slain. They appeared so real he wondered if they would speak. And while he no longer bore the scars of his wounds, his body remembered the many injuries he had suffered, and he shuddered as he again felt swords and arrows piercing his flesh. With a shapeless howl, Aragon fell to his knees and wrapped his arms around his stomach, hugging himself as he rocked back and forth. It's all right. It's all right. He pressed his forehead against the ground, curling into a hard, tight ball. His breath was hot against his belly. What's wrong with me? None of the epics Brahm had recited in Carvajal mentioned that such visions had bedeviled the heroes of old. None of the warriors Aragon had met in the Varden seemed troubled by the blood they shed. And even though Rorin admitted he disliked killing, he did not wake up screaming in the middle of the night. I'm weak, thought Aragon. A man should not feel like this. A rider should not feel like this. Garrow or Brom would have been fine, I know. They did what needed to be done, and that was that. No crying about it. No endless worrying or gnashing of teeth. I'm weak. Jumping up, he paced around his nest in the grass, trying to calm himself. After half an hour, when apprehension still clenched his chest in an iron grip and his skin itched as if a thousand ants crawled underneath it, and he started at the slightest noise, Aragon grabbed his pack and set off at a dead run. He cared not what lay before him in the unknown darkness, nor who might notice his headlong flight. He sought only to escape his nightmares. His mind had turned against him, and he could not rely upon rational thought to dispel his panic. His one recourse, then, was to trust in the ancient animal wisdom of his flesh, which told him to move. If he ran fast and hard enough, perhaps he could anchor himself in the moment. Perhaps the thrashing of his arms, the thudding of his feet on dirt, the slick chill of sweat under his arms, and a myriad of other sensations would, by their sheer weight and number, force him to forget. Perhaps... Aragon stopped and sat on a rock so he could retie the laces on his boots. Several miles away, five hills dotted the otherwise smooth land. A stand of thick oak trees adorned the central hill. Above the hazy mounds of foliage, Aragon glimpsed the crumbling walls of a long-abandoned building, constructed by some race in ages past. 
curiosity aroused, he decided to break his fast among the ruins. The shadows under the oak trees chilled Aragon as he climbed the central hill. Near the summit, he entered a large glade. A broken tower stood there. The lower part of the tower was wide and ribbed, like the trunk of a tree. Excitement stirred within Aragon. He suspected that he had found an elven outpost, erected long before the destruction of the riders. Then he spotted the vegetable garden at the opposite side of the glade. A single man sat hunched among the rows of plants, weeding a patch of snap peas. His gray beard was so long it lay piled in his lap like a mound of uncombed wool. Without looking up, the man said, Well, are you going to help me finish these peas or not? There's a meal in it for you if you do. Aragon hesitated, unsure what to do. Then he thought, why should I be afraid of an old hermit? He walked over to the garden. I'm uh, Bergen, Bergen, son of Garrow, the man grunted. Tenga, son of Ingvar. For the next hour, Aragon labored in silence along with Tenga. He knew he should not stay for long, but he enjoyed the task. It kept him from brooding. When they had removed every last bit of grass, purslain, and dandelions from around the peas, Aragon followed Tenga to a narrow door set into the front of the tower, through which was a spacious kitchen and dining room. In the middle of the room, a circular staircase coiled up to the second story. Books, scrolls, and sheaves of loose-bound vellum covered every available surface, including a goodly portion of the floor. Tenga pointed at the small pile of branches in the fireplace. With a pop and a crackle, the wood burst into flame. He didn't utter the ancient language, Aragon thought. He tensed, ready to grapple physically and mentally with Tenga. The other man did not seem to notice his reaction, but continued to bustle about the kitchen, procuring mugs, dishes, knives, and various leftovers for their lunch. Aragon gazed around the chamber, searching for clues about his host. He spotted an open scroll that displayed columns of words from the ancient language and recognized it as a compendium of true names similar to those he had studied in Elismera. Magicians coveted such scrolls and books and would sacrifice almost anything to obtain them, for they were exceedingly rare. It was unusual, then, for Tenga to possess one such compendium, but to Aragon's amazement he saw six others throughout the room, in addition to writings on subjects ranging from history to mathematics to astronomy to botany. A mug of ale and a plate with bread and cheese appeared in front of him as Tenga shoved the dishes under his nose. Thank you, said Aragon, accepting them. Tenga ignored him and sat cross-legged next to the fireplace as he devoured his lunch. After Aragon had scraped his plate clean and drained the last drops of the fine harvest ale, and Tenga had also nearly completed his repast, Aragon could not help but ask, Did the elves build this tower? Tenga fixed him with a pointed gaze, as if the question made him doubt Aragon's intelligence. Oi, the tricky elves built Idur Ithindra. What is it you do here? Are you all alone, or— I search for the answer, exclaimed Tenga. A key to an unopened door. Most do not know the question and wander in ignorance. Others know the question but fear what the answer will mean. I shall usher in the Age of Light, and all shall praise my deed. 
Pray tell, what exactly do you search for? A frown twisted Tenga's face. You don't know the question? Eh, I thought you might. But no, I was mistaken. Still, I see you understand my search. You search for a different answer, but you search nevertheless. The same brand burns in your heart as burns in mine. Who else but a fellow pilgrim can appreciate what we must sacrifice to find the answer? The answer to what? To the question we choose. He's mad, thought Aragon. Tenga paid no attention as Aragon backed away, nor when he lifted the latch to the door and slipped out of Idurithindra and away from the cluster of five hills and the demented spellcaster who resided among them. Throughout the rest of that day and the next, the number of people on the road increased until it seemed to Aragon as if a new group was always appearing over a hill. Most were refugees, although soldiers and other men of business were also present. Aragon avoided those he could and trudged along with his chin tucked against his collar the rest of the time. That practice, however, forced him to spend the night in the village of Eastcroft, twenty miles north of Melian. He had intended to abandon the road long before he arrived at Eastcroft and find a sheltered hollow or cave where he might rest until morn, but he misjudged the distance and came upon the village while in the company of three men-at-arms. Leaving then, less than an hour from the safety of Eastcroft's walls, would have inspired even the slowest dullard to ask why he was trying to avoid the village, so Aragon set his teeth and silently rehearsed the stories he had concocted to explain his trip. It was almost dark by the time he entered through the gate and located the wayfarer's house. The common room had a low ceiling with tar-stained timbers. Yellow tallow candles provided a soft flickering light and thickened the air with intersecting layers of smoke. A good sixty people filled the room. Aragon wormed his way through the crowd until he reached the bar. He wanted to talk with the serving woman, but she was so busy five minutes passed before she looked at him and asked, "'Your pleasure?' Have you a room to let or a corner where I could spend the night? I wouldn't know. The mistress of the house is the one you should speak to about that. She'll be down directly, said the serving woman, and flicked a hand at a rank of gloomy stairs. While he waited, Aragon rested against the bar and studied the people in the room. They were a motley assortment. About half, he guessed, were villagers from Eastcroft, come to enjoy a night of drinking. Of the rest... The majority were men and women, families oftentimes, who were migrating to safer parts. The crowd shifted and granted Aragon a view of a table pushed against one wall. At it sat a lone woman, her face hidden by the drawn hood of her dark traveling cloak. Four men surrounded her, big beefy farmers with leathery necks and cheeks flushed with the fever of alcohol. Two of them were leaning against the wall on either side of the woman, looming over her, while one sat grinning in a chair turned around backward, and the fourth stood with his left foot on the edge of the table and was bent forward over his knee. The men spoke and gestured, their movements careless. Although Aragon could not hear or see what the woman said, it was obvious to him that her response angered the farmers. The man to the left of the woman suddenly reached down and hooked a finger underneath the edge of her hood. The hood collapsed around her neck, and Aragon stiffened. Astounded, the woman was human, but she resembled Arya. 
The only differences between them were her eyes, which were round and level, not slanted like a cat's, and her ears, which lacked the pointed tips of an elf's. Without hesitation, Aragon probed toward the woman with his mind. As soon as he touched her consciousness, a mental blow struck back at Aragon, destroying his concentration. And then in the confines of his skull, he heard a deafening voice exclaim, Aragon! Arya? Aragon hurried across the room to her table, prying apart the bodies packed close together to clear himself a path. The farmers looked askance at him when he emerged from the press, and one said, You're awful rude, barging in on us uninvited-like. Best make yourself scarce, eh? In as diplomatic a voice as he could muster, Aragon said, It seems to me, gentlemen, that the lady would rather be left alone. Now you wouldn't ignore the wishes of an honest woman, would you? An honest woman! <laughs> laughed the nearest man. No honest woman travels alone! Then let me set your concern to rest, for I am her brother, and we are going to live with our uncle in Drasleona. The four men exchanged uneasy glances. Three of them began to edge away from Arya, but the largest planted himself a few inches in front of Aragon, and breathing upon his face, said, I'm not sure I believe you, friend. You're just trying to drive us away, so you can be with her yourself. He's not far off, thought Aragon. Speaking quietly enough that only the man could hear, Aragon said, I assure you, she is my sister. Please, sir, I have no quarrel with you. Won't you go? To Aragon's relief, the other man relaxed after a few seconds and lumbered toward the bar with his friends. Keeping his gaze fixed upon the crowd, Aragon slipped behind the table and sat next to Arya. What are you doing here? he asked, barely moving his lips. Searching for you. Surprised, he glanced at her, and she raised a curved eyebrow. He looked back at the throng of people, and pretending to smile, asked, Are you alone? No longer. Did you rent a bed for the night? He shook his head. Good. I already have a room. We can talk there. The chamber contained the same paneling as the hallway, and the chestnut-colored wood absorbed most of the light that struck it and made the room seem small and heavy, Aside from the table, the only other piece of furniture was a narrow bed with a single blanket thrown over the ticking. A small bag of supplies rested on the mattress. Aragon and Arya stood facing each other. Then Aragon reached up and removed the cloth strip tied around his head, and Arya unfastened the brooch that held her cloak around her shoulders and placed the garment on the bed. She wore a forest green dress, the first dress Aragon had seen her in. Arya broke the silence. Safira said you stayed behind to kill the last Razak and to explore the rest of Helgrind. Is that the truth? It's part of the truth. And what is the whole truth? Aragon knew that nothing less would satisfy her. Promise me that you won't share what I'm about to tell you with anyone unless I give you permission. I promise, she said in the ancient language. Then he told her about finding Sloane, why he decided not to bring him back to the Varden. Aragon finished by saying, Whatever happens, Rorin and Katrina can never learn that Sloane is still alive. If they do, there'll be no end of trouble. Arya sat on the edge of the bed, and for a long while stared at the lamp and its jumping flame. Then, You should have killed him. Maybe, but I couldn't. Just because you find your task distasteful is no reason to shirk it. You were a coward. 
Aragon bridled at her accusation. Was I? Anyone with a knife could have killed Sloane. What I did was far harder. Physically, but not morally. I didn't kill him because I thought it was wrong. Aragon frowned with concentration as he searched for the words to explain himself. I wasn't afraid. Not that. Not after going into battle. It was something else. I will kill in war. But I won't take it upon myself to decide who lives and who dies. I don't have the experience or the wisdom. Every man has a line he won't cross, Arya. And I found mine when I looked upon Sloane. Even if I had Galbatorix as my captive, I would not kill him. I would take him to Naswada and King Oren. And if they condemned him to death, then I would happily lop off his head, but not before. Call it weakness, if you will, but that is how I am made, and I won't apologize for it. You will be a tool, then, wielded by others. I will serve the people as best I can. I've never aspired to lead. Alagazia does not need another tyrant king. Arya rubbed her temples. Why does everything have to be so complicated with you, Aragon? No matter where you go, you seem to get yourself mired in difficult situations. It's as if you make an effort to walk through every bramble in the land. <laughs> Your mother said much the same. I'm not surprised. Very well, let it be. Neither of us is about to change our opinions, and we have more pressing concerns than arguing about justice and morality. In the future, though, you would do well to remember who you are and what you mean to the races of Alagasia. I never forgot. Aragon paused, waiting for her response, but Arya let his statement pass unchallenged. Sitting on the edge of the table, he said, You didn't have to come looking for me, you know. I was fine. Of course I did. How did you find me? I guessed which route you would take from Helgrind. Luckily for me, my guess placed me forty miles west of here, and that was close enough for me to locate you by listening to the whispers of the land. I don't understand. A rider does not walk unnoticed in this world, Aragon. Those who have the ears to hear and the eyes to see can interpret the signs easily enough. The birds sing of your coming. The beasts of the earth heed your scent, and the very trees and grass remember your touch. Why did you come to Eastcroft, though? It would have been safer to meet me outside the village. Circumstances forced me here, as I assume they did you. You did not come here willingly, no? No. He rolled his shoulders, weary from the day's traveling. Then he asked, What now? Now? We rest. Tomorrow we shall slip out of Eastcroft, and no one shall be the wiser. That night, Aragon lay in front of the door, while Arya took the bed. As the empty hours crept by, Aragon's mind kept returning to Arya, to his surprise at meeting her, to her comments about his treatment of Sloane, and above all else, to the feelings he had for her. What those were exactly, he was unsure. He longed to be with her. But she had rejected his advances and that tarnished his affection with hurt and anger and also frustration, for while Aragon refused to accept that his suit was hopeless, he could not think of how to proceed. Finally he succumbed to exhaustion and drifted into the waiting embrace of his waking dreams. There he wandered for a few fitful hours until it was time for him and Arya to leave Eastcroft. 
The muscles of Roran's back popped and rippled as he heaved the boulder off the ground. On either side of him, twenty of the Vardan's warriors struggled to lift boulders of similar size. Only two succeeded. The rest returned to the lighter rocks they were accustomed to. It pleased Roran that the months he had spent in Horst's forge and the years of farm work before had given him the strength to hold his own with men who had drilled with their weapons every day since they turned twelve. After the Battle of the Burning Plains, Naswada had invited the villagers from Carvajal to join the Varden. They had all accepted her offer. Every able-bodied man from Carvajal had taken up proper arms, discarding their makeshift spears and shields, and had worked to become warriors equal to any in Alagazia. Roran had devoted himself to the training with unwavering dedication since returning from Helgrind. Helping the Varden defeat the Empire, and ultimately Galba Torix, was the one thing he could do to protect the villagers and Katrina, and he knew that if he applied himself, he could increase the Varden's chances of victory. Roran returned to his tent and snared his waterskin from beside the bedding. Then he hurried back into the bright sunlight and poured the contents over his back and shoulders. Baths tended to be sporadic and infrequent events for Roran, but today was an important day, and he wanted to be fresh and clean for what was to come. Satisfied that he was presentable, he pulled on his freshly washed tunic, stuck his hammer through his belt, and was about to head off through the camp when he became aware of Birgit watching him from behind the corner of the tent. She clenched a sheathed dagger with both hands. Roran froze. You once asked me to help you, said Birgit, and I agreed because I wanted to find the Razak and kill them for eating my husband. Have I not upheld my bargain? You have. And do you remember I promised that once the Razak were dead, I would have my compensation from you for your role in Quimby's death? I do. Birgit twisted the dagger with increasing urgency. Good, she said. I would not want your memory to fail you. I will have my compensation, Garrison. Never you doubt that. With a swift, firm step, she departed, the dagger hidden among the folds of her dress. Her visit had alarmed Roran, but it did not surprise him. He had been aware of her intentions for months, since before they left Carvajal, and he knew that one day he would have to settle his debt with her. A raven soared overhead, and as he tracked it, his mood lightened and he smiled. Well, he said to himself, a man rarely knows the day and hour when he will die. Birgit will do what her conscience tells her to, and I will deal with it when I must. He walked to the center of the Varden's massive camp, where Naswada's red command pavilion stood. Rorin, said Naswada, you seem to be a man who appreciates candor, and we have much to discuss in a small amount of time. Thank you, my lady. I have never enjoyed playing word games. Excellent. To be blunt, then, you have presented me with two difficulties, neither of which I can easily resolve. He frowned. What sort of difficulties? One of character and one of politics. Your deeds in Palankar Valley and during your flight thence with your fellow villagers are nigh on incredible. You possess valuable talents, Warren, and the Varden could use you. I assume you wish to be of service? I do. We need captains whom we can trust to deal with the myriad conflicts springing up around us. In this, you could prove your worth to us. But... Her voice faded. 
but you do not yet know if you can rely upon me. Indeed, protecting one's friends and family stiffens a person's spine, but I wonder how you will fare without them. Will your nerve hold? And, while you can lead, can you also obey orders? I cast no aspersions on your character, Roran, but the fate of Alagasia is at stake, and I cannot risk putting someone incompetent in charge of my men. This war does not forgive such errors. Nor would it be fair to the men already with the Varden to place you over them without just cause. You must earn your responsibilities with us. I understand. What would you have me do then? Huh. But it's not that easy. For you and Erigan are practically brothers, and that complicates things immeasurably. As I'm sure you are aware, Erigan is the keystone of our hopes. It is important, then, to shelter him from distractions, so he may concentrate upon the task before him. If I send you into battle, and you die as a result, grief and anger might very well unbalance him. I've seen it happen before. Moreover, I must take great care with whom I allow you to serve, for there are those who will seek to influence you because of your relation to Aragon. So, now you have a fair idea of the scope of my concerns, what have you to say about them? If the land itself is at stake, and this war is as hotly contested as you imply, then I say you cannot afford to let me sit idle. Employing me as a common swordsman would be just as much a waste. But I think you know that already. As for politics, he shrugged, I don't care one whit whom you put me with. No one shall get to Aragon through me. My only concern is breaking the empire so that my kith and kin can return to our home and live in peace. You are determined. Very. Could you not allow me to remain in charge of the men from Carvajal? We are as close as family and we work well together. Test me that way. The Varden would not suffer then if I failed. She shook her head. No, perhaps in the future, but not yet. They require proper instruction and I cannot judge your performance when you are surrounded by a group of people who are so loyal that at your urging they abandoned their homes and traversed the width of Allegasia. She considers me a threat, he realized. My ability to influence the villagers makes her wary of me. In an attempt to disarm her, he said, they had their own sense to guide them. They knew it was folly to stay in the valley. You cannot explain away their behavior, Oren. What do you want of me, lady? Will you let me serve or not? And if so, how? Here is my offer. This morning, my magicians detected a patrol of twenty-three of Galbatorix's soldiers due east. I am sending out a contingent under the command of Martland Redbeard, the Earl of Thun, to destroy them, and to do some scouting besides. If you are agreeable, you will serve under Martland. When would I leave? And how long would I be gone? You would leave today and return within a fortnight. Then I must ask, could you wait and send me on a different expedition in a few days? I would like to be here when Aragon returns. Your concern for your cousin is admirable, but events move apace, and we cannot delay. As soon as I know Aragon's fate, I will have one of Duvrangergata contact you with the tidings, whether they be good or ill. Roran rubbed his thumb along the sharp edges of his hammer as he tried to compose a reply that would convince Nasawada to change her mind and yet would not betray the secret he held. 
At last, he abandoned the task as impossible and resigned himself to revealing the truth. You're right. I am worried about Aragon, but of all people he can fend for himself. Seeing him safe and sound isn't why I want to stay. Why then? Because Katrina and I wish to be married, and we would like Aragon to perform the ceremony. There was a cascade of sharp clicks as Naswada tapped her fingernails against the arms of her chair. If you believe I will allow you to loll about when you could be helping the Varden, just so you and Katrina can enjoy your wedding night a few days earlier, then you are sorely mistaken. It is a matter of some urgency, Lady Nightstalker. Naswada's fingers paused in midair, and her eyes narrowed. How urgent. The sooner we wed, the better it will be for Katrina's honor. If you understand me at all, know that I would never ask favors for myself. Light shifted on Naswada's skin as she tilted her head. I see. Why, Erigan? Why do you want him to perform the ceremony? Why not someone else? An elder from your village, perhaps? Because he is my cousin, and I care for him, and because he is a rider. Katrina lost nearly everything on my account, her home, her father, and her dowry. I cannot replace those things. But I at least want to give her a wedding worth remembering. And it seems to me nothing could be more grand than having a dragon rider marry us. Naswada held her peace for so long, Roran began to wonder if she expected him to leave. Then, it would indeed be an honor to have a dragon rider marry you, but it would be a sorry day if Katrina had to accept your hand without a proper dowry. The dwarves furnished me with many presents of gold and jewelry when I lived in Trondheim. Some I have already sold to fund the Varden, but what I have left would still keep a woman clothed in mink and satin for many years to come. They shall be Katrina's, if you are amenable. Startled, Roran bowed. Thank you. Your generosity is overwhelming. I don't know how I can ever repay you. Repay me by fighting for the Varden, as you fought for Carvajal. I will. I swear it. Galbatorix will curse the day he ever sent the Razak after me. I'm sure he already does. Now go. You may remain in camp until Erigen returns and marries you to Katrina, but then I expect you to be in the saddle the following morning. What a proud man, thought Naswada, as she watched Roran leave the pavilion. It's interesting. He and Erigen are alike in so many ways, and yet their personalities are fundamentally different. Erigen may be one of the most deadly warriors in Allegasia, but he isn't a hard or cruel person. Rorin, however, is made of sterner stuff. I hope that he never crosses me. I would have to destroy him in order to stop him. Naswada rang for Farika and ordered her to bring a meal. After her handmaid delivered the food and then retired from the tent, Naswada signaled Elva, who emerged from her hiding place behind the false panel at the rear of the pavilion. Together, the two of them shared a mid-morning repast. Then, with Elva at her side, Naswada rode out on her stallion, Battlestorm, and met with Triana, who had captured and was busy interrogating a member of Galbatorix's spy network, the Black Hand. As she and Elva left Triana's tent, Naswada became aware of a commotion to the north. She heard shouts and cheers. Then a man appeared from among the tents, sprinting toward her. 
Without a word, her guards formed a tight circle around her, save for one of the Urgles, who planted himself in the path of the runner and hefted his club. The man slowed to a stop before the Urgle and, gasping, shouted, Lady Nasuara, the elves are here! The elves have arrived! For a wild, improbable moment, Naswada thought he meant Queen Islanzadi and her army, but then she remembered Islanzadi was near Cunon. It must be the twelve spellweavers she sent to protect Aragon. Quick, my horse, she said, and snapped her fingers. Her forearms burned as she swung herself onto Battlestorm. She waited only long enough for the nearest Urgle to hand her Elva, then drove her heels into the stallion. Bending low over his neck, she steered him down a crude lane between the two rows of tents, dodging men and animals, and jumping a rain barrel that barred her way. When she arrived at the northern entrance to the camp, she and Elva dismounted and scanned the horizon for motion. There, said Elva, and pointed. Nearly two miles away, twelve long, lean figures emerged from behind a stand of juniper trees, their outlines wavering in the morning heat. The elves ran in unison, so light and fast, their feet raised no dust, and they appeared to fly over the countryside. Naswada's scalp prickled. Their speed was both beautiful and unnatural. They reminded her of a pack of predators chasing their prey. Awe-inspiring, aren't they? Naswada started to find Angela next to her. She was annoyed and mystified by how the herbalist had been able to sneak up on her. She wished Elva had warned her of Angela's approach. How is it you always manage to be present when something interesting is about to occur? Oh, well, I like to know what's going on, and being there is so much faster than waiting for someone to tell me about it afterward. At that moment, the twelve elves emerged from the dry stream bed. When he was still several hundred feet away, the lead elf appeared soot-black from head to toe. At first, Naswada assumed he was dark-skinned, like herself, and wearing dark attire, but as he drew closer, she saw that the elf wore only a loincloth and a braided fabric belt with a small pouch attached. The rest of him was covered with midnight blue fur that glistened with a healthy sheen under the glare of the sun. On average, the fur was a quarter inch long, but on his face was so short and flat, only its color betrayed its presence. His eyes were bright yellow. Instead of fingernails, a claw protruded from each of his middle fingers, and as he slowed to a stop before her, Naswada noticed that a certain odor surrounded him, a salty musk reminiscent of dry juniper wood, oiled leather, and smoke. It was such a strong smell and so obviously masculine, Naswada felt her skin go hot and cold and crawl with anticipation, and she blushed and was glad it would not show. The rest of the elves were more as she had expected, of the same general build and complexion as Arya, with short tunics of dusky orange and pine-needle green. Six were men and six were women. Touching his first two fingers to his lips, the lead elf bowed, as did his companions, and then twisted his right hand against his chest and said, Greetings and felicitations, Naswada, daughter of Ajihad, Atre Sterni unto Thelduin. Atra duevarinya o novarda, replied Naswada, as Arya had taught her. The elf smiled, revealing teeth that were sharper than normal. I am Bloodgarm, son of Ildrid the Beautiful. He introduced the other elves in turn, before continuing, We bring you glad tidings from Queen Islanzadi. 
Last night, our spellcasters succeeded in destroying the gates of Cunon. Even as we speak, our forces advance through the streets toward the tower where Lord Tarrant has barricaded himself. Some few still resist us, but the city has fallen, and soon we shall have complete control over Cunon. Naswara's guards and the Varden, gathered behind her, burst into cheers at the news. She, too, rejoiced at the victory. But then a sense of foreboding and disquiet tempered her celebratory mood as she pictured elves, especially ones as strong as Bloodgarm, invading human homes. What unearthly forces have I unleashed? she wondered. These are glad tidings indeed, she said, and I am well pleased to hear them. With Cunon captured, we are that much closer to Urubain, and thus to Galbatorix and the fulfillment of our goals. Naswara deemed it appropriate to address the reason for the elves' visit. She ordered the assembled crowd to disperse, then said, Your purpose here, as I understand it, is to protect Eragon and Sephira. Am I right? You are Naswada Svitkona, and we are aware that Eragon is still inside the Empire, but that he will return soon. Are you also aware that Arya left in search of him, and that they are now traveling together? Bloodgarm flicked his ears. We were informed of that as well. It is unfortunate that they should both be in such danger, but hopefully no harm will befall them. What do you intend to do then? Will you seek them out and escort them back to the Varden? We will remain as your guests, Naswada, daughter of Ajihad. Aragon and Arya are safe enough as long as they avoid detection. Under the circumstances, it seems best to bide our time where we can yet do some good. Galbatorix is most likely to strike here, at Divarden, and if he does, and if Thorn and Murtag should reappear, Sephira will need all our help to drive them off. Naswada was surprised. Eragon said you were among the strongest spellcasters of your race, but do you really have the wherewithal to thwart that accursed pair? With Sephira helping us, yes. That is heartening. Your assurances convince me that we are not entirely without hope. A fresh cloud of his musk drifted over Naswada, and she succumbed to the wanton attraction of Bloodgarm's odor. She only returned to herself when Elva pulled on her left arm, forcing her to bend over and place her ear close to the witch-child's mouth. In a low, harsh voice, Elva said, Whorehound! Concentrate upon the taste of whorehound! Just thinking about the acrid flavor of the candy dried out her mouth and counteracted the seductive qualities of Bloodgarm's musk. She attempted to conceal her lapse in concentration by saying, my young companion here is wondering why you look so different from the other elves. A shiny ripple flowed through Bloodgarm's fur as he shrugged. This shape pleased me, he said. In another hundred years, I may lose interest in the beasts of the land, and instead decide that the beasts of the sea embody all that is good, and then I will cover myself with scales, transform my hands into fins and my feet into a tail, and I will vanish beneath the surface of the waves and never again be seen in Allegasia. If he was jesting, as Naswada believed, he showed no indication of it. Quite to the contrary, he was so serious she wondered if he was mocking her. Most interesting, 
she said. I hope the urge to become a fish does not strike you in the near future, for we have need of you on dry ground. Of course, if Galbatorix should decide to also enslave the sharks and the rockfish, why then a spellcaster who can breathe underwater may be of some use. Without warning, the twelve elves filled the air with their clear, bright laughter, and birds for over a mile in every direction burst into song. The elves' sudden shift in behavior reminded her of a word she had occasionally heard the dwarves use to describe them, capricious. It had seemed a harmless enough description when she was a girl. It reinforced her concept of the elves as creatures who flitted from one delight to another, like fairies in a garden of flowers. But she now recognized that what the dwarves really meant was, Beware, beware, for you never know what an elf will do. It was mid-afternoon the day after they had left Eastcroft, when Aragon sensed the patrol of soldiers ahead of them. He mentioned it to Arya, and she nodded. I noticed them as well. Worry began to gnaw at Aragon's belly, and Arya's eyebrows lowered into a fierce frown. We could dig a hole with magic, cover the top with brush, and hide in it until they leave, said Aragon. Arya shook her head. What would we do with the excess dirt? I would rather save our energy for running. Aragon grunted. I'm not sure how many more miles I have left in me. The previous night he had healed several of the aches and pains troubling him, but the spells only exacerbated his exhaustion. If all went well, the soldiers would assume they were just another pair of refugees. It took the better part of an hour for the two groups to meet. When they did, Aragon and Arya moved off the road. Aragon caught a glimpse of horse legs from under the edge of his brow as the first few riders pounded past, but then choking dust billowed over him, obscuring the rest of the patrol. A moment later, someone shouted, Company! Halt! The men coaxed their mounts to form a circle around Aragon and Arya. Aragon pawed the ground for a large pebble, then stood back up. Be still, hissed Arya. The voice that had ordered the patrol to halt again issued forth. Let me see your faces. Raising his head, Aragon saw a man sitting before them on a roan charger. The other soldiers held spears pointed at Aragon and Arya. Now then, said the commander, who are you? Where are you going? Then he waved a hand. No, don't bother answering. It doesn't matter. The world is coming to an end, and we waste our days interrogating peasants. What have you got in that pack of yours, eh? Langwood, why don't you see what you could excavate from yonder knapsack? Aragon staggered as one of the soldiers struck him across the back. He had wrapped his armor in rags to keep the pieces from rubbing against each other. The rags, however, were too thin to muffle the clang of metal. Look, sir! Armor, and a fine make as well. Going to join the Varden, were you? Or are you a mercenary? You don't even have a weapon. Answer me. No, sir. No, sir. It's a pity we have to accept such wretches. Accept me where, sir? Silence, the man gestured. Red lights exploded across Aragon's field of vision as the soldier behind him bashed him on the head. Whether you are a traitor or a mercenary, your fate will be the same. Once you swear the oath of service, you will have no choice but to obey Galbatorix. You shall join our cause. As for your 
lovely companion, there are other ways she can be of use to the Empire. Aragon knew then what he had to do. His hand tightened around the pebble. He cocked his arm, and with a flick of his wrist, threw the pebble at the man. The pebble punctured the side of his helm. Then he twisted around, yanked the spear from the hands of the man who had been tormenting him, and used it to knock him off his horse. As the man landed, Aragon stabbed him through the heart. He dove backward, passing underneath spears that were flying toward him. The instant Aragon had released the pebble, Arya bounded up the side of the horse nearest her, jumping from stirrup to saddle, and kicked the head of the soldier who was perched on the mare. She leapt from the back of horse to horse, killing the soldiers with her knees, her feet, and her hands. Rocks tore at Aragon's stomach as he tumbled to a stop. He sprang upright. Four soldiers who had dismounted confronted him with drawn swords. He caught the first soldier's wrist as the man swung his sword and punched him in the armpit. Aragon dispatched his next opponents by twisting their heads until their spines snapped. The fourth soldier was so close by then, running at him with sword held high, Aragon could not evade him. Trapped, he did the one thing he could. He struck the man in the chest with all his might. The blow staved in the man's ribs and propelled him more than a dozen feet over the grass. Aragon gasped and doubled over. Four of his knuckles were disjointed, and white cartilage showed through his skin. He realized that his hand would be useless until he could heal it. He looked around for Arya and the rest of the soldiers. Only three soldiers remained. Arya was grappling with two of them some distance away, while the third soldier fled along the road. Aragon pursued him. As he narrowed the gap between them, the man began to plead for mercy, tears streaming down his cheeks. What have you against me? He sobbed. I only did what I had to. I'm a good person. We can't leave you. You'll catch a horse and betray us. No, I won't. People will ask what happened here. Your oath to Galbatorix and the Empire won't let you lie. I don't know how to release you from your bond, except... Aragon placed his left hand around the man's neck and squeezed. The soldier fell across his feet, dead. Shaking with shock, pain, and self-loathing, he walked back to Arya. She was kneeling beside a body. How is it you could kill that man, but you could not bring yourself to lay a finger on Sloane? He was a threat. Sloane wasn't. Isn't it obvious? It ought to be, but it isn't. I feel like a murderer. Remember, Aragon, you have experienced only a small part of what it means to be a dragon rider. This war will end, and you will see that your duties encompass more than violence. The riders were not just warriors. They were teachers, healers, and scholars. Why are we fighting these men, Arya? Because they stand between us and Galbatorix. Then we should find a way to strike at Galbatorix directly. None exist. We cannot march to Urubain until we defeat his forces, and we cannot enter his castle until we disarm almost a century's worth of traps, magical and otherwise. There has to be a way, he muttered. He remained where he was as Arya strode forward and picked up a spear. But when she placed the tip of the spear under the chin of a slain soldier and thrust it into his skull, Aragon sprang toward her and pushed her away from the body. What are you doing? he shouted. Anger flashed across Arya's face. I will forgive that, only because you are distraught and not of your right mind. 
If we don't, the Empire will notice that most of the men were killed by hand. The only ones capable of such a feat are elves, riders, and cull. They'll soon know we are in the area, and in less than a day, Thorn and Murtag will be flying overhead, searching for us. Arya scavenged a sword, and together they set out to make it appear as if a troop of ordinary warriors had killed the soldiers. Aragon rested for a moment, contemplating the commander, then said, He was right, you know. About what? I need a weapon, a proper weapon. I need a sword. He went and collected his scattered armor and returned it to the bottom of his pack. Then he joined Arya on the low hillock she had climbed. We had best avoid the roads from now on, she said. We cannot risk another encounter with Galbatorix's men. Indicating his right hand, which stained his tunic with blood, she said, You should tend to that before we set forth. She grasped his paralyzed fingers and said, Vesahel! A groan escaped him as his fingers popped back into their sockets. When the spell ended, he opened and closed his hand to confirm it was fully cured. Thank you, he said. I am glad you were by my side today, Aragon. And you by mine. We should be off. Someone else is bound to appear and raise a cry when they discover this. They orientated themselves in a southwesterly direction, angling away from the road, and loped out across the sea of grass. That night, Aragon sat staring at their meager fire. It was late and they would have to get an early start the next morning. But he made no move to retire, nor did Arya. I could use some sort of protection for my hands, Aragon thought. With a smile, he remembered how the dwarf, Shurgneen, had a steel spike threaded into a metal base. The concept appealed to Aragon, but he was not about to start drilling holes in his knuckles. But maybe instead I can... Bending low over his hands, he whispered... Fifaven. The backs of his hands began to crawl and prickle. As he watched, the skin on his knuckles bulged, forming a flat, whitish callus half an inch thick over each joint. Brimming with silent excitement, he struck the top of a domed rock that rose out of the ground between his legs. The impact caused him no more discomfort than it would have to punch a board covered with several layers of cloth. What are you doing? asked Arya. Nothing. Then he held out his hands. I thought it would be a good idea, since I'll probably have to hit someone. Arya studied his knuckles. You are going to have difficulty wearing gloves. I can always cut them open to make room. She nodded and returned to gazing at the fire. He fixed his gaze on the flickering depths of the flames. There, in that writhing inferno, he sought to forget his cares and responsibilities but the constant motion of the flames soon lulled him into a passive state where unrelated fragments of thoughts, sounds, images, and emotions drifted through him like snowflakes falling from a calm winter's sky. And amid that flurry, there appeared the face of the soldier who had begged for his life. Again Aragon saw him crying, and again he heard his desperate pleas, and again he felt how his neck snapped like a wet branch of wood. Tormented by the memories, Aragon clenched his teeth and breathed hard through flared nostrils. Cold sweat sprang up over his entire body. He shifted in place and strove to dispel the soldier's unfriendly ghost, but to no avail. 
Go away, he shouted. It wasn't my fault. Galbatorix is the one you should blame, not me. I didn't want to kill you. Somewhere in the darkness surrounding them, a wolf howled. From various locations across the plains, a score of other wolves answered, raising their voices in a discordant melody. The eerie singing made Aragon's scalp tingle and goosebumps break out on his arms. Then, for a brief moment, the howls coalesced into a single note that was similar to the battle cry of a charging cull. Aragon shifted, uneasy. What's wrong? asked Arya. Is it the wolves? They shall not bother us, you know. They are teaching their pups how to hunt, and they won't allow their younglings near creatures who smell as strangely as we do. It's not the wolves out there, said Aragon, hugging himself. It's the wolves in here. He tapped the middle of his forehead. Arya nodded, a sharp bird-like motion that betrayed the fact she was not human, even though she had assumed the shape of one. It is always thus. The monsters of the mind are far worse than those that actually exist. Fear, doubt, and hate have hamstrung more people than beasts ever have. And love, he pointed out. And love, she admitted, also greed and jealousy, and every other obsessive urge the sentient races are susceptible to. Aragon thought of Tenga, alone in the ruined elf outpost of Idur Ithindra, hunched over his precious hoard of tomes, searching, always searching, for his elusive answer. He refrained from mentioning the hermit to Arya, for it was not in him to discuss that curious encounter at the present. Instead, he asked, does it bother you when you kill? Arya's green eyes narrowed. Neither I nor the rest of my people eat the flesh of animals, because we cannot bear to hurt another creature to satisfy our hunger, and you have the effrontery to ask if killing disturbs us. Do you really understand so little of us that you believe we are cold-hearted murderers? No, of course not. That's not what I meant. Then say what you mean, and do not give insult unless it is your intention. Choosing his words with greater care now, Aragon said, I asked this of Roran before we attacked Hellgrind, or a question very like it. What I want to know is, how do you feel when you kill? How are you supposed to feel? He scowled at the fire. Do you see the warriors you have vanquished staring back at you, as real as you are before me? Arya tightened her arms around her legs her gaze pensive. A flame jetted upward as the fire incinerated one of the moths circling the camp. Ganga, she murmured, and motioned with a finger. With a flutter of downy wings, the moths departed. Never lifting her eyes from the clump of burning branches, she said, Nine months after I became an ambassador, my mother's only ambassador, if truth be told, I traveled from the Vaden in Fadendur to the capital of Surda, which was still a new country in those days. Soon after my companions and I left the Bior Mountains, we encountered a band of roving Urgers. We were content to keep our swords in their sheaths and continue on our way, but, as is their wont, the Urgels insisted on trying to win honor and glory to better their standing within their tribes. Our force was larger than theirs, for Weldon, the man who succeeded Brom as leader of the Varden was with us, and it was easy for us to drive them off. That day was the first time 
I took a life. It troubled me for weeks afterward, until I realized I would go mad if I continued to dwell upon it. Many do, and they become so angry, so grief-ridden, they can no longer be relied upon, or their hearts turn to stone, and they lose the ability to distinguish right from wrong. How did you come to terms with what you had done? I examined my reasons for killing, to determine if they were just. Satisfied they were, I asked myself if our cause was important enough to continue supporting it, even though it would probably require me to kill again. Then, I decided that whenever I began to think of the dead, I would picture myself in the gardens of Tialdari Hall. Did it work? Brushing her hair out of her face, she tucked it behind one round ear. It did. The only antidote for the corrosive poison of violence is finding peace within yourself. It's a difficult cure to obtain, but well worth the effort. She paused and then added, Breathing helps, too. Breathing? Slow, regular breathing. As if you are meditating. It is one of the most effective methods for calming yourself. Following her advice, Aragon began to consciously inhale and exhale, taking care to maintain a steady tempo and to expel all the air from his lungs with each breath. Within a minute, the knot inside his gut loosened, his frown eased, and the presence of his fallen enemies no longer seemed quite so tangible. The wolves howled again, and after the initial burst of trepidation, he listened without fear, for their baying had lost the power to unsettle him. Thank you, he said. Arya responded with a gracious tilt of her chin. Silence reigned for a quarter of an hour, until Aragon said, What do you think about Naswada allowing Urgles to join the Varden? It was a courageous decision, and I admire her for it. How is it that Durza was able to ambush you, Glenwing, and Fowlin with Urgles? Didn't you have wards to protect yourself against physical attacks? The arrows were enchanted. Were the Urgles spellcasters then? Closing her eyes, Arya sighed and shook her head. No, it was some dark magic of Durza's invention. He gloated about it when I was in Gilead. I don't know how you managed to resist him for so long. I saw what he did to you. It was not easy. I viewed the torments he inflicted on me as a test of my commitment, as a chance to demonstrate that I had not made a mistake and I was indeed worthy of the Yahweh symbol. As such, I welcomed the ordeal. But still, even elves are not immune to pain. It's amazing you could keep the location of Elismira hidden from him all those months. A touch of pride colored her voice. Not just the location of Elismera, but also where I had sent Safira's egg, my vocabulary in the ancient language, and everything else that might be of use to Gerbatorix. The conversation lapsed, and then Aragon said, Do you think about it much? What you went through in Gilead? When she did not respond, he added, You never talk about it. You recount the facts of your imprisonment readily enough, but you never mention what it was like for you nor how you feel about it now. Pain is pain. It needs no description. True, but ignoring it can cause more harm than the original injury. No one can live through something like that and escape unscathed. 
not on the inside at least. Why do you assume I have not already confided in someone? Who? Does it matter? Ajihad, my mother, a friend in Elismera. Perhaps I'm wrong, but you do not seem that close to anyone. Where you walk, you walk alone, even among your own people. Arya's countenance remained impassive. Her lack of expression was so complete, Aragon began to wonder if she would deign to respond, a doubt that had just transformed into conviction when she whispered, It was not always so. Alert, Aragon waited without moving, afraid that whatever he might do would stop her from saying more. Once, I had someone to talk to, someone who understood what I was and where I came from. Once, he was older than I, but we were kindred spirits, both curious about the world outside our forest, eager to explore and eager to strike against Galbatorix. Neither of us could bear to stay in Dueldenwarden, studying, working magic, pursuing our own personal projects, when we knew the dragon killer, the bane of the riders, was searching for a way to conquer our race. He came to that conclusion later than I, decades after I assumed my position as ambassador and a few years before Hefring stole Saphira's egg. But the moment he did, he volunteered to accompany me wherever Islanzadi's orders might take me. She blinked, and her throat convulsed. I wasn't going to let him, but the queen liked the idea, and he was so very convincing. She pursed her lips and blinked again, her eyes brighter than normal. As gently as he could, Aragon asked, Was it Feolin? Yes, she said, releasing the confirmation almost as a gasp. Did you love him? Casting back her head, Arya gazed up at the twinkling sky, her long neck gold with firelight, her face pale with the radiance of the heavens. Do you ask out of friendly concern or your own self-interest? She gave an abrupt, choked laugh, the sound of water falling over cold rocks. <laughs> Never mind. The night air has addled me. It has undone my sense of courtesy and left me free to say the most spiteful things that occur to me. No matter. It does matter because I regret it and I shall not tolerate it. Did I love Fairlin? How would you define love? For over twenty years we traveled together, the only immortals to walk among the short-lived races. We were companions. And friends. A pang of jealousy afflicted Aragon. He wrestled with it, subdued it, and tried to eliminate it, but was not altogether successful. A slight remnant of the feeling continued to aggravate him, like a splinter burrowing underneath his skin. Over twenty years, repeated Arya. Persisting in her survey of the constellations, she rocked back and forth, seemingly oblivious to Aragon. And then, in a single instant, Durza tore that away from me. Feolin and Glenwing were the first elves to die in combat for nearly a century. When I saw Feolin fall, I understood then that the true agony of war isn't being wounded yourself. It's having to watch those you care about. 
being hurt. Aragon realized she was crying, thick tears rolling from the outer corners of her eyes, down her temples and into her hair. By the stars, her tears appeared like rivers of silvered glass. The intensity of her distress startled him. He had not thought it was possible to elicit such a reaction from her, nor had he intended to. Then, Gilead, she said, those days were the longest of my life. Feolin was gone. I did not know whether Sephira's egg was safe, or if I had inadvertently returned to Dugabatorix, and Durza sated the bloodlust of the spirits that controlled him by doing the most horrible things he could imagine to me. Sometimes, if he went too far, he would heal me, so he could begin anew the following morning. If he had given me a chance to collect my wits, I might have been able to fool my jailer, as you did, and avoid consuming the drug that kept me from using magic, but I never had more than a few hours' respite. Durza needed sleep no more than you or I, and he kept at me whenever I was conscious and his other duties permitted, while he worked on me. Every second was an hour, every hour a week, and every day an eternity. He was careful not to drive me mad. Galbatorix would have been displeased with that, but he came close. He came very, very close. I began to hear birdsong where no birds could fly, and to see things that could not exist. Once, when I was in my cell, gold light flooded the room, and I grew warm all over. When I looked up, I found myself lying on a branch, high in a tree, near the center of Elismera. The sun was about to set, and the whole city glowed as if it were on fire. The Athalvad were chanting on the path below, and everything was so calm, so peaceful, so beautiful, I would have stayed there forever. But then the light faded, and I was again on my cot. I had forgotten. But once there was a soldier who left a white rose in my cell. It was the only kindness anyone ever showed me in Gilead. That night the flower took root and matured into a huge rosebush that climbed the wall, forced its way between the blocks of stone in the ceiling, breaking them, and pushed its way out of the dungeon and into the open. It continued to ascend until it touched the moon and stood as a great twisting tower that promised escape if I could but lift myself off the floor. I tried with every ounce of my remaining strength, but it was beyond me. And when I glanced away, the rose bush vanished. That was my state of mind when you dreamed of me, and I felt your presence hovering over me. Small wonder I disregarded the sensation as another delusion. She gave him a wan smile. And then you came, Aragon. You and Sophira. After hope had deserted me, and I was about to be taken to Galbatorix in Urubain, a rider appeared to rescue me, a rider and dragon. And Morzan's son, he said, both of Morzan's sons. Describe it how you will, it was such an improbable rescue. I occasionally think that I did go mad, and that I've imagined everything since. Would you have imagined me causing so much trouble by staying behind at Hellgrind? No, 
I suppose not. With the cuff of her left sleeve, she dabbed her eyes, drying them. When I awoke in Farthendur, there was too much that needed doing for me to dwell on the past. But the events of late have been dark and bloody, and increasingly I have found myself remembering that which I should not. It makes me grim and out of sorts, without patience for the ordinary delays of life. She shifted into a kneeling position and placed her hands on the ground on either side of her, as if to steady herself. You say I walk alone. Elves do not incline toward the open displays of friendship, humans and dwarves' favor, and I have ever been of a solitary disposition. But if you had known me before Gilead, if you had known me as I was, you would not have considered me so aloof. Then I could sing and dance and not feel threatened by a sense of impending doom. Reaching out, Aragon placed his right hand over her left. The stories about the heroes of old never mention that this is the price you pay when you grapple with the monsters of the dark and the monsters of the mind. Keep thinking about the gardens of Tildari Hall, and I'm sure you will be fine. Arya permitted the contact between them to endure for almost a minute, a time not of heat or passion for Aragon, but rather of quiet companionship. He made no attempt to press his suit with her, for he cherished her trust more than anything beside his bond with Zephira, and he would sooner march into battle than endanger it. Then, with a slight lift of her arm, Arya let him know the moment had passed, and without complaint, he withdrew his hand. Eager to lighten her burden however he could, Aragon glanced about the ground nearest him, and then murmured so softly as to be inaudible, Moivisa. He sifted through the earth by his feet until his fingers closed upon what he sought, a thin papery disc, half the size of his smallest fingernail. The brown flake in his hand trembled and then swelled and bulged, becoming spherical. A thin green stem shot nearly a foot in the air. Then the tip of the stem split into five segments to reveal the waxy petals of a deep-throated lily. The flower was pale blue and shaped like a bell. Satisfied with what he had wrought, he handed the lily to Arya. It's not a white rose, but... <laughs> he smiled and shrugged. You should not have, she said. But I am glad you did. She caressed the underside of the blossom and lifted it to smell. The lines on her face eased. For several minutes she admired the lily. Then she scooped a hole in the soil next to her and planted the bulb, pressing down the soil with the flat of her hand. She touched the petals again and kept glancing at the lily as she said, Thank you. Giving flowers is a custom both our races share but we elves attach greater importance to the practice than do humans. It signifies all that is good. Life, beauty, rebirth, friendship, and more. I explain so you understand how much this means to me. You did not know, but I knew. Arya regarded him with a solemn countenance, as if to decide what he was about. Forgive me. 
That is twice now I have forgotten the extent of your education. I shall not make the mistake again. She repeated her thanks in the ancient language, and, joining her in her native tongue, Aragon replied that it was his pleasure, and he was happy she enjoyed his gift. He shivered, hungry, despite the meal they had just eaten. Noticing, Arya said, You used too much of your strength. If you have any energy left in Aren, use it to steady yourself. It took Aragon a moment to remember that Aren was the name of Brahm's ring. He had heard it uttered only once before, from Islanzadi, on the day he arrived in Alasmira. My ring now, he told himself. I have to stop thinking of it as Brahm's. He cast a critical gaze at the large sapphire that sparkled in its gold setting on his finger. I don't know if there is any energy in Aran. I've never stored any there myself, and I never checked if Brahm had. Even as he spoke, he extended his consciousness toward the sapphire. The instant his mind came into contact with the gem, he felt the presence of a vast, swirling pool of energy. To his inner eye, the sapphire thrummed with power. He wondered that it did not explode from the amount of force contained within the boundaries of its sharp-edged facets. After he used the energy to wash away his aches and pains and restore strength to his limbs, the treasure trove inside Aren was hardly diminished. His skin tingling, Aragon severed his link with the gem. Delighted by his discovery and his sudden sense of well-being, he laughed out loud, then told Arya what he had found. Brahm must have squirreled away every bit of energy he could spare the whole time he was hiding in Carva Hall. He laughed again, marveling. All those years! With what's in Aran, I could tear apart an entire castle with a single spell. He knew he would need it to keep the new rider safe when Sephira hatched, observed Arya. If I were you, I would save the energy he left you for your hour of greatest need, and I would add to it whenever I could. It is an incredibly valuable resource. You should not squander it. No, thought Aragon. That I will not. He twirled the ring around his finger, admiring how it gleamed in the firelight. Since Murtag stole Zarok, this, Zephyr's saddle, and Snowfire are the only things I have of Brahm. And even though the dwarves brought Snowfire from Farthendur, I rarely ride him nowadays. Aren is really all I have to remember him by. My only legacy of him. My only inheritance. I wish he were still alive. I never had a chance to talk with him about Oramus, Murtag, my father, or oh, the list is endless. What would he have said about my feelings for Arya? Aragon snorted to himself. I know what he would have said. He would have berated me for being a love-struck fool and for wasting my energy on a hopeless cause. And he would have been right, too, I suppose. But, oh, how can I help it? She's the only woman I wish to be with. The fire cracked. A flurry of sparks flew upward. Aragon watched with half-closed eyes, contemplating Arya's revelations. Then his mind returned to a question that had been bothering him ever since the battle on the burning plains. Arya, do male dragons grow any faster than female dragons? No. Why do you ask? Because of Thorn. He's only a few months old, and yet he's already nearly as big as Sephira. I don't understand it. Picking a dry blade of grass, Arya began sketching in the loose soil tracing the curved shapes of glyphs from the elves' script, the Liduen Cavedi. 
Most likely, Galbatorix accelerated his growth, so Thorn would be large enough to hold his own with Sephira. Ah, but isn't that dangerous, though? Oramus told me that if he used magic to give me the strength, speed, endurance, and other skills I needed, I would not understand my new abilities, as well as if I had gained them the ordinary way, by hard work. And he was right, too. Even now the changes the dragons made to my body during the Agathe Blodren still sometimes catch me by surprise. Arian nodded and continued sketching glyphs in the dirt. It is possible to reduce the undesirable side effects by certain spells, but it is a long and arduous process. If you wish to achieve true mastery of your body, it is still best to do so through normal means. The transformation Galbatorix has forced upon Thorn must be incredibly confusing for him. Thorn now has the body of a nearly grown dragon, and yet his mind is still that of a youngling. Aragon fingered the newly formed calluses on his knuckles. Do you also know why Murtag is so powerful, more powerful than I am? If I did, no doubt I would also understand how Galbatorix has managed to increase his own strength to such unnatural heights, but alas, I do not. Why is it, he asked, speaking slowly as he organized his thoughts, that no one ever refers to the dragons of the Forsworn by name. We say Morzan's dragon or Kialandi's dragon, but we never actually name the dragon. Surely they were as important as their riders. I don't even remember seeing their names in the scrolls Oramus gave me, although they must have been there. Yes, I'm certain they were, but for some reason they don't stick in my head. Isn't that strange? Did none of your lessons speak of this? asked Arya. She seemed genuinely surprised. I think Glader mentioned something about it to Sephira, but I'm not exactly sure. It is one of the most significant events that happened during the fighting between the riders and the Forsworn. When the dragons realized that thirteen of their own had betrayed them, that those thirteen were helping Galbatorix to eradicate the rest of their race, and that it was unlikely anyone could stop their rampage, the dragons grew so angry. Every dragon, not of the Forsworn, combined their strength and wrought one of their inexplicable pieces of magic. Together, they stripped the thirteen of their names. Awe crawled over Aragon. How is that possible? Did I not just say it was inexplicable? All we know is that after the dragons cast their spell, no one could utter the names of the thirteen. Those who remembered the names soon forgot them. And, while you can read the names in scrolls and letters where they are recorded, and even copy them, if you look at only one glyph at a time, they are as gibberish. The dragons spared Yunanvosk, Galbatorix's first dragon, for it was not his fault he was killed by Urgles, and also Shrikan, for he did not choose to serve Galbatorix, but was forced to by Galbatorix and Morzan. What a terrible fate! to lose one's name, thought Aragon. He shivered. If there's one thing I've learned since becoming a rider, it's that you never, ever want to have a dragon for an enemy. What about their true names? he asked. Did they erase those as well? Arya nodded. True names, birth names, nicknames, family names, titles, everything. And, as a result, the thirteen were reduced to little more than animals. 
No longer could they say, I like this, or I dislike that, or I have green scales, for to say that would be to name themselves. They could not even call themselves dragons. Word by word, the spell obliterated everything that defined them as thinking creatures, and the Forsworn had no choice but to watch in silent misery as the dragons descended into complete ignorance. The experience was so disturbing, at least five of the thirteen and several of the Forsworn went mad as a result. Arya paused, considering the outline of a glyph, then rubbed it out and redrew it. The banishing of the names is the main reason so many people now believe that dragons were nothing more than animals to ride from one place to another. They wouldn't believe that if they had met Sephira, said Aragon. Arya smiled. No. Has anyone tried to guess Galbatorix's true name? Aragon asked. It seems as if that would be the fastest way to end this war. To be honest, I think it might be the only hope we have of vanquishing him in battle. Were you not being honest with me before? asked Arya, a gleam in her eyes. Her question forced him to chuckle. No, of course not. It's, it's just a figure of speech. And a poor one at that, unless you happen to be in the habit of lying. Aragon floundered for a moment before he caught hold of his thread of speech again and could say, I know it would be hard to find Galbatorix's true name, but if all the elves and all the members of the Varden who know the ancient language searched for it, we could not help but succeed. Like a pale sun-bleached pennant, the dry blade of grass hung from between Arya's left thumb and forefinger. It trembled in sympathy with each surge of blood through her veins. Pinching it at the top with her other hand, she tore the leaf in half lengthwise, then did the same with each of the resulting strips, quartering the leaf. Then she began to plait the strips, forming a stiff braided rod. She said, Galbatorix's true name is no great secret. Three different elves, one a rider and two ordinary spellcasters, discovered it on their own and many years apart. They did? exclaimed Aragon. Unperturbed, Arya picked another blade of grass, tore it into strips, inserted the pieces in the gaps in her braided rod, and continued plaiting in a different direction. We can only speculate whether Galbatorix himself knows his true name. I am of the opinion that he does not, for whatever it is, his true name must be so terrible he could not go on living if he heard it. Unless he is so evil or so demented, the truth about his actions has no power to disturb him. Perhaps. Her nimble fingers flew so fast, twisting, braiding, weaving, that they were nearly invisible. She picked two more blades of grass. Either way, Galbatorix is certainly aware that he has a true name, like all creatures and things, and that it is a potential weakness. At some point before he embarked upon his campaign against the riders, he cast a spell that kills whoever uses his true name. And since we do not know exactly how this spell kills, we cannot shield ourselves from it. You see, then, why we have all but abandoned that line of inquiry. Oromus is one of the few who are brave enough to continue seeking out Galbatorix's name, albeit in a roundabout manner. With a pleased expression, she held out her hands, palms upward. Resting on them was an exquisite ship made of green and white grass. It was no more than four inches long, but so detailed, 
Aragon descried benches for rowers, tiny railings along the edge of the deck, and portholes the size of raspberry seeds. The curved prow was shaped somewhat like the head and neck of a rearing dragon. There was a single mast. It's beautiful, he said. Arya leaned forward and murmured, Frauga. She gently blew upon the ship, and it rose from her hands and sailed around the fire and then, gathering speed, slanted upward and glided off into the sparkling depths of the night sky. How far will it go? Forever, she said. It takes the energy to stay aloft from the plants below. Wherever there are plants, it can fly. The idea bemused Aragon, but he also found it rather sad to think of the pretty grass ship wandering among the clouds for the rest of eternity with none but birds for company. Imagine the stories people will tell about it in years to come. Arya knit her long fingers together, as if to keep them from making something else. Many such oddities exist in the world. The longer you live and the farther you travel, the more of them you will see. Aragon gazed at the pulsing fire for a while, then said, If it's so important to protect your true name, should I cast a spell to keep Galbatorix from using my true name against me? You can if you wish to, said Arya, but I doubt it's necessary. True names are not so easy to find as you think. Galbatorix does not know you well enough to guess your name, and if he were inside your mind and able to examine your every thought and memory, you would be already lost to him, true name or no. If it is any comfort, I doubt that even I could divine your true name. Couldn't you? he asked. He was both pleased and displeased that she believed any part of him was a mystery to her. She glanced at him and then lowered her eyes. No, I do not think so. Could you guess mine? No. Silence enveloped their camp. Above, the stars gleamed cold and white. A wind sprang up from the east and raced across the plains, battering the grass and wailing with a long, thin voice as if lamenting the loss of a loved one. Arya made as if to stand, then stopped in a half-crouch, her expression alert. Aragon felt it as well. The air prickled and hummed, as if a bolt of lightning were about to strike. What is it? he asked. We are being watched. In the distance, a cluster of glowing multicolored lights appeared. They darted toward the camp, flying low over the grass. The lights moved so fast he could not determine exactly how many there were, but he guessed it was about two dozen. The lights hurtled into the camp and formed a whirling wall around him and Arya. What do they want? shouted Aragon, but she did not answer. A single orb detached itself from the wall and hung before Arya. Her face calm, she laid her hand upon the lambent orb. She closed her eyes and tilted her head back, radiant joy suffusing her features. Her lips moved, but whatever she said, Aragon could not hear. The orb rejoined its companions in the swirling vortex of light, and then the vortex exploded outward as the blazing orbs scattered in every direction. What are they? Aragon asked. Spirits, said Arya. 
They don't look like the ones that came out of Durza when I killed him. Spirits can assume many different guises, dictated by their whim, she said. They always induce a sense of rapture when they choose to communicate with we who are made of matter, but do not allow them to deceive you. They are not as benevolent, content, or cheerful as they would have you believe. What was it you said to the spirit? It was curious why we had been using magic. That was what brought us to their attention, I explained, and I also explained that you were the one who freed the spirits trapped inside of Dursa. That seemed to please them a great deal. Silence crept between them, and then she sidled toward the lily and touched it again. Oh, she said, they were indeed grateful. Nena! At her command, a wash of soft light illuminated the camp. By it, he saw that the leaf and stem of the lily were solid gold. The petals were a whitish metal he failed to recognize, and the heart of the flower, as Arya revealed by tilting the blossom upward, appeared to have been carved out of rubies and diamonds. It's a perfect copy, he said, and it is still alive. No! Concentrating, he searched for the faint signs of warmth and movement that would indicate the lily was more than an inanimate object. He located them, strong as they ever were in a plant during the night. Fingering the leaf again, he said, This is beyond everything I know of magic. The real question, said Arya, is whether this flower will produce seeds that are fertile. It could spread? I would not be surprised if it does. Unfortunately, every fortune hunter in the land would come here to pick the golden lilies. They will not be so easy to destroy, I think, but uh, only time will tell for sure. A laugh bubbled up inside of Aragon. With barely contained glee, he said, I've heard the expression to gild the lily before, but the spirits actually did it. They gilded the lily. <laughs> and he fell to laughing, letting his voice boom across the empty plain. It was mid-afternoon when the Varden finally came into sight. Aragon and Arya stopped on the crest of a low hill and studied the sprawling city of grey tents that lay before them. A broad smile stretched Aragon's face, and he laughed, relieved. We made it! he exclaimed. Murtag! Thorn! Hundreds of soldiers! Galbatorix's pet magicians! The Razak! None of them could catch us! You are in fine fettle today? And why shouldn't I be? he demanded. Bouncing on the tips of his toes, he opened his mind as wide as he could, and gathering his strength, shouted, Sephira! Sending the thought flying over the countryside like a spear. A response was not long in coming. Eragon! They embraced with their minds, smothering each other with warm waves of love, joy, and concern. I missed you, he said, and I you, little one. With a bugle of joy, Sephira dove out of the belly of a cloud several thousand feet overhead, spiraling toward the ground with her wings tucked close to her body. Opening her fearsome jaws, she released a billow of fire, which streamed back over her head and neck like a burning mane. Aragon laughed and held his arms outstretched to her. As Aragon ran towards her, she landed with a thunderous crash. Light as a feather, he leapt from her left foreleg to her shoulder, and thence to the hollow at the base of her neck that was his usual seat. 
Settling into place, he smiled again with a profound sense of contentment. This is where I belong, here with you. Greetings, Safira, said Arya, and twisted her hand over her chest in the elves' gesture of respect. Crouching low and bending her long neck, Safira touched Arya upon the brow with the tip of her snout, as she had when she blessed Elva in Farthandur, and said, Greetings, Arfakona. I am grateful to you for helping Eregon to return without harm. If he had been captured, I do not know what I would have done. Your gratitude means much to me, said Arya, and bowed. As for what you would have done if Galbatorix had seized Eregon, why, you would have rescued him, and I would have accompanied you, even if it was to Urobain itself. Then they advanced toward the Sea of Tents to the southwest. As they crossed the plain, more and more men congregated around Aragon and Zephyra, providing them with a wholly unnecessary but very impressive honor guard. After so long spent in the wilds of Alagazia, the dense press of bodies, the cacophony of high, excited voices, the storm of unguarded thoughts and emotions, and the confused motion of flailing arms and prancing horses were overwhelming for Aragon. He retreated deep within himself, where the discordant mental chorus was no louder than the distant thunder of crashing waves. Even through the layers of barriers, he sensed the approach of twelve elves, running in formation from the other side of the camp, swift and lean as yellow-eyed mountain cats. The twelve elves halted before Sephira. They bowed and twisted their hands, as Arya had done and one by one introduced themselves to Aragon with the initial phrase of the elves' traditional greeting, to which he replied with the appropriate lines. Then the lead elf, a tall, handsome male with glossy blue-black fur covering his entire body, proclaimed the purpose of their mission to everyone within earshot, and formally asked Aragon and Sephira if the twelve might assume their duties. You may, said Aragon. You may, said Sephira. When they arrived at the tents, the crowd swelled in size until half the Varden appeared to be gathered around Sephira. Aragon raised his hand in response as people shouted, Argent Lamb and Shade Slayer, and he heard others say, Where have you been, Shade Slayer? Tell us of your adventures. A fair number referred to him as the Bane of the Razak, which he found so immensely satisfying, he repeated the phrase four times to himself under his breath. Then, to his delight, Roran shouldered his way out of the throng, Katrina beside him. He and Roran embraced, and Roran growled, That was a fool thing to do, staying behind. Next time give me advance warning before you traipse off on your own. I'm sorry, but I did not realize it was necessary until the very last moment. And why was it exactly you remained in those foul caverns? Because there was something I had to investigate. Aragon feared Roran would insist on a more satisfactory explanation, but Roran said, Well, all that matters is that you helped free Katrina, and you are here now, safe and sound. He craned his neck, as if he were trying to see what lay on top of Zephira. Then he said, You lost my staff. I crossed the entire breadth of Alagazia with that staff. Couldn't you manage to hold on to it for more than a few days? It went to a man who needed it more than I, said Aragon. Oh, stop nipping at him, Katrina said to Roran, and after a moment's hesitation, she hugged Aragon. He really is very glad to see you, you know. He just has difficulty finding the words to say it. 
With a sheepish grin, Roran shrugged. She's right about me, as always. The two of them exchanged a loving glance. At Safira's urging, they resumed walking towards Nasuada's red pavilion in the center of the encampment. In due time, they and the host of cheering Varden arrived at its threshold, where Nasuada stood waiting, King Orin to her left, and scores of nobles and other notables gathered behind a double row of guards on either side. Aragon and Arya presented themselves to Nasuada and then to King Orin. Naswada gave them formal welcome on behalf of the Varden and praised them for their bravery. She finished by saying, The pretender's arm has grown weak indeed when he cannot defend his borders nor protect his foul agents within their hidden fortress. Beckoning to Aragon and Arya, Naswada placed her left hand on King Orin's arm and with him entered the pavilion. What about you? Aragon asked Sephira as he followed. Then he stepped inside the pavilion and saw that a panel at the back had been rolled up and tied to the wooden frame above so that Sephira might insert her head and participate in the goings-on. Six of Naswada's guards were present, two stationed by the entrance and four behind Naswada, and Aragon detected the convoluted pattern of Elva's dark and twisted thoughts from where the witch-child was hidden at the far end of the pavilion. King Oren looked at Naswada and said, I do not think we require your nighthawks to wait on us any longer. Agreed. Naswada clapped her hands, dismissing the six guards from the inside of the tent. Dragging a spare chair over to Naswada's, King Oren seated himself in a tangle of sprawling limbs and billowing fabric. Now, he said, switching his gaze between Aragon and Arya, let us have a full account of your doings, Aragon Shadeslayer. I have had only vague explanations for why you chose to delay at Hellgrind, and I have had my fill of evasions and deceptive answers. Until I am satisfied you have told me everything there is to tell, none of us shall so much as step outside of this tent. Her voice cold, Nasawada said, You assume too much, Your Majesty. You do not have the authority to bind me in place, nor Aragon, who is my vassal, nor Sephira nor Arya, who answers to no mortal lord, but rather to one more powerful than the two of us combined. Nor do we have the authority to bind you. The five of us are as close to equals as any of us is likely to find in Alagazia. You would do well to remember that. King Oren's response was equally flinty. If we are equals, I have yet to see evidence of it in your treatment of me. Since your investiture, you seem to have forgotten that I am still the king of Serda. You negotiate treaties and alliances, such as that with the Urgles, of your own initiative, and expect me and others to abide by your decisions. You arrange preemptive visits of state, such as that with Bludgarm Vorder, and do not wait for me to join you so we might greet his embassy together as equals. If you cannot bring yourself to respect my station and to accept a fair division of responsibility as two allies ought to, then I shall set myself against you, however I may. Alarmed by the direction the conversation had taken, Aragon said to Sephira, What should I do? I had not intended to tell anyone else about Sloane except for Nasuada. I cannot tell you what is best, Aragon. In this, you must rely upon your own judgment to win free of these treacherous downdrafts. In response to King Oren's sally, 
Naswada clasped her hands in her lap, and in a calm, even voice said, If I have slighted you, sire, then it was due to my own hasty carelessness, and not to any desire on my part to diminish you or your house. Please forgive my lapses. Oren inclined his head in a cool but gracious acceptance of her words. As for Eregon and his activities in the Empire, I could not have provided you with specific details, for I have had no further intelligence myself. It was not, as I am sure you can appreciate, the situation that I wished to advertise. No, of course not. Therefore, it seems to me that the swiftest cure for the dispute that afflicts us is to allow Eregon to lay bare the facts of his trip, that we may apprehend the full scope of this event and render judgment upon it. Eregon, it is time for your tale. With Naswada and the others gazing at him with wondering eyes, Eragon made his choice. Lifting his chin, he said, What I tell you, I tell you in confidence. It could cause a great deal of grief— if this knowledge were to be whispered in the wrong ears. A king does not remain king for long unless he appreciates the value of silence, said Oren. Without further ado, Aragon described everything that had happened to him in Helgrind and in the days that had followed. Afterward, Arya explained how she had gone about locating Aragon and then corroborated his account of their travels by providing several facts and observations of her own. Oren and Naswada remained lost deep in reflection for several minutes. Then Naswada smoothed the front of her dress and said, King Oren may be of a different opinion, and if so, I look forward to hearing his reasons. But for my part, I believe that you did the right thing, Eregon. As do I, said Oren, surprising them all. You do? exclaimed Eregon. He hesitated. I didn't expect you to look kindly upon my decision to spare Sloane's life. If I may ask, why— Why do we approve? King Oren interrupted. The rule of law must be upheld. If you had appointed yourself Sloane's executioner, Eregon, you would have taken for yourself the power that Naswada and I wield, and however benevolent you might be, that would be no good thing for our species. Humans are a short-lived race, and we should not be governed by one of the undying. We do not need another Galbatorix. A strange laugh escaped from Oren then, and his mouth twisted in a humorless smile. Do you understand, Aragon? You are so dangerous, we are forced to acknowledge the danger to your face, and hope that you are one of the few people able to resist the lure of power. King Oren laced his fingers together underneath his chin and gazed at a fold in his robes. I have said more than I intended. So, for all those reasons, and others besides, I agree with Naswada. You were right to stay your hand when you discovered this Sloane in Hellgrind. Naswada nodded. That was well spoken. Throughout, Arya listened with an inscrutable expression. Whatever her own thoughts on the matter were, she did not divulge them. At long last, King Oren bade them farewell, and departed to review the status of his cavalry. Arya left a minute later, explaining that she needed to report to Queen Islanzadi. When she was alone with Aragon and Sephira, Naswada sighed and leaned her head against the back of the chair. Aragon was shocked by how tired she appeared. She had, he realized, 
been pretending to be stronger than she was in order to avoid tempting her enemies and demoralizing the Varden with the spectacle of her weakness. Are you ill? he asked. She nodded toward her arms. Not exactly. It's taking me longer to recuperate than I had anticipated. One rule of the trial of the long knives is that you must allow your wounds to heal at their own pace, without magic. What if your wounds fester? Then they fester, and I shall pay the price for my mistake. But I doubt they will while Angela ministers to me. Sephira, who had been so still she appeared asleep, now yawned. Straightening in her seat, Naswada said, Ah, I am sorry. I know this has been tedious. After what you have been through, you must be famished. Go and bathe and garb yourself in your finest tunic. When you are presentable, I would be most pleased if you would consent to join me for my evening meal. Understand, you would not be my only guest, for the affairs of the Varden demand my constant attention. But you would brighten the proceedings considerably for me if you chose to attend. Aragon fought back a grimace at the thought of having to spend hours parrying verbal thrusts from those who sought to use him for their own advantage. Still, Naswada was not to be denied, so he bowed and agreed to her request. Aragon and Sephira left Naswada's crimson pavilion with the contingent of elves ranged about them and walked to the small tent that had been assigned to him when they had joined the Varden at the Burning Plains. After checking to ensure that none of his few possessions had been disturbed during his absence, Aragon unburdened himself of his pack and carefully removed his armor, storing it beneath his cot. It needed to be wiped and oiled, but that was a task that would have to wait. Then he reached even farther underneath the cot until his hand came into contact with a long, hard object. Grasping it, he lay the heavy cloth-wrapped bundle across his knees. He picked apart the knots in the wrapping and then began to unwind the coarse strips of canvas. Inch by inch, the scuffed leather hilt of Murtag's hand-and-a-half sword came into view. He sat and stared at the weapon, conflicted. He did not know what had prompted him, but the day after the battle, he had returned to the plateau and retrieved the sword from the morass of trampled dirt where Murtag had dropped it. Perhaps it was because Murtag had stolen his own sword that Aragon felt compelled to take up Murtag's. Perhaps it was because he still harbored a sense of latent affection for Murtag, despite the grim circumstances that had turned them against each other. As he gazed at the silver steel, Aragon composed a spell that would smooth the wrinkles from the blade, close the wedge-shaped gaps along the edges, and restore the strength of the temper. He wondered, however, if he ought to. What sort of message would it send to the rest of the Varden if he chose to wield the blade of another betrayer? I need a sword, he thought. But not this sword. He wrapped the blade again in its shroud of canvas and slid it back under the cot. Naswada was waiting for him by a row of three flagpoles, upon which a half-dozen gaudy pennants hung limp in the cooling air. She took his arm as they ambled through the sea of tents. Above, Sephira circled the camp, content to wait until they arrived at their destination before she went to the effort of landing. Naswada stopped before a tent that hummed with a multitude of unintelligible voices. Now we must dive into the swamp of politics again. Prepare yourself. She swept back the entrance flap, and Aragon jumped as a host of people shouted, Surprise! 
A wide trestle table laden with food dominated the center of the tent, and at the table were sitting Roran and Katrina, twenty or so of the villagers from Carvajal, including Horst and his family, Angela the herbalist, Jayod and his wife Helen, and several people Aragon did not recognize, but who had the look of sailors. Aragon grinned, overwhelmed. Before he could think of what to say, Angela raised her flagon and piped, Well, don't just stand there gaping. Come in, sit down. I'm hungry. Then the back of the tent bulged and parted as Sephira pushed her head inside. Meat, she said. I smell meat. For the next few hours, Aragon lost himself in a blur of food, drink, and the pleasure of good company. It was like returning home. The wine flowed like water, and after they had drained their cups once or twice, the villagers forgot their deference and treated him as one of their own, which was the greatest gift they could give. Elaine was the first to leave the party, pleading exhaustion brought on by her advanced state of pregnancy. One of her sons, Baldor, went with her. Half an hour later, Naswada also made to leave. As she moved away from the table, she beckoned to Aragon. He joined her by the entrance. Aragon, tomorrow and the day after are yours to spend as you will. But on the morning of the third day, present yourself at my pavilion and we shall talk about your future. I have a most important mission for you, my lady. Then he said, You keep Elva close at hand wherever you go, do you not? Aye, she is my safeguard against any danger that might slip past the Nighthawks. Also, her ability to divine what it is that pains people has proved enormously helpful. It is so much easier to obtain someone's cooperation when you are privy to all of their secret hurts. Are you willing to give that up? She studied him with a piercing gaze. You intend to remove your curse from Elva? I intend to try. Remember, I promised her I would. Yes. I was there. The crash of a falling chair distracted her for an instant. Then she said, Your promises will be the death of us. Elva is irreplaceable. No one else has her skill. I have even thought that, of all of us, she alone might be able to defeat Galbatorix. She would be able to anticipate his every attack, and your spell would show her how to counter them. If I may make a suggestion? What? Be honest with Elva. Explain to her what she means to the Varden, and ask her if she will continue to carry her burden for the sake of all free people. If she accepts, then it shall be of her own free will. With a slight frown, Naswada nodded. I shall speak with her tomorrow. You should be present as well, to help me persuade her, and to lift your curse, if we fail. Be at my pavilion three hours after dawn. And with that, she swept into the torchlit night outside. Much later, when the candles guttered in their sockets, Roran grasped Aragon's arm by the elbow and drew him through the back of the tent to stand by Sephira's side, where the others could not hear. What you said earlier about Hellgrind, was that all of it? he asked. His grip was like a pair of iron pincers clamped around Aragon's flesh. His eyes were hard and questioning, and also unusually vulnerable. Aragon held his gaze. If you trust me, Roran, never ask me that question again. It's not something you want to know. Even as he spoke, Aragon felt a deep sense of unease. He knew the deception was necessary, but it still made him uncomfortable to lie to his family. 
Roran hesitated, his face troubled. Then he set his jaw and released Aragon. I trust you. Roran laughed and rubbed his nose with a thumb. I have another question. Oh, it is a boon, a favor I seek of you. Will you marry Katrina and me? It would please me if you would. Astonished, Aragon was at a loss for words. At last, he managed to stammer, Me? Then he hastened to say, I would be happy to do it, of course, but <laughs> me? Is that really what you want? I'm sure Naswada would agree to marry the two of you. You could have King Oren, a real king. I want you, Aragon, said Roran, and clapped him on the shoulder. You are a rider, and you are the only other living person who shares my blood. Murtag does not count. Then, said Aragon, I shall. When? What about the day after tomorrow? So soon? Isn't that rushing it a bit? People will think it's unseemly. It can't wait. If we're not married, and quick, the old women will have something far more interesting to gossip about than my impatience. Do you understand? It took Aragon a moment to grasp Roran's meaning, but once he did, he could not stop a broad smile from spreading across his face. Roran's going to be a father, he thought. Still smiling, he said, I think so. The day after tomorrow it is. It was just after dawn when Aragon and Sephira started toward the center of the camp and Naswada's pavilion. It was less than a quarter of a mile away, so Sephira walked with him instead of soaring among the clouds as she had done before. About a hundred feet from the pavilion, they chanced upon Angela, the herbalist. She was kneeling between two tents, pointing at a square of leather draped across a low, flat rock. On the leather lay the knuckle bones of a dragon, with which she had read Aragon's future in Tyrm. Opposite Angela sat a tall woman with broad shoulders, a tanned, weather-beaten skin, and a face that was still handsome despite the hard lines that the years had carved around her mouth. She had tied a strip of dark cloth around each wrist, but the strip on the left had loosened and slipped toward her elbow. Aragon saw thick layers of scars where it had been. They were the sort of scars one could only get from the constant chafing of manacles. At some point, he realized, she had been captured by her enemies. He wondered whether she had been a criminal or a slave. Next to the woman was a serious-looking teenage girl, just entering into the full bloom of her adult beauty. The muscles of her forearms were unusually large, as if she had been an apprentice to a smith or a swordsman, which was highly improbable for a girl, no matter how strong she might be. Angela had just finished saying something to the woman and her companion when Aragon and Sephira halted behind the curly-haired witch. With a single motion, Angela gathered up the knuckle bones in the leather square and tucked them under the yellow sash at her waist. Standing, she flashed Aragon and Sephira a brilliant smile. My, you both have the most impeccable sense of timing. You always seem to turn up whenever the drop spindle of fate begins to spin. The drop spindle of fate? questioned Aragon. She shrugged. What? You can't expect brilliance all the time, not even from me. She gestured at the two strangers. Aragon, will you consent to give them your blessing? They have endured many dangers, and a hard road yet lies before them. Aragon hesitated. He knew that Angela rarely cast the dragon bones for the people who sought her services, usually only those for whom Salembum deigned to speak with. 
that Angela had chosen to do this for the handsome woman with the scars on her wrists and the teenage girl with the forearms of a sword fighter told him they were people of note, people who had and would have important roles in shaping the Allegasia to be. As if to confirm his suspicions, he spotted Salembum, in his usual form of a cat, lurking behind the corner of a nearby tent, watching the proceedings with enigmatic yellow eyes. And yet, Aragon still hesitated, haunted by the memory of the first and last blessing he had bestowed. Sephira, he asked. Her tail whipped through the air. Do not be so reluctant. You have learned from your mistake, and you shall not make it again. Why, then, should you withhold your blessing from those who may benefit from it? Bless them, I say, and do it properly this time. What are your names? he asked. If it please you, Shade Slayer, said the tall, black-haired woman, with a hint of an accent he could not place, names have power, and we would prefer ours to remain unknown. Aragon nodded, neither upset nor surprised, although the woman's reticence had piqued his curiosity even more. He would have liked to know their names, but they were not essential for what he was about to do. Pulling the glove off his right hand, he placed his palm on the middle of the woman's warm forehead. He felt her tremble, as if his touch pained her and she were fighting the urge to knock aside his arm. Disconcerted by her reaction, Aragon broached the barrier in his mind, immersed himself in the flow of magic, and with the full power of the ancient language, he ensured that it would shape the course of events and improve the woman's lot in life. It was with a sense of relief that he lifted his hand from the woman's brow, a sentiment that she seemed to share, for she stepped back and rubbed her arms like a person trying to cleanse herself of some foul substance. Moving on, Aragon repeated the procedure with the teenage girl. Her face widened as he released the spell, as if she could feel it becoming part of her body. She curtsied. Thank you, Shade Slayer. We are in your debt. I hope that you succeed in defeating Galbatorix and the Empire. Then the elder woman bowed to Angela, saying, Train hard, strike first, seer. Blight singer? With a swirl of skirts, the woman and the teenager strode away and soon were lost from sight in the maze of identical grey tents. As the three of them walked toward Naswada's pavilion, Aragon glanced at Angela. Who were they? Her lips quirked. Pilgrims on their own quest. That is hardly an answer, he complained. It is not my habit to hand out secrets like candied nuts on winter solstice, especially not when they belong to others. Sephira, Aragon, and Angela continued toward the pavilion, accompanied by Salembum, who had joined them without Aragon noticing. Angela said, So tell me, aside from your fight with the Razak, did anything terribly interesting happen to you during a trip? Since you ask, quite a few interesting things happened. For example, I met a hermit named Tenga living in the ruins of an elf tower. The witch seemed stunned. Are you sure his name was Tenga? Have you met him? Salembum hissed, and the hair on his back stood straight out. Met him? With a bitter laugh, Angela planted her hands on her hips. Met him? Why, I did better than that. I was his apprentice for... for an unfortunate number of years. Aragon had never expected Angela to willingly reveal anything about her past. Eager to learn more, he asked, When did you meet him? And where? Long ago and far away. However, we parted badly, and I have not seen him for many, many years. 
Angela frowned. In fact, I thought he was already dead. Sephira spoke then, saying, Since you were Tenga's apprentice, do you know what question he's trying to answer? I have not the slightest idea. He may have answered the hundred questions since I last saw him, or he may still be gnashing his teeth over the same conundrum as when I left him. Which was? Whether the phases of the moon influence the number and quality of the opals that form in the roots of the Beor Mountains, as is commonly held among the dwarves. But how could you prove that? objected Aragon. Angela shrugged. If anyone could, it would be Tanga. He may be deranged, but his brilliance is nonetheless for it. He is a man who kicks at cats, said Salembum, as if that summed up Tenga's entire character. You are late, said Naswada, as Aragon and Angela found seats in the row of chairs arranged in a semicircle before Naswada's high-backed throne. Also seated in the semicircle were Elva and her caretaker, Greta, the old woman who had pleaded with Aragon in Farthendur to bless her charge. As before, Sephira lay outside the pavilion and stuck her head through an opening at one end so she could participate in the meeting. Salembum had curled up in a ball next to her head. He appeared to be sound asleep, except for occasional flicks of his tail. Along with Angela, Aragon made his apologies for their tardiness, and then he listened as Naswada explained to Elva the value of her abilities to the Varden. As if she doesn't already know, Aragon commented to Sephira, and entreated her to release Aragon from his promise to try to undo the effects of his blessing. It was a magnificent speech, eloquent, impassioned, and full of arguments intended to appeal to Elva's more noble sentiments. Elva, who had been resting her small, pointed chin on her fists, raised her head and said, No. Shocked silence pervaded the pavilion. Do you truly understand, Naswada, Lady Nightstalker, she who would be queen of the world? Do you truly understand? Night and day, I have no respite from the pain of the world. Since Aragon blessed me, I have known nothing but hurt and fear, never happiness or pleasure. She shook her head. No, this is too much to ask of me. I have made my decision, and nothing you can say will convince me otherwise. In this, I am as iron. If Naswada was frustrated by Elva's obstinacy, she did not allow it to show, although her expression was stern, as befitted the discussion. She said, I suppose I cannot fault you. If I were in your position, it is possible I would act no differently. Aragon, if you will. At her bidding, Aragon knelt in front of Elva. Her lustrous violet eyes bored into him as he placed her small hands between his larger ones. Her flesh burned against his as if she had a fever. Will it hurt, Shade Slayer? Greta asked, the old woman's voice quavering. It shouldn't, but I do not know for sure. The wrinkles on her face contorted with worry, Greta patted Elva on the head, saying, Oh, be brave, my plum, be brave. She did not seem to notice the look of irritation Elva directed at her. Aragon ignored the interruption. Elva, listen to me. There are two different methods for breaking an enchantment. One is for the magician who originally cast the spell to recant not only the words of his spell, but also the intention behind it. This can be quite difficult, as you might imagine. 
Unless the magician has the right intent, he will end up altering the original spell instead of lifting it, and then he would have to unsay two intertwined spells. The other method is to cast a spell that directly counteracts the effects of the original spell. It does not eliminate the original spell, but if done properly, renders it harmless. With your permission, this is the method I intend to use. A most elegant solution, Angela proclaimed, but since someone must ask, what can go wrong with this particular method? Aragon kept his gaze fixed on Elva. The only risk is that I will word the counterspell improperly, and it won't block all of my blessing. If that happens, I will simply cast another counterspell. And if that falls short as well, he paused, then I can always resort to the first method I explained. But if the attempt were to go amiss, and it very well might, you could end up worse off than you are now. Elva nodded. I understand. Have I your permission to proceed then? When she dipped her chin again, Aragon took a deep breath, readying himself. His eyes half-closed from the strength of his concentration, he began to speak in the ancient language. He was careful to enunciate every syllable, every sound that was foreign to his own language, so as to avoid a potentially tragic mishap. The counterspell was very long and very complicated, for he had sought to address every reasonable interpretation of his blessing. As a result, a full five minutes passed before Aragon uttered the last word. In the silence that followed, Elva's face clouded with disappointment. I can still sense them, she said. Naswada leaned forward in her seat. Who? You, him, her, everyone who's in pain. They haven't gone away. The urge to help them, that's gone, but this agony still courses through me. Naswada leaned forward in her throne. Aragon? He frowned. I must have missed something. Give me a little while to think and I'll put together another spell that may do the trick. Aragon was in the midst of consulting with Zephira when Elva said, No. But, Elva, why? Because I just realized I can ignore them. She gripped the arms of her chair, trembling with excitement. Without the urge to aid everyone who is suffering, I can ignore their troubles. And it doesn't make me sick. It's true I can't block them perfectly, not yet at least, but, oh, what a relief. <sighs> Silence. What madness is this? asked Zephira. Even if you can put it out of your mind, why remain shackled to the pain of others when Erigan might yet be able to free you of it? Elva's eyes glowed with unsavory glee. As long as I can control this power, as it seems I now can, I have no objection to carrying this burden. From now on, I shall answer to no one and no thing. If I help anyone, it will be because I want to. I will do as I please, and woe unto those who oppose me, for I know all their fears, and shall not hesitate to play upon them in order to fulfill my wishes. Elva, exclaimed Greta, do not say such terrible things. You cannot mean them. The girl turned toward her so sharply. Ah, yes, I had forgotten about you, my nursemaid. I am grateful to you for the care you've given me, but I do not require your assistance any more. I will live alone, tend to myself, and be beholden to no one. 
Cowed, the old woman shrank back. What Elvis said appalled Aragon. He decided that he could not allow her to retain her ability if she was going to abuse it. With Sephira's assistance, for she agreed with him, he picked the most promising of the new counterspells he had been contemplating earlier and opened his mouth to deliver the lines. Quick as a snake, Elva clamped a hand over his lips, preventing him from speaking. Then, in a voice like warm honey, she said, Aragon, cease. If you cast that spell, you will hurt me as you hurt me once before. You do not want that. Every night when you lay yourself down to sleep, you will think of me, and the memory of the wrong you have committed will torment you. What you were about to do was evil, Aragon. Are you the judge of the world? Will you condemn me in the absence of wrongdoing, merely because you do not approve of me? That way lies the depraved pleasure of controlling others for your own satisfaction. Galbatorix would approve. She released him then, but Aragon was too troubled to move. She had struck at his very core. Her understanding of him sent a chill crawling down his spine. I am grateful to you also, Aragon, for coming here to correct your mistake. However, you have earned no favor with me today. So when next we cross paths, Aragon Shadeslayer, count me not as a friend or foe. I am ambivalent toward you, Ryder. I am just as prepared to hate you as I am to love you. The outcome is yours alone to decide. Sephira, you gave me the star upon my brow, and you have always been kind to me. I am, and shall always remain, your faithful servant. Lifting her chin to maximize her three-and-a-half-foot height, Elva surveyed the interior of the pavilion. Aragon, Sephira, Naswada, Angela, good day. And with that, she swept off toward the entrance. A moment later, Aragon heard the sound of an object rushing through the air toward him. He flinched, but fast as he was, he was too slow to avoid a stinging slap that knocked his head to one side and sent him staggering against a chair. To his astonishment, he saw that it was Angela who had struck him. Salembum was at her feet, teeth and claws bared, and his hair was standing on end. What did you do that for? he demanded. Angela tossed her head. Now I'm going to have to spend the next ten years teaching Elva how to behave. That's not what I had in mind for the next decade. Teacher, exclaimed Aragon, she won't let you. She'll stop you as easily as she stopped me. Huh, not likely. She doesn't know what bothers me, nor what might be about to hurt me. I saw to that the day she and I first met. Would you share this spell with us? Naswada asked. After how this has turned out, it seems prudent for us to have a means of protecting ourselves from Elva. No, I don't think I will, said Angela. Then she, too, marched out of the pavilion, and Salembum stalked after her. Naswada rubbed her temples with a circular motion. Magic, she cursed. Magic, agreed Aragon. The pair of them started as Greta cast herself upon the ground and began to weep and wail. My plum, my rose, my pretty sweet pea, gone, and no one to look after her. Shadeslayer, 
Will you watch over her? Aragon grasped her by the arm and helped her to her feet, consoling her with assurances that he and Sephira would keep a close eye on Elva. If only, as Sephira said to Aragon, because she might attempt to slip a knife between our ribs. Aragon stood next to Sephira, fifty yards from Naswada's crimson pavilion. Sephira intended to fly out to the Jeet River and bathe herself in its deep, slow-moving water, but his own intentions were less definite. He still needed to finish oiling his armor, prepare for Roran and Katrina's wedding, visit Jayod, locate a proper sword for himself, and also... He scratched his chin. How long will you be gone? he asked. Sephira unfurled her wings in preparation for flight. A few hours. I'm hungry, and once I am clean, I am going to catch two or three of those plump deer I've seen nibbling the grass on the western bank of the river. With a sweep of her wings, she took off, soaring high overhead as she turned west toward the Jeet River. Aragon lowered his gaze as Bloodgarm ran up to him, lithe as a forest cat. The elf asked where Sephira was going and seemed displeased with Aragon's explanation, but if he had any objections, he kept them to himself. Right, Aragon said to himself as Bloodgarm rejoined his companions. First things first. He strode through the camp until he found an open space. Crouching, he lay his right hand, palm upward, on the earth. He chose the words he would need from the ancient language. Not more than five seconds later, the surface of the earth began to boil like a pot of water over a high flame, and it acquired a bright yellow sheen. Aragon had learned from Oramus that wherever one went, the land was sure to contain minute particles of nearly every element, and while they would be too small and scattered to mine with traditional methods, a knowledgeable magician could, with great effort, extract them. From the center of the yellow patch, a fountain of sparkling dust arched up and over, landing in the middle of Aragon's palm. There each glittering moat melded into the next, until three spheres of pure gold, each the size of a large hazelnut, rested on his hand. Letta, said Aragon, and released the magic. He sat back on his heels and braced himself against the ground as a wave of weariness washed over him. Then he pocketed the gold and headed toward the area where the villagers from Carvajal were staying. The men were drilling with their new weapons. Gedrick was there, sparring with Fisk, Darman, and Morn. A quick word on the part of Aragon with the one-armed veteran who was leading the drills was sufficient to secure Gedrick's temporary release. The tanner ran over to Aragon and stood before him, his gaze lowered. What can I do for you, Shadeslayer? Gedrick mumbled. You have already done it, and I have come here to thank and repay you. I? How have I helped you, Shadeslayer? He spoke cautiously, as if afraid Aragon were setting a trap for him. Soon after I ran away from Carvajal, you discovered that someone had stolen three ox hides from the drying hut by the vats, am I right? Gedrick's face darkened with embarrassment, and he shuffled his feet. Uh, well now, uh, anyone might have snuck in and carried those hides off. Perhaps, said Aragon, but I still feel honor-bound to tell you that it was I who stole your hides. I'm not proud of it, but I needed them. Without them, I doubt I would have survived. And since I am keeping the hides, or what is left of them, it seems only right to pay you for them. 
From within his belt, Aragon removed one of the spheres of gold, hard, round, and warm from the heat of his flesh, and handed it to Gedrick. Gedrick stared at the shiny metal pearl, his massive jaw clamped shut, the lines around his thin-lipped mouth harsh and unyielding. I cannot accept this, Aragon. I was a good tanner, but the leather I made was not worth this much. Your generosity does you credit, but it would bother me to keep this gold. I would feel as if I hadn't earned it. Unsurprised, Aragon said, you would not deny another man the opportunity to haggle for a fair price, would you? No. Good. Then you cannot deny me this. To me, the hides are worth every ounce of that gold, and I would not pay you a copper less, not even if you held a knife to my throat. Gedrick's thick fingers closed around the gold orb. Since you insist, I will not be so churlish as to keep refusing you. My thanks, Shadeslayer. He placed the orb in a pouch on his belt. Garrow did right by you, Aragon. He did right by both you and Roran. He may have been sharp as vinegar, but he raised the two of you well. He would be proud of you, I think. Unexpected emotion clogged Aragon's chest. As Gedrick turned to rejoin the other villagers, he paused. If I may ask, Aragon, why were those hides worth so much to you? What did you use them for? Aragon chuckled. Use them for? Why, with Brahm's help, I made a saddle for Sephira out of them. She doesn't wear it as often as she used to. Not since the elves gave us a proper dragon saddle, but it served us well through many a scrape and fight, and even the Battle of Farthendur. Astonishment raised Gedrick's eyebrows. A wide grin spread across his jaw. A saddle, he breathed. Imagine, me tanning the leather for a rider's saddle. And without a hint of what I was doing at the time, no less. No, not a rider. The rider. He who will finally cast down the black tyrant himself. If only my father could see me now. With his grin undiminished, Gedrick bowed to Aragon and trotted back to his place among the villagers, where he began to relate his tale to everyone within earshot. Aragon slipped away between the rows of tents, pleased with what he had accomplished. Before long, he arrived at another tent, close to the eastern edge of the camp. He knocked on the pole between the two front flaps. With a sharp sound, the entrance was yanked aside to reveal Jayod's wife, Helen, standing in the opening, she regarded Aragon with a cold expression. You've come to talk with him, I suppose. If he's here, which Aragon knew perfectly well he was, for he could sense Jayod's mind as clearly as Helen's. For a moment, Aragon thought Helen might deny the presence of her husband, but then she shrugged and moved aside. You might as well come in, then. Aragon found Jayod sitting on a stool, poring over an assortment of scrolls, books, and sheaves of loose papers that were piled high on a cot bare of blankets. Aragon, he cried. Welcome, welcome. He shook Aragon's hand and then offered him the stool. Here, I shall sit on the corner of the bed. No, please, you are our guest. Would you care for some food or drink? It is poor fare compared with what we served you in Tim, but then no one should go to war and expect to eat well, not even a king. A cup of tea would be nice, said Aragon. Tea and biscuits it is, Jayard glanced at Helen. 
Snatching the kettle off the ground, Helen braced it against her hip, fit the nipple of a water skin in the end of the spout, and squeezed. The kettle reverberated with a dull roar as a stream of water struck the bottom. When the kettle was finally full, Helen removed the deflated water skin from the spout, hung it on a hook on the center pole of the tent, and stormed out. Aragon raised an eyebrow at Jayod. Jayod spread his hands. My position with the Varden is not as prominent as she had hoped, and she blames me for the fact. She agreed to flee Tim with me, expecting, or so I believe, that Naswada would grant me lands and riches fit for a lord, for my help stealing Sephira's egg those many years ago. What Helen did not bargain on was the unglamorous life of a common swordsman. Do you feel that the Varden ought to show you greater consideration? asked Aragon. For myself, no. For Helen, Jayard hesitated. I want her to be happy. But I forget myself. These are not your troubles, and I should not lay them upon you. Aragon touched a scroll with the tip of his index finger. Then tell me, why so many papers? Have you become a copyist? The question amused Jayard. Hardly, although the work is often as tedious. Since it was I who discovered the hidden passageway into Galbatorix's castle in Urubain, and I was able to bring with me some of the rare books from my library in Tiam, Naswada has set me to searching for similar weaknesses in the other cities of the Empire. If I could find mention of a tunnel that led underneath the walls of Dras Leona, for example, it might save us a great deal of bloodshed. Where are you looking? Everywhere I can. The amount of material I have to sift through is immense. Is it likely you will actually find anything? No. I am trying to solve riddles invented by people who didn't want them to be solved. He and Aragon continued talking about other, less important matters, until Helen reappeared, carrying three mugs of steaming hot red clover tea. As Aragon accepted his mug, he noted that her earlier anger seemed to have subsided, and he wondered if she had been listening outside to what Jayod had said about her. She handed Jayod his mug, and from somewhere behind Aragon procured a tin plate laden with flat biscuits and a small clay pot of honey. Then she withdrew a few feet and stood leaning against the center pole, blowing on her own mug. As it was polite, Jayod waited until Aragon had taken a biscuit from the plate and consumed a bite of it before saying, To what do I owe the pleasure of your company, Aragon? Unless I am mistaken, this is no idle visit. Aragon sipped his tea. After the battle of the burning plains, I promised I would tell you how Brahm died. That is why I have come. A gray pallor replaced the color in Jayod's cheeks. Oh... I don't have to, if that's not what you want, Aragon quickly pointed out. With an effort, Jayod shook his head. No, I do. You merely caught me by surprise. In a slow, deliberate voice, Aragon began to recount the events that had transpired since he and Brahm had left Jayod's house. He described their encounter with the band of Urgles, their search for the Razak in Drasleona, how the Razak had ambushed them outside the city, and how the Razak had stabbed Brahm as they fled from Murtag's attack. Aragon's throat constricted as he spoke of Brahm's last hours, of the cool sandstone cave where he had lain, of Brahm's final words, of the sandstone tomb Aragon had made with magic, 
and of how Sephira had transformed it into pure diamond. If only I had known what I know now, Aragon said, then I could have saved him. Instead, unable to summon words past the tightness in his throat, he wiped his eyes and gulped at his tea. He wished it were something stronger. A sigh escaped Jayad. And so ended Brom. Alas, we are all far worse off without him. If he could have chosen the means of his death, though, I think he would have chosen to die like this, in the service of the Varden, defending the last free dragon rider. Were you aware that he had been a rider himself? Jayad nodded. The Varden told me before I met him. He seemed as if he was a man who revealed little about himself, observed Helen. Jayad and Aragon laughed. That he was, said Jayad. But why was it necessary for him to cut himself off from nearly everyone he knew or cared about? What was he afraid of? What was he protecting? Jayad fingered the handle of his mug. I cannot prove it, but it seems to me that Brom must have discovered something in Gilead when he was fighting Morzan and his dragon, something so momentous it moved Brom to abandon everything that was his life up until then. It is a fanciful conjecture, I admit, but I cannot account for Brom's actions except by postulating that there was a piece of information he never shared with me nor another living soul. Jayad sighed, and he drew a hand down his long face. I am glad that you and Zephira gave Brom a tomb even a dwarf king might envy. He deserved that and more for all he did for Alagasia. Although once people discover his grave, I have a horrible suspicion they will not hesitate to break it apart for the diamond. If they do, they will regret it, muttered Aragon. He resolved to return to the site at the earliest opportunity and place wards around Brahm's tomb to protect it from grave robbers. The three of them sipped their tea. Helen nibbled on a biscuit. Then Aragon asked, You met Morzan, didn't you? They were not the friendliest of occasions, but yes, I met him. What was he like? As a person, I really couldn't say, although I'm well acquainted with tales of his atrocities. What of his companion, the woman, Selina? Did you meet her as well? Jayard laughed. If I had, I would not be here today. Morzan may have been a fearsome swordsman, a formidable magician, and a murderous traitor, but it was that woman of his who inspired the most terror in people. Morzan only used her for missions that were so repugnant, difficult, or secretive that no one else would agree to undertake them. She was his black hand, and her presence always signaled imminent death, torture, betrayal, or some other horror. Aragon felt sick hearing his mother described thusly. She was utterly ruthless, devoid of either pity or compassion. It was said that when she asked Morzan to enter his service, he tested her by teaching her the word for heal in the ancient language, for she was a spellcaster as well as a common fighter, and then pitting her against twelve of his finest swordsmen. How did she defeat them? She healed them of their fear and their hate and all the things that drive a man to kill. And then, while they stood grinning at each other like idiot sheep, she went up to the men 
and cut their throats. Are you feeling well, Aragon? You're pale as a corpse. I'm fine. What else do you remember? Precious little concerning Selina. She was always somewhat of an enigma. No one beside Morzan even knew her real name until just a few months before Morzan's death. To the public at large, she has never been anything other than the Black Hand. The Black Hand we have now, the collection of spies, assassins, and magicians who carry out Galbatorix's low skullduggery, is Galbatorix's attempt to recreate Selina's usefulness to Morzan. I believe Brom gained admittance to Morzan's hall by disguising himself as a member of the serving staff. It was then that he found out what he did about Selina. Still, we never did learn why she was so attached to Morzan. Perhaps she loved him. In any event, she was utterly loyal to him, even to the point of death. Soon after Brom killed Morzan, word reached the Varden that sickness had taken her. It is as if the trained hawk was so fond of her master, she could not live without him. She was not entirely loyal, thought Aragon. She defied Morzan when it came to me, even though she lost her life as a result. She loved him, Aragon said. In the beginning, she loved him. Maybe not so much later. Murtag is her son. Jayard raised an eyebrow. Indeed? You have it from Murtag himself, I suppose? Aragon nodded. Well, that explains a number of questions I always had. Murtag's mother. <laughs> I'm surprised that Brom didn't uncover that particular secret. Morzan did everything he could to conceal Murtag's existence, even from the other members of the Forsworn. Knowing the history of those power-hungry, backstabbing knaves, he probably saved Murtag's life. More's the pity, too. Silence crept among them then. A host of questions bedeviled Aragon, but he knew that Jayard could not answer them, and it was unlikely anyone else could either. Why had Brom hidden himself in Carvajal? To keep watch over Aragon, the son of his most hated foe? Had it been some cruel joke, giving Aragon Zarok his father's blade? And why had Brom not told him the truth about his parentage? Jayod began to dig through layers of books, scrolls, and loose papers that covered the bed, saying, Ah, it had nearly slipped my mind. I have something for you, Aragon, that might prove useful, if only I can find it here. With a pleased exclamation, he straightened, flourishing a book, which he handed to Aragon. It was Domia Aberwirda, The Dominance of Fate, a complete history of Alagasia, written by Heslant, the monk. Aragon had first seen it in Jayod's library, in Tirm. You wish me to have this? I do, asserted Jayod. You are engaged in historic events, Aragon, and the roots of the difficulties you face lie in happenings from decades, centuries, and millennia ago. If I were you, I would study at every opportunity the lessons history has to teach us, for they may help you with the problems of today. Aragon longed to accept the gift, but still he hesitated. Brahm said that Domia Aber Wirda was the most valuable thing in your house, and rare as well. Besides, what of your work? Don't you need this for your research? Domia Aber Wirda 
is valuable, and it is rare, but only in the Empire, where Galbatorix burns every copy he finds and hangs their unfortunate owners. Here in the camp I have already had six copies foisted upon me by members of King Orin's court, and this is hardly what one would call a great center of learning. However, I do not part with it lightly, and only because you can put it to better use than I can. Books should go where they will be most appreciated. Don't you agree? I do, Aragon said. I have a gift for you as well. Or rather, for you, Helen. She tilted her head, a quizzical frown on her face. Your family was a merchant family, yes? She jerked her chin in an affirmative. Were you very familiar with the business yourself? Lightning sparked in Helen's eyes. If I had not married him she motioned with a shoulder. I would have taken over the family affairs when my father died. I was an only child, and my father taught me everything he knew. That was what Aragon had hoped to hear. To Jayod, he said, You claimed that you are content with your lot here with the Varden? And so I am, mostly. I understand. However, you risked a great deal to help Brahm and me, and you risked even more to help Roran and everyone else from Carvajal. And because of your act of rebellion, you both lost all that was dear to you in Tirm. And for your sacrifice, I will always be grateful. So, this is part of my thanks. Sliding a finger underneath his belt, Aragon removed the second of the three gold orbs and presented it to Helen. While she gazed at it with wonder, and Jayod craned his neck to see over the edge of her hand, Aragon said, It's not a fortune, but if you are clever, you should be able to make it grow. Aragon staggered back a step as Helen rushed at him and embraced him. Thank you, Aragon. Oh, thank you, she pointed at the gold. This I can use. I know I can. With it, I'll build an empire even larger than my father's. Yes, thank you, said Jayard, rising from the bed. I cannot think that we deserve this. Helen shot him a furious look, which he ignored, but it is most welcome nonetheless. Improvising, Aragon added, And for you, Jayod, your gift is not for me, but Sephira. She has agreed to let you fly on her when you both have a spare hour or two. Aragon knew that she would be upset he had not consulted her before volunteering her services, but after giving Helen the gold, he would have felt guilty for not giving Jayod something of equal value. A film of tears glazed Jayod's eyes. He grasped Aragon's hand and shook it and still holding it, said, I cannot imagine a higher honor. Thank you. You don't know how much you have done for us. Extricating himself from Jayod's grip, Aragon edged toward the entrance to the tent, while excusing himself as gracefully as he could, and making his farewells. Once Domia Aberwirda was safely ensconced in his tent, Aragon went to the Varden's armory. A constant stream of men rushed in and out of the pavilion, and in the center of the commotion stood the man Aragon had hoped to see, Frederick, the Varden's weapon master. Bloodgarm accompanied Aragon as he strode into the pavilion toward Frederick. As soon as they stepped underneath the cloth roof, the men inside fell silent, their eyes fixed on the two of them. Then they resumed their activities, albeit with quicker steps and quieter voices. Raising an arm in welcome, Frederick hurried to meet them. Shadeslayer, 
he rumbled. How can I help you this fine afternoon? I need a sword. Frederick led them toward a rack of swords that stood apart from the others. What kind of sword are you looking for? he asked. That Zarok you had was a one-handed sword, if I remember rightly, and of a shape equally suited for both the cut and thrust, yes? Aragon indicated that was so. Elf blades tend to be thinner and lighter than ours, or the dwarves, on account of the enchantments they forge into the steel. If we made ours as delicate as theirs, the swords wouldn't last more than a minute in a battle before bending, breaking, or chipping so badly you couldn't cut soft cheese with them. His eyes darted toward Bloodgarm. Isn't that so, elf? Even as you say, human, responded Bloodgarm in a perfectly modulated voice, which means whatever sword you choose will probably be heavier than you're used to. That shouldn't pose much difficulty for you, Shadeslayer, but the extra weight may still upset the timing of your blows. I appreciate the warning, said Aragon. Plucking his sword from the rack, Frederick handed it to Aragon. Aragon tilted the tip of the sword up and down, then shook his head. The shape of the hilt was wrong for his hand. What worries me, Frederick said, returning to the rack, is that any sword I give you will have to withstand impacts that would destroy an ordinary blade. An image flashed in Aragon's mind of the chipped edges of Murtag's sword, and he felt irritated with himself for having forgotten something so obvious. He had become accustomed to Zarok, which never dulled, never showed signs of wear. You need not worry about that. I will protect the sword with magic. Will your magic last forever? Since you ask, no. Only one elf understands the making of a rider's sword, and she has not shared her secrets with me. What I can do is transfer a certain amount of energy into a sword. The energy will keep it from getting damaged until the blows that would have damaged the sword exhaust the store of energy, at which point the sword will revert to its original state and, odds are, shatter in my grip the next time I close with my opponent. Then I have only one suggestion. From another part of the pavilion, Frederick brought Aragon a weapon he identified as a falchion. It was not a type of sword Aragon was accustomed to, although he had seen them among the Varden before. Striding out of the pavilion, Aragon assumed a ready position with the falchion. Swinging it over his head, he brought it down upon an imaginary foe, then twisted and lunged, beat aside an invisible spear, and spun the blade behind his back, passing it from one hand to the next as he did so. The speed and balance of the falchion impressed Aragon. It was not the equal of Zarok, but it was still a superb sword. You chose well, he said. I'll take it. One moment, then, said Frederick, and disappeared into the pavilion returning with a black leather scabbard decorated with silver scrollwork. He handed the scabbard to Aragon and asked, Did you ever learn how to sharpen a sword, Shadeslayer? You wouldn't have had need with Zarok, would you? No, Aragon admitted, but I am a fair hand with a whetstone. I can hone a knife until it is so keen it will cut a thread draped over it. Frederick groaned. No, no, a razor-thin edge is just what you don't want on a sword. The bevel has to be thick. Thick and strong. A warrior has to be able to maintain his equipment properly, and that includes knowing how to sharpen his sword. Frederick insisted then on procuring a new whetstone for Aragon and showing him exactly how to put a battle-ready edge on the falchion while they sat in the dirt beside the pavilion.
They had been sitting out in the late afternoon sun for over an hour by the time the weapon master finally finished his instructions. As he did, a cool shadow slid over them, and Zephira landed close by. You waited, said Aragon. You deliberately waited. You could have rescued me ages ago. Why did you leave me to this doom? Don't exaggerate. Doom? You and I have far worse dooms to look forward to if we are not properly prepared. What the man was saying seemed important for you to know. The next morning, Aragon and Zephira walked to where Elaine was overseeing the cooking of Roran and Katrina's wedding feast. Bludgarm and his companions followed a dozen or so yards behind, slipping between the tents with stealthy ease. Ah, good, Aragon, Elaine said. I had hoped you would come. She stood with both her hands pressed into the small of her back to relieve the weight of her pregnancy. Pointing with her chin toward a line of planks set on stumps that six women were using as a counter, she said, There are still twenty loaves of bread dough that have to be kneaded. Will you see to it, please? While Aragon worked the warm dough, Sephira lay basking on a nearby patch of grass. The children from Carvajal played on and around her. Laughing shrieks punctuated the deeper thrum of the adults' voices. Closing his eyes, Aragon turned his face toward the noonday sun and smiled up at the sky, content. The weather was pleasant. The aroma of roasting meat, freshly poured wine, and melted candies suffused the clearing. His friends and family were gathered around him for celebration and not for mourning. And for the moment, he was safe and Sephira was safe. This is how life ought to be. A single horn rang out across the land, unnaturally loud. Then again, and again. Everyone froze, uncertain what the three notes signified. For a brief interval, the entire camp was silent. Then the Varden's war drums began to beat. Chaos erupted. Mothers ran for their children, and cooks dampened their fires while the rest of the men and women scrambled after their weapons. Aragon sprinted towards Sephira, even as she surged to her feet. Reaching out with his mind, he found Bludgarm, and, once the elf lowered his defenses somewhat, said, Meet us at the north entrance. We hear and obey, Shadeslayer. Aragon flung himself onto Sephira. The instant he got a leg over her neck, she jumped four rows of tents, landed, and then jumped a second time, not flying but bounding through the camp. She slid to a stop before Aragon's tent. He dashed inside, and scrambling under his cot, retrieved his armor. Aragon remounted Sephira, and with a jolt of acceleration she took to the air. While they sped toward the northern edge of the camp, Aragon strapped the greaves to his shins, holding himself on Sephira merely with the strength of his legs. His hand brushed against the belt of Beloth the Wise. He groaned, remembering that he had emptied the belt while healing Sephira in Hellgrind. Ah, I should have stored some energy in it. We'll be fine, said Sephira. He was just fitting on the bracers when Sephira alighted upon the crest of one of the embankments that ringed the camp. Naswada was already there, sitting upon her massive charger, Battlestorm. Beside her was Jormunder, also mounted, Arya, on foot, and the current watch of the Nighthawks, led by Kagra, one of the Urgles Aragon had met on the Burning Plains. Bludgarm and the other elves emerged from the forest of tents behind them and stationed themselves close to Aragon and Sephira. 
From a different part of the camp galloped King Oren and his retinue, reining in their prancing steeds as they drew near Naswada. Close upon their heels came Narheim, chief of the dwarves, and three of his warriors, the group of them riding ponies clad with leather and male armor. Nar Garsvog ran out of the fields to the east, and the guards at the north entrance pulled aside the crude wooden gate to allow him inside the camp. Oh, challenges, growled Garsvog, scaling the embankment with four inhumanly long strides. The horses shied away from the gigantic Urgle. Look, Naswada pointed. Aragon was already studying their enemies. Roughly two miles away, five sleek boats, black as pitch, had landed upon the near bank of the Jeet River. From the boats, there issued a swarm of men garbed in the livery of Galbatorix's army. Arya shaded her eyes with a hand and squinted at the soldiers. I put their number between two hundred and seventy and three hundred. Why so few? wondered Jormunder. King Orin scowled. Galbatorix cannot be mad enough to believe he can destroy us with such a paltry force. We could obliterate that entire group and not lose a man. Maybe, said Naswada. Maybe not. Gnawing on the words, Garsvog added, The Dragon King is a false-tongued traitor, a rogue ram, but his mind is not feeble. He is cunning like a blood-hungry weasel. The soldiers assembled themselves in orderly ranks and then began marching toward the Varden. Looking back at them, Naswada said, I can think of no reason to engage them in the open. We can pick them off with archers once they are within range. When they have committed themselves, said Orin, my horsemen and I could ride out and attack them from the rear. They will be so surprised they will not even have a chance to defend themselves. The tide of battle may... Naswada was replying when the brazen horn that had announced the arrival of the soldiers sounded once more, so loudly that Aragon, Arya, and the rest of the elves covered their ears. Aragon winced with pain from the blast. Where is that coming from? he asked Sephira. A more important question, I think, is why the soldiers would want to warn us of their attack, if they are indeed responsible for this baying. Or maybe it's a diversion, or... Aragon forgot what he was going to say, as he saw a stir of motion on the far side of the Jeet River, behind a veil of sorrowful willow trees. Red as a ruby dipped in blood, red as iron hot to forge, red as a burning ember of hate and anger, thorn appeared above the languishing trees, and upon the back of the glittering dragon there sat Murtag in his bright steel armor, thrusting Zarok high over his head. They have come for us, said Sephira. Aragon's gut twisted, and he felt Sephira's own dread, like a current of bilious water running through his mind. As Aragon watched Thorn and Murtag, Arya spun away from the sight. Naswada, your majesty, she said, her eyes flicking toward Orin. You have to stop the soldiers before they reach the camp. You cannot allow them to attack our defenses. If they do, they will sweep over these ramparts and wreak untold havoc in our midst, among the tents, where we cannot maneuver effectively. Untold havoc, Orin scoffed. Have you so little confidence in our prowess, Ambassador? Humans and dwarves may not be as gifted as elves, but we shall have no difficulty in disposing of these miserable wretches, I can assure you. The lines of Arya's face tightened.
Your prowess is without compare, your majesty. I do not doubt it. But listen, this is a trap set for Aragon and Sephira. They, she flung an arm toward the rising figures of Thorn and Murtag, have come to capture Aragon and Sephira and spirit them away to Urubain. Galbatorix would not have sent so few men unless he was confident they could keep the Varden occupied long enough for Murtag to overwhelm Aragon. Galbatorix must have placed spells on those men, spells to aid them in their mission. What those enchantments might be, I do not know. But of this I am certain, the soldiers are more than they appear, and we must prevent them from entering this camp. But why not attack us while we were unawares? Naswada asked. Why alert us to their presence? It was Narnheim who answered. Because they would not want Aragon and Sephira to get caught up in the fighting on the ground. No, unless I am mistaken, their plan is for Aragon and Sephira to meet Thorn and Murtag in the air while the soldiers assail our position here. Is it wise, then, to willingly send Aragon and Sephira into this trap? Naswada raised an eyebrow. Yes, insisted Arya, for we have an advantage they could not suspect. She pointed at Bloodgarm. This time, Aragon shall not face Murtag alone. He will have the combined strength of thirteen elves supporting him. Murtag will not be expecting that. Stop the soldiers before they reach us, and you will have frustrated part of Galbatorix's design. Send Sephira and Aragon up with the mightiest spellcasters of my race, bolstering their efforts, and you will disrupt the remainder of Galbatorix's scheme. You have convinced me, said Naswada. However, the soldiers are too close for us to intercept them any distance from the camp with men on foot. Orin, before she finished, the king had turned his horse around and was racing toward the north gate of the camp. One of his retinue winded a trumpet, a signal for the rest of Orin's cavalry to assemble for a charge. To Garsvog, Naswada said, King Orin will require assistance. Send your rams to join him. Lady Nightstalker. Throwing back his massive horned head, Garsvog loosed a wild, wailing bellow, and then grunted, They will come. The cull broke into an earth-shattering trot and ran toward the gate, where King Orin and his horsemen were gathered. Four of the Varden dragged open the gate. King Orin raised his sword, shouted, and galloped out of the camp, leading his men toward the soldiers in their gold-stitched tunics. Jormundur, said Naswada. Yes, my lady. Order two hundred swordsmen and a hundred spearmen after them, and tell them that although I cannot join them in this battle, on account of my arms, my spirit marches with them. My lady, responded Jormundur. The wind gusted toward them, carrying with it the screams of dying men and horses, the clink of swords glancing off helmets, the dull impact of spears on shields, and underlying it all a terrible, humorless laughter that issued from a multitude of throats and continued without pause throughout the mayhem. It was, Aragon thought, the laughter of the insane. A moment later, a mental shout of incredible strength overwhelmed Aragon's defenses and tore through his consciousness, filling him with agony as he heard a man say, Ah, no, help me, they won't die. Angvard, take them, they won't die. 
The link between their minds vanished then, and Aragon swallowed hard as he realized that the man had been killed. Naswada shifted in her saddle, her expression strained. Who was that? You heard him too? It seems we all did, said Arya. I think it was Barden, one of the spellcasters who rides with King Orin, but Aragon... Thorn had been circling higher and higher while King Orin and his men engaged the soldiers, but now the dragon hung motionless in the sky, halfway between the soldiers and the camp, and Murtag's voice, augmented with magic, echoed forth across the land. Aragon, I see you there, hiding behind Naswada's skirts. Come fight me, Aragon. It is your destiny. Or are you a coward, Shade Slayer? Sephira answered for Aragon by lifting her head and roaring even louder than Murtag's thunderous speech, then discharging a twenty-foot-long jet of crackling blue fire. Walking over to Sephira, Arya placed a hand on Aragon's left leg and looked up at him with her slanted green eyes. "'Accept this from me, Shortugal,' she said, and he felt a surge of energy flow into him. "'Ika Elron Ono.' he murmured to her. Also in the ancient language, she said, Be careful, Aragon. I would not want to see you broken by Murtag. I... It seemed as if she were going to say more, but she hesitated, then removed her hand from his leg and retreated to stand by Bloodgarm. Fly well, Bjotskler, the elves sang out as Sephira launched herself off the embankment. Remember, said Arya, Remain as close to us as you can. The more distance you place between us, the harder it is for us to maintain this bond with you. Thorn did not dive at Sephira or otherwise attack her as she neared him, but rather slid away on rigid wings, allowing her to rise to his level unmolested. He's bigger, observed Sephira. It's not been two weeks since we last fought, and he has grown another four feet, if not more. She was right. Thorn was longer from head to tail and deeper in the chest than he had been when they first clashed over the burning plains. He was barely older than a hatchling, but he was already nearly as large as Sephira. Aragon reluctantly shifted his gaze from the dragon to the rider. Murtag was bareheaded, and his long black hair billowed behind him like a sleek mane. His face was hard, harder than Aragon had ever seen before, and Aragon knew that this time Murtag would not, could not, show him mercy. The volume of his voice substantially reduced, but still louder than normal, Murtag said, You and Sephira have caused us a great deal of pain, Aragon. Galbatorix was furious with us for letting you go, and after the two of you killed the Razak, he was so angry he slew five of his servants and then turned his wrath upon Thorn and me. We have both suffered horribly on account of you. We shall not do so again. He drew back his arm, as if Thorn were about to lunge forward and Murtag were preparing to slash at Aragon and Sephira. Wait, cried Aragon. I know of a way you can both free yourselves of your oaths to Galbatorix. An expression of desperate longing transformed Murtag's features, and he lowered Zarak a few inches. Then he scowled and shouted, I don't believe you. It's not possible. It is. Just let me explain. Murtag seemed to be struggling with himself, and for a while Aragon thought he might refuse. 
Swinging his head around, Thorne looked back at Murtag, and something passed between them. Blast you, Aragon, said Murtag, and lay Zerok across the front of his saddle. Blast you for baiting us with this. We had already made peace with our lot, and you have to tantalize us with the specter of a hope we had abandoned. Lowering the falchion, Aragon said, Galbatorix would not have told you, but when I was among the elves... Aragon, do not reveal anything more about us, exclaimed Arya. I learned that if your personality changes, so does your true name in the ancient language. Who you are isn't cast in iron, Murtag. If you and Thorn can change something about yourselves, your oaths will no longer bind you, and Galbatorix will lose his hold on you. Thorn drifted several yards closer to Zephyra. Why didn't you mention this before? Murtag demanded. I was too confused at the time. A scant fifty feet separated Thorn and Zephyra by then. The red dragon's snarl had subsided to a faint warning curl of his upper lip, and in his sparkling crimson eyes appeared a vast, puzzled sadness, as if he hoped Zephyra or Aragon might know why he had been brought into the world, merely so Galbatorix could enslave him, abuse him, and force him to destroy other beings' lives. Pity for Thorn welled up inside Aragon and Sephira together, and they wished they could speak with him directly, but they dared not open their minds to him. I am not evil, said Murtag. I've done the best I could under the circumstances. I doubt you would have survived as well as I did if our mother had seen fit to leave you in Urubain and hide me in Carverhall. Perhaps not. Murtag banged his breastplate with his fist. Aha! Then how am I supposed to follow your advice? If I am already a good man, if I have already done as well as could be expected, how can I change? Must I become worse than I am? Must I embrace Galbatorix's darkness in order to free myself of it? That hardly seems like a reasonable solution. If I succeeded in so altering my identity, you would not like who I had become, and you would curse me as strongly as you curse Galbatorix now. Frustrated, Aragon said, Yes, but you do not have to become better or worse than you are now, only different. There are many kinds of people in the world, and many ways to behave honorably. Look at someone whom you admire, but who has chosen paths other than your own through life, and model your actions upon his. It may take a while, but if you can shift your personality enough, you can leave Galbatorix, and you can leave the Empire, and you and Thorn could join us in the Varden, where you would be free to do as you wish. You underestimate Galbatorix, Aragon. Do you think he is unaware that a person's true name may vary over the course of his life? He is sure to have taken precautions against that eventuality. If my true name were to change this very moment, or Thorns, most likely it would trigger a spell that would alert Galbatorix and force us to return to him in Urubain so that he could bind us to him again but only if he could guess your new names. He is most adept at the practice. Murtag raised Zarok off the saddle. We may make use of your suggestion in the future, but only after careful study and preparation, so that Thorn and I do not regain our freedom, only to have Galbatorix steal it back from us directly afterward. He hefted Zarok, the sword's iridescent blade shimmering. 
Therefore, we have no choice but to take you with us to Urubain. Will you go peacefully? Unable to contain himself any longer, Aragon said, I would sooner tear out my own heart. Better to tear out my heart, Murtag replied, then stabbed Zarok overhead and shouted a wild war cry. Roaring in unison, Thorn flapped twice, fast, to climb above Sephira. He twisted in a half-circle as he rose, so his head would be over Sephira's neck, where he could immobilize her with a single bite at the base of her skull. Sephira did not wait for him. She tipped forward, rotating her wings in their shoulder sockets, so that for the span of a heartbeat she pointed straight down. Her muscular tail struck Thorn across his left side just as he sailed over her, breaking his wing in five separate places. His roar converting into a whine of pain, Thorn tumbled past Sephira, unable to stay aloft. Well done! Aragon shouted to Sephira as she righted herself. Aragon watched from above as Murtag removed a small round object from his belt and pressed it against Thorn's shoulder. Aragon sensed no surge of magic from Murtag, but the object in his hand flared, and Thorn's broken wing jerked as his bones snapped back into place, and muscles and tendons rippled, and the tears in them vanished. How did he do that? Aragon exclaimed. Arya answered. He must have imbued the item with a spell of healing beforehand. We should have thought of that ourselves. His injuries mended. Thorn halted his fall and began to ascend toward Sephira with prodigious speed. Sephira dove at him. She snapped at his neck, causing him to shy away, and raked his shoulders and chest with her front claws and buffeted him with her huge wings. The edge of her right wing clipped Murtag, knocking him sideways in his saddle. He recovered quickly and slashed at Sephira, opening up a three-foot rent in the membrane of her wing. Aragon stared at the bloody gash, thoughts racing. If they had been fighting any magician besides Murtag, he would not dare to cast a spell while engaged in hostilities, for the magician would most likely believe he or she was about to die and would counter with a desperate all-out magical attack. It was different with Murtag. Aragon knew Galbatorix had ordered Murtag to capture, not kill, him and Sephira. No matter what I do, Aragon thought, he will not attempt to slay me. It was safe then, Aragon decided, to heal Sephira. As he prepared to mend Sephira's wing, Arya said, Wait, let my brethren and I tend to her. It will confuse Murtag, and this way the effort shall not weaken you. Aragon sensed Arya concentrating. Then the raw edges of the delicate cerulean membrane flowed together without a scar. Sephira's relief was palpable. With a tinge of fatigue, Arya said, Guard yourself better if you can. That was not easy. When he noticed that Sephira was not pursuing him, Thorn circled up and around until he was higher than she was. He flung himself at her, grappling with her, as they plummeted in sickening lurches toward the gray tents of the Varden. Aragon leaned over and slashed crosswise at Murtag's right shoulder, not intending to kill him, but rather to injure him severely enough to end the fight. Murtag lifted his shield and blocked the falchion. His reaction was so unexpected, Aragon faltered, then barely had time to recoil and parry as Murtag retaliated, swinging Zarok at him, the blade humming through the air with inordinate speed.
Murtag struck at Aragon's wrist, and then when Aragon dashed aside Zerok, thrust underneath Aragon's shield and stabbed through the fringe of his male hauberk and his tunic and the waist of his breeches and into his left hip, the tip of Zerok embedded itself in bone. The pain shocked Aragon like a splash of frigid water, but it also lent his thoughts a preternatural clarity and sent a burst of uncommon strength coursing through his limbs. As Murtag withdrew Zerok, Aragon yelled and fainted toward Murtag's right knee, then whipped the falchion in the opposite direction and sliced Murtag across the cheek. You should have worn a helmet, said Aragon. They were so close to the ground then, only a few hundred feet, that Sephira had to release Thorn, and the two dragons separated before Aragon and Murtag could exchange any more blows. As Sephira and Thorn spiraled upward, racing each other toward a pearl-white cloud gathering over the tents of the Varden, Aragon examined his hip. A fist-sized patch of skin was discolored where Zarok had crushed the mail against his flesh. In the middle of the patch was a thin red line, two inches long, where Zarok had pierced him. Blood oozed from the wound, soaking the top of his breeches. Being hurt by Zarok, a sword that had never failed him in moments of danger and that he still regarded as rightfully his, unsettled him. To have his own weapon turned against him was wrong, and his every instinct rebelled against it. Arya, he said, do you want to heal me, or should I do it myself and let Murtag stop me if he can? We shall attend it for you, Arya said. You may be able to catch Murtag by surprise if he believes you are still wounded. The elves' magic took effect, and his hip began to tingle and itch, as if covered with flea bites. When the itching ceased, he slid his hand under his tunic and was delighted to feel nothing but smooth skin. Right, he said, rolling his shoulders. Let us teach them to fear our names. The pearl-white cloud, looming large before them, Sephira twisted to the left, and then, while Thorn was struggling to turn, plunged into the heart of the cloud. Everything went cold and damp and white. Then Sephira shot out of the far side, exiting only a few feet above and behind Thorn. Roaring with triumph, Sephira dropped upon Thorn and seized him by the flanks. She snaked her head forward and caught Thorn's left wing in her mouth. I have him, said Sephira. I can tear off his wing, but I would rather not. Whatever you are going to do, do it before we fall too far. His face pale beneath smeared gore, Murtag pointed at Aragon with Zarok, the sword trembling in the air, and a mental ray of immense power invaded Aragon's consciousness. The foreign presence groped after his thoughts, seeking to subdue them. As on the burning plains, Aragon noticed that Murtag's mind felt as if it contained multitudes, as if a confused chorus of voices was murmuring beneath the turmoil of Murtag's own thoughts. Aragon wondered if Murtag had a group of magicians assisting him, even as the elves were him. Difficult as it was, Aragon emptied his mind of everything but an image of Zarok, and when Thorn flailed underneath them, and Murtag's attention wavered for an instant, Aragon launched a furious counterattack, clutching at Murtag's consciousness. The two of them strove against each other in grim silence, while they fell, wrestling back and forth in the confines of their minds. Aragon glanced at the ground rushing up at them and realized that their contest would have to be decided by other means. Lowering the falchion so it was level with Murtag, Aragon shouted, Letta! 
the same spell Murtag had used on him during their previous confrontation. It was a simple piece of magic. It would do nothing more than hold Murtag's arms and torso in place, but it would allow them to test themselves directly against one another and determine which of them had the most energy at their disposal. Murtag mouthed a counterspell, the words lost in Thorn's snarling and in the howling of the wind. Aragon's pulse raced as the strength ebbed from his limbs. When he had nearly depleted his reserves and was faint from the effort, Sephira and the elves poured the energy from their bodies into his, maintaining the spell for him. Across from him, Murtag had originally appeared smug and confident, but as Aragon continued to restrain him, Murtag's scowl deepened, and the whole while they besieged each other's minds. The force from Arya and the other elves declined by half, and even Sephira began to shake with exhaustion. Just as Aragon became convinced Murtag would prevail, Murtag uttered an anguished shout, and a great weight seemed to lift off Aragon as Murtag's resistance vanished. Murtag appeared astonished by Aragon's success. What now? Aragon asked Arya and Sephira. Do we take them as hostages? Can we? Then, as if a giant struck him from underneath, his sight went black. The next thing Aragon saw was a swath of Sephira's neck scales, an inch or two in front of his nose. He was dimly aware of someone reaching out to his mind from across a great distance, their consciousness projecting an intense sense of urgency. As his faculties returned, he recognized the other person as Arya. She said, End the spell, Aragon. It will kill us all if you keep it up. Murtag is too far away. With a jolt, Aragon sat upright in the saddle, barely noticing that Sephira was crouched amid a circle of King Orin's horsemen. Arya was nowhere to be seen. Aragon released the magic, then looked for Thorn and Murtag on the ground. There, said Sephira, and motioned with her snout. Low in the northwestern sky, Aragon saw Thorn's glittering shape, the dragon winging his way up the Jeet River, fleeing toward Galbatorix's army, some miles distant. How? Murtag healed Thorn again, and Thorn was lucky enough to land on the slope of a hill. He ran down it, then took off before you regained consciousness. From across the rolling landscape, Murtag's magnified voice boomed, do not think you have won, Aragon, Sephira. We shall meet again, I promise, and Thorn and I shall defeat you then, for we shall be even stronger than we are now. Aragon clenched his shield and his falchion so tightly he bled from underneath his fingernails. Do you think you can overtake him? I could, but the elves would not be able to help you from so far away, and I doubt we could prevail without their support. We might be able— Ugh. Aragon stopped and pounded his leg in frustration. Blast it! I'm an idiot. I forgot about Arryn. We could have used the energy in Brahm's ring to help defeat them. You had other things on your mind. Anyone might have made the same mistake. Aragon watched until Thorn and Murtag had vanished from sight. Then he sighed. I suppose I should have expected it, but it still surprised me that Murtag was as fast as me. More magic on the part of Galbatorix, no doubt. Why did your wards fail to deflect Zarok, though? They saved you from worse blows when we fought the Razak. I'm not sure. 
Murtag or Galbatorix might have invented a spell I had not thought to guard against, or it could just be that Zarok is a rider's blade, and as Glader said, the swords Runon forged excel at cutting through enchantments of every kind, and it is only rarely they are affected by magic. Exactly. Aragon stared at the streaks of dragon blood on the flat of his falchion, weary. When will we be able to defeat our enemies on our own? I couldn't have killed Durza if Arya hadn't broken the Star Sapphire. And we were only able to prevail over Murtag and Thorin with the help of Arya and twelve others. We must become more powerful. Yes, but how? How has Galbatorix amassed his strength? Has he found a way to feed off the bodies of his slaves, even when he is hundreds of miles away? God, I don't know. Then Aragon again noticed the horsemen gathered around him and Zephyra. Looking beyond, he realized Zephyra had landed close to where King Orin had intercepted the soldiers from the boats. Not far off to her left, hundreds of men, ergles, and horses milled about in panic and confusion. Occasionally, the clatter of swords or the scream of a wounded man broke through the uproar, accompanied by snatches of demented laughter. Why haven't they killed the soldiers yet? Where— Aragon abandoned his question as Arya, Bludgarm, and four other haggard-looking elves sprinted up to Sephira from the direction of the camp. Raising a hand in greeting, Aragon called, Arya, what's happened? No one seems to be in command. To Aragon's alarm, Arya was breathing so hard she was unable to speak for a few moments. Then, The soldiers proved more dangerous than we anticipated. We do not know how. Before Aragon could ask more, a collection of excited cries from within the maelstrom of warriors drowned out the rest of the tumult, and he heard King Orin shout, Back! Back, all of you! Archers, hold the line! Blast you! No one move! We have him! Sephira had the same thought as Aragon. Gathering her legs under her, she leapt over the ring of horsemen and made her way across the corpse-strewn battlefield toward the sound of King Orin's voice. The rest of the elves hurried to keep up, swords and bows in hand. Sephira found Orin sitting on his charger at the leading edge of the tightly packed warriors, staring at a lone man forty feet away. The king was flushed and wild-eyed. He had been wounded under his left arm, and the shaft of a spear protruded several inches from his right thigh. When Sephira's approach caught his attention, his face registered sudden relief. Good, good, you're here, he muttered as Sephira crawled abreast of his charger. We needed you, Sephira, and you, Shadeslayer. Then Orin resumed glaring at the lone man. Aragon followed his gaze. The man was a soldier of medium height, with a purple birthmark on his neck. Blood sheeted from a gash along his ribs. An arrow, fletched with white swan feathers, had impaled his right foot and pinned it to the ground, three-quarters of the shaft buried in the hard dirt. From the man's throat, a horrid, gurgling laugh emanated. "'Tell me how you became as you are,' shouted King Orin, "'and speak honestly, lest you convince me to pour boiling lead down your throat to see if that pains you.' The unbalanced chuckles intensified. Then the soldier said, 
You cannot hurt me, Serdan. No one can. The king himself made us impervious to pain. In return, our families will live in comfort for the rest of their lives. You can hide from us, but we will never stop pursuing you, even when ordinary men would drop dead from exhaustion. You can fight us, but we will continue killing you as long as we have an arm to swing. With a gruesome grimace, the soldier wrapped his hand around the arrow, and with the sound of tearing flesh, pulled the shaft out of his foot. His laugh louder than ever, the soldier lurched forward, dragging his injured foot behind him. He raised his sword, as if he intended to attack. Shoot him! shouted Orin. Bowstrings twanged, then a score of spinning arrows leapt toward the soldier, and an instant later struck him in the torso. Two of the arrows bounced off his gambeson. The remainder penetrated his ribcage. His laughter reduced to a wheezing chuckle as blood seeped into his lungs. The soldier continued moving forward. The archers shot again, and arrows sprouted from the man's shoulders and arms. But still the soldier refused to die. He began to crawl forward, grinning and giggling as if the whole world were an obscene joke that only he could appreciate. King Orin swore violently, and Aragon detected a hint of hysteria in his voice. Jumping off his charger, Orin threw his sword and his shield into the dirt, and then pointed at the nearest Urgle. Give me your axe! Startled, the gray-skinned Urgle hesitated, then surrendered his weapon. King Orin limped over to the soldier, raised the heavy axe with both hands, and with a single blow, chopped off the soldier's head. The giggling ceased. Orin grasped the head by the hair and lifted it so all could see. They can be killed, he declared. Spread the word that the only way of stopping these abominations is to behead them. That or bash in their skulls with a mace or shoot them in the eye from a safe distance. Striding back to his charger, Orin returned the axe to the Urgle, then picked up his own weapons. A few yards away, Aragon spotted Nargarsvog standing among a cluster of cull. Aragon spoke a few words to Sephira, and she sidled over to the Urgles. After exchanging nods, Aragon asked Garsvog, Were all the soldiers like that? He gestured toward the arrow-riddled corpse. All men with no pain. You hit them, and you think them dead. Turn your back, and they hamstring you. Garsvog scowled. I lost many rams today. We have fought droves of humans, Firesword, but never before these laughing ghouls. It is not natural. It makes us think they are possessed by hornless spirits that maybe the gods themselves have turned against us. Nonsense, scoffed Aragon. It is merely a spell by Galbatorix, and we shall soon have a way to protect ourselves against it. Notwithstanding his outer confidence, the concept of fighting enemies who felt no pain unsettled him as much as it did the Urgles. While the Varden and the Urgles set about collecting their fallen comrades, Aragon, Sephira, and King Orin returned to the camp accompanied by Arya and the other elves. Along the way, Aragon offered to heal Orin's leg, but the king refused, saying, I have my own physician's shade slayer. Naswada and Jormunder were waiting for them by the north gate. 
Accosting Oren, Naswada said, What went wrong? Aragon closed his eyes as Oren explained how at first the attack on the soldiers had seemed to go well. The horsemen had swept through their ranks, dealing what they had thought were death blows left and right, and had suffered only one casualty during their charge. When they had engaged the remaining soldiers, however, many of those they had struck down before rose up and rejoined the fight. Oren shuddered. We lost our nerve then. Any man would have. Naswada looked at Aragon, and then Arya. How could Galbatorix have done this? It was Arya who answered. Block most, but not all, of a person's ability to feel pain. Leave just enough sensation so they know where they are and what they are doing, but not so much that pain can incapacitate them. The spell would require only a small amount of energy. Again speaking to Oren, Naswada said, Do you know how many men we lost? A tremor racked Oren. He gritted his teeth and growled. We won't know for sure until we count the dead, but perhaps five or six hundred to bury, and the better part of the survivors wounded. I don't know. I don't know. His jaw going slack, Oren slumped to the side and would have fallen off his horse if Arya had not sprung forward and caught him. Naswada snapped her fingers, summoning two of the Varden from among the tents, and ordered them to take Oren to his pavilion, and then to fetch the king his healers. Her eyes glimmered with unshed tears. Stiffening her back, she fixed Aragon and Sephira with an iron gaze. How fared it with the two of you? She listened without moving, while Aragon described their encounter with Murtag and Thorn. Afterward, she nodded. That you would be able to escape their clutches was all we dared hope. However, you accomplished more than that. You proved that Galbatorix has not made Murtag so powerful that we have no hope of defeating him. If we can gather enough spellcasters around you, Eragon, I believe we can finally kill Murtag and Thorn the next time they come to abduct the pair of you. Don't you want to capture them? Eragon asked. I want a great number of things, but I doubt I shall receive very many of them. Murtag and Thorn may not be trying to kill you, but if the opportunity presents itself, we must kill them without hesitation. Or do you see it otherwise? No. Naswada spurred Battlestorm away from the carnage that lay before the camp, the stallion tossing his head and gnawing on his bit. Your cousin, Eragon, begged me to allow him to take part in today's fighting. I refused on account of his impending marriage, which pleased him not, although I suspect his betrothed feels otherwise. Would you do me the favor of notifying me if they still intend to proceed with the ceremony today? After so much bloodshed, it would hearten the Varden to attend a marriage. Four hours later, Aragon stood on the crest of a low hill dotted with yellow wildflowers. Surrounding the hill was a lush meadow that bordered the Jeet River, which rushed past a hundred feet to Aragon's right. The sky was bright and clear. Sunshine bathed the land with a soft radiance. Gathered in front of the hill were the villagers from Carvajal, none of whom had been injured during the fighting, and what seemed to be half of the men of the Varden. Various horses, including Snowfire, were picketed at the far end of the meadow. At the base of the hill stood Naswada, Narheim, Jormunder, Angela, and others of importance. King Oren was absent, his wounds having proved more serious than they at first appeared. 
With slow, steady steps, Roran and Katrina emerged from either side of the crowd at the far end of the path, turned toward the hill, and without touching, began to advance toward Aragon. Roran wore a new tunic he had borrowed from one of the Varden. His hair was brushed, his beard was trimmed, and his boots were clean. All in all, he seemed very handsome and distinguished to Aragon. However, it was Katrina who commanded Aragon's attention. Her dress was light blue, as befitted a bride at her first wedding, of a simple cut, but with a lace train that was twenty feet long and carried by two girls. Against the pale fabric, her free-flowing locks glowed like polished copper. In her hands was a posy of wildflowers. She was proud, serene, and beautiful. Aragon heard gasps from some of the women as they beheld Katrina's train. He resolved to thank Niswada for having Duvrangargata make the dress for Katrina, for he assumed it was she who was responsible for the gift. Behind Roran walked Horst. At a similar distance behind Katrina walked Birgit. At the top of the hill, Roran and Katrina stood motionless before Aragon. He raised his hands and said, Welcome, one and all. Today we have come together to celebrate the union between the families of Roran Garroson and Katrina Ismaras' daughter. If any reason exists that they should not become man and wife, then make your objections known before these witnesses. Aragon paused for an interval, then continued. Who here speaks for Roran Garroson? Horst stepped forward. Roran has neither father nor uncle, so I, Horst Ostrickson, speak for him as my blood. And who here speaks for Katrina Ismara's daughter? Birgit stepped forward. Katrina has neither mother nor aunt, so I, Birgit Mardra's daughter, speak for her as my blood. Despite her vendetta against Roran, by tradition it was Birgit's right and responsibility to represent Katrina, as she had been a close friend of Katrina's mother. It is right and proper. What then does Roran Garrison bring to this marriage, that both he and his wife may prosper? He brings his name, and he brings the promise of a farm in Carvajal, where they may both live in peace. Astonishment rippled through the crowd as people realized what Roran was doing. He was declaring, in the most public and binding way possible, that the Empire would not stop him from returning home with Katrina and providing her with the life she would have had, if not for Galbatorix's interference. And what does Katrina Ismara's daughter bring to this marriage, that both she and her husband may prosper? She brings her love and devotion, and she brings a dowry. Birgit motioned, and two men came forward, carrying a metal casket between them. Birgit undid the clasp to the casket, then lifted open the lid and showed Aragon the contents. He gaped as he beheld the mound of jewelry inside. Roran Stronghammer, son of Garrow, do you swear, then, that you shall protect and provide for Katrina Ismara's daughter while you both yet live? I swear. And do you swear to give her the keys to your holdings, such as they may be? and to your strongbox where you keep your coin, by sunset tomorrow, so she may tend to your affairs as a wife should? Roran swore he would. Katrina, daughter of Izmira, do you swear that you shall serve and provide for Roran Garrison while you both yet live? I swear. 
And do you swear to assume charge of his wealth and his possessions, and to manage them responsibly, so he may concentrate upon those duties that are his alone? Katrina swore she would. Smiling, Aragon drew a red ribbon from his sleeve and said, Cross your wrists. Roran and Katrina extended their left and right arms and did as he instructed. Laying the middle of the ribbon across their wrists, Aragon wound the strip of satin around and then tied the ends together with a bow knot. As is my right as a dragon rider, I now declare you man and wife. The crowd erupted into cheers. Leaning toward each other, Roran and Katrina kissed, and the crowd redoubled their cheering. Sephira dipped her head toward the beaming couple, and as Roran and Katrina separated, she touched each of them on the brow with the tip of her snout. Live long, and may your love deepen with every passing year, she said. Roran and Katrina turned toward the crowd and raised their joined arms skyward. Let the feast begin, Roran declared. Then the guests lined up to offer their congratulations and present gifts. Aragon was first. He shook Roran's hand and inclined his head toward Katrina. Thank you, Aragon, Katrina said. Yes, thank you, Roran added. The honor was mine. He looked at both of them, then said, You must know how fortunate you are to be here today, together. Roran, if you had not been able to rally everyone and travel to the Burning Plains— and if the Razak had taken you, Katrina, to Urubain, neither of you would have— Yes, but I did, and they didn't, interrupted Roran. Let us not darken this day with unpleasant thoughts about what might have been. That is not why I mention it. Aragon glanced at the line of people waiting behind him, making sure they were not close enough to eavesdrop. All three of us are enemies of the Empire. If Galbatorix can, he will strike at any one of us, including you, Katrina— in order to hurt the others. So I made these for you. From the pouch at his belt, Aragon withdrew two plain gold rings, polished until they shone. The previous night, he had molded them out of the last of the gold orbs he had extracted from the earth. He handed the larger one to Roran, and the smaller one to Katrina. I enchanted them to do three things, said Aragon. If you ever need my help, or Sephira's, twist the ring once around your finger and say, Help me, Shade Slayer, help me, Bright Scales, and we will hear you, and we will come as fast as we can. Also, if either of you is close to death, your ring will alert us, and you, Roran, or you, Katrina, depending on who is in peril. And so long as the rings are touching your skin, you will always know how to find each other, no matter how far apart you may be. He hesitated, then added, I hope you will agree to wear them. Of course we will said Katrina. Roran's chest swelled, and his voice became husky. Thank you, he said. Thank you. I wish we had had these before she and I were separated in Carvajal. I have another gift for you as well, said Aragon. Turning, he whistled and waved. Pushing his way through the crowd, a groom hurried toward them, leading Snowfire by the bridle. The groom handed Aragon the reins to the stallion, then bowed and withdrew, Aragon said, Roran, you will need a good steed. This is Snowfire. He was Brahms to begin with, then mine, and now I am giving him to you. Roran ran his eyes over Snowfire. He's a magnificent beast, the finest. Will you accept him? 
with pleasure. When Naswada had spoken to Roran and Katrina, she turned to Aragon. Sometime before sunset, come to my pavilion, and we will visit the men who were wounded. It will do them good to see we care about their welfare. Aragon nodded. I will be there. Hours passed as Aragon laughed and ate and drank and traded stories with old friends. Mead flowed like water. When the sun touched the distant horizon, however, Aragon reluctantly excused himself. With Sephira by his side, he walked to Naswada's pavilion. Naswada was waiting for him, and they made their way across the camp to the tents of the healers, where the injured warriors lay. Before they set forth among the rows of blanket-covered men, Naswada had warned Aragon not to tire himself by attempting to heal everyone he met, but he could not stop muttering a spell here and there. One of the men Aragon met had lost his left leg below the knee, as well as two fingers on his right hand, and his eyes were covered with a strip of black cloth. When Aragon greeted him and asked how he fared, he said in a hoarse voice, Ah, Shade Slayer, I knew you would come. I have been waiting for you ever since the light. What do you mean? The light that illuminated the flesh of the world. In a single instant, I saw every living thing around me, from the largest to the smallest. I saw my bones shining through my arms. I saw the worms in the earth, and the gore crows in the sky, and the mites on the wings of the crows. The gods have touched me, Shadeslayer. They gave me this vision for a reason. I saw you on the field of battle, you and your dragon and you were like a blazing sun among a forest of dim candles. And I saw your brother and his dragon, and they too were like a sun. The nape of Aragon's neck prickled as he listened. I have no brother, he said. The maimed swordsman cackled. <laughs> you cannot fool me, Shadeslayer. I know better. The world burns around me. And from the fire I hear the whisper of minds, and I learn things from the whispers. You hide yourself from me now, but I can still see you, a man of yellow flame with twelve stars floating around your waist, and another star, brighter than the others, upon your right hand. Aragon pressed his palm against the belt of Beloth the Wise, checking that the twelve diamonds sewn within were still concealed. They were. Listen to me, Shade Slayer, whispered the man, pulling Aragon toward his lined face. I saw your brother, and he burned, but he did not burn like you. Oh, no. The light from his soul shone through him as if it came from somewhere else. He, he was a void, a shape of a man, and through that shape came the brilliance that burned. Do you understand? Others illuminated him. Where were these others? Did you see them as well? I could feel them, close at hand, raging at the world as if they hated everything in it, but their bodies were hidden from my sight. They were there and not there. I cannot explain better than that. I would not want to get any closer to those creatures, Shadeslayer. They aren't human, of that I'm sure, and their hate, it was like the largest thunderstorm you've ever seen. 
crammed into a tiny glass bottle. And when the bottle breaks, Aragon murmured, Exactly, Shade Slayer. Sometimes I wonder if Galbatorix has managed to capture the gods themselves and make them his slaves. But then I laugh and call myself a fool. Whose gods, though? The dwarves? Those of the wandering tribes? Does it matter, Shade Slayer? A god is a god, regardless of where he comes from. Aragon grunted. Perhaps you're right. As he left the man's pallet, one of the healers pulled Aragon aside. She said, Forgive him, my lord. The shock of his wounds has driven him quite mad. He's always ranting about suns and stars and glowing lights he claims to see. Sometimes it seems as if he knows things he shouldn't. But don't you be deceived. He gets them from the other patients. I am not a lord, Aragon said, and he is not mad. I'm not sure what he is, but he has an uncommon ability. If he gets better or worse, please inform one of Duvrangergata. The healer curtsied. As you wish, Shade Slayer. I am sorry for my mistake, Shade Slayer. How was he hurt? A soldier cut off his fingers when he tried to block a sword with his hand. Later, one of the missiles from the Empire's catapults landed upon his leg, crushing it beyond repair. We had to amputate. The men who were beside him said that when the missile struck, he immediately began screaming about the light. And when they picked him up, they noticed that his eyes had turned pure white. Even his pupils have disappeared. Ah, you have been most helpful. Thank you. Late that night, visions of death and violence gathered along the edges of Aragon's dreams, threatening to overwhelm him with panic. He stirred with unease, wanting to break free, but unable to do so. Brief, disjointed images of stabbing swords and screaming men and Murtag's angry face flashed before his eyes. Then Aragon felt Sephira enter his mind. She swept through his dreams like a great wind, brushing aside his looming nightmare. In the silence that followed, she whispered, All is well, little one. Rest easy. You are safe, and I am with you. Rest easy. A sense of profound peace crept over Aragon. He rolled over and drifted off into happier memories, comforted by his awareness of Sephira's presence. An hour before sunrise, Aragon bathed and then dressed in one of his elf tunics. Once he was satisfied he was presentable, he and Sephira walked to Naswada's pavilion. Aragon bowed to Naswada. My lady, you asked me to come here to talk about my future. You said you had a most important mission for me. I did and I do, said Naswada. Please be seated. As you know... Galbatorix has sent battalions to the cities of Aros, Feinster, and Bellatona in an attempt to prevent us from taking them by siege or failing that to slow our progress and force us to divide our own troops so we would be more vulnerable to the depredations of the soldiers who were camped north of us. Aragon asked, What course of action have you decided upon, then? I have decided upon several courses, and we must undertake them all simultaneously if any are to be successful. First, we cannot push farther into the Empire, leaving cities behind us that Galbatorix still controls, so I have already ordered the Varden to march north to the nearest place where we can safely cross the Jeet River. 
Once we are on the other side of the river, I will send warriors south to capture Arofs, while King Oren and I continue with the remainder of our forces to Feinster, which, with your help and Sephira's, should fall before us without too much trouble. While we are engaged in the tedious business of tramping across the countryside, I have other responsibilities for you, Aragon. She leaned forward in her seat. We need the full help of the dwarves. The elves are fighting for us, in the north of Aragasia. The Serdans have joined with us body and mind, and even the Urgles have allied themselves with us. But we need the dwarves. We cannot succeed without them. Have the dwarves chosen a new king or queen yet? Naswadi grimaced. Narheim assures me that the process is moving apace, but, like the elves, dwarves take a longer view of time than we do. A pace, for them, might mean months of deliberations. Well, don't they realize the urgency of the situation? Some do, but many oppose helping us in this war, and they seek to delay the proceedings as long as possible, and to install one of their own upon the throne. So I want you, Aragon, to travel to Trondheim and do what you can to ensure that the dwarves choose a new monarch in an expeditious manner, and that they choose a monarch who is sympathetic to our cause. Me? But King Rothgar adopted you into Dugrimstingaitum. According to their laws and customs, you are a dwarf, Aragon. You have a legal right to participate in the whole meets of the Ingaitum, and, as Oric is set to become their chief, and as he is your foster brother and a friend of the Vardens, I am sure he will agree to let you accompany him into the secret councils of the thirteen clans where they elect their rulers. Her proposal seemed preposterous to Aragon. How would you keep Galbatorix from learning about our absence and attacking while we're gone? I doubt you have found all of the spies he has seeded among us. Naswada tapped her fingers on the arms of her chair. I said I wanted you to go to Farthandur, Eragon. I did not say I wanted Safira to go as well. Turning her head, Safira released a small puff of smoke that drifted toward the peak of the tent. I'm not about... Let me finish, please, Eragon. He clamped shut his jaw and glared at her. You are not beholden to me, Safira, but my hope is that you will agree to stay here so that we can deceive the Empire and the Varden, as to Aragon's whereabouts. If we can hide your departure, Aragon, from the masses, no one will have any reason to suspect you are not still here. We will only have to devise a suitable excuse, then, to account for your sudden desire to remain in your tent during the day, perhaps that you and Sephira are flying sorties into enemy territory at night, and so must rest while the sun is up. In order for the ruse to work, however, Bloodgarm and his companions will have to stay here as well, both to avoid arousing suspicion and for reasons of defense. If Murtag and Thorn reappear while you are gone, Arya can take your place on Sephira. Between her, Bloodgarm's spellcasters, and the magicians of Duvrangergata, we should have a fair chance of thwarting Murtag. In a harsh voice, Aragon said, if Safira doesn't fly me to Farthendur, then how am I supposed to travel there in a timely fashion? By running. Of course it would be foolish to go alone. Shepherding you through the Beor Mountains would be a waste of Arya's talents, and people would notice if one of Bloodgarm's elves disappeared without explanation. Therefore, I have decided that a cull should accompany you, as they are the only other creatures capable of matching your pace. A cull? 
exclaimed Aragon. You would send me among the dwarves with a cull by my side? I cannot think of any race the dwarves hate more than the Urgles. If I walked into Farthendur with an Urgle, the dwarves would not pay heed to anything I had to say. I am well aware of that, which is why you will not go directly to Farthendur. Instead, you will first stop at Bregenhold on Mount Thardur, which is the ancestral home of the Ingaitum. There you will find Oric, and there you can leave the Kal, while you continue on to Farthendur in Oric's company. Staring somewhat beyond Naswada, Aragon said, And what if I do not agree with the path you have chosen? What if I believe it's a mistake? Send Jormunder or one of your other commanders. I won't go while you won't. As your liege lord, then, Aragon, I order you to run to Farthendur, whether you want to or not, and to oversee the choosing of the next ruler of the dwarves. Furious, Aragon breathed heavily through his nose, gripping and regripping the pommel of his falchion. In a softer, although still guarded tone, Naswada said, What will it be, Aragon? Will you do as I ask, or will you dispossess me and lead the Varden yourself? Those are your only options. Shocked, he said, No, I can reason with you. I can convince you otherwise. You cannot because you cannot provide me with an alternative that is as likely to succeed. May I have a moment to think? You may. Zephira, he asked. Little one, should I go? I think you must. And what of you? You know I hate to be separated from you, but Naswara's arguments are well-reasoned. If I can help keep Murtag and Thorn away by remaining with the Varden, then perhaps I should. Aragon looked up at Naswada. Very well, he said. I will go. Naswada's posture relaxed somewhat. Thank you. And you, Safira, will you stay or go? Projecting her thoughts to include Naswada as well as Aragon, Safira said, I will stay, Night Stalker. Naswada inclined her head. Thank you, Safira. I am most grateful for your support. Have you spoken to Bludgarm of this? asked Aragon. Has he agreed to it? No, I assumed you would inform him of the details. Aragon doubted the elves would be pleased by the prospect of him traveling to Farthendur with only an Urgle for company. He said, If I might make a suggestion, you know I welcome your suggestions. That stopped him for a moment. A suggestion and a request, then. Naswada lifted a finger, motioning for him to continue. When the dwarves have chosen the new king or queen, Sephira should join me in Farthendur both to honor the dwarves' new ruler and to fulfill the promise she made to King Hrothgar after the battle for Trondheim. Naswada's expression sharpened into that of a hunting wildcat. What promise was this? You have not told me of this before that Sephira would mend the star sapphire, Isidar Mithram, as recompense for Arya breaking it. Her eyes wide with astonishment, Naswada looked at Sephira and said, You are capable of such a feat? I am, but I do not know if I will be able to summon the magic I will need when I am standing before Isidar Mithram. My ability to cast spells is not subject to my own desires. 
If I could mend it at our Mithram, though, it would go a long way toward earning us the goodwill of all the dwarves, not just a select few who have the breadth of knowledge to appreciate the importance of their cooperation with us. It would do more than you imagine. The Star Sapphire holds a special place in the hearts of dwarves. Restore it to its previous glory, and you will restore the pride of their race. Aragon said, Even if Sephira failed to repair Isidar Mithram, she should be present for the coronation of the dwarves new ruler. You could conceal her absence for a few days by letting it be known among the Varden that she and I have left on a brief trip to Aberon or some such. By the time Galbatorix's spies realized you had deceived them, it would be too late for the Empire to organize an attack before we returned. Naswada nodded. It is a good idea. Contact me as soon as the dwarves set a date for the coronation. I shall. You have made your suggestion. Now, out with your request. What is it you wish of me? Since you insist I must make this trip, with your permission, I would like to fly with Sephira from Trondheim to Elismera after the coronation. For what purpose? To consult with the ones who taught us during our last visit to De Weldenvarden. We promised them that as soon as events allowed, we would return to Elismera to complete our training. There is not time for you to spend weeks or months in Elismera continuing your education. No, but perhaps we have the time for a brief visit. And exactly, who are your teachers? I have noticed you always evade direct questions about them. Fingering his ring, Aaron, Aragon said, We swore an oath to Islanzadi that we would not reveal their identity without permission from her, Arya, or whoever may succeed Islanzadi to her throne. By all the demons above and below, how many oaths have you and Safira sworn? demanded Naswada. You seem to bind yourself to everyone you meet. Safira said to Naswada, We do not seek them out, but oaths are the price we pay for winning the aid of those in power. What exactly do you hope to gain from such a visit? I don't know, growled Aragon, and that's the heart of the problem. We don't know enough. But we might learn something that could help us vanquish Murtag and Galbatorix once and for all. We barely won yesterday, Naswada, barely. The elf who taught me, he hinted that he knows how it is Galbatorix's strength has been increasing every year. But he refused to reveal more at the time because we were not advanced enough in our training. Now, after our encounters with Thorn and Murtag, I think he will share his knowledge with us. Naswada sat motionless for over a minute. I cannot make this decision until after the dwarves hold their coronation. Whether you go to Duweldenvaden will depend on the movements of the Empire then, and on what our spies report about Murtag and Thorn's activities. Over the course of the next two hours, Naswada instructed Aragon about the thirteen dwarf clans. She schooled him in their history and their politics. Ideally, Oric would be the one to take the throne, she said. He is devoted to our cause. By all means, support him if it can help him. But if it becomes obvious that his attempt is doomed, and your backing could guarantee the success of another clan chief who favors the Varden, then transfer your support, even if doing so will offend Oric. You cannot allow friendship to interfere with politics, not now. When Naswada had finished, she, Aragon, and Sephira spent several minutes figuring out how Aragon could slip out of the camp without being noticed. 
After they had finally hammered out the details of the plan, Aragon and Sephira returned to their tent and told Bludgarm what they had decided. With a series of giddy leaps, Sephira carried Aragon through the camp to Roran and Katrina's tent. What brings you here? Roran asked as Aragon dismounted. Speaking quickly, Aragon told them of his impending departure and impressed upon them the importance of keeping his absence a secret from the rest of the villagers. No matter how slighted they feel, because I supposedly refused to see them, you cannot reveal the truth to them, not even to Horst or Elaine. This I ask of you, for the sake of everyone who has pitted themselves against the Empire. Will you do it? We would never betray you, Aragon, said Katrina. Of that you need have no doubts. Then Roran said he too was leaving. Where? exclaimed Aragon. I just received my assignment a few minutes ago. We are going to raid the Empire's supply trains, somewhere well north of us, behind enemy lines. Aragon gazed at the three of them in turn. First, Roran, serious and determined, already tense with anticipation of battle. Then, Katrina, worried and trying to conceal it. And then Sephira, whose nostrils flickered with small tongues of flame, which sputtered as she breathed. So, we are all going our separate ways. What he did not say, but which hung over them like a shroud, was that they might never again see each other alive. With a rustle of skin and scales, Sephira unfolded her wings and enveloped Roran, Katrina, and Aragon in a warm embrace, isolating them from the world. As Sephira lifted her wings, Roran and Katrina stepped away, while Aragon climbed onto her back. He waved at the newlywed couple, a lump in his throat, and continued waving even as Sephira took to the air. To the cook tents now, asked Sephira. Aye. Sephira climbed a few hundred feet before she aimed herself at the southwestern quadrant of the camp, where pillars of smoke drifted up from rows of ovens and large, wide pit fires. She glided down toward a bare patch of ground between two open-walled tents. There, Aragon watched the cooks go about their business. Every time they beheaded a chicken or cut the throat of a pig or a goat or any other animal, he transferred the energy from the dying animal into the belt of Beloth the Wise. The diamonds in the belt of Beloth the Wise seemed to be able to absorb an almost unlimited amount of energy, so he stopped when he was unable to bear the prospect of immersing himself in the death throes of another animal. We can go now, he said. He climbed onto her back. Sephira leapt high into the air and, gliding over the Varden's camp, returned Aragon to his tent. He slid off her, then stood looking up at her. For a time, they said nothing, allowing their shared emotions to speak for them. Sephira blinked, and he thought her eyes glistened more than normal. This is a test, she said. If we pass it, we shall be the stronger for it, as dragon and rider. We must be able to function by ourselves if necessary, else we will be forever at a disadvantage compared with others. Yes, knowing that does nothing to ease my pain, however. A shiver ran the length of her sinuous body. May the wind rise under your wings, and the sun always be at your back. Travel well and travel fast, little one. Goodbye, he said. Aragon felt that if he remained with her any longer, he would never leave, so he whirled around and, without a backward glance, plunged into the dark interior of his tent. The connection between them he severed completely. 
I did this before, and I can do this again, he thought, and forced himself to square his shoulders and lift his chin. Aragon donned his pack and then stabbed through the barrier in his mind, feeling the energy surging in his body and in the twelve diamonds mounted on the belt of Beloth the Wise. Tapping into that flow of force, he murmured a spell, that which bent rays of light around him and rendered him invisible. A slight pall of fatigue weakened his limbs as he released the spell. As Aragon pushed his way through a stand of cattails, he saw the bulk of a bare-chested cull sitting on a boulder. The sound of rustling leaves and stalks alerted the creature to his presence. He turned his massive horned head toward Aragon, sniffing at the air. It was Nargarsvog, leader of the Urgles, who had allied themselves with the Varden. You! exclaimed Aragon, becoming visible once more. Greetings, fire sword, Garsvog rumbled. Heaving up his thick limbs and giant torso, the Urgle rose to his full eight and a half feet. Greetings, Nargarsvog, said Aragon. Confused, he asked, What of your rams? Who will lead them if you go with me? My blood brother, Shkagresh. He is a fine war chief. I see. Why did you want to come, though? The Urgle lifted his square chin, baring his throat. You are fire sword. You must not die, or the Urgralgra, the Urgles, as you name us, will not have our revenge against Galbatorix. Aragon nodded, not displeased by the turn of events. Garsvog was honest and reliable. As long as he doesn't decide that his honor requires him to challenge me to a duel, we should have no cause for conflict. Very well, Nargarsvog, he said. Let us run together, you and I, as has not happened in the whole of recorded history. Garsvog chuckled deep in his chest. Let us run, fire sword. Together they faced east, and together they set forth for the Beor Mountains. Aragon and Nargarsvog ran for the rest of the day, through the night, and through the following day, stopping only to drink and to relieve themselves. At the end of the second day, Garsvog said, Firesword, I must eat, and I must sleep. Aragon leaned against a nearby stump, panting, and nodded. He had not wanted to speak first, but he was just as hungry and exhausted as the cull. Soon after leaving the Varden, he had discovered that while he was faster than Garsvog at distances of up to five miles, beyond that, Garsvog's endurance was equal to or greater than his own. I will help you hunt, he said. That is not needed. Make us a big fire, and I will bring us food. Fine. Aragon set about gathering grass and dead branches for a fire, which he piled on a patch of dry, rocky ground. Although the two of them had already run an enormous number of leagues, Aragon was disappointed by their progress. Between the Jeet River and Lake Tudosten, they had lost several hours while hiding and taking detours to avoid being seen. Now that Lake Tudosten was behind them, he hoped that their pace would increase. Naswada didn't foresee this delay, now did she? Oh, no. She thought I could run flat out from there to Farthendur. Huh. Kicking at a branch that was in his way, he continued to gather wood, grumbling to himself the entire time. When Garsvog returned an hour later, Aragon had built a fire and was sitting in front of it, staring at the flames. 
Garsvog strode toward him, holding the carcass of a plump doe under his left arm. As if it weighed no more than a sack of rags, he lifted the doe and wedged its head in the fork of a tree twenty yards from the fire. Then he drew a knife and began to clean the carcass. How did you kill it? Aragon asked. With my sling, rumbled Garsvog. Do you intend to cook it on a spit, or do urgles eat their meat raw? Garsvog turned his head and gazed through the coil of his left horn at Aragon, a deep-set yellow eye gleaming with some enigmatic emotion. We are not beasts, Firesword. I did not say you were, Garsvog grunted and returned to his work. It will take too long to cook on a spit, said Aragon. I thought a stew, and we can fry what is left on a rock. Stew? How? We don't have a pot. Reaching down, Garsvog scrubbed his right hand clean on the ground, then removed a square of folded material from the pouch at his belt and tossed it at Aragon. What is it? he asked. The stomach of a cave bear I killed the year I first got my horns. Hang it from a frame, or put it in a hole. Then fill it with water, and drop hot stones in it. Stones heat water, and stew tastes good. Won't the stones burn through the stomach? They have not yet. Is it enchanted? No magic. Strong stomach. Most do not try to kill a cave bear. Most hunt wolves or mountain goats. That is why I became war chief, and others did not. While the food cooked, Aragon and Garsvog carved themselves spoons from the stump where Aragon had dropped his pack. Hunger made it seem longer to Aragon, but it was not many more minutes before the stew was done, and he and Garsvog ate, ravenous as wolves. Aragon devoured twice as much as he thought he ever had before, and what he did not consume, Garsvog did, eating enough for six large men. Afterward, Aragon lay back, propping himself up on his elbows, and stared at the flashing fireflies that had appeared along the edge of the beech trees, swirling in abstract patterns as they chased one another. Somewhere, an owl hooted, soft and throaty. The first few stars speckled the purple sky. How is it you learned this language, Garsvog? Aragon said. Was there a human who lived among you? Did you keep any of us as slaves? Garsvog returned Aragon's gaze without flinching. We have no slaves, Firesword. I tore the knowledge from the minds of the men I had fought, and I shared it with the rest of my tribe. You have killed many humans, haven't you? You have killed many Ulgraugra fire sword. It is why we must be allies, or my race will not survive. Aragon jerked his chin in a nod. It does no good, then, to dwell upon past wrongs. If we cannot overlook what each of our races has done, there will never be peace between humans and the Ulgraugra. Neither of them spoke again that night. Garsvog curled up on his side, and slept with his massive head resting on the ground, while Aragon wrapped himself in his cloak and sat against the stump and gazed at the slowly turning stars, drifting in and out of his waking dreams.
The long days and longer nights slipped by with both excruciating slowness and surprising speed, for every hour was identical to the last, which made Aragon feel not only as if their ordeal would never end, but also as if large portions of it had never taken place. When he and Garzvog arrived at the Beartooth River, which flowed out of the narrow valley that led to Farthandur, they forded the frigid waters and continued southward. That night, before they ventured east into the mountains proper, they rested their limbs by a small pond. Garzvog killed another deer with his sling, and they both ate their fill. At dawn's first light, Aragon and Garzvog left their camp, and running eastward, entered the valley that would lead them to Mount Thardur. As they passed underneath the boughs of the dense forest that guarded the interior of the mountain range, the air became noticeably cooler, and the soft bed of needles on the ground muffled their footsteps. An hour or so after noon, Aragon and Garzvog slowed, as a series of terrible roars echoed among the trees. Aragon pulled his sword from its sheath, and Garzvog plucked a smooth river rock from the ground and fitted in the pocket of his sling. It is a cave bear, said Garzvog. We must be careful, fire sword. They proceeded at a slow pace, and soon spotted the animal several hundred feet up the side of a mountain. Awed by the bear's size, Aragon said, I think even Sephira might not be able to overcome such a monster. Garzvog uttered a small grunt. She can breathe fire. A bear cannot. Neither of them looked away from the bear until trees hid it from view, and even then they kept their weapons at readiness, not knowing what other dangers they might encounter. The day had passed into late afternoon when they heard another sound, the sound of laughter. Aragon and Garzvog halted, and then Garzvog raised a finger, and with surprising stealth crept through a wall of brush toward the laughter. Placing his feet with care, Aragon went with the cull, holding his breath for fear his breathing would betray their presence. Peering through a cluster of dogwood leaves, Aragon saw that there was now a well-worn path at the bottom of the valley, and next to the path, three dwarf children were playing, throwing sticks at each other and shrieking with laughter. No adults were visible. Aragon withdrew to a safe distance. A branch snapped as Garzvog squatted next to him, so that they were about level. Garzvog said, Fire sword, here we part. You will not come to break and hold with me? No. My task was to keep you safe. If I go with you, the dwarves will not trust you as they should. Thardur Mountain is close at hand, and I am confident no one will dare hurt you between here and there. Are you going to run straight back to the Varden? With a low chuckle, Garzvog said, Aye, but maybe not so fast as we did coming here. Unsure of what to say, Aragon pushed at the rotten end of a log with the tip of his boot, exposing a clutch of white larvae. Don't let a cave bear eat you, eh? Then I would have to track down the beast and kill him, and I don't have the time for that. Garzvog pressed both his fists against his bony forehead. May your enemies cower before you, fire-sword. Standing and turning, Garzvog loped away from Aragon. The forest soon hid the cull's bulky form. Aragon filled his lungs with the fresh mountain air, then pushed his way through the wall of brush. As he emerged from the thicket of brakes and dogwood, the tiny dwarf children froze. 
the expressions on their round-cheeked faces wary. Holding his hands out to his sides, Aragon said, I am Aragon Shadeslayer, son of Nun. I seek Oric, Thrift's son, at Bregenhold. Can you take me to him? When the children did not respond, he realized they understood nothing of his own language. I am a dragon rider, he said, speaking slowly and emphasizing the words. Eka edir e shurtugal. Shurtugal. Argetlam. At that, the children's eyes brightened, and their mouths formed round shapes of amazement. Argetlam, they exclaimed. Argetlam! And they ran over and threw themselves at him, wrapping their short arms around his legs and tugging at his clothes, shouting with merriment the entire time. Aragon stared down at them, feeling a foolish grin spread across his face. The children grasped his hands, and he allowed them to pull him down the path. A cheer went up from the crowd. Aragon was sitting in the wooden stand that the dwarves had built along the base of the outer ramparts of Bregan Hold. The hold itself was a thick, solid building that rose five stories to an open bell tower, which was topped by a teardrop of glass that was as large around as two dwarves. The teardrop, as Auric had told Aragon, was a larger version of the dwarves' flameless lanterns, and during notable occasions or emergencies it could be used to illuminate the entire valley with a golden light. The dwarves called it As Sindris Narvel, or the Gem of Sindri. Clustered around the flanks of the hold were numerous outbuildings, living quarters for the servants and warriors of der Grimstingeitem. All that and more Oric had shown and explained to Aragon after the three dwarf children had escorted him into the courtyard of Bregan Hold, shouting Argetlam to everyone within earshot. Oric had greeted Aragon like a brother, and then had taken him to the baths, and when he was clean, saw to it that he was garbed in a robe of deep purple with a gold circlet for his brow. Afterward, Oryx surprised Aragon by introducing him to Vedra, a bright-eyed, apple-faced dwarf woman with long hair, and proudly announcing that they had been married but two days past. While Aragon expressed his astonishment and congratulations, Oryx shifted from foot to foot before replying, it pained me that you were not able to attend the ceremony, Aragon. I had one of our spellcasters contact Naswara, and I asked her if she would give you and Zafira my invitation, but she refused to mention it to you. She feared the offer might distract you from the task at hand. I cannot blame her, but I wish that this war would have allowed you to be at our wedding, and us at your cousin's, for we are all related now, by law, if not by blood. Vedra said, Please consider me as your kin now, Shadeslayer. So long as it is within mine power, you shall always be treated as family at Bregenhold, and you may claim sanctuary of us whenever you need, even if it is Galbatorix who hunts you. Aragon bowed, touched by her offer. You are most kind. Then he asked, If you don't mind my curiosity, why did you and Oric choose to marry now? We had planned to join hands this spring, but... But, Oric continued, the Urgors attacked Farthendur, and then Hrothgar sent me traipsing off with you to Elismera. When I returned here, and the families of the clan accepted me as the new Grimstborith, we thought it the perfect time to consummate our betrothal and become husband and wife. 
None of us may survive the year, so why tarry? So you did become clan chief, Aragon said. Aye. Choosing the next leader of Durgrimstein Gaitam was a contentious business. We were hard at it for over a week, but in the end, most of the families agreed that I should follow in Hrothgar's footsteps. Now Aragon sat next to Oric and Vedra, devouring the bread and mutton the dwarves had brought him and watching the contest taking place in front of the stands. It was customary, Oric had said, for a dwarf family, if they had the gold, to stage games for the entertainment of their wedding guests. Hrothgar's family was so wealthy, the current games had already lasted for three days and were scheduled to continue for another four. A barrel-chested dwarf stepped forward and announced the winner of the last contest. When he had finished speaking, Aragon bent over and asked, Will you be accompanying us to Farthendur, Vedra? She shook her head and smiled widely. I cannot. I must stay here and tend to the affairs of the Ingaitum while Oric is gone, so he does not return to find our warriors starving and all our gold spent. Oric said with obvious pride, Vedra does not boast. She is not only my wife, she is the Grimst Karvlos of the Durgrimst Ingaitum. Grimst Karvlos means the keeper of the house. It is her duty to ensure that the families of our clan pay their agreed-upon tithes to break and hold. There is a saying among our people, a good Grimst Karvlos can make a clan, and a bad Grimst Karvlos will destroy a clan, said Vedra. Oryk smiled and clasped one of her hands in his, and Vedra is the best of Grimst Karvlosen. Bending their heads together, he and Vedra rubbed noses. Aragon glanced away, feeling lonely and excluded. The following morning, Aragon found Oric and twelve other dwarves in the courtyard of the hold, saddling a line of sturdy ponies. Oric hailed him. We have a donkey in our stables, if you would like to ride. No, I'll continue on foot, if it's all the same to you. Oric shrugged. As you wish. With Aragon beside him, Oric spurred his pony forward, trotted out of the main gates of Bregan Hold, and turned east toward the head of the valley. The twelve dwarves rode behind them. As they followed a well-worn trail across the side of Thardur Mountain, climbing ever higher above the valley floor, Oric said, It has been nigh on two centuries since the last Durgrimstvren, the last clan war, racked our nation, Aragon. But by Morgatar's black beard, we stand on the brink of another one now. Now? Of all times? exclaimed Aragon, appalled. Is it really that bad? Oric scowled. It is worse. Hrothgar's death and Naswada's invasion of the Empire have served to aggravate old rivalries and lend strength to those who believe it is folly to cast our lot with the Varden. They say that if we just keep to ourselves and remain hidden in our caves and tunnels, we shall have nothing to fear from Galbatorix. They do not realize that Galbatorix's hunger for power is insatiable and that he will not rest until all of Alagazia lies at his feet. Oryx shook his head. I will not allow our race to cower in tunnels, and I will not allow our nation to disintegrate into a clan war. With circumstances as they are, another Dugrimstvren would destroy our civilization and possibly doom the Varden as well. For the good of my people, I intend to seek the throne myself. However, there are many who stand between me and the crown. It will not be easy to garner enough votes to become king— 
I need to know, Aragon. Will you back me in this? If I do, my support might turn the other clans against you. Not only will you be asking your people to ally themselves with the Varden, you will be asking them to accept a dragon rider as one of their own, which they have never done before, and I doubt they will want to now. Aye, it may turn some against me, but it may also gain me the votes of others. Let me be the judge of that. All I wish to know is, will you back me? Aragon, why do you hesitate? You are concerned about the good of your people, and rightly so, but my concerns are broader. They encompass the good of the Varden, and the Elves, and everyone else who opposes Galbatorix. If it is not likely you can win the crown, and there is another clan chief who could, and who is not unsympathetic to the Varden, no one would be a more sympathetic Grimstborith than I. I'm not questioning your friendship, but if what I said came to pass, and my support might ensure that such a clan chief won the throne, for the good of your people, and for the good of the rest of Alagazia, shouldn't I back the dwarf who has the best chance of succeeding? In a deadly quiet voice, Oryx said, You swore a blood oath on the Nurnien, Eregon. By every law of our realm, you are a member of Durgrimstingaitum, no matter how greatly others may disapprove. If you turn against me, Eregon, you will shame me in front of our entire race, and none will ever trust my leadership again. Moreover, you will prove to your detractors that we cannot trust a dragon rider. Clan members do not betray each other, Eregon. It is not done, not unless you wish to wake up one night with a dagger buried in your heart. Are you threatening me? asked Eregon, just as quietly. Oryx swore and said, No. I say that not as a threat, but as a statement of fact. You must understand this, Aragon. If you speak out against the Ingaitum, the clan will see you as having betrayed them, and it is not our custom to allow traitors to remain within our midst. Do you understand me, Aragon? What do you expect of me? Would you have me doom all of Alagazia just so you can maintain your standing among the clans? Do not insult me! Then don't ask the impossible of me! I will back you if it seems likely you can ascend to the throne, and if not, then I won't. In a kinder tone, Oryx said, There is another way, Aragon. It would be more difficult for you, but it would resolve your quandary. Oh, what wondrous solution would this be? Trust me to do the right thing, Aragon Shadeslayer. Give me the same loyalty you would if you were indeed born of the Grimstingaitum. But if I cannot be king, trust me to recognize when my bid has failed. If it should happen, not that I believe it shall, then I will, of my own volition, lend my support to one of the other candidates. Will you trust me, Aragon? Will you accept me as your Grimstborith, as the rest of my whole sworn subjects do? trust. Of all the things Oryk could have asked of him, that was the most difficult to grant. Aragon liked Oryk, but to subordinate himself to the dwarf's authority when so much was at stake would be to relinquish even more of his freedom, a prospect he loathed. And along with his freedom, he would also be relinquishing part of his responsibility for the fate of Alagazia. Aragon said, I would not be a mindless servant for you to order about. When it came to matters of de Grimstengeitem, I would defer to you, but in all else you would have no hold over me. Oryk nodded, his face serious. 
I am not worried about what mission Aswada might send you on, nor whom you might kill while fighting the Empire. No, what gives me restless nights is imagining you attempting to influence the clan meet's voting. Your intentions are noble, I know, but you are unfamiliar with our politics. This is mine area of expertise, Aragon. Let me conduct it in the manner I deem appropriate. It is what Hrothgar groomed me for my entire life. Aragon sighed, and with a sensation of falling, he said, Very well. I will do as you think best about the succession, Grimst Borathoric. Roran squatted and gazed through the latticework of willow branches. Two hundred yards away, fifty-three soldiers and wagon drivers sat around three separate cook fires, eating their dinner, as dusk rapidly settled over the land. The men had stopped for the night on the broad, grass-covered bank next to a nameless river. The wagons full of supplies for Galbatorix's troops were parked in a rough half-circle around the fires. Twenty yards or so downstream, however, a soft earth shelf reared high out of the ground, which prevented any attack or escape from that quarter. What were they thinking? Roran wondered. It was only prudent, when in hostile territory, to camp in a defensible location which usually meant finding a natural formation to protect your back. Even so, you had to be careful to choose a resting place you could flee from if ambushed. As it was, it would be childishly easy for Roran and the other warriors under Martland's command to sweep out of the brush where they were hiding and pin the men of the Empire in the tip of the V formed by the earthen shelf and the river, where they could pick off the soldiers and drivers at their leisure. It puzzled Roran that trained soldiers would make such an obvious mistake. Have you detected any traps? he asked. He did not have to turn his head to know that Karn was close beside him. Karn was their spellcaster. From some of the other men, Roran had gathered that Karn was not a particularly strong magician, he struggled to cast every spell, but that he compensated for his weakness by inventing extraordinarily clever spells. Karn was thin of face and thin of body, with drooping eyes and a nervous, excitable air. Roran had taken an immediate liking to him. None that I can tell, murmured Karn. Is there a magician with them, though? I can't tell for sure, but no, I don't think so. Roran pushed away a shock of narrow willow leaves to better see the layout of the wagons. I don't like it, he grumbled. Frustrated, Aragon stormed out of the circular chamber buried deep under the center of Trondheim. The oak door slammed shut behind him with a hollow boom. He stood with his hands on his hips in the middle of the arched corridor outside the chamber and glared at the floor. Since he and Oric had arrived in Trondheim three days ago, the thirteen chiefs of the dwarf clans had done nothing but argue about issues that Aragon considered inconsequential, such as which clans had the right to graze their flocks in certain disputed pastures, or debate obscure points of their legal code. Still lost in thought, Aragon slowly walked down the corridor, barely noticing the four guards who followed him as they did wherever he went, nor the dwarves he passed in the hall, who greeted him with variations of Argetlam. The worst one is Jorun, Aragon decided. The dwarf woman was the Grimst Boreth of the Grimst Vrenshurgen, a powerful warlike clan, and she had made it clear from the very beginning of the deliberations that she intended to have the throne for herself. 
Only one other clan, the Urshad, had openly pledged themselves to her cause, but as she had demonstrated on multiple occasions during the meetings between the clan chiefs, she was clever, cunning, and able to twist most any situation to her advantage. She might make an excellent queen, Aragon admitted to himself, but she's so devious, it's impossible to know whether she would support the Varden once she was enthroned. In addition to Yurun, two other clan chiefs had emerged as rivals for the throne. Ganel, chief of de Grimst Quan, and Nado, chief of de Grimst Nurkarufun. As the custodians of the dwarves' religion, the Quan wielded enormous influence among their race, but so far Ganel had obtained the support of but two other clans. In contrast, Nado had forged a larger coalition, consisting of the clans Feldunost, Fangur, and Asswelden Rak Anhuin. Whereas Yurun seemed to want the throne merely for the power she would gain thereafter, and Ganel did not seem inherently hostile to the Varden, Nado was openly and vehemently opposed to any involvement with Aragon, Naswada, the Empire, Galbatorix, Queen Islanzadi, or, so far as Aragon could tell, any living being outside of the Bior Mountains. If Nado's bid for the crown should falter, Aragon knew that many of the other, lesser clan chiefs who shared his views would leap up to take his place. As Swelden Rak Anhuin, for example, whom Galbatorix and the Forsworn had nearly obliterated during their uprising, had declared themselves Aragon's blood enemies during his visit to the city of Tarnag, and in every action of theirs at the clan meet had demonstrated their implacable hatred. One of these days, thought Aragon, I will have to find a way to make peace with them. That, or I'll have to finish what Galbatorix started. I refuse to live my entire life in fear of Aswelden Rakadhuin. How secure the alliances between any of the clans were, however, was a question of some uncertainty. As he pondered the situation, Aragon wandered aimlessly through the warren of chambers below Trondheim, until he found himself in a dry, dusty room, lined with five black arches on one side, and a bas-relief carving of a snarling bear twenty feet high on the other. The bear had gold teeth and round, faceted rubies for eyes. "'Where are we, Kvistor?' asked Aragon, glancing at his guards. The lead guard stepped forward. These rooms were cleared millennia ago by Grimst Boreth Corgan, when Trondheim was under construction. We have not used them much since, except when our entire race congregates in Farthendur. Does no one at all live in these ancient parts? The fresh-faced dwarf answered, Some do. A few strange Nurlin, those to whom empty solitude is more pleasing than the touch of their wife's hand or the sound of their friends' voices. It was one such Nurlag who warned us of the approach of the Urgal army if you remember, Arjit Lam. Also, although we do not speak of it often, there are those who have broken the laws of our land, and whom their clan chiefs have banished. All such are as the walking dead to us. We shun them if we meet them outside our lands, and hang them if we catch them within our borders. When Kvistor had finished speaking, Aragon indicated that he was ready to leave. Kvistor took the lead, and Aragon followed him out the doorway through which they had entered, the three other dwarves close behind. They had gone no more than twenty feet when Aragon heard a faint scuffling from the rear, so faint Kvistor did not seem to notice. Aragon glanced back. 
By the amber light cast by the flameless lanterns mounted on either side of the passageway, he saw seven dwarves, garbed entirely in black, their faces masked with dark cloth, and their feet muffled with rags, running toward his group with a speed that Aragon had assumed was the sole province of elves, or other creatures whose blood hummed with magic. In their right hands, the dwarves held long, sharp daggers with pale blades that flickered with prismatic colors, while in their left, each carried a metal buckler with a sharpened spike protruding from the boss. Their minds, like those of the Razak, were hidden from Aragon. Sephira was Aragon's first thought. Then he remembered he was alone. Twisting to face the black-garbed dwarves, Aragon reached for the hilt of his falchion while opening his mouth to shout a warning. He was too late. As the first word rang in his throat, three of the strange dwarves grabbed the hindmost of Aragon's guards and lifted their glimmering daggers to stab him. Faster than speech or conscious thought, Aragon plunged his whole being into the flow of magic, and without relying upon the ancient language to structure his spell, rewove the fabric of the world into a pattern more pleasing to him. The three guards who stood between him and the attackers flew toward him, as if yanked by invisible strings, and landed upon their feet beside him, unharmed but disoriented. Aragon winced at the sudden decrease in his strength. Two of the black-garbed dwarves rushed him, stabbing at his belly with their daggers. Sword in hand, Aragon parried both blows, stunned by the dwarves' speed and ferocity. One of his guards leapt forward, shouting and swinging his axe at the would-be assassins. Before Aragon could grab the dwarf's hauberk and yank him back to safety, a white blade, writhing as with spectral flame, pierced the dwarf's corded neck. As the dwarf fell, Aragon glimpsed his contorted face and was shocked to seek Vistor, and that his throat was glowing molten red as it disintegrated around the dagger. I can't let them so much as scratch me, Aragon thought. Enraged by Kvistor's death, Aragon stabbed at his killer so quickly the black-garbed dwarf had no opportunity to evade the blow and dropped lifeless at Aragon's feet. With all his strength, Aragon shouted, Stay behind me! Aragon retreated several yards to give himself room to maneuver free of the corpses and settled into a low crouch, waving the falchion to and fro like a snake preparing to strike. His heart was racing at twice its normal rate, and although the fight had just begun, he was already gasping for breath. Afraid to duel with the dwarves as he would have if they wielded normal blades, Aragon drove his legs against the floor and jumped up and forward. He spun halfway around and struck the ceiling, feet first, he pushed off, spun halfway around again, and landed on his hands and feet, a yard behind the three dwarves. Even as they whirled toward him, he stepped forward and beheaded the lot of them with a single backhand blow. Their daggers clattered against the floor an instant before their heads. Leaping over their truncated bodies, Aragon twisted in midair and landed on the spot he had started from. He was not a moment too soon. A breath of wind tickled his neck as the tip of a dagger whipped past his throat. Another blade tugged at the cuff of his leggings, cutting them open. He flinched and swung the falchion, trying to gain space to fight. My ward should have turned their blades away, he thought, bewildered. Someone else is protecting them, Aragon realized. There are more behind this attack than just these seven. Pivoting on one foot, Aragon lunged forward, and with his falchion, impaled his leftmost attacker in a knee, drawing blood. The dwarf stumbled, and Aragon's guards converged upon him, grasping the dwarf's arms so he could not swing his dire blade, and hacking at him with their curved axes. 
The nearest of the last two attackers raised his shield in anticipation of the blow Aragon was about to direct at him. Summoning the full measure of his might, Aragon cut at the shield, intending to shear it and the arm underneath in half, as he had often done with Zarok. In the fever of battle, though, he forgot to account for the dwarf's inexplicable speed. As the falchion neared its target, the dwarf tilted his shield so as to deflect the blow to the side. With a crystalline sound, the blade of the falchion shattered into a dozen pieces, leaving him with a six-inch spike of jagged metal protruding from the hilt. Dismayed, Aragon dropped the broken sword, drew back his arm and struck the shield as hard as he could, punching through the tempered steel as easily as if it were made of rotten wood. Because of the calluses on his knuckles, he felt no pain from the impact. The force of the blow threw the dwarf against the opposite wall. His head lolling upon a boneless neck, the dwarf dropped to the ground, like a puppet whose strings had been severed. Aragon drew his hunting knife. Then the last of the black-garbed dwarves was upon him. He glimpsed a pale dagger descending toward his flesh like a bolt of lightning from on high. Then, to his astonishment, the tip of the dagger caught on one of the flameless lanterns mounted on the wall. Aragon whirled away before he could see more, but an instant later a burning hot hand seemed to strike him from behind, throwing him a good twenty feet through the hall. A booming report deafened him. When the noise had subsided, he staggered to his feet. Groggy and confused, he gazed upon the sight of the explosion. The blast had blackened a ten-foot length of the hallway with soot. Soft flakes of ash tumbled through the air, which was as hot as the air from a heated forge. The dwarf who had been about to strike Aragon lay on the ground, thrashing, his body covered with burns. After a few more convulsions, he grew still. Aragon's three remaining guards lay at the edge of the soot, where the explosion had thrown them. Even as he watched, they staggered upright, blood dripping from their ears and gaping mouths, their beards singed and in disarray. The links along the fringe of their hauberks glowed red, but their leather underarmor seemed to have protected them from the worst of the heat. Aragon took a single step forward, then stopped and groaned as a patch of agony bloomed between his shoulder blades. He tried to twist his arm around to feel the extent of the wound, but as his skin stretched, the pain became too great to continue. Nearly losing consciousness, he leaned against the wall for support. He glanced at the burnt dwarf again. I must have suffered similar injuries on my back. Forcing himself to concentrate, he recited two of the spells designed to heal burns that Brahm had taught him during their travels. As they took effect, it felt as if cool, soothing water were flowing across his back. He sighed with relief and straightened. Are you hurt? he asked as his guards hobbled over. The dwarf on the right, a burly fellow with a forked beard, coughed and spat out a glob of congealed blood, then growled, Nothing that time won't mend. What of you, Shade Slayer? I'll live. Testing the floor with every step, Aragon entered the soot-blackened area and knelt beside Kvistor, hoping that he might still save the dwarf from the clutches of death. As soon as he beheld Kvistor's wound again, he knew it was not to be. Aragon bowed his head, then stood. Why did the lantern explode? They're filled with heat and light, Argentlam, one of his guards replied. If they're broken, all of it escapes at once and then it is better to be far away. Gesturing at the crumbled corpses of their attackers, Aragon asked, Do you know of which clan they are? 
The dwarf with the forked beard rifled through the clothes of several of the black-garbed dwarves, then said, Bazoo! They carry no marks upon them, such as you would recognize, Argent Lamb, but they carry this. He held up a bracelet made of braided horsehair, set with polished cabochons of amethyst. What does it mean? This amethyst, said the dwarf, and tapped one of the cabochons with a soot-streaked fingernail, this particular variety of amethyst. It grows in only four parts of the Beor Mountains, and three of them belong to Asweldon Rack and Huyn. Aragon frowned. Grimstforth Vermund ordered this attack? I cannot say for sure, Argent Lamb. Another clan might have left the bracelet for us to find. They might want us to think it was Asweld and Rakanhuin, so we do not realize who our foes really are. But if I had to wager, Argent Lamb, I would wager a cartload of gold that it is Asweld and Rakanhuin who is responsible. Blast them, Aragon murmured. Whoever it was, blast them. He looked at each of his guards in turn and said, As you are my witnesses, I swear I shall not let this attack, nor Kvistor's death, go unpunished. Whichever clan or clans sent these dung-faced killers, when I learn their names, they will wish they had never thought to strike at me, and by striking at me, strike at their Grimstein Geitem. This I swear to you, as a dragon rider and as a fellow member of their Grimstein Geitem, and if any ask you of it, repeat my promise to them, as I have given it to you. Then Aragon walked to where the remains of his falchion lay. I need a sword, he thought. I need a rider's sword. The wind of morning head above flatland, which was different from the wind of morning head above hills, shifted. Sephira adjusted the angle of her wings to compensate for the changes in speed and pressure of the air that supported her weight thousands of feet above the sun-bathed land below. She closed her double eyelids for a moment, luxuriating in the soft bed of the wind, as well as the warmth of the morning rays beating down upon her sinewy length. She imagined how the light must make her scales sparkle, and how those who saw her circling in the sky must marvel at the sight and she hummed with pleasure, content in the knowledge that she was the most beautiful creature in Allegasia, for who could hope to match the glory of her scales, and her long, tapering tail, and her wings, so fair and well-formed, and her curved claws, and her long white fangs, with which she could sever the neck of a wild ox with a single bite. Not Gleder of the gold scales, who had lost a leg during the fall of the riders, nor could Thorn or Shurikan, for they were both slaves to Galbatorix, and their forced servitude had twisted their minds. A dragon who was not free to do as he or she wished was not a dragon at all. Besides, they were males, and while males might appear majestic, they could not embody the beauty she did. No, she was the most stunning creature in Allegasia, and that was as it should be. Sephira wriggled with satisfaction all the way from the base of her head to the tip of her tail. Today was a perfect day. The heat of the sun made her feel as if she were lying in a nest of coals. Her belly was full, the sky was clear, and there was nothing she needed to attend to besides watching for foes who might wish to fight, which she did anyway as a matter of habit. Her happiness had only one flaw, but... It was a profound flaw, and the longer she considered it, 
the more discontented she grew, until she realized she was no longer satisfied. She wished Aragon were there to share the day with her. She growled and loosed a brief jet of blue flame from between her jaws, searing the air in front of her, then constricted her throat, cutting off the stream of liquid fire. Her tongue tingled from the flames that had run over it. When was Aragon, partner of her mind and heart Aragon, going to contact Naswada from Trondheim and ask for her, Safira, to join him? She had urged him to obey Naswada and travel to the mountains higher than she could fly, but now too long had passed, and Safira felt cold and empty in her gut. There is a shadow in the world, she thought. That is what has upset me. Something is wrong with Aragon. He is in danger, or he was in danger recently, and I cannot help him. A league farther upstream, the Varden were packed against the Jeet River like a herd of red deer against the edge of a cliff. The Varden had arrived at the crossing yesterday, and since then perhaps a third of them had forded the river. A flicker of movement to the northeast caught her attention, and she angled toward it, curious. She saw a line of five and forty weary horses trudging toward the Varden. Most of the horses were riderless. Therefore it did not occur to her until another half-hour had elapsed and she could make out the faces of the men in the saddles that the group might be Rorans, returning from their raid. She wondered what had happened to so reduce their numbers and felt a momentary twinge of unease. She was not bonded to Roran, but Aragon cared for him, and that was reason enough for her to worry about his well-being. Pushing her consciousness down toward the Varden, she searched until she found the music of Arya's mind— and once the elf acknowledged her and allowed access to her thoughts, Sephira said, Roran shall be here by late afternoon. However, his company is sore diminished. Some great evil befell them this trip. Thank you, Sephira, said Arya. I shall inform Naswada. As Sephira withdrew from Arya's mind, she felt the questing touch of black-blue wolf-hair Bloodgarm. I am not a hatchling, she snapped. You need not check on my health every few minutes. You have my most humble apologies, Bjartskur. Only you have been gone for quite some time now, and if any are watching, they will begin to wonder why you and— Yes, I know, she growled. Shortening her wingspan, she tilted downward, the sensation of weight leaving her, and gyrated in slow spirals as she dove toward the turgid river. I shall be there shortly. Then, drifting downward upon still wings, she landed in a clearing among the tents, a clearing Naswada had ordered set aside just for her, and crawled through the camp to Aragon's empty tent, where Bludgarm and the eleven other elves he commanded were waiting for her. She greeted them with a blink of her eyes and a flick of her tongue, and then curled up in front of Aragon's tent, resigned to dozing and waiting for dark, as she would if Aragon were actually in the tent, and he and she were flying missions at night. It was dull, tedious work, lying there day after day, but it was necessary in order to maintain the deception that Aragon was still with the Varden, so Sephira did not complain. The big round fire in the sky was close to the horizon when Sephira heard the shouts and cries of welcome that meant Roran and his fellow warriors had reached the camp. She roused herself. 
As he had done before, Bludgarm half sang, half whispered a spell that created an insubstantial likeness of Aragon, which the elf caused to walk out of the tent and climb onto Sephira's back, where it sat looking around in a perfect imitation of independent life. Visually, the apparition was flawless, but it had no mind of its own. And if any of Galbatorix's agents tried to eavesdrop upon Aragon's thoughts, they would discover the deceit forthwith. Therefore, the success of the ploy depended upon Sephira ferrying the apparition through the camp and out of sight as quickly as possible, and upon the hope that Aragon's reputation was so formidable it would discourage clandestine observers from attempting to glean information about the Varden from his consciousness for fear of his vengeance. Sephira started up and bounded through the camp, the twelve elves running in formation around her. Men leapt out of their path, shouting, Hail, Shadeslayer, and Hail, Sephira, which kindled a warm glow in her belly. When she arrived at Naswada's tent, she crouched and stuck her head inside the dark gap along one wall, where Naswada's guards had pulled aside the panel of fabric to allow her access. Bludgarm resumed his soft singing then, and the Aragon wraith climbed down off Sephira, entered the crimson tent, and once it was out of sight of the gawking onlookers outside, dissolved into nothingness. Do you think our ruse was discovered? Naswada asked from her high-backed chair. Bludgarm bowed with an elegant gesture. Again, Lady Naswada, I cannot say for sure. We will have to wait and see if the Empire moves to take advantage of Aragon's absence before we will know the answer to that question. Thank you, Bludgarm. That will be all. With another bow, the elf withdrew from the tent and took up a position several yards behind Sephira, guarding her flank. Sephira settled down onto her underside and began to lick clean the scales around the third claw on her left forefoot, between which there had accumulated unsightly lines of the dry white clay she remembered standing in when she ate her last kill. Not a minute later, Martland Redbeard, Roran, and a man whom she did not recognize entered the red tent and bowed to Naswada. Sephira paused in her cleaning to taste the air with her tongue and discerned the tang of dried blood and, faint but unmistakable, the sharp spike of man-fear. She examined the trio again and saw that the red long-beard man had lost his right hand, then returned to excavating the clay from around her scales. She continued licking her foot, while first Martland, then Ulhart, then Roran, told a tale of blood and fire and of laughing men who refused to die at their allotted times, but insisted upon continuing to fight long past when Angvard had called their names. As was her wont, Sephira held her peace, while others, specifically Naswada and her advisor Jormunder, questioned the warriors about the details of their ill-fated mission. When the questions were finished, Naswada expressed her condolences to Martland for his lost hand, then dismissed Martland and Ulhart, but not Roran, to whom she said, You have demonstrated your prowess, Stronghammer. I am well pleased with your abilities. Thank you, my lady. Our best healers will attend to him, but Martland will still need time to recover from his injury. Even once he does, he cannot lead raids such as these with only one hand. This means, however that I must find another captain for you to serve under, Roran. Then Roran said, My lady, what of my own command? Have I not proven myself to your satisfaction with this raid, as well as with my past accomplishments? If you continue to distinguish yourself as you have, Stronghammer, you will win your command soon enough. 
Roran gripped the head of the hammer stuck through his belt, veins and tendons standing out on his hand, but his tone remained polite. Of course, Lady Naswada. As Roran started to leave, Naswada raised a hand and said, Roran? He paused. Now that you have fought these men who feel no pain, do you believe that having similar protection from the agonies of the flesh would make it easier to defeat them? Roran hesitated, then shook his head. Their strength is their weakness. It is true they can continue fighting long past when an ordinary man would have dropped dead, and that is no small advantage in battle, but they also die in greater numbers because they do not protect their bodies as they ought. In their numb confidence, they will walk into traps and peril we would go to great lengths to avoid. As long as the Varden's spirits remain high, I believe that, with the right tactics, we can prevail against these laughing monsters. Thank you, Roran. When Roran had gone, Sephira said, Nothing yet, for Marigan? Naswada shook her head. No, nothing yet from him, and his silence is beginning to concern me. If he has not contacted us by the day after tomorrow, I will have Arya send a message to one of Oryx's spellcasters, demanding a report from him. When Sephira was ready to leave the red chrysalis tent, Bloodgarm again summoned up the apparition of Aragon and placed it on Sephira's back. Then Sephira withdrew her head from the confines of the tent, and as she had before, bounded through the camp, the live elves keeping step with her the entire way. Once she reached Aragon's tent and the colored shadow Aragon disappeared inside it, Sephira lowered herself to the ground and resigned herself to waiting out the remainder of the day in unrelieved monotony. Hundreds of feet below Trondheim, the stone opened up into a cavern thousands of feet long, with a still black lake of unknown depth along one side and a marble shore on the other. Brown and ivory stalactites dripped from the ceiling, while stalagmites stabbed upward from the ground, and in places the two joined to form bulging pillars thicker around than even the largest trees in Duweldenvarden. Scattered among the pillars were mounds of compost, studded with mushrooms, as well as three-and-twenty low stone huts. A flameless lantern glowed iron-red next to each of their doors. Inside one of the huts, Aragon sat in a chair that was too small for him, at a granite table no higher than his knees. Across from him, Glumra, she who was the mother of Kvistor, Aragon's slain guard, wailed and tore at her hair and beat at her breast with her fists. The two of them were alone in the hut. Aragon's four guards, their numbers replenished by Thrand, a warrior from Oryx's retinue, were waiting outside, along with Hundfast, Aragon's translator, whom Aragon had dismissed from the hut once he learned that Glumra could speak his language. After the attempt on his life, Aragon had contacted Oryx with his mind, whereupon Oryx insisted Aragon run as fast as he could to the chambers of the Ingaitum, where he would be safe from any more assassins. Aragon had obeyed, and there he had remained while Oryx forced the clan meet to adjourn until the following morning. Then Oryx marched with his stoutest warriors and most adept spellcaster to the site of the ambush, which they studied and recorded with means both magical and mundane. Once Oryx was satisfied they had learned all they could, he had hurried back to his chambers, where he said to Aragon, We have much to do, 
and little time in which to do it. Before the clan meet resumes tomorrow, we must attempt to establish beyond all doubt who ordered the attack. There are Norland to find, questions to ask, threats to make, bribes to offer, and scrolls to steal, and all before morn. What of me? Aragon asked. You should remain here until we know if Asweldon Rakanhuin or some other clan has a larger force massed elsewhere to kill you. Also, as long as we can hide from your attackers whether you are alive, dead, or wounded, the longer we may keep them uncertain as to the safety of the rock beneath their feet. At first, Aragon agreed with Oryx's proposal, but as he watched the dwarf bustle about issuing orders, he felt increasingly uneasy and helpless. Finally, he caught Oryx by the arm and said, There must be something I can do to help. What of Kvistor? Do any of his family live in Trondheim? Has anyone told them of his death yet? Because if not, I would be the one to bring them the tidings, for it was me he died defending. Oryx inquired of his guards and from them they learned that Kvistor did indeed have a family in Trondheim, or more accurately, underneath Trondheim. When he heard, Oryk frowned and muttered a strange word in Dwarvish. They are deep dwellers, he said, Nurlin who have forsaken the surface of the land for the world below, except for occasional forays above. I had not known Kvistor was of their number. Would you mind if I go to visit his family? Aragon asked. Among these rooms there are stairs that lead below, am I right? We could leave without anyone being the wiser. Oryk thought for a moment, then nodded. You're right. The path is safe enough, and no one would think to look for you among the deep dwellers. And so, with Thrand added to his guards and Hundfast accompanying them, and with a short dwarf sword belted around his waist, Aragon went to the nearest staircase leading downward, and following it, he descended farther into the bowels of the earth than ever he had before, and in due time he found Glumra and informed her of Kvistor's demise. And now he sat listening as she grieved for her slain child, alternating between wordless howls and scraps of dwarvish sung in a haunting, dissonant key. Discomfited by the strength of her sorrow, Aragon glanced away from her face. Then, at the height of her wailing, Glumra rose from the table, went to the counter, and placed her left hand on the cutting board. Before Aragon could stop her, she took a carving knife and cut off the first joint of her little finger. She groaned and doubled over. Aragon sprang halfway up with an involuntary exclamation. He wondered what madness had overcome the dwarf woman, and whether he should attempt to restrain her, lest she should do herself additional harm. He opened his mouth to ask if she wanted him to heal the wound, but then he thought better of it remembering Oryx's admonishments about the deep-dweller's strange customs and strong sense of honor. She might consider the offer an insult, he realized. Closing his mouth, he sank back into his too small chair. After a minute, Glumra straightened out of her hunched position, took a deep breath, and then quietly and calmly washed the raw end of her finger with brandy, smeared it with a yellow salve, then bandaged the wound. Her moon face, still pale from the shock, she lowered herself into the chair opposite Aragon. I thank you, Shadeslayer, for bringing me news of my son's fate yourself. I am glad to know that he died proudly, as a warrior ought to. He was most brave, Aragon said. He could see that our enemies were as fast as elves, and yet he still leapt forward to protect me. His sacrifice bought me time to escape their blades. 
and also revealed the danger of the enchantments they had placed on their weapons. If not for his actions, I doubt I would be here now. Glumra nodded slowly, eyes downcast, and smoothed the front of her dress. Do you know who was responsible for this attack on our clan, Shadeslayer? We have only suspicions. Grimstborith Oric is trying to determine the truth of the matter, even as we speak. Was it Asweldon Rack and Queen? Glumra asked, surprising Aragon with the astuteness of her guess. He did his best to conceal his reaction. When he remained silent, she said, We all know of their blood feud with you, Arjitlam. Every Nurla within these mountains knows. Some of us have looked with favor upon their opposition of you. But if they thought to actually kill you, then they have misjudged the lay of the rock and doomed themselves because of it. Aragon raised an eyebrow, interested. Doomed? How? It was you, Shadeslayer, who slew Durza, and so allowed us to save Trondheim and the dwellings below from the clutches of Galbatorix. Our race shall never forget that, so long as Trondheim remains standing. And then there is word come by the tunnels that your dragon shall make whole again, Isidar Mithram. Aragon nodded. That is good of you, Shadeslayer. You have done much for our race, and whichever clan it was attacked you, we shall turn against them and have our vengeance. I swore before witnesses, Aragon said, and I swear to you as well, that I will punish whoever sent those backstabbing murderers, and that I'll make them wish they had never thought of such a foul deed. Thank you, Shadeslayer, Glumra replied. Oricus, whatever she was going to say next, caught in her mouth. Her thick eyelids drooped, and she sagged forward for a moment, pressing her maimed hand against her abdomen. When the bout passed, she pushed herself upright and held the back of the hand against her opposite cheek and swayed from side to side, moaning, Oh, mine son, mine beautiful son. Standing, she staggered toward the curtained alcove. The brass rings sewn on top of the silk drapery clattered against one another as Glumra swept aside the cloth to expose a deep-shadowed shelf carved with runes and shapes of such fantastic detail Aragon thought he could stare at them for hours and still not grasp them in their entirety. On the low shelf rested statues of the six major dwarf gods, as well as nine other entities Aragon was unfamiliar with all carved with exaggerated features and postures to better convey the character of being portrayed. Glumra removed an amulet of gold and silver from within her bodice, which she kissed and then held against the hollow of her throat as she knelt before the alcove. Her voice rising and falling in the strange patterns of dwarf music, she began to croon a dirge in her native language. The melody brought tears to Aragon's eyes. For several minutes, Glumra sang, and then she fell silent, and continued to gaze at the figurines. And as she gazed, the lines of her grief-ravaged face softened, and where before Aragon had perceived only anger, distress, and hopelessness, her countenance assumed an air of calm acceptance, of peacefulness, and of sublime transcendence. A soft glow seemed to emanate from her features. So complete was Glumra's transformation Aragon almost did not recognize her. Tonight, Kvistar will dine in Morgatal's hall, that I know. I wish I could break bread with him, along with mine husband, Bowden. 
But it is not mine time to sleep in the catacombs of Trondheim. But our family shall be reunited, including all of our ancestors, since Guntera created the world from darkness. That I know. Aragon knelt next to her, and in a hoarse voice he asked, How do you know this? I know, because it is so. Her movements, slow and respectful, Glumra touched the chiseled feet of each of the gods with the tips of her fingers. How could it be otherwise? Since the world could not have created itself any more than a sword or a helm might, and since the only beings with the wherewithal to forge the earth and the heavens into shape are those with divine power, it is to the gods we must look for our answers. Them, I trust, to ensure the rightness of the world, and by mine trust, I free myself of the burdens of mine flesh. She spoke with such conviction, Aragon felt a sudden desire to share in her belief. He longed to toss aside his doubts and fears, and to know that, however horrible the world might seem at times, life was not mere confusion. He wished to know for certain that who he was would not end if a sword should shear off his head, and that one day he would meet again with Brahm, Garrow, and everyone else he had cared for and lost. A desperate yearning for hope and comfort filled him, confused him, left him unsteady upon the face of the earth. And yet, part of himself held back and would not allow him to commit to the dwarf gods and bind his identity and his sense of well-being to something he did not understand. He also had difficulty accepting that, if gods did exist, the dwarf gods were the only ones. Aragon was certain that if he asked Nargarsvog, or a member of the nomad tribes, or even the black priests of Helgrind, if their gods were real, they would uphold the supremacy of their deities just as vigorously as Glumra would uphold hers. How am I supposed to know which religion is the true religion? He wondered. Just because someone follows a certain faith does not necessarily mean it is the right path. Perhaps no one religion contains all of the truth of the world. Perhaps every religion contains fragments of the truth, and it is our responsibility to identify those fragments and piece them together. Or perhaps the elves are right, and there are no gods. But how can I know for sure? With a long sigh, Glumra murmured a phrase in Dwarvish. Then, from a stone cupboard set into the wall, she took two pewter mugs, retrieved a bladder full of wine from where it hung from the ceiling, and poured a drink for both her and Aragon. She raised her mug and uttered a toast in Dwarvish, which Aragon struggled to imitate, and then they drank. Once he had emptied his mug, Aragon began to bid farewell to Glumra, but she forestalled him with a motion of her hand. Have ye a place to stay, Shadeslayer, safe from those who wish ye dead? Whereupon Aragon told her how he was supposed to remain hidden underneath Trondheim until Oryx sent a messenger for him. Glumra nodded with a short, definitive jerk of her chin and said, Then ye and your companions must wait here until the messenger arrives, Shadeslayer. I insist upon it. Long after midnight, someone knocked on the door of the hut. Hundfast ushered in a dwarf who was garbed in full armor and who seemed edgy and ill at ease. He kept glancing at the doors and windows and shadowed corners. With a series of phrases, in the ancient language, he convinced Aragon that he was Oryx's messenger. And then he said, I am Fawn, son of Flosi. Argetlam, Oryx bids you return with all possible haste. He has most important tidings concerning the events of today.
At the doorway, Glumra grasped Aragon's left forearm with fingers like steel, and as he gazed down into her flinty eyes, she said, Remember your oath, Shadeslayer, and do not let the killers of mine son escape without retribution. That I shall not, he promised. Oryx stood consulting with a group of his warriors and several gray-bearded dwarves of Grimston Gaitum. As Aragon approached, Oryx turned toward him, his face grim. Good, you did not delay. Hundfast, you may retire to your quarters now. We must needs speak in private. Aragon's translator bowed and disappeared through an archway to the left. Once he was out of hearing, Aragon said, You don't trust him? Oryx shrugged. I do not know whom to trust at the moment. The fewer people who know what we have discovered, the better. What is your news? asked Aragon, worried. The warriors gathered behind Oryk moved aside as he gestured at them, revealing, as they did so, three bound and bloodied dwarves in the corner. Who are they? asked Aragon. Oryk replied, By means of a very, very clever spell, we retraced the path of the assassins, back through the tunnels and caves, and up to a deserted area of Trondheim. The trail led us to an abandoned storeroom, where those three, he gestured toward the bound dwarves, had been staying. They were not expecting us, and so we were able to capture them alive, although they tried to kill themselves. It was they who equipped the assassins for the attack, gave them the daggers and their black clothes, and fed and sheltered them last night. Who are they? asked Aragon. Bah! exclaimed Oryk, and spat on the floor. They are of our Grimston, warriors who have disgraced themselves, and are now clanless, no one deals with such filth unless they are engaged in villainy themselves and do not wish others to know of it. And so it was with those three. They took their orders directly from Grimst Boreth Vermund of Asweldon Rakanhuin. There is no doubt? Orin shook his head. There is no doubt. It was Asweldon Rakanhuin who tried to kill you, Aragon. How will we punish Asweldon Rakanhuin for this crime? Should we kill Vermund? <laughs> Leave that to me, said Oryk, and tapped the side of his nose. I have a plan. Aragon stood with his back to the wall, his hand on the pommel of his dwarf sword, as he watched the various clan chiefs file into the round conference room buried beneath Trondheim. He kept an especially close eye on Vermund, the grimst boreth of Asweldon Rakanhuin, but if the purple-veiled dwarf was surprised to see Aragon alive and well, he did not show it. When all of the clan chiefs were seated around the table in the center of the room, those watching from the perimeter, including Aragon, took their own seats from among the ring of chairs set against the curving wall. As Ganel, the black-eyed warrior-priest of de Grimst Quan, rose from the table and began to speak in dwarvish, Hundfast sidled closer to Aragon's right side and murmured a continuous translation. The dwarf said, Greetings again, mine fellow clan chiefs, but whether tis well met or not, I am undecided, for certain disturbing rumors, rumors of rumors, if truth be told, have reached mine ears. I propose that we delay our most serious debates for the moment, and if you are agreeable, allow me to pose a few questions to the meat. Having received the permission he sought, Ganel spoke. Yesterday, while we were meeting, Nurlan, throughout the tunnels underneath the southern quadrant of Trondheim, heard a noise, 
Reports of its loudness differ, but it was no small disturbance. Like you, I received the usual warnings of a possible cave-in. What you might not be aware of, however, is that just two hours past... Hundfast hesitated and quickly whispered, The word is difficult to render in this tongue. Runners of the tunnels, I think. And then he resumed translating as before. Runners of the tunnels discovered evidence of a mighty fight within one of the ancient tunnels that our famed forefather, Corgan Longbeard, excavated. The floor was painted with blood. The walls were dark with soot from a lantern a warrior of careless blade did breach. Cracks split the surrounding stone, and sprawled throughout were seven charred and mangled bodies. Nor were these the remnants of some obscure skirmish from the Battle of Farthandur. No, for the blood had yet to dry, the soot was soft, the cracks were most obviously freshly broken, and, I am told, the residue of powerful magics could still be detected within the area. So my first question for the meat is this. Do any of you possess further knowledge of this mysterious action? Oric cleared his throat and said, I believe that I can satisfy some of your curiosity upon that point, Ganel. Oric related to the clan meet how the seven black-clad dwarves had attacked Aragon and his guards while they were meandering among the tunnels underneath Trondheim. Then Oric told them of the braided horsehair bracelet set with amethyst cabochons that Aragon's guards had found upon one of the corpses. Do not think to blame this attack upon mine clan based on such paltry evidence, exclaimed Vermund, bolting upright. One can buy similar trinkets in most every market of our realm. Quite so, said Oric, and inclined his head toward Vermund. I was of the same opinion as you, grimst Boreth Vermund. Therefore, last night, my spellcasters and I retraced the assassin's path, and on the twelfth level of Trondheim, we captured three Nerlin, who were hiding in a dusty storeroom. We broke the minds of two of them, and from them we learned they provisioned the assassins for their attack. And, said Oric, his voice growing harsh and terrible, from them we learned the identity of their master. I name you, Grimstboreth Vermund. I name you, murderer and oathbreaker. I name you, an enemy of the Grimstin Geitum. And I name you, a traitor to your kind, for it was you and your clan who attempted to kill Aragon. The clan meet erupted into chaos as every clan chief except Oric and Vermund began to shout and wave their hands and otherwise attempt to dominate the conversation. Aragon stood and loosened his borrowed sword in its sheath, drawing it out a half-inch so he could respond with all possible speed if Vermund or one of his dwarves chose that moment to attack. Vermund did not move, however, nor did Oric. They stared at each other like rival wolves and paid no attention to the commotion around them. When at last Ganel succeeded in restoring order, he said, Grims Boreth Vermund, can you refute these charges? In a flat, emotionless voice, Vermund replied, I deny them with every bone in my body, and I challenge anyone to prove them to the satisfaction of a reader of law. Ganel turned toward Oric. Present your evidence, then, Grimsboreth Oric, that we may judge whether it is valid or not. 
There are five readers of law here today, if I am not mistaken. He motioned toward the wall, where five white-bearded dwarves stood and bowed. First, Oryk placed the amethyst bracelet upon the table. Every clan chief had one of their magicians examine it, and all agreed that, as evidence, it was inconclusive. Then, Oryk had his warriors bring in the three dwarves the Ingaitum had captured. Ganel ordered them to swear the oaths of truthfulness in the ancient language, but they cursed at him and spat on the floor and refused. Then, magicians from all of the different clans joined their thoughts, invaded the prisoners' minds, and wrested from them the information the clan meat desired. Without exception, the magicians confirmed what Oryk had already said. Ganel rose from his chair and addressed the readers of law, asking them, Are you satisfied with the quality of the evidence? The five white-bearded dwarves bowed, and the middle dwarf said, We are, grins Boreth Ganel. Ganel grunted, seeming unsurprised. Grimst Boreth Vermund, you are responsible for the death of Quistor, son of Bowden, and you attempted to kill a guest. By doing so, you have brought shame upon our entire race. What say you to this? Rising from his seat, the purple-veiled dwarf looked around the table, gazing at each of the clan chiefs in turn. I say this, and hear me well, Grimst Borithen. If any clan turns their axe against us, Swelden, Rack, and Huin, because of these false accusations, we shall consider it an act of war, and we shall respond appropriately. If you imprison me, that too we shall consider an act of war, and we shall respond appropriately. Aragon saw Vermund's veil twitch, and he thought the dwarf might have smiled underneath. If you strike at us in any possible way, whether with steel or with words, no matter how mild your rebuke, we shall consider it an act of war, and we shall respond appropriately. Unless you are eager to rend our country into a thousand bloody scraps, I suggest you let the wind waft away this morning's discussion, and in its place fill your minds with thoughts of who should next rule from upon the granite throne. The clan chiefs sat in silence for a long while. Friowin unfolded his hands and slapped the table with a meaty palm, with his hoarse baritone voice, which carried throughout the room, the corpulent dwarf said, You have shamed our race, Vermund. We cannot retain our honor as Nerlin and ignore your trespass. Not a word came from Vermund. Laughter broke the quiet. The sound was so unexpected, at first Aragon did not realize it was coming from Oryk. His mirth subsiding, Oryk said, If we move against you, or as Swelden, Rack, and Huyn, you will consider it an act of war, Vermund? Very well. Then we shall not move against you. Not at all. Vermund's brow beetled. How can this provide you with a source of amusement? Oryk chuckled again. Because I have thought of something you have not, Vermund. You wish us to leave you and your clan alone. Then I propose to the clan meet that we do as Vermund wishes. If Vermund had acted upon his own and not as a Grimst Boreth, he would be banished for his offenses upon pain of death. 
Therefore, let us treat the clan as we would treat the person. Let us banish as Swelden Rack and Queen from our hearts and minds until they choose to replace Vermund with a grimst Boreth of a more moderate temperament, and until they acknowledge their villainy and repent of it to the clan meet, even if we must wait a thousand years. The wrinkled skin around Vermund's eyes went pale. You would not dare, Oryx smiled. <laughs> but we would not lay a finger upon you or your kind. We will simply ignore you and refuse to trade with us Weldon Rack and Queen. Will you declare war upon us for doing nothing, Vermund? For if the meat agrees with me, that is exactly what we shall do. Nothing. The clan meat did not take long to decide. One by one, the clan chiefs stood and voted to banish as Swelden Rakanhuin. When the vote was finished, Ganel pointed to the door and said, Be gone, Vargrimston Vermund. Leave. Vermund remained where he was, his shoulders quivering with an emotion Aragon could not identify. The dragon riders killed all of our clan, saved Anhuin and her guards. You expect us to forgive this? Bah! I spit upon the graves of your ancestors. Pushing himself away from the table, Vermund stood, berating and disparaging the clan chiefs with increasing passion until he was shouting at the top of his lungs. No matter how vile Vermund's imprecations were, however, the clan chiefs did not respond. They gazed into the distance, as if pondering complex dilemmas, and their eyes slid over Vermund without pause. A chill crept up Aragon's spine, the dwarves acted as if Fermund had ceased to exist. So this is what it means to be banished among the dwarves. Hours later, when the clan meet broke for lunch, Oric and Aragon returned to Oric's chambers to eat. Neither of them spoke until they entered his rooms, which were proofed against eavesdroppers. There, Aragon allowed himself to smile. You planned all along to banish Asweldon Rakanhuin, didn't you? A satisfied expression on his face, Oryx smiled as well and slapped his stomach. That I did. It was the only action I could take that would not inevitably lead to a clan war. We may still have a clan war, but it shall not be of our making. And now you have ensured that the vote for the new king, or queen, or queen, shall take place. Aragon hesitated, reluctant to tarnish Oryx's enjoyment of his triumph. But then he asked... Do you really have the support you need to win the throne? Oryx shrugged. Before this morning, no one had the support they needed. Now the balance has shifted, and for the time being, sympathies lie with us. But before we consume so much as a single sip of mead, there is something you must attend to, which you have forgotten. What? asked Aragon, puzzled by Oryx's obvious delight. Why, you must summon Sephira to Trondheim, of course. Whether I become king or not, we shall crown a new monarch in three days' time. If Sephira is to attend the ceremony, she will need to fly quickly in order to arrive here before then. With a wordless exclamation, Aragon ran to find a mirror. The rich black soil was cool against Roran's hand. He picked up a loose clod and crumbled it between his fingers. This is good farmland, thought Roran. 
he cast his mind back to Palankar Valley, and again he saw the autumn sun streaming through the field of barley outside his family's house. That is where I should be, plowing the earth and raising a family with Katrina, not watering the ground with the sap of men's limbs. Ho there, cried Captain Edric, pointing toward Roran from his horse. Have an end to your dawdling strong hammer, lest I change my mind about you and leave you to stand guard with the archers. Dusting his hands on his leggings, Roran rose from a kneeling position. Yes, sir, as you wish, sir, he said, suppressing his dislike for Edric. Since he had joined Edric's company, Roran had attempted to learn what he could of the man's history. From what he heard, Roran had concluded Edric was a competent commander. Naswada never would have put him in charge of such an important mission otherwise, but he had an abrasive personality and he disciplined his warriors for even the slightest deviation from established practice. It was, Roran believed, a style of command that undermined a man's morale, as well as discouraged creativity and invention from those underneath you. Getting back onto Snowfire, Roran rode to the front of the column of 250 men. Their mission was simple. Since Naswada and King Oren had withdrawn the bulk of their forces from Surda, Galbatorix had apparently decided to take advantage of their absence and wreak havoc throughout the defenseless country, sacking towns and villages and burning the crops needed to sustain the invasion of the empire. Naswada had sent Edric's company to repel the soldiers, whose number her spies had initially estimated to be around 300. However, two days ago, Roran and the rest of the warriors had been dismayed when they came across tracks that indicated the size of Galbatorix's force was closer to seven hundred. Six hours later, Roran sat on Snowfire, hidden within a cluster of beech trees that grew along the edge of the small flat stream. Through the net of branches that hung before him, Roran gazed upon a crumbling grey-sided village of no more than twenty houses. He had watched with ever-increasing fury as the villagers had spotted the soldiers advancing from the west and then had gathered up a few bundles of possessions and fled south, toward the heart of Serda. If it had been up to him, Roran would have revealed their presence to the villagers and assured them they were not about to lose their houses, not if he and the rest of his companions could prevent it. Also, he would have asked the men of the village to fight with them, Another ten or twenty sets of arms might mean the difference between victory or defeat. Edric had rejected the idea, and insisted that the Varden remain concealed in the hills southeast of the village. We're lucky they're on foot, murmured Karn, indicating the red column of soldiers marching toward the village. We would not have been able to get here first otherwise. Roran glanced back at the men gathered behind them, Edric had given him temporary command over eighty-one warriors. They consisted of swordsmen, spearmen, and a half-dozen archers. One of Edric's familiars, Sand, led another eighty-one of the company, while Edric headed the rest himself. Leaning over toward Karn, Roran said, Can you tell if any of them are men who cannot feel pain? Karn sighed. I wish I could. But I am a poor magician, and I dare not test the soldiers— if there are any magicians disguised among them, they would know of my spying, and there is every chance I would not be able to break their minds before they alerted their companions we are here. As the first of the soldiers reached the far side of the village, Roran tightened his hand around the haft of his hammer in preparation for the charge. But then he heard a series of high-pitched screams, and a sense of dread gripped him. 
a squad of soldiers emerged from the second-to-last house, dragging three struggling people. A lanky, white-haired man, a young woman with a torn blouse, and a boy no older than eleven. Having searched all of the houses, the mass of soldiers retraced their steps to the center of the village and formed a rough semicircle around their prisoners. The officer in charge of the soldiers, who was the only man among them on a horse, dismounted his steed and exchanged a few inaudible words with the white-haired villager. Without warning, the officer drew his saber and decapitated the man, then hopped backward to avoid the resulting spray of blood. The young woman screamed even louder than before. Charge, said Edric. Charge, shouted Sand on the other side of Edric, and galloped out of the copse of beech trees along with his men. Charge, shouted Roran, and dug his heels into Snowfire's sides. As were his orders, Roran did not enter the village head-on, but rather veered to the left and rode around the buildings, so as to flank the soldiers and attack them from another direction. Sand did the same on the right, while Edric and his warriors drove straight into the village. A line of houses concealed the initial clash from Roran, but he heard a chorus of frantic shouts, then a series of strange metallic twangs, and then the screams of men and horses. Worry knotted Roran's gut. What was that noise? Could it be metal bows? Do they exist? Regardless of the cause, he knew there should not have been so many horses crying out in agony. Roran realized that the attack had somehow gone wrong and that the battle might already be lost. He pulled hard on Snowfire's reins as they passed the last house, steering him toward the center of the village. Behind him, his men did the same. Two hundred yards ahead, Roran saw a triple line of soldiers positioned between two houses so as to block their way. The soldiers seemed unafraid of the horses racing toward them. Roran hesitated. His orders were clear. He and his men were to charge the western flank and cut their way through Galbatorix's troops until they rejoined Sand and Edric. However, Edric had not told Roran what he should do if riding straight up to the soldiers no longer seemed a good idea once he and his men were in position. And Roran knew that if he deviated from his orders, even if it was to prevent his men being massacred, he would be guilty of insubordination, and Edric could punish him accordingly. Then the soldiers swept aside their voluminous cloaks and raised drawn crossbows to their shoulders. In that instant, Roran decided that he would do whatever was necessary in order to ensure the Varden won the battle. Take cover! shouted Roran and wrenched Snowfire's head to the right, forcing the animal to swerve behind a house. A group of Roran's warriors rode up to him from a house that his own building partially shielded from the soldier's line of sight. What should we do, Stronghammer? they asked him. They did not seem bothered by the fact that he had disobeyed his orders. To the contrary, they looked at him with expressions of newfound trust. He was not about to let the soldiers destroy his force, with a single volley of arrows, just because he wished to avoid the unpleasant consequences of defying his captain. Thinking as fast as he could, Roran cast his gaze around. By chance, his eyes alighted upon the bow and quiver strapped behind one of the men's saddles. Roran smiled. Only a few of the warriors fought as archers, but they all carried a bow and arrows, so they could hunt for food if they were alone in the wilderness. Roran pointed toward the house he was leaning against, and said, Take your bows and climb onto the roof, as many of you as will fit, and stay out of sight until I say otherwise. When I tell you to, 
start shooting, and keep shooting until you run out of arrows or until every last soldier is dead. Understood? Yes, sir. Get going, then. The rest of you, find buildings of your own where you can pick off the soldiers. Harold, spread the word to everyone else, and find ten of our best spearmen and ten of our best swordsmen, and bring them here as fast as you can. Yes, sir. With a flurry of motion, the warriors hurried to obey. Four minutes later, the majority of Roran's men were in place on the roofs of seven different houses, with about eight men per roof, and Harold had returned with the requested swordsmen and spearmen in tow. To the warriors gathered around him, Roran said, Right now, listen. When I give the order, the men up there will start shooting. As soon as the first flight of arrows strikes the soldiers, we're going to ride out and attempt to rescue Captain Edric. If we can't, we'll have to settle for giving the red tunics a taste of good cold steel. The archers should provide enough confusion for us to close with the soldiers before they can use their crossbows. Am I understood? Yes, sir. Then, fire! Roran shouted. The swarm of arrows whistled through the air like bloodthirsty shrikes, diving toward their prey. An instant later, when soldiers began to howl with agony at their wounds, Roran said, Now! Ride! and jabbed his heels into snowfire. Together, he and his men galloped around the side of the house. Relying on his speed and the skill of the archers for protection, Roran skirted the soldiers, who were flailing in disarray, until he came upon the site of Edric's disastrous charge. To Roran's surprise, Edric was still alive, fighting back to back with five of his men. To me! Roran shouted as he drew abreast of Edric and the other survivors. To me! In front of him, arrows continued to rain down upon the mass of soldiers, forcing them to cover themselves with their shields, while at the same time trying to fend off the Vardens, swords, and spears. Once he and his warriors had surrounded the Varden who were on foot, Roran shouted, Back! Back! To the houses! Step by step, the lot of them withdrew until they were out of reach of the soldiers' blades, and then they turned and ran toward the nearest house. The soldiers shot and killed three of the Varden along the way, but the rest arrived at the building unharmed. Edric slumped against the side of the house, gasping for breath. When again he was able to speak, he gestured at Roran's men and said, Your intervention is most timely and welcome, Strawhammer. But why do I see you here, and not riding out from among the soldiers, as I expected? Then Roran explained what he had done and pointed out the archers on the roofs. A dark scowl appeared on Edric's brow as he listened to Roran's account. However, he did not chastise Roran for his disobedience, but merely said, Have those men come down at once. They have succeeded in breaking the soldiers' discipline. Now we must rely upon honest blade work to dispose of them. There are too few of us left to attack the soldiers directly, protested Roran. They outnumber us better than three to one. Then we shall make up in valor what we lack in numbers. Edric bellowed. I was told you had courage, Stronghammer, but obviously rumor is mistaken, and you are as timid as a frightened rabbit. Now do as you're told, and do not question me again. Very well, Roran thought. I shall demonstrate to Edric the courage he thinks I lack, but that is all he shall have from me. I will not send the archers to fight the soldiers face to face when they are safer and more effective where they are. Roran turned and inspected the men Edric had left to him. Among those they had rescued, Roran was delighted to see Karn, who was scratched and bloody, but on the whole unharmed. They nodded to each other, 
and then Roran addressed the group. You have heard what Edric said. I disagree. If we do as he wishes, all of us will end up piled in a cairn before sunset. We can still win this battle, but not by marching to our own deaths. What we lack in numbers, we can make up with cunning. You know how I came to join the Varden. You know I have fought and defeated the Empire before, and in just such a village. This I can do, I swear to you, but I cannot do it alone. Will you follow me? Think carefully. I will claim responsibility for ignoring Edric's orders, but he and Naswada may still punish everyone who was involved. Then they would be fools, growled Karn. Would they prefer that we died here? No, I think not. You may count on me, Roran. As Karn made his declaration, Roran saw how the other men squared their shoulders and set their jaws, and how their eyes burned with renewed determination. Aye, said Harold. You may count on us as well, Stronghammer. Then follow me, said Roran, and reaching down, he pulled Karn up onto Snowfire behind him. Once they were safely behind cover, Roran had the men who were still mounted give their bows and arrows to the men on foot, whom he then sent to climb the houses and join the other archers. As they scrambled to obey him, Roran beckoned to Karn, who had jumped off Snowfire the moment they ceased moving, and said, I need a spell of you. Can you shield me and ten others from these bolts? Karn hesitated. For how long? A minute, an hour? Who knows? If I stop the bolts in their tracks, I could deflect them from you, which that would be fine. Who exactly do you want me to protect? Roran pointed at the men he had picked to join him, and Karn asked each of them their names. Standing with his shoulders hunched inward, Karn recited the incantation. As he uttered the last word, he sagged slightly in Roran's grip before recovering. It is done, he said. Roran patted him on the shoulder, then clambered into Snowfire's saddle again. Sweeping his gaze over the ten horsemen, he said, Guard my sides and my back, but otherwise keep behind me so long as I am able to swing my hammer. Yes, sir. Remember, the bolts cannot harm you now. Karn, you stay here. Don't move too much. Conserve your strength. If you feel like you can't maintain the spell any longer, signal us before you end it. Agreed? Karn sat on the front step of the house and nodded. Agreed. With the ten horsemen following, Roran rode out and faced the soldiers once more. Most of them were crouching or kneeling behind their shields while they struggled to reload their crossbows. A quarrel buzzed toward Roran. When the bolt was less than a yard from his chest, it abruptly changed direction and hurtled off at an angle, missing him and his men. Roran flinched, but the missile was already passed. Glancing around, Roran spotted a broken wagon leaning against a house off to his left. He pointed at it and said, Pull that over here and lay it upside down. Block as much of the street as you can. To the archers, he shouted, When they come at us, thin out their ranks as much as you can, and as soon as you run out of arrows, come join us. Yes, sir. Roran watched his men drag the wagon into the street. When they were nearly finished, he lifted his chin, filled his lungs, and then, projecting his voice toward the soldiers, he roared, Ho there, you cowering, carrion dogs! See how only eleven of us bar your way! Win past us, and you win your freedom! Try your hand, if you have the guts! What, you hesitate, 
Where is your manhood, you deformed maggots? You bilious swine-faced murderers! With a flurry of battle cries, a group of thirty soldiers dropped their crossbows, drew their flashing swords, and with shields held high, ran toward Roran and his men. For a span, Roran heard nothing but the thud of swords bouncing off his shield, and the clang of his hammer as he struck the soldiers' helms, and the cries of the soldiers as they crumpled underneath his blows. He was pleased to see that during the fray several of the archers had descended from the roofs to fight on horseback with them. Roran grinned at the newcomers and said, Welcome to the battle! A warm welcome indeed, one of them replied. Pointing with his gore-covered hammer toward the right side of the street, Roran said, You, you, and you, pile the bodies over there. Make a funnel out of them and the wagon, so that only two or three soldiers can get to us at once. Yes, sir! the warriors answered, swinging down from their horses. A quarrel whizzed toward Roran, he ignored it, and focused on the main body of soldiers, where a group, perhaps a hundred strong, was massing in preparation for a second onslaught. Hurry, he shouted to the men shifting the corpses. They're almost upon us. Harold, go help. The houses on either side of the street, as well as the overturned wagon and the gruesome barricade of human remains, slowed and compressed the flow of soldiers until they were nearly at a standstill when they reached Roran. The soldiers were packed so tightly they were helpless to escape the arrows that streaked toward them from above. The first two ranks of soldiers carried spears, with which they menaced Roran and the other Varden. Roran parried three separate thrusts, cursing the whole while as he realized that he could not reach past the spears with his hammer. Then a soldier stabbed Snowfire in the shoulder, and Roran leaned forward to keep from being thrown as the stallion squealed and reared. As Snowfire landed on all fours, Roran slid out of the saddle, keeping the stallion between him and the hedge of spear-wielding soldiers. Snowfire bucked as another spear pierced his hide. Before the soldiers could wound him again, Roran pulled on Snowfire's reins and forced him to prance backward until there was enough room among the other horses for the stallion to turn around. Yah! he shouted and slapped Snowfire on the rump, sending him galloping out of the village. Make way! Roran bellowed, waving at the Varden. They cleared a path for him between their steeds, and he bounded to the forefront of the fight again, sticking his hammer through his belt as he did. A soldier jabbed a spear at Roran's chest, he blocked it with his wrist, then yanked the spear out of the man's hands. The man fell flat on his face. Twirling the weapon, Roran stabbed the man, then lunged and stabbed two more soldiers. Roran took a wide stance and shook his spear at his foes, shouting, Come on, you misbegotten bastards! Kill me if you can! I am Roran Stronghammer, and I fear no man alive! More soldiers shuffled forward quailing before Roran's feral grin and stabbing spear. A mound of bodies grew before him. When it reached the height of his waist, Roran bounded to the top of the blood-soaked berm, and there he remained, despite the treacherous footing, for the height gave him an advantage. Since the soldiers were forced to climb up a ramp of corpses to reach him, he was able to kill many of them when they stumbled over an arm or a leg or stepped upon the soft neck of one of their predecessors or slipped on a slanting shield. From his elevated position, Roran could see that the rest of the soldiers had chosen to join the assault, save for a score across the village who were still battling Sands and Edric's warriors. He realized he would have no more rest until the battle had concluded.
Roran acquired dozens of wounds as the day wore on. Pain became his ruling sensation. Every movement caused him fresh agony. But to stand still was to die, and so he kept dealing death blows, regardless of his wounds and regardless of his weariness. When gaps appeared between the soldiers, and through them Roran could see open space, he knew his ordeal was nearly at an end. His strength flagging, Roran sparred with the last two soldiers for a long and wearisome while, both giving and receiving wounds, until at last he killed one man by caving in his helm and the other by breaking his neck with a well-placed blow. Roran swayed and then collapsed. He felt himself being lifted up and opened his eyes to see Harold holding a wineskin to his lips. Drink this, Harold said. You'll feel better. His chest heaving, Roran consumed several drafts between gasps. The sun-warmed wine stung the inside of his battered mouth. He felt his legs steady and said, It's all right. You can let go of me now. Roran leaned against his hammer and surveyed the battleground. He saw that most of the soldiers had died of arrows, but even so, he knew that he had slain a vast number by himself. How many? he asked Harold. The blood-spattered warrior shook his head. I lost count after thirty-two. Perhaps another can say. What you did, Strong Hammer, never have I seen such a feat before, not by a man of human abilities. The dragon Sephira chose well. The men of your family are fighters like no others. Your prowess is unmatched by any mortal, Strong Hammer. However many you slew here today, I... It was one hundred and ninety-three, cried Karn, clambering toward them from below. Are you sure? asked Roran, unbelieving. Karn nodded as he reached them. Aye, I watched it, and I kept careful count. One hundred and ninety-three. The tally astounded Roran. A hoarse chuckle escaped him. <laughs> A pity there are no more of them. Another seven, and I would have an even two hundred. The other men laughed as well. Then it occurred to him to wonder about the fate of the rest of their expedition. What of Edric and Sand? he asked Harold. I'm sorry, Stronghammer, but I saw nothing beyond the reach of my sword. With Harold and three other men by his side, Roran crossed the clearing in the center of the village, executing every soldier they found still alive. When they arrived at the edge of the clearing, where the number of slain Varden surpassed the number of slain soldiers, Harold banged his sword on his shield and shouted, Is anyone still alive? After a moment, a voice came back at them from among the houses. Name yourself! Harold and Roran Stronghammer and others of the Varden. If you serve the Empire, then surrender, for your comrades are dead and you cannot defeat us. From somewhere between the houses came a crash of falling metal, and then, in ones and twos, warriors of the Varden emerged from hiding and limped toward the clearing, many of them supporting their wounded comrades. They appeared dazed, and some were stained with so much blood, Roran at first mistook them for captured soldiers. He counted four and twenty men. Among the final group of stragglers was Edric, helping along a man who had lost his right arm during the fighting, Roran motioned, and two of his men hurried to relieve Edric of his burden. The captain straightened from under the weight. With slow steps, he walked over to Roran and looked him straight in the eye, his expression unreadable. 
Neither he nor Roran moved, and Roran was aware that the clearing had grown exceptionally quiet. You defied my orders, strong hammer. I did. Edric held out an open hand toward him. Captain, no, exclaimed Harold, stepping forward. If it weren't for Roran, none of us would be standing here. And you should have seen what he did. He slew nearly two hundred by himself. Harold's pleas made no impression on Edric, who continued to hold out his hand. Roran remained impassive as well. Turning to him then, Harold said, Roran, you know the men are yours. Just say the word and we will... Roran silenced him with a glare. Don't be a fool. Between thin lips, Edric said, At least you are not completely devoid of sense. Lifting his hammer, Roran handed it to Edric. Roran's strong hammer... I hereby relieve you of command. Edric looked around and pointed at another warrior. Fuller, you will assume Roran's position until we return to the main body of the Varden, and Neswada can decide what is to be done about this. Aragon leaned forward, every muscle in his body tense. The only two clan chiefs who had yet to vote were Hredemar and Jurun. Kredemar, the compact, muscular Grimstborath of Urzad, appeared uneasy with the situation, while Jurun, she of de Grimstvenshurgen, the war-wolves, traced the crescent-shaped scar on her left cheekbone with the tip of a pointed fingernail and smiled like a self-satisfied cat. Aragon held his breath as he waited to hear what the two of them would say. If Jurun voted for herself, he thought, and if Hredemar is still loyal to her, then the election will have to proceed to a second round. Oh, if only I could scry into the future. What if Oric loses? Should I seize control of the clan meet then? I could seal the chamber so no one could enter or leave, and then... But no, that would be... <sighs> Yerun interrupted Aragon's thoughts by nodding at Hredemar and then directing her heavy-lidded gaze toward Aragon, which made him feel as if he were a prize ox she was examining. The rings of his male hauberk clinking, Radamar stood upright and said, On behalf of mine clan, I vote for Grimstboreth Oric as our new king. Aragon's throat constricted. Her red lips curving with amusement, Yorun rose from her chair with a sinuous motion and in a low, husky voice said, It seems it falls to me to decide the outcome of today's meet. I have listened most carefully to your arguments, Nado, and your arguments, Oric. While you have both made points I agree with, upon a wide range of subjects, the most important issue we must decide is whether to commit ourselves to the Varden's campaign against the Empire. When the chronicles of this age are written... Shall they say we fought alongside the humans and the elves as the heroes of old, or that we sat cowering in our halls like frightened peasants while a battle raged outside our doors? I, for one, know mine answer. Yerun tossed back her hair, then said, On behalf of mine clan, I vote for Grimstboreth Oric as our new king. The eldest of the five readers of law, who stood against the circular wall, stepped forward and struck the end of his polished staff against the stone floor and proclaimed, 
All hail King Oric, the forty-third king of Trondheim, Farthendor, and every Nurla above and below the Beor Mountains. All hail King Oric, the clan meat roared, rising to their feet with a loud rustle of clothes and armor. His head swimming, Aragon did likewise, aware that he was now in the presence of royalty. He glanced at Nado, but the dwarf's face was a dead-eyed mask. Oric pushed himself out of his chair and stood looking at the dwarves around him. His expression to Aragon seemed somewhat dazed, as if he had not actually expected to win the crown. For this great responsibility, he said, I thank you. He paused, then continued. Mine only thought now is for the betterment of our nation, and I shall pursue that goal without faltering until the day I return to the stone. Then the clan chiefs came forward, one by one, and they knelt before Oric and swore their fealty to him as his loyal subjects. When the time came for Nado to pledge himself, the dwarf displayed nothing of his sentiments, but merely recited the phrases of the oath without inflection, the words dropping from his mouth like bars of lead. A palpable sense of relief rippled through the clan meat once he had finished. Upon the conclusion of the oath-giving, Oric decreed that his coronation would take place the following morning, and then he and his attendants retired to an adjacent chamber. There, Aragon looked at Oric, and Oric looked at Aragon, and neither made a sound until a broad smile appeared on Oric's face, and he broke out laughing, his cheeks turning red. Laughing with him, Aragon grasped him by a forearm and embraced him. Aragon released Oric, saying, I didn't think your rune would side with us. Aye, I'm glad she did, but uh, it complicates matters. Oric grimaced. I suppose I'll have to reward her with a place within my council, at the very least. It may be for the best, said Aragon. If the Vrenshurgen are equal to their name, we shall have great need of them before we reach the gates of Urubain. Then, closing ranks around him, Oric's attendants began to consult with him in dwarvish, often speaking over one another in a loud tangle of voices, and Aragon, who had been about to ask Oric a question, found himself relegated to a corner. He tried to wait patiently for a lull in the conversation, but after a few minutes it became plain the dwarves were not about to stop plying Oric with questions and advice, for such he assumed was the nature of their discourse. Therefore, Aragon said, Oric, Conunger? And he imbued the ancient language word for king with energy that it would capture the attention of everyone present. The room fell silent, and Oric looked at Aragon and lifted an eyebrow. Your Majesty, may I have permission to withdraw? There is a certain matter I would like to attend to, if it is not already too late. Comprehension brightened Oryx's brown eyes. By all means, make haste. But you need not call me Majesty, Aragon, nor Sire, nor by any other title. We are friends and foster brothers, after all. We are, Your Majesty, but for the time being, I believe it is only proper I should observe the same courtesies as everyone else— you are the king of your race now, and my own king as well, seeing as how I am a member of Der Grimston Guidem, and that is not something I can ignore. Oryx studied him for a moment, as if from a great distance, and then nodded, and said, As you wish, Shadeslayer. It was nearly a mile from where Aragon started to the south gate of Trondheim. He covered the distance in only a few minutes, his footsteps loud on the stone floor. 
With an easy, loping stride, he ran underneath the massive southern entrance to the city mountain, hearing the guards cry, Hail, Argent Lamb, as he emerged into the open. The air was cool and moist, and smelled like fresh-fallen rain. Above, Farthendur rose over ten miles to a narrow opening, through which pale, indirect light entered the immense crater. Aragon followed the cobblestone path that extended from Trondheim's south gate all the way to the two black, thirty-foot-high doors set into the southern base of Farthendur. As he drew to a halt, a pair of dwarves emerged from hidden guardrooms and hurried to open the doors, revealing the seemingly endless tunnel beyond. Aragon continued forward. Then halfway through the tunnel, Aragon felt her. Sephira! he shouted, with both his mind and voice. Aragon! The thunder of a distant roar rolled toward him from the other end of the tunnel. Aragon opened his mind to Sephira removing every barrier around who he was. Her consciousness rushed into him, even as his rushed into her. Aragon gasped and tripped and nearly fell. To know that you were with one who cared for you, who understood every fiber of your being, was the most precious relationship a person could have, and both Aragon and Sephira cherished it. It was not long before Aragon sighted Sephira hurrying toward him, as swiftly as she could, Crying out with joy, Aragon leapt upward and wrapped his arms around her neck and hugged her as tightly as he could. She lowered him to the floor and said, Little one, unless you wish to choke me, you should loosen your arms. Her tone was warm. Sorry. Grinning, he stepped back. You're tired, he said. I have never flown so far, so fast. I would not have stopped at all except I became too thirsty to continue. Do you mean you haven't slept or eaten for three days? You must be starving, Aragon exclaimed. I am tired, but not hungry, not yet. Once I have rested, then I will need to eat. Aragon was touched and grateful that she had pushed herself. Thank you. I would have hated to wait for us to be together again. As would I. I could hardly be late for the coronation now, could I? Who did the clan meet... Before she could finish the question, Aragon sent her an image of Auric. Ah, she sighed, he will make a fine king. I hope so, replied Aragon. The drums of Derva sounded, summoning the dwarves to witness the coronation of their new king. Aragon stood next to Sephira, just outside the central chamber of Trondheim. On either side of the mile-long hall, dwarves crowded the archways of each level, peering at Aragon and Sephira with dark, gleaming eyes. The drums faded into silence. A fanfare of dozens of trumpets rang forth. As one, Aragon and Sephira advanced into the central chamber of the city mountain and took their place among the ring of clan chiefs, guild leaders, and other notables who girded the vast, towering room. In the center of the chamber rested the reconstructed star sapphire, encased within a framework of wooden scaffolding. The black granite throne of the dwarves had been carried from its customary resting place underneath Trondheim and placed upon a raised dais next to the star sapphire, facing the eastern branch of the four main hallways that divided Trondheim, east because it was the direction of the rising sun, and that symbolized the dawning of a new age. For half an hour trumpets played, and an unseen choir sang, as step by deliberate step, 
Oryk walked from the eastern gate to the center of Trondheim. Twelve dwarf children followed him. As Oryk entered the center of the city mountain, the chamber dimmed, and a pattern of dappled shadows appeared on everything within. Confused, Aragon glanced upward and was astonished to behold pink rose petals drifting downward from the top of Trondheim, suffusing the air with their sweet fragrance. The trumpets and the choir fell silent as Oryk knelt on one knee before the black throne and bowed his head. Behind him, the twelve children stopped and stood motionless. Then Ganel stepped forward and walked to the right of the throne. In one hand, he bore a tall staff with a clear pointed crystal mounted on the top. Lifting the staff over his head with both hands, Ganel brought it down upon the stone floor with a resounding crack. The priest said, in the language of mystery and power, Guntera, creator of the heavens and the earth and the boundless sea, hear now the cry of your faithful servant. Will you deign to bestow your blessing upon Oryk, Thrisk's son, and to crown him in the tradition of his predecessors? At first, Aragon thought Ganel's request would go unanswered, for he felt no surge of magic from the dwarf when he finished speaking. However, Sephira nudged him then and said, Look. Aragon followed her gaze, and, thirty feet above, saw a disturbance among the tumbling petals, a gap, a void where the petals would not fall, as if an invisible object occupied this space. The disturbance spread, extending all the way to the floor, and the void outlined by the petals assumed the shape of a creature with arms and legs, like a dwarf or a man, or an elf, or an ergle, but of different proportions than any race Aragon had knowledge of. The god, if god he was, wore nothing but a knotted loincloth. His face was dark and heavy, and seemed to contain equal amounts of cruelty and kindness, as if he might veer between the extremes of both without warning. As he noticed these details, Aragon also became aware of the presence of a strange, far-reaching consciousness within the chamber, a consciousness of unreadable thoughts and unfathomable depths. With a single motion, the dwarves sank to their knees. The god spoke then, and his voice sounded like the grinding of boulders and the sweep of the wind over barren mountain peaks. He spoke in dwarvish, and though Aragon knew not what was said, he shrank from the power of the god's speech. The air rippled, and upon Oryx's brow materialized the gem-encrusted helm of gold that Hrothgar had worn. The god uttered a booming chuckle, and then faded into oblivion. The rose petals resumed their fall uninterrupted. Rising from his knee, Oryx ascended the dais, turned to face the assembly, and then he sank back into the hard black throne. Nal, Grimsporeth Oryx, the dwarves shouted, and struck their shields with their axes and their spears, and stamped the floor with their feet. All hail, King Oryx, cried Aragon. Arching her neck, Sephira roared her tribute and released a jet of flame over the heads of the dwarves, incinerating a swath of rose petals. Then Ganel knelt before Oryx and spoke some more in dwarvish. When he finished, Oryx touched him upon the crown of his head, and then Ganel returned to his place at the edge of the chamber. Nado approached the throne and said many of the same things, 
And after him so did Mandrath, and Hadfala, and all the other clan chiefs, with the sole exception of Grimstborath Vermund, who had been banned from the coronation. They must be pledging themselves to Oryx's service, Aragon said to Saphira. Did they not already give him their word? Aye, but not in public. Once the final clan chief had presented himself to Oryx, the guild leaders did the same, and then Oryx gestured toward Aragon. With a slow, measured pace, Aragon walked forward between the rows of dwarf warriors until he reached the base of the throne, where he knelt, and, as a member of der Grimstingeitem, acknowledged Oryk as his king and swore to serve and protect him. Then, acting as Naswada's emissary, Aragon congratulated Oryk on behalf of Naswada and the Varden and promised him the Varden's friendship. Others went to speak with Oryk as Aragon withdrew, a seemingly endless train of dwarves eager to demonstrate their loyalty to their new king. The procession continued for hours, and then the gift-giving began. Aragon and Sephira were the last to go before Oryk. Once again kneeling at the base of the dais, Aragon drew from his tunic the gold armband he had begged from the dwarves the previous night. He held it up toward Oryk, saying, Here is my gift, King Oryk. I did not make the armlet, but I have set on it spells to protect you. Inclining his head, Oryk accepted the band from Aragon, saying, Your gift is most appreciated, Aragon Shadeslayer. In full view of everyone, Oryk slid the band onto his left arm. Sephira spoke next, projecting her thoughts to everyone who was watching. My gift is this, Oryk. She walked past the throne, her claws clacking against the floor, and reared up and placed her forefeet upon the edge of the scaffolding around the star sapphire. The stout wood beams creaked under her weight but held. Minutes passed, and nothing happened. But Sephira remained where she was, gazing at the huge gemstone. Are you sure you can do this? Aragon asked, reluctant to break her concentration. I don't know. The few times I used magic before, it was not a deliberate process. I suppose I will have to wait until the moment feels right for me to mend Isidar Mithram. Let me help. Let me work a spell through you. No, little one. This is my task, not yours. A single voice, low and clear, wafted across the chamber, singing a slow, wistful melody. One by one, the other members of the Hidden Dwarf Choir joined in the song, filling Trondheim with the plaintive beauty of their music. Although he did not understand what the choir sang, Aragon could tell from the tone of the music that it was a lamentation for things that had been and were no more, such as the Star Sapphire. As the song built toward its conclusion, he found himself thinking of his lost life in Palankar Valley, and tears welled in his eyes. To his surprise, he sensed a similar strain of pensive melancholy from Sephira. The song ended on a long, wavering note, and as it faded into oblivion, a surge of energy rushed through Sephira, so much energy, Aragon gasped at its magnitude, and she bent and touched the star sapphire with the tip of her snout. The branching cracks within the giant gemstone flared bright as bolts of lightning, and then the scaffolding shattered, and fell to the floor, revealing Isidar Mithram whole and sound again. But not quite the same. 
The color of the jewel was a deeper, richer shade of red than before, and the innermost petals of the rose were shot through with streaks of dusky gold. The dwarves stared in wonder at Isidar Mithram. Then they leapt to their feet, cheering and applauding Sephira with such enthusiasm it sounded like the pounding roar of a waterfall. She dipped her head toward the crowd, and then walked back to Aragon, crushing rose petals under her feet. Thank you, she said to him. For what? For helping me. It was your emotions that showed me the way. Without them, I might have stayed there for weeks before I felt inspired to fix Isidar Mithram. Lifting his arms, Oric quieted the crowd. And then he said, On behalf of our entire race, I thank you for your gift, Zephyra. Today you have restored the pride of our realm, and we shall not forget your deed. From now until the end of time, your name shall be recited at the winter festivals, and when Isidar Mithram is returned to its setting at the peak of Trondheim, your name will be engraved in the collar surrounding the star rose, along with that of Durok Ornthrond, who first gave shape to the jewel. To both Aragon and Sephira, Oryx said, Once again, you have demonstrated your friendship to mine people. It pleases me that, by your actions, you have vindicated my foster father's decision to adopt you into the Grimstengeitum. Sorry, said Aragon as he bumped the basin. Naswada frowned, her face shrinking and elongating as a row of ripples ran through the water in the basin. What for? she asked. I should think congratulations are in order. You have accomplished everything I sent you to do and more. No, I... Aragon stopped as he realized she could not see the disturbance in the water. I struck the basin with my hand, that is all. Oh, in that case, let me formally congratulate you, Aragon. By ensuring Oric became king, you have preserved our alliance with the dwarves, and that might mean the difference between victory and defeat. The question now becomes, how long until the rest of the dwarves' army will be able to join us? Oric has already ordered the warriors to ready themselves for departure. It will probably take the clans a few days to muster their forces, but once they do, they'll march immediately. It's a good thing, too. We can use their assistance as soon as possible. Which reminds me, when can we expect you to return? Three days? Four days? That depends. Do you remember what we discussed before I left? Naswada pursed her lips. Of course I do, Erigen. We are closing in on Feinster, and we are having to fight off marauding groups of soldiers Lady Lorana sends from the city to harass us. Erigen, Sephira, we need you for this battle. Rumors of your absence are already coursing through the camp, despite our best efforts to the contrary. I'm sorry, Erigen, but I cannot allow you to return to Elismira right now. It's too dangerous. Naswada, Sephira and I do not have the skill, the knowledge, nor the strength to kill Galbatorix. We have to talk with our teachers again. Naswada gazed downward, studying her hands. Thorn and Murtag could destroy us while you are gone. And if we do not go, Galbatorix will destroy us when we reach Urubane. Could you wait a few days before you attack Feinster? For an uncomfortably long time, Naswada was silent, gazing past the edge of the image. Then she nodded. You're right. Unless you find a way to defeat Galbatorix, 
We have no hope of victory. Now go. Luck on your journey, Aragon, Safira. If we meet again, I fear it will be on the field of battle. And then she hurried from their sight, and Aragon released his spell, and the water in the basin cleared. As long as we're going to Elismera, Aragon said to Safira, we should visit the Manoa tree again. Maybe we can finally figure out what Salemba meant. I could certainly use a new sword. When Aragon had first met Salembum in Tyrm, the werecat had told him, When the time comes and you need a weapon, look under the roots of the Manoa tree. Then, when all seems lost and your power is insufficient, go to the Rock of Kuthian and speak your name to open the Vault of Souls. Aragon still did not know where the Rock of Kuthian was, but during their first stay in Elismera, he and Sephira had had several chances to examine the Manoa tree. They had discovered no clue as to the exact whereabouts of the supposed weapon. Salemba might not have meant a sword, Sephira pointed out. Werecats love riddles nearly as much as dragons do. If it even exists, this weapon might be a scrap of parchment with a spell inscribed on it, or a book, or a painting, or a sharp piece of rock, or any other dangerous thing. Whatever it is, I hope we can find it. Who knows when we will have the chance to return to Elismera again? Roran could feel Naswada studying him, but he refused to meet her gaze. At last, she said, What am I going to do with you, Roran? He straightened his spine even more. Whatever you wish, my lady. An admirable answer, Stronghammer, but in no way does it resolve my quandary. Naswada sipped wine from a goblet. Twice you defied a direct order from Captain Edric, and yet, if you hadn't, neither he nor you nor the rest of your band might have survived to tell the tale. However, your success does not negate the reality of your disobedience. By your own account, you knowingly committed insubordination, and I must punish you, if I am to maintain discipline among the Varden. Yes, my lady. Her brow darkened. Blast it, Stronghammer! If you were anyone else but Erigan's cousin, and if your gambit had been even one whit less effective, I would have you strung up and hanged for your misconduct. Roran swallowed as he imagined a noose tightening around his neck. Do you wish to continue fighting with the Varden, Roran? Yes, my lady, he replied without hesitation. What are you willing to endure in order to remain within my army? Roran did not allow himself to dwell upon the implications of her question. Whatever I must, my lady. The tension in her face eased, and Naswada nodded, appearing satisfied. I hoped you would say that. Tradition and established precedent leave me only three choices. One, I can hang you. But I won't, for a multitude of reasons. Two, I can give you thirty lashes, and then discharge you from the ranks of the Varden. Or three, I can give you fifty lashes, and keep you under my command. Fifty lashes isn't that many more than thirty, Roran thought, trying to bolster his courage. The choice you must now make is simple. Will you stay with the Varden, or will you abandon your friends and family and go your own way? Roran lifted his chin, angry that she would question his word. I shall not leave, Lady Naswada. No matter how many lashes you assign me, they cannot be as painful as losing my home and my father was. 
No, said Naswada softly. They could not. One of the magicians of Duvrangergata will attend to you afterward to ensure that the whip causes you no permanent damage. However, they shall not entirely heal your wounds, nor may you seek out a magician on your own to mend your back. I understand. Your flogging will be held as soon as Jormunda can marshal the troops. Until then, you will remain under guard in a tent by the whipping post. My lady, he said, and she dismissed him with a motion of her finger. The whipping was as painful as any of the numerous wounds Roran had suffered over the past few months. But after a dozen or so blows, he gave up trying to fight the pain, and surrendering to it, entered a bleary trance. After an interminable time, he heard the dim and faraway voice intone, Thirty, and despair gripped him as he wondered, How can I possibly withstand another twenty lashes? Then he thought of Katrina and their unborn child, and the thought gave him strength. Roran woke to find himself lying on his stomach on the cot inside the tent he and Katrina shared. Katrina was kneeling next to him, stroking his hair and murmuring in his ear, while someone daubed a cold, sticky substance over the stripes on his back. He winced and stiffened as the anonymous person poked a particularly sensitive spot. That is not how I would treat a patient of mine, he heard Triana say in a haughty tone. If you treat all of your patients as you were treating Rorin, another woman replied, I'm amazed that any survived your attentions. After a moment, Rorin recognized the second voice as belonging to the strange, bright-eyed herbalist, Angela. I beg your pardon, said Triana. I will not stand here and be insulted by a lowly fortune teller who struggles to cast even the most basic spell. Sit then, if it pleases you, but whether you sit or stand, I will continue to insult you until you admit that his back muscle attaches here and not there. Rorin felt a finger touch him in two different places, each a half inch apart. Oh, said Triana, and left the tent. Katrina smiled at Roran, and for the first time he noticed the tears streaking her face. Roran, do you understand me? she asked. Are you awake? I... I think so, he said, his voice raspy. There we go, said Angela. All finished. It's amazing. I didn't expect you and Triana to do so much, said Katrina. On Naswada's orders. Naswada? Why would... You'll have to ask her yourself. Tell him to stay off his back if he can help it. Thank you, Rorin mumbled. Behind him, Angela laughed. Think nothing of it, Rorin, or rather think something of it, but do not consider it overly important. Besides, it amuses me to have tended injuries on both your back and Aragon's. Right then, I'll be off. Watch out for ferrets. When the herbalist had gone, Rorin closed his eyes again. Katrina's smooth fingers stroked his forehead. You were very brave, she said. Was I? I, Jormunder and everyone else I spoke to said that you never cried out or begged for the flogging to stop. Good. Would you like something to drink? I have a pot of yarrow tea steeping. Yes, please. As Katrina rose, Roran heard another person enter the tent. He opened one eye and was surprised to see Naswada. 
My lady, Katrina said, her voice razor sharp. Why have you come? Roran needs to rest and recover, not to spend his time talking when he does not have to. Roran placed a hand on Katrina's left shoulder. I can talk if I must, he said. I have another mission for you, Roran, a small raid similar to those you have already participated in. When will I leave? he asked, puzzled that she would bother to inform him in person of such a simple assignment. Tomorrow, Katrina's eyes widened. Are you mad? she exclaimed. Katrina, Roran murmured, attempting to placate her, but she shrugged off his hand and said, the last trip you sent him on nearly killed him, and you've just had him whipped within an inch of his life. You can't order him back into combat so soon. He wouldn't last more than a minute against Galbatorix's soldiers. I can and I must, said Naswada, with such authority Katrina held her tongue, although Roran could tell that her anger had not subsided. Gazing at him intensely, Naswada said, Roran, as you may or may not be aware, our alliance with the Urgles is upon the verge of collapse. One of our own murdered three of the Urgles while you were serving under Captain Edric, who, you may be pleased to know, is a captain no more. Anyway, I had the miserable wretch who killed the Urgles hanged. But ever since, our relations with Garsvog's rams have become increasingly precarious. What does this have to do with Roran? Katrina demanded. I need to convince the Vardan to accept the presence of the Urgles without further bloodshed, and the best way I can do that is to show the Varden that our two races can work together in peaceful pursuit of a common goal. Toward that end, the group you shall be travelling with will contain equal numbers of both humans and Urgles. But that still doesn't— Katrina started to say. And I am placing the whole lot of them under your command, Stronghammer. Me? Roran rasped, astonished. Why? With a wry smile, Naswada said, I am giving you your own command, so that there is no one above you to disobey except me. If you ignore my orders, it had better be to kill Galbatorix. No other reason will save you from far worse than the lashes you earned today. And I am giving you this command, because you have proven that you are able to convince others to follow you, even in the face of the most daunting circumstances. You have as good a chance as any of maintaining control over a group of Urgles and humans. When the Varden hear that Erigen's own cousin, Roran Stronghammer, he who slew nigh on two hundred soldiers by himself, went on a mission with Urgles, and that the mission was a success, then we may yet keep the Urgles as our allies for the duration of this war. That is why I had Angela and Triana heal you more than is customary, not to spare you your punishment, but because I need you fit to command. Now, what say you, Stronghammer? Can I count on you? Roran looked at Katrina. He knew she desperately wished he would tell Naswada that he was incapable of leading the raid. Dropping his gaze so he did not have to see her distress, Roran said, You may count on me, Lady Naswada. The raid on the supply train went almost exactly as Roran had planned. None of the humans or Urgles died in the attack, and only three suffered wounds, two humans and one Urgle. Until that point, Roran had had no difficulty maintaining discipline among the twenty humans and twenty Urgles. 
However, in the aftermath of the attack on the supply train, as his men were busy dragging the bodies of the soldiers and the wagoners into a pile, four Urgles had tied an enemy soldier to the trunk of a gnarled willow tree and were amusing themselves by poking and prodding him with their swords. Swearing, Rorin jumped down from Snowfire and with a single blow of his hammer put the man out of his misery. A swirling cloud of dust swept over the group as Karn and four other warriors galloped up to the willow tree. They reined in their steeds and spread out on either side of Rorin, holding their weapons at the ready. The largest Urgle, a ram named Yarbog, stepped forward. Strong hammer, why did you stop our sport? He would have danced for us many more minutes. From between clenched teeth, Rorin said, so long as you are under my command, you will not torture captives without cause. Am I understood? Many of these soldiers have been forced to serve Galbatorix against their will. They are not our enemy. Galbatorix is, as he is yours. The Urgle's heavy brow beetled, nearly obscuring his deep-set yellow eyes. But you will still kill them, yes? Why cannot we enjoy seeing them wriggle and dance first? Rorin wondered if the Urgle's skull was too thick to crack with his hammer. Struggling to restrain his anger, he said, Because it is wrong, if nothing else. Now, unless you wish to experience agony the likes of which you cannot imagine, surrender your sword to me, and go see to the pack horses. They are yours to care for until we return to the Varden. Without waiting for an acknowledgment from the Urgle, Rorin turned and grasped Snowfire's reins and prepared to climb back onto the stallion. No, growled Yarbog. No? Are you refusing to obey my orders? Drawing back his lips to expose his short fangs, Yarbog said, No, I challenge you for leadership of this tribe, strong armor. Shall we attend to this creature for you? Karn asked, his voice ringing out. Wishing that there were not so many onlookers, Rorin shook his head. No, I shall deal with him myself. To Yarbog, Rorin said, It is not the custom of the Varden to award leadership based upon trial by combat. If you wish to fight, I will fight, but you will gain nothing by it. If I lose, Karn will assume my command, and you will answer to him instead of me. Bah! said Yarbog. I do not challenge you for the right to lead your own race. I challenge you for the right to lead us, the fighting rams of the Bolvik tribe. Rorin pondered his situation before accepting the inevitable. Even if it cost him his life, he had to try to maintain his authority over the Urgles, else the Varden would lose them as allies. Taking a breath, he said, Among my race... It is customary for the person who has been challenged to choose the time and place for the fight, as well as the weapons both parties will use. Chortling deep in his throat, Yarbog said, The time is now, Stronghammer. The place is here, and among my race, we fight in a loincloth and without weapons. That is hardly fair, since I have no horns, Rorin pointed out. Will you agree to let me use my hammer to compensate for my lack? Yarbog thought about it, then said, You may keep your helmet and shield, but no hammer. Weapons are not allowed when we fight to be chief. I see. Well, if I can't have my hammer, I will forego my helmet and shield as well. 
What are the rules of combat, and how shall we decide the winner? There is only one rule, Stronghammer. If you flee, you forfeit the match and are banished from your tribe. You win by forcing your rival to submit. But since I will never submit, we will fight to the death. Roran nodded. That might be what he intends to do, but I won't kill him if I can help it. Let us begin, he cried. At his direction, the men and Urgles cleared a space in the middle of the ravine and pegged out a square, twelve paces by twelve paces. Then Roran and Yarbog stripped, and two Urgles slathered bear grease over Yarbog's body, while Karn and Lofton, another human, did the same for Roran. Yarbog stood well over six feet tall. At least he's not a cull, thought Roran. He was confident of his own strength, but even so he did not believe that he could overpower Yarbog with sheer force. Again and again, Roran's eyes returned to Yarbog's immense horns, for those he knew were the most dangerous of the Urgul's features. With them, Yarbog could butt and gore Roran with impunity, and they would also protect the sides of Yarbog's head, although they limited the Urgul's peripheral vision. Then it occurred to Roran that just as the horns were Yarbog's greatest natural gift, so too they might be his undoing. When both Roran and Yarbog were completely covered with bear grease, their seconds retreated, and they stepped into the confines of the square. With a rippling bellow, Yarbog charged Roran, covering the distance between them with three thundering steps. Roran waited until Yarbog was nearly upon him, then jumped to the right. He underestimated Yarbog's speed, however. Lowering his head, the Urgle rammed his horns into Roran's left shoulder and tossed him, sprawling across the square. Sharp rocks poked into Roran's side as he landed. Lines of pain flashed across his back, tracing the paths of his half-healed wounds. He grunted and rolled upright. Again, Yarbog charged him, and again, Roran attempted to jump out of the way. This time his maneuver succeeded, and he slipped past the Urgle with inches to spare. Whirling around, Yarbog ran at him for a third time, and once more, Roran managed to evade him. Then, Yarbog changed tactics. Advancing sideways like a crab, he thrust out his large, hooked hands to catch Roran and pull him into his deadly embrace. Roran flinched and retreated. Whatever happened, he had to avoid falling into Yarbog's clutches. With his immense strength, the Urgle could soon dispatch him. Roran realized that time was not his friend. If he was going to win, he had to end the fight without further delay. Hoping to provoke Yarbog into charging again, for his strategy depended upon just that, Roran withdrew to the far corner of the square and began to taunt him, saying, Ha! You are as fat and slow as a milk cow. Can't you catch me, Yarbog? Or are your legs made of lard? You should cut off your horns in shame for letting a human make a fool of you. What will your prospective mates think when they hear of this? Will you tell them, Die, puny human, Yarbog growled and sprang at Roran, arms outstretched. Two of Yarbog's nails carved bloody furrows across Roran's ribs as he darted to his left, but he still managed to grasp and hang on to one of the Urgul's horns. Roran grabbed the other horn as well before Yarbog could throw him off. Using the horns as handles, Roran wrenched Yarbog's head to one side and, straining every muscle, cast the Urgul to the ground. As soon as Yarbog's chest touched the dirt, Roran placed a knee on top of his right shoulder, pinning him in place. 
Yarbog snorted and bucked, trying to break Roran's grip, but Roran refused to let go. He braced his feet against a rock and twisted the Urgle's head as far around as it would go, pulling so hard he would have broken the neck of any human. Both Roran and Yarbog were panting as heavily as if they had run a race. They lay there, neither of them moving more than a few inches as they struggled against each other. After nearly ten minutes, sweat drenched Roran's face. He knew he could not continue for much longer. Blast it, he thought. Won't he ever give up? Just then, Yarbog's head quivered as a muscle in the Urgle's neck cramped. Yarbog grunted, the first sound he had made in over a minute, and in an undertone, he muttered, Kill me, Stronghammer. I cannot best you. Adjusting his grip on Yarbog's horns, Roran growled in an equally low tone, No, if you want to die, find someone else to kill you. I have fought by your rules. Now you will accept defeat according to mine. The shame would be too great, Stronghammer. Kill me! If you are so worried about your honor, tell those who are curious that you were defeated by the cousin of Aragon Shadeslayer. Surely there is no shame in that. When several minutes had passed, and Yarbog still had not replied, Warren yanked on Yarbog's horns and growled, Well! Raising his voice so that all the men and Urgles could hear, Yarbog said, Gar! Svarvok, curse me! I submit! I should not have challenged you, Stronghammer. Uh, you are worthy to be chief, and I am not. As one, the men cheered and shouted, banging the pommels of their swords on their shields. The Urgles shifted in place and said nothing. Satisfied, Roran released Jarbog's horns and rolled away from the gray Urgle. He slowly got to his feet and hobbled out of the square to where Karn was waiting. Roran winced as Karn draped a blanket over his shoulders and the fabric rubbed against his abused skin. Grinning, Karn handed him a wineskin. After he knocked you down, I thought for sure he would kill you. I should have learned by now never to count you out, eh, Roran? <laughs> that was just about the finest fight I've ever seen. You must be the only man in history to have wrestled an Urgle. Maybe not, Roran said between sips of wine, but I might be the only man who has survived the experience. He smiled as Karn laughed. Roran looked over at the Urgles who were clustered around Yarbog. Although the Urgles appeared subdued, they did not seem angry or resentful, so far as he was able to judge, and he was confident that he would have no more trouble from them. With a graceful movement, Oramus handed Aragon a goblet of wine and then settled back into his chair. On the table was a tray with bowls of fruit and nuts, cheese, and a loaf of bread. Aragon sipped the wine. It was mellow and tasted of cherries and plums. Master, I... Oramus stopped him. You do not need to tell me what has befallen you these past weeks, Aragon. Since Islanzade left the forest, Arya has kept her informed of the news of the land— Ask what you will, and I promise I shall answer all of your questions to the best of my knowledge. What if I don't know the right questions to ask? A twinkle appeared in Oramus's gray eyes. 
Ah, you begin to think like an elf. You must trust us as your mentors to teach you and Sephira those things of which you are ignorant. And you must also trust us to decide when it is appropriate to broach those subjects, for there are many elements of your training that should not be spoken of out of turn. In a quiet but firm voice, Aragon said, It seems as if there is much you have not spoken of. When I was last here, did you know who my father was? Oramus nodded once. We did. And did you know that Murtag was my brother? Oramus nodded once more. We did. But then why did you not tell me? exclaimed Aragon, and jumped to his feet, knocking over his chair. Were you ever going to tell me? Or were you afraid I would become like my father? Placing his hands on the edge of the table, Aragon leaned forward. I'm not about to betray the elves or the dwarves or the Varden to Galbatorix, if that's what you are worried about. I will do what I must, but from now on you have neither my loyalty nor my trust. I will not... The ground and the air shook as Glader growled, his upper lip pulling back to reveal the full length of his fangs. You have more reason to trust us than anyone else, hatchling, he said, his voice thundering in Aragon's mind. If not for our efforts, you would be long dead. Then, to Aragon's surprise, Sephira said to Oramus and Glader, Tell him, and it alarmed him to feel the distress in her thoughts. Sephira? he asked, puzzled. Tell me what? She ignored him. One of Oramus's slanted eyebrows rose. You know? I know. You know what? Aragon bellowed, on the verge of tearing his sword from its sheath and threatening all of them until they explained themselves. With one slim finger, Oramus pointed toward the fallen chair. Sit. Glaring, Aragon righted the chair and dropped into it. Why? he asked. Why didn't you tell me that my father was Morzan, the first of the Forsworn? In the first place, said Oramus, we shall be fortunate if you are anything like your father, which indeed I believe you are. And Murtag is not your brother, but rather your half-brother. Trembling with barely restrained emotion, Aragon said, Oramus Elder, if Murtag is my half-brother, then who is my father? Look into your heart, Aragon, said Glader. You already know who he is, and you have known for a long time. Aragon shook his head. I don't know. I don't know. Please! A gout of smoke and flame jetted from Glader's nostrils as he snorted, Is it not obvious? Your father is Brom. Aragon gaped at the gold dragon. But how? he exclaimed. Before either Glader or Aramis could respond, Aragon whirled toward Sephira, and with both his mind and his voice, he said, You knew? You knew, and yet you let me believe Morzan was my father this whole time? Even though it... even though... <laughs> his chest heaving, Aragon stuttered and trailed off. Sephira lifted her head from the ground. Oh, Aragon, I wanted to tell you. It pained me to see how Murtag's words tormented you, and yet to be unable to help you. I tried to help, I tried so many times, but like Oramus and Glader, 
I too swore in the ancient language to keep Brom's identity a secret from you, and I could not break my oath. When did he tell you? Aragon asked, so agitated that he continued speaking out loud. The day after the Urgles attacked us, outside Tyrm, while you were still unconscious, before I knew what Brom wished to say, he had me swear to never speak of this with you, unless you found out on your own. To my regret, I agreed. During the two days Brom and I spent hunting the Urgles, Brom recounted the details of his life to me, so that if he died, and if ever you learned of your relation to him, his son could know what kind of a man he was and why he had acted as he did. Also, Brom gave me a gift for you. A gift? A memory of him speaking to you as your father, and not as Brom the storyteller. Before Sephira shares this memory with you, however, said Oramus, and Aragon realized she had allowed the elf to hear her words, it would be best, I think, if you knew how this came to pass. Listen to me a while, Aragon. It so happened then that some twenty years ago the Varden began to receive reports from their spies within the Empire about the activities of a mysterious woman known only as the Black Hand. My mother, said Aragon. Your mother and Murtag's, said Oramus. At first the Varden knew nothing about her, save that she was extremely dangerous and that she was loyal to the Empire. In time, and after a great deal of bloodshed, it became apparent that she served Morzan, and Morzan alone, and that he had come to depend upon her to carry out his will throughout the Empire. Upon learning of this, Brom set out to kill the Black Hand, and so to strike at Morzan. Since the Varden could not predict where your mother might appear next, Brom travelled to Morzan's castle and spied upon it, until he was able to devise a means of infiltrating the hold. Jayard told me that Brahm snuck into the castle by pretending to be one of the servants. He did, and it was no easy task. Brahm managed to find a flaw in Morzan's wards that allowed him to procure a position as a gardener on his estate, and it was in that guise that he first met your mother. Glancing down at his hands, Aragon said, and then he seduced her to hurt Morzan, I suppose. Not at all. That may have been his intention, to begin with. But then something happened. Neither he nor your mother anticipated. They fell in love. Whatever affection your mother once had for Morzan had vanished by then, expunged by his cruel treatment of her and their newborn child, Murtag. I do not know the exact sequence of events but at some point Brom revealed his true identity to your mother. Instead of betraying him, she began to supply the Varden with information about Galbatorix, Morzan, and the rest of the Empire. But, said Aragon, didn't Morzan have her swear oaths of fealty to him in the ancient language? How could she turn against him? A smile appeared on Oramus's thin lips. She could, because Morzan allowed her somewhat more freedom than his other servants, so that she could use her own ingenuity and initiative while carrying out his orders. In his arrogance, Morzan believed that her love for him would ensure her loyalty better than any oath. Also, 
She was not the same woman who had bound herself to Morzan. Becoming a mother and meeting Brom altered her character to such a degree that her true name changed, which released her from her previous commitments. If Morzan had been more careful, if, for example, he had cast a spell that would alert him if ever she failed to abide by her promises, he would have known the moment he lost control over her. But that was always a shortcoming of Morzan's. He would devise a cunning spell, but then it would fail because in his impatience he overlooked some crucial detail. Aragon frowned. Why didn't my mother leave Morzan once she had the chance? She could not bring herself to abandon Murtag to his father. Couldn't she have taken him with her? If it had been within her power, I am sure she would have. Morzan realized that the child gave him a vast amount of control over your mother. He forced her to surrender Murtag to a wet nurse, and only allowed her to visit him at infrequent intervals. What Morzan did not know is that during those intervals she also visited Brom. Then, one of Brom's agents in Tyrm made contact with a young scholar by the name of Jayot, who wished to join the Varden, and who claimed to have discovered evidence of a hitherto secret tunnel that led into the elf-built portion of the castle in Urubain. Brom rightly felt that Jayard's discovery was too important to ignore, so he packed his bags, made his excuses to his fellow servants, and then departed for Tyrm with all possible haste. What of my mother? She had left a month before on another of Morzan's missions. Struggling to weld a cohesive whole out of the fragmented accounts he had heard from various people, Aragon said, So then, Brom met with Jayard and once he was convinced the tunnel was real, he arranged for one of the Varden to attempt to steal the three dragon eggs Galbatorix was holding in Irobane. Oramis's face darkened. Unfortunately, for reasons that have never become entirely clear, the man they selected for the task, a certain Hefring of Furnost, succeeded in filching only one egg. Sephiras, from Galbatorix's treasury, and once he had possession of it, he fled from both the Varden and Galbatorix's servants. Because of his betrayal, Brom had to spend the next seven months chasing Hefring back and forth across the land in a desperate attempt to recapture Sephira. And during that time, my mother traveled in secret to Carvajal, where she gave birth to me five months later? Oramis nodded. You were conceived just before your mother set forth upon her last mission. As a result, Brom knew nothing of her condition while he was pursuing Hefring and Sephira's egg. When Brom and Morzan finally confronted each other in Gilead, Morzan asked Brom whether he had been responsible for the disappearance of his black hand. Brom, of course, immediately concluded that something terrible had befallen your mother. He later told me it was that belief which gave him the strength and fortitude he needed to kill Morzan and his dragon. Once they were dead, Brom took Sephira's egg from Morzan's corpse, for Morzan had already located Hefring and seized the egg from him, and then Brom left the city, pausing only long enough to hide Sephira where he knew the Varden would eventually find her. 
So that's why Jayad thought Brahm died in Gilead, said Aragon. Hmm. From Gilead, Brahm rode straight to Morzan's estate, stopping only to sleep. For all his speed, however, he was still too slow. When he reached the castle, he discovered that your mother had returned a fortnight prior, sick and weary from her mysterious journey. Morzan's healers tried to save her, but in spite of their efforts, she had passed into the void just hours before Brom arrived at the castle. He never saw her again? Aragon asked, his throat tightening. Never again. Oramus paused, and his expression softened. He decided to discover the reason for your mother's death, and to punish those who were responsible, if he could. He questioned Morzan's healers, and forced them to describe your mother's ailments. From what they said, and also from gossip he heard among the servants on his estate, Brom guessed the truth about your mother's pregnancy. Possessed of that hope, he rode to the one place he knew to look, your mother's home in Carver Hall, and there he found you in the care of your aunt and uncle. Brom did not stay in Carver Hall, however. As soon as he assured himself that no one in Carver Hall knew your mother had been the Black Hand and that you were in no imminent danger, Brom returned in secret to Farthendur, where he revealed himself to Denor, who was the leader of the Varden at the time. Denor was astounded to see him, for until that moment everyone had believed that Brom had perished in Gilead. Brom convinced Denor to keep his presence a secret from all but a select few, and then— Aragon raised a finger. But why? Why pretend to be dead? Brom wanted to live long enough to help instruct the new rider, and he knew the only way he could avoid being assassinated in retaliation for killing Morzan would be if Galbatorix believed he was already dead and buried. I think I understand why Brom didn't say anything about this before I found Safira's egg. But why didn't he tell me afterward? And why did he swear you and Safira to such secrecy? Didn't he want to claim me as his son? Was he ashamed of me? I cannot pretend to know the reasons for everything Brom did, Erigan. However, of this much I am confident. Brom wanted nothing more than to name you his son and to raise you. But he dared not reveal that you were related, lest the Empire should find out and try to hurt him through you. Oramus hesitated, and his calm expression became somewhat troubled. I am not sure, Aragon. Perhaps he was planning to tell you just before you went to the Varden. If I had to guess, though, I would guess that Brom held his tongue not because he was ashamed of you, but because he was uncertain how you might react. To his revelation. By your own account, you were not that well acquainted with Brom before you left Carver Hall with him. It is quite possible he was afraid that you might hate him if he told you he was your father. Hate him? exclaimed Aragon. I wouldn't have hated him, although I might not have believed him. And would you have trusted him after such a revelation? Aragon bit the inside of his cheek. No, I wouldn't have. Continuing, Oramus said, Brom did the best he could in what were incredibly trying circumstances, 
Before all else, it was his responsibility to keep the two of you alive, and to teach and advise you, Aragon, so that you would not use your power for selfish means, as Galbatorix has done. In that, Brom acquitted himself with distinction. He may not have been the father you wished him to be, but he gave you as great an inheritance as any son has ever had. It was no more than he would have done for whoever became the new rider. That does not diminish its value, Oramus pointed out. But you are mistaken. Brom did more for you than he would have for anyone else. You need only think of how he sacrificed himself to save your life, to know the truth of that. It surprised Aragon how calm he felt. His entire life he had speculated about the identity of his father, when Murtag had claimed it was Morzan, the revelation had shocked Aragon as deeply as had the death of Garrow. Glader's counterclaim that Aragon's father was Brom had also shocked him, but the shock did not seem to have lasted, perhaps because this time the news was not as upsetting. Calm as he was, Aragon thought that it might be many years before he was certain of his feelings toward either of his parents. My father was a rider, and my mother was Morzan's consort and black hand. Could I tell Naswada? he asked. Oramus spread his hands. Tell whomever you wish. The secret is now yours to do with as you please. I doubt you would be in any more danger if the whole world knew you were Brom's heir. Murtag, Aragon said. He believes we are full brothers. He told me so in the ancient language. And I am sure Galbatorix does as well. It was the twins who figured out that Murtag's mother and your mother were one and the same person, and this they conveyed to the king. But they could not have informed him of Brom's involvement, for there was no one among the Varden who was privy to that information. A light breeze swept across the clearing, feathering the grass at their feet and stirring the branches of the forest around them. Aragon watched the fluttering of the grass for a few moments, then slowly asked, was my mother a good person? I could not say, Aragon. The events of her life were complicated. It would be foolish and arrogant of me to presume to pass judgment on one I know so little of. When you asked Brom about your mother, he told you what he thought were her most important qualities. My advice would be to trust in his knowledge of her. A thought occurred to Aragon then. Blagden! he said, referring to the white raven who was Queen Islanzadi's companion. He knows about Brahm as well, doesn't he? One of Oramus's sharp eyebrows lifted. Does he? I never spoke of it to him. He is a fickle creature and not to be relied upon. The day Sephira and I left for the burning plains, he recited a riddle to me. I can't remember every line, but it was something about one of two being one, while one might be two. I think he might have been hinting that Murtag and I only share a single parent. It is not impossible. Blagdon was here in Elismera when Brom told me about you. I would not be surprised if that sharp-beaked thief happened to be perched in a nearby tree during our conversation. Eavesdropping is an unfortunate habit of his. It might also be that his riddle was the result of one of his sporadic fits of foresight. A moment later, Oramus rose from his chair, saying, 
Fruit, nuts, and bread are fine fare, but after your trip you should have something more substantial to fill your belly. I have a soup that needs tending, simmering in my hut. But please, do not bestir yourself. I will bring it to you when it is ready. Aragon walked to the edge of the crags of Tel Nair, where he gazed out over the rolling forest a thousand feet below. A branch cracked as Sephira approached from behind. She crouched by his side, her scales painting him with hundreds of shifting flecks of blue light, and stared in the same direction as he. Are you angry with me? she asked. No, of course not. I understand that you could not break your oath in the ancient language. She swung her head toward him. And how do you feel, Aragon? I am glad, I think, to consider Brahm my father. But I'm not sure. It's too much to grasp all at once. Perhaps what I have to give you will help. Would you like to see the memory Brahm left for you? Or would you prefer to wait? No, no waiting, he said. If we delay, you may never have the opportunity. Then close your eyes and let me show you what once was. Aragon did as she directed, and from Sephira there flowed a stream of sensations, sights, sounds, smells, and more, everything that she had been experiencing at the time of the memory. Before him, Aragon beheld a glade in the forest somewhere among the foothills, piled up against the western side of the spine, and in the center of the glade lay a fallen tree, and upon the fallen tree sat Brahm. Across his lap lay his sword. His twisted, rune-carved staff stood propped against the log. The ring Aaron glittered on his right hand. For a long while, Brahm did not move. Then he gazed straight at Zephira, and through her, Aragon. If you are watching me, Aragon, then I am dead, and you know that I am your father. From a leather pouch by his side, Brom drew forth his pipe, filled it with cardus weed, then lit it with a soft muttering of Brissinger. He puffed on the pipe several times before he resumed talking. I wish that you and I could have this talk face to face, Aragon, and perhaps we still shall, and Sephira will have no need to share this memory with you, but I doubt it. Your whole life, Aragon, I have longed to reveal to you who I was. It has been a pleasure like no other for me to watch you growing up, but also a torture like no other because of the secret I held in my heart. I have my share of regrets, but you are not one of them, Aragon. I am proud to have you as my son, Aragon, prouder than you will ever know. I realize you may be angry at me for keeping this from you. I can't say I would have been happy to discover the name of my own father this way. Whether you like it or not, though, we are family, you and I. Since I could not give you the care I owed you as your father, I will give you the one thing I can instead, and that is advice. Hate me, if you wish, Eregon. But heed what I have to say, for I know whereof I speak. Brom grasped the sheath of his sword 
the veins prominent on the back of his hand. Right. Now, my advice is twofold. Whatever you do, protect those you care for. Without them, life is more miserable than you can imagine. An obvious statement, I know, but no less true because of it. There, that is the first part of my advice. As for the rest, if you are so fortunate as to have already killed Galbatorix, or if anyone has succeeded in slitting that traitor's throat, then congratulations. If not, then you must realize that Galbatorix is your greatest and most dangerous enemy. Until he is dead, neither you nor Sephira will ever find peace. I am not a strong spellcaster, nor are you compared with Galbatorix, but when it comes to a wizard's duel, intelligence is even more important than strength. The way to defeat another magician is not by battering blindly against his mind. No, in order to ensure victory, you have to find out how your enemy interprets information and reacts to the world. Then you will know his weaknesses, and there you strike. Remember that. Galbatorix may have immense power, but he cannot anticipate every possibility. Whatever you do, you must remain nimble in your thinking. Do not become so attached to any one belief that you cannot see past it to another possibility. Galbatorix is mad, and therefore unpredictable, but he also has gaps in his reasoning that an ordinary person would not. If you can find those, Aragon, then perhaps you and Sephira can defeat him. His face grave, Brahm said, I hope you do. My greatest desire, Aragon, is that you and Sephira will live long and fruitful lives, free from fear of Galbatorix and the Empire. I wish that I could protect you from all the dangers that threaten you, but alas, that is not within my ability. All I can do is give you my advice and teach you what I can now while I am still here. My son, whatever happens to you, know that I love you, and so did your mother. May the stars watch over you, Eregan Bromson. As Brahm's final words echoed in Aragon's mind, the memory faded away, leaving behind empty darkness. Aragon opened his eyes and was embarrassed to find tears running down his cheeks. Are you going to be all right? Sephira asked. Yes, said Aragon, and lifted his head. I think I will, actually. I don't like some of the things Brahm did, but... I am proud to call him my father, and to carry his name. Aragon put a hand on Sephira's neck, and they stood upon the edge of the crags of Tel Nair and gazed out over the forest of the elves. Not long afterward, 
Oramus emerged from his hut, carrying two bowls of soup, and Aragon and Sephira turned slowly and walked back to the small table in front of Glader's immense bulk. As Aragon pushed away his empty bowl, Oramus said, Would you like to see a ferth of your mother, Aragon? Aragon froze for a moment, astonished. Yes, please. From within the folds of his white tunic, Oramus withdrew a shingle of thin gray slate, which he passed to Aragon. The stone was cool and smooth between Aragon's fingers. On the other side of it, he knew he would find a perfect likeness of his mother, painted by means of a spell, with pigments an elf had set within the slate many years ago. A flutter of uneasiness ran through Aragon. He had always wanted to see his mother, but now that the opportunity was before him, he was afraid that the reality might disappoint him. With an effort, he turned the slate over and beheld an image, clear as a vision seen through a window, of a garden of red and white roses lit by the pale rays of dawn. A gravel path ran through the beds of roses, and in the middle of the path was a woman, kneeling, cupping a white rose between her hands and smelling the flower. She was very beautiful, Aragon thought. Her expression was soft and tender, yet she wore clothes of padded leather with blackened bracers upon her forearms and greaves upon her shins and a sword and dagger hanging from her waist. In the shape of her face, Aragon could detect a hint of his own features as well as a certain resemblance to Garrow, her brother. The image fascinated Aragon. He pressed his hand against the surface of the ferth, wishing that he could reach into it and touch her on the arm. Mother, Oramus said, Brom gave me the ferth for safekeeping before he left for Carver Hall, and now I give it to you. Then Oramus said, Your time here is limited, and we still have many matters to discuss. Shall I guess which subject you would like to address next, or will you tell me? With great reluctance, Aragon placed the ferth on the table and rotated it so that the image was upside down. The two times we have fought Murtag and Thorn, Murtag has been more powerful than any human ought to be. On the Burning Plains, he defeated Sephira and me because we did not realize how strong he was. If not for his change of heart, we would be prisoners in Urubain right now. You once mentioned that you know how Galbatorix has become so powerful. Will you tell us now, Master? For our own safety, we need to know. It is not my place to tell you this, said Oramus. Then whose is it? demanded Aragon. You can't— Behind Oramus, Glader opened one of his eyes and said, It is mine. The source of Galbatorix's power lies in the hearts of dragons. From us he steals his strength. Without our aid, Galbatorix would have fallen to the elves and the Varden long ago. Aragon frowned. I don't understand. Why would you help Galbatorix? And how could you? There are only four dragons and an egg left in Algazia, aren't there? Many of the dragons whose bodies Galbatorix and the Forsworn slew are still alive today. Still alive? The gold dragon turned his head on his paws to better look at Aragon. Unlike with most creatures, a dragon's consciousness does not reside solely within our skulls. There is in our chests a hard, gem-like object, 
similar in composition to our scales, called the El Dunare, which means the heart of hearts. When a dragon hatches, their El Dunare is clear and lustreless. Usually it remains so all through a dragon's life, and dissolves along with the dragon's corpse when they die. However, if we wish, we can transfer our consciousness into the Eldunare. Then it will acquire the same color as our scales and begin to glow like a coal. If a dragon has done this, the Eldunare will outlast the decay of their flesh and a dragon's essence may live on indefinitely. Also, a dragon can disgorge their Eldunare while they are still alive. By this means, a dragon's body and a dragon's consciousness can exist separately and yet still be linked, which can be most useful in certain circumstances. But to do this exposes us to great danger, for whosoever holds our Eldunare holds our very soul in their hands. With it, they could force us to do their bidding, no matter how vile. The implications of what Glader had said astounded Aragon. Why didn't you tell us of this sooner? Unstoppering the decanter, Oramus refilled his goblet with wine and said, In order to protect Sephira. Protect her? From what? From you, Glader said. Aragon was so surprised and outraged, he failed to regain his composure well enough to protest before Glader resumed speaking. The riders discovered that it was better to wait until the newly joined riders and dragons were well familiar with each other before informing them of the Eldunare. Otherwise, in the reckless folly of youth, a dragon might decide to disgorge his heart of hearts merely to appease or impress his rider. When we give up our Eldunare, we are giving up a physical embodiment of our entire being, and we cannot return it to its original place within our bodies once it is gone. A dragon should not undertake the separation of their consciousness lightly, for it will change how they live the rest of their lives, even if they should endure for another thousand years. Then Aragon asked, what happens if your Eldenari breaks? If a dragon has already transferred their consciousness to their heart of hearts, then they will die a true death. Before we formed our pact with the elves, we kept our hearts in Dufelsnangoroth, the mountains in the centers of the Hadarak Desert. Later, after the riders established themselves on the island of Vringard, and therein built a repository for the Eldunare, wild dragons and paired dragons both entrusted their hearts to the riders for safekeeping. So then, Galbatorix captured the Eldunare! Contrary to Aragon's expectations, it was Oramus who replied, He did, but not all at once. It had been so long since anyone had truly threatened the riders, many of our order had become careless about protecting the Eldunari. At the time Galbatorix turned against us, it was not uncommon for a rider's dragon to disgorge their Eldunari merely for the sake of convenience. Convenience? Anyone who holds one of our hearts, said Glader, may communicate with the dragon from which it came without regard for distance. 
In addition, said Oramus, a magician who possesses an Eldunare can draw upon the dragon's strength to bolster his spells, again without regard for where the dragon might be. When Galbatorix killed his first rider, he also stole the heart of the rider's dragon, and when he began his insurrection in earnest, he was already stronger than most every other rider. Galbatorix did not just try to kill the riders and dragons, he made it his goal to acquire as many of the Eldonari as he could. By the time we realized what Galbatorix was doing, he was already too powerful to stop. And, of course, once Galbatorix and the Forsworn sacked the city of Doru Areba on the island of Vrungard, he gained possession of the entire horde of Eldunare stored therein. Lost deep in thought, Aragon stared off into the distance. For the first time, all of the stories he had heard about Galbatorix's unnatural power made sense. A faint feeling of optimism welled up within Aragon as he said to himself, I'm not sure how, but if we could release the Eldunari from Galbatorix's control, he would be no more powerful than any normal dragon rider. Unlikely as the prospect seemed, it heartened Aragon to know that the king did have a vulnerability, no matter how slight. Is there no way for a dragon to defend themselves through their Eldunari? Aragon asked. Glader's eye seemed to twinkle brighter than ever. An apt question. A dragon who has disgorged their Eldunare, but who still enjoys the use of their flesh, can, of course, defend their heart with their claws and their fangs and their tail, and with the battering of their wings. A dragon whose body is dead, however, possesses none of those advantages. Their only weapon is the weapon of their mind, and perhaps, if the moment is right, the weapon of magic, which we cannot command at will. That is one reason why many dragons did not choose to prolong their existence beyond the demise of their flesh. Now, I have a question, said Zephira. Once one of our kind becomes confined to their Eldenare, must they continue to exist? Or is it possible for them to release their hold on the world and pass into the darkness beyond? Not on their own, said Oramus. Not unless the inspiration to use magic should sweep over the dragon and allow them to break their Eldunare from within, which to my knowledge has happened but rarely. The only other option would be for the dragon to convince someone else to smash the Eldunare for them. That lack of control is another reason why dragons were extremely wary of transferring themselves into their heart of hearts, lest they trap themselves in a prison from which there was no escape. Aragon could feel Zephira's loathing at the thought of that prospect. She did not speak of it, however, but asked, How many Eldenare does Galbatorix hold in his thrall? We do not know the exact number, said Oramus, but we estimate that his hoard contains many hundreds. Freeing them gives me something to strive for, along with rescuing the last egg, said Zephira. It is something for us both to strive for, said Aragon. We are their only hope. He rubbed his brow with his right thumb, then said, There is still something I don't understand. Oh, wherein lies your confusion? If Galbatorix draws his power from these hearts, 
How do they produce the energy he uses? Oramus smiled, his longish teeth glossy as enameled porcelain. From magic. Magic? If one defies magic as the manipulation of energy, which properly it is, then yes, magic. Where exactly the Eldunari acquire their energy is a mystery to both us and the dragons. No one has ever identified the source. The total amount of energy an Eldunari can hold depends upon the size of the heart. The older a dragon, the larger their Eldunari, and the more energy it can absorb before becoming saturated. Thinking back to when he and Sephira had battled Murtag and Thorn, Aragon said, Galbatorix must have given Murtag several Eldunari. That's the only explanation for his increase in strength. Aragon remembered how, both times he and Sephira had encountered Murtag and Thorn, Murtag's mind had felt as if it contained multiple beings. Aragon shared his recollection with Sephira and said, Those must have been the Eldunari, I sensed. I wonder where Murtag put them. Thorn carried no saddlebags, and I didn't see any odd bulges in Murtag's clothing. I don't know, said Sephira. You do realize that Murtag must have been referring to his Eldenari when he said that instead of tearing out your own heart, it would be better to tear out his hearts. Hearts, not heart. You're right. Maybe he was trying to warn me. Inhaling, Aragon loosened the knot between his shoulder blades and leaned back in his chair. Aside from Sephira's heart of hearts and Glader's, are there any Eldenari that Galbatorix hasn't captured? Faint lines appeared around the corners of Oramis's downturned mouth. None that we know of. After the fall of the riders, Brom went searching for Eldenari that Galbatorix might have overlooked, but without success. Nor in all my years of scouring Allegasia with my mind have I detected so much as a whisper of a thought from an Eldenari. It is inconceivable that any great store of Eldenari might be lying hidden somewhere, ready to help us, if we could but locate them. You have given us much to think about, Oramus Elder, said Zephira. Oramus said, What now, Eragon? You cannot linger in Elismira, so I wonder what else you hope to achieve by your visit, or is it your intention to depart again tomorrow morning? We had hoped that when we returned we would be able to continue our training as before. Obviously we haven't time for that now, but there is something else I would like to do. And that would be? Master, I have not told you everything that happened to me when Brahm and I were in Tyr. And then Aragon recounted how curiosity had lured him into Angela's shop, and how she had told him his fortune, and the advice Salembum had given him afterwards. Oramus drew a finger across his upper lip, his demeanor contemplative. I have heard this fortune-teller mentioned with increasing frequency throughout this past year. This Angela seems to be most adept at turning up whenever and wherever events of significance are about to take place. That she is, confirmed Sephira. Continuing, Oramus said, Her behavior reminds me very much of a human spellcaster who once visited the halls of Ellis Mera, although she did not go by the name of Angela. Is Angela a woman of short stature, with thick curly brown hair, flashing eyes, and a wit that is as sharp as it is odd? You have described her perfectly, said Aragon. Is she the same person? 
Oramus made a small flicking motion with his left hand. If she is, she is an extraordinary person. As for her prophecies, I would not devote much thought to them. Either they will come true or they will not, and without knowing more, none of us can influence the outcome. What the werecat said, though, is worthy of far more consideration. Unfortunately, I cannot elucidate either of his statements. I have never heard of any such place as the Vault of Souls, and while the Rock of Cuthian strikes a familiar chord in my memory, I cannot recall where I have encountered the name. I will search my scrolls for it, but instinct tells me I will find no mention of it in elvish writings. What of the weapon underneath the Manoa tree? I know of no such weapon, Aragon, and I am well acquainted with the lore of this forest. When Aragon expressed his disappointment, Oramis said, I understand that you require a suitable replacement for Zarok, and I shall send word to the smith Runon that she may expect you. But she swore she would never forge another sword. Oramis sighed. She did, but her advice would still be worth seeking out. If anyone can recommend the proper weapon for you, it would be she. Could another elf forge me a blade? Nay, not if it were to match the craftsmanship of Zarok or whichever stolen sword Galbatorix has chosen to wield. Runun is one of the very oldest of our race, and it is she alone who has made the swords for our order. She is as old as the riders, said Aragon, amazed. Older, even. Go and visit the Manoa tree. I know you will not rest easy until you have. See there, if you can find the weapon the werecat enticed you with. When you have satisfied your curiosity, retire to the quarters of your treehouse, which Islanzadi's servants keep in readiness for you and Safira. But before you leave, you may pick any use of magic— and in the brief while we have, I will teach you everything I can concerning it. Aragon considered Oramis's offer, trying to decide what, of all areas of magic, he would most like to learn. Could you teach me my true name? Aragon, I might be able to guess your true name if I so wished. The silver-haired elf studied Aragon with increased intensity, his eyes heavy upon him but I will not. If your desire is to better understand yourself, Aragon, then seek to discover your true name on your own. A person must earn enlightenment. It is not handed down to you by others, regardless of how revered they be. Aragon stopped and smiled as a thought occurred to him. Will you teach me how to move an object from place to place without delay, just as Arya did with Sephira's egg? Oramis nodded. An excellent choice. The spell is costly, but it has many uses. I am sure it will prove most helpful to you in your dealings with Galbatorix and the Empire. Arya, for one, can attest to its effectiveness. Then Oramis said, Before you venture into the city, you should know that he whom you sent to live among us arrived here some time ago. A moment passed before Aragon realized to whom Oramis was referring. Sloane is in Elismera, said Aragon, astonished. Mm -hmm. 
He lives alone in a small dwelling by a stream on the western edge of Elismera. The elves in the city bring him food and clothes, and otherwise see to it he is well cared for. Twice he has attempted to leave, but your spells prevented it. I'm surprised he arrived here so quickly, Aragon said to Sephira. The compulsion you placed upon him must have been stronger than you realized. Aye. In a quiet voice, Aragon asked Oramus, Have you seen fit to restore his vision? We have not. The weeping man is broken inside, Glader said. He cannot see clearly enough for his eyes to be of any use. Should I go and visit him? asked Aragon, unsure of what Oramus and Glader expected. Meeting you again might only upset him, Oramus said. However, you are responsible for his punishment, Aragon. It would be wrong for you to forget him. No, master, I won't. Thicker than a hundred of the giant pines that encircled it, the Manoa tree rose toward the sky like a mighty pillar, its arching canopy thousands of feet across. And throughout the clearing, the sense of a watchful presence pervaded, for the tree contained within it the remnants of the elf once known as Linnea, whose consciousness now guided the growth of the tree and that of the forest beyond. Aragon searched the uneven field of roots for any sign of a weapon, but as before he found no object he would consider carrying into battle. Perhaps I should approach the problem differently if I'm going to find this weapon. As you pointed out before, Sephira, it could just as easily be a stone or a book of spells as a blade of some sort. For several more hours, the two of them prowled the clearing. Then, disappointed, Aragon and Sephira left the Manoa tree, even as the rim of the sun kissed the horizon. From the clearing, Sephira flew to the center of Elismera, where she glided to a landing within the bedroom of the treehouse the elves had given them to stay in, several hundred feet above the ground. While Sephira sank into a deep sleep, Aragon watched the stars rise and set above the moonlit forest. Late in the night, he slipped into the trance-like state of his waking dreams, and there he spoke with his parents. Aragon could not hear what they said, but somehow he was aware of the love and pride his parents felt for him. Although he knew they were no more than phantoms of his restless mind, ever after he treasured the memory of their affection. So, Shadeslayer, you are still alive, said Runon. Oramis told me that you lost Zarok to the son of Morzan. Yes, Runon Elder, he took it from me on the burning plains. <laughs> Runon paused and said, The sword has found its rightful owner then. I do not like the use to which Murtag is putting it, but every rider should have his own sword. Understand me, Shadeslayer. I would prefer it if you had kept hold of Zarok, but it would please me even more if you had a sword that was made for you. Would you make me one, Runan Elder? You know that I swore that I would never create another weapon so long as I live. I do. My oath binds me. I cannot break it, no matter how much I might wish to. And why should I, Dragon Rider? Tell me that. Why should I lose another soul reaver upon the world? Choosing his words with care, Aragon said, Because if you did, you could help put an end to Galbatorix's reign. 
Would not it be fitting if I killed him with a blade you forged, when it was with your swords he and the Forsworn slew so many dragons and riders? You hate how they have used your weapons. How better to balance the scales, then, than by forging the instrument of Galbatorix's doom? Runon crossed her arms and looked up at the sky. A sword, a new sword, after so long to again ply my craft. Lowering her gaze, she jutted her chin out at Aragon and said, It is possible, just possible, that there might be a way I could help you. But it is futile to speculate, for I cannot try. Why not? asked Zephira. Because I have not the metal I need, Runon growled. You do not think that I forged the rider's swords out of ordinary steel, do you? No. Long ago, while I was wandering through the Weldenwarden, I happened upon fragments of a shooting star that had fallen to the earth. The pieces contained an ore unlike any I had handled before, stronger, harder, and more flexible than any of earthly origin. I named the metal Bright Steel on account of its uncommon brilliance. Over the centuries, the fragments became ever more rare. If some could be procured, then we might begin to consider a sword for you, Shadeslayer. Aragon bowed to the elf woman and thanked her for her time. Then he and Sephira left the atrium through the green leafy tunnel of dogwood. As they walked, Aragon said, Bright steel. That has to be what Salemba meant. There must be bright steel underneath the Manoa tree. Bright steel or not, Sephira said. How are we supposed to get at anything that the roots of the Manoa tree cover? I have to think about it. From the glade by Runun's house, Sephira and Aragon flew over Elismera back to the crags of Telnaer, where Oramus and Glader were waiting. While the two dragons danced among the clouds, Oramus taught Aragon how a magician could transport an object from one place to another without having the object traverse the intervening distance. When Oramus had finished teaching him how to shift objects, the elf said, Before you leave, return here with Sephira one last time. With a faint whisper of wind, Sephira alighted upon a knuckle-like root several hundred feet from the base of the Manoa tree. The squirrels in the enormous pine screamed warnings to their brethren as they noticed her arrival. Sliding down onto the root, Aragon rubbed his palms on his thighs, then muttered, Right, let's not waste time. With light footsteps, he ran up the root to the trunk of the tree. He waited until Sephira was standing above him, then he closed his eyes, and summoning all of his resources, flung a mental shout at the Manoa tree. Please, listen to me, O great tree. I need your help. The entire land is at war. The elves have left the safety of Dueldenvarden and I do not have a sword to fight with. The werecat Solembum told me to look under the Manoa tree when I needed a weapon. Well, that time has come. Please listen to me, O mother of the forest. Help me in my quest. Several minutes elapsed, and still the tree did not acknowledge them, but Aragon refused to abandon their attempt. The tree, he reasoned, moved at a slower pace than humans or elves. It was only to be expected that it would not immediately respond to the request. While they continued to plead with the Manoa tree, the sun reached its zenith and then began to descend. Sephira snarled, and every bird within hearing fled in fright. Enough of this groveling, she declared. 
I am a dragon, and I will not be ignored, not even by a tree. No, wait, Aragon cried, sensing her intentions, but she ignored him. Stepping back from the trunk of the Manoa tree, Zephyra crouched, sank her claws deep into the root underneath her, and with a mighty wrench, tore three huge strips of wood out of the root. Come out and speak with us, elf tree, she roared. She drew back her head like a snake about to strike, and a pillar of flame erupted from between her jaws, bathing the trunk in a storm of blue and white fire. Covering his face, Aragon leapt away to escape the heat. Sephira, stop, he shouted, horrified. I will stop when she answers us. A thick cloud of water droplets fell to the ground. Looking up, Aragon saw the branches of the pine trembling and swaying with increased agitation. The groan of wood rubbing against wood filled the air. Glancing around, Aragon saw that the trees that ringed the clearing seemed to be leaning inward, their crooked branches reaching toward him like talons. And Aragon was afraid. Sephira, he said, and sank into a half-crouch, ready to either run or fight. Closing her jaws, and thus ending the stream of fire, Sephira looked away from the Manoa tree. As she beheld the ring of menacing trees, her scales rippled, and the tips rose from her hide like the ruff on a wild cat. She growled at the forest, swinging her head from side to side, then unfolded her wings and began to retreat from the Manoa tree. Quick, get on my back! Before Aragon could take a single step, a root as thick as his arm sprouted out of the ground and coiled itself around his left ankle, immobilizing him. Even thicker roots appeared on either side of Sephira and grasped her by the legs and tail, holding her in place. Sephira roared in fury and arched her neck to loose another deluge of fire. The flames in her mouth flickered and went out, as a voice sounded in her mind and Aragon's, a slow, whispering voice that reminded Aragon of rustling leaves. And the voice said, who dares to disturb my peace? Who dares to bite me and burn me? Name yourselves, so I will know who it is I have killed. I am Aragon Shadeslayer, and this is the dragon with whom I am bonded, Sephira Brightscales. Die well, Aragon Shadeslayer and Sephira Brightscales. Wait, Aragon said. I have not finished naming us. A long silence followed. Then the voice said, Continue. I am the last free dragon rider in Alagasia, and Sephira is the last female dragon in all of existence. We are perhaps the only ones who can defeat Galbatorix the traitor who has destroyed the riders and conquered half of Alagasia. Why did you hurt me, dragon? The voice sighed. Sephira bared her teeth as she answered. Because you would not talk with us, elf tree, and because Aragon has lost his sword and a werecat told him to look under the Manoa tree when he needed a weapon. We have looked and looked, but we cannot find it on our own. Then... You die in vain, dragon, for there is no weapon under my roots. Desperate to keep the tree talking, Aragon said, We believe the werecat might have meant bright steel, the star metal Runon uses to forge the blades of the riders. 
Without it, she cannot replace my sword. The surface of the earth rippled as the network of roots that covered the clearing shifted slightly. Out of the corner of his eye, Aragon saw dozens of elves running toward the clearing, their hair streaming behind them like silk pennants. Silent as apparitions, the elves stopped underneath the boughs of the encircling trees and stared at him and Sephira, but made no move to approach or to assist them. Aragon was about to call with his mind for Oromus and Glader when the voice returned. The Wackhat knew whereof he spoke. There is a nodule of bright steel ore buried at the very edge of my roots. But you shall not have it. You bit me and you burned me, and I do not forgive you. Alarm tempered Aragon's excitement at hearing of the ore's existence. But Sephira is the last female dragon, he exclaimed. Surely you would not kill her? Dragons breathe fire whispered the voice, and a shudder ran through the trees at the edge of the clearing. Fires must be extinguished. Sephira growled again and said, If we cannot stop the man who destroyed the dragon riders, he will come here and he will burn the forest around you, and then he will destroy you as well, elf tree. If you help us, though, we may be able to stop him. A screech echoed among the trees as two branches scraped against each other. If he tries to kill my seedlings, then he will die, said the voice. No one is as strong as the whole of the forest. No one can hope to defeat the forest, and I speak for the forest. Aragon said, We will heal your root and trunk, if that will satisfy you. But please, may we have the bright steel? Will you give me what I want in return, Dragon Rider? I will, Aragon said without hesitation. Whatever the price, he would gladly pay it for a rider's sword. The canopy of the Manoa tree grew still, and then the ground began to shake. The roots in front of Aragon began to twist and grind, shedding flakes of bark as they pulled aside to reveal a bare patch of dirt out of which emerged what appeared to be a lump of corroded iron, roughly two feet long and a foot and a half wide. As the ore came to rest on the surface of the rich black soil, Aragon felt a slight twinge in his lower belly. He winced and rubbed at the spot, but the momentary flare of discomfort had already vanished. Then the root around his ankle loosened and retreated into the ground, as did those that had been holding Sephira in place. Here is your metal, whispered the Manoa tree. Take it and go. But, Aragon started to ask. Go, said the Manoa tree, its voice fading away. Go. And the tree's consciousness withdrew from him and Sephira. But, Aragon said out loud, puzzled that the Manoa tree had not told him what she wanted. Still perplexed, he went over to the oar and hoisted the irregular mass into his arms, grunting at its weight. Hugging it against his chest, he turned away from the Manoa tree and started the long walk toward Runan's house. Sephira sniffed the bright steel as she joined him. You were right, she said. I should not have attacked her. The elves gathered alongside the path Aragon had chosen to follow and gazed at Aragon and Sephira 
with an intensity that made Aragon quicken his pace and the skin on the nape of his neck prickle. A puff of smoke billowed from Sephira's nostrils. If Galbatorix does not kill us first, she said, I think we shall live to regret this. Where did you find that? demanded Vrunan as Aragon staggered into the atrium of her house and dropped the lump of bright steel ore onto the ground by her feet. In as few words as possible, Aragon explained about Selembum and the Manoa tree. Squatting next to the ore, Runan caressed the pitted surface, her fingers lingering over the metallic patches interspersed among the stone. You were either very foolish or very brave to test the Manoa tree as you did. She is not one to trifle with. The elf woman glanced at her forge, then clapped her hands together, her eyes lighting up with a combination of eagerness and determination. Let us to it, then. You need a sword, Shadeslayer. Very well, I shall give you a sword, the likes of which has never been seen before in Allegasia. But what of your oath? Think not of it for the time being. When must the two of you return to the Varden? We should have left the day we arrived. Runan paused, her expression introspective. Then I shall have to hurry that which I do not normally hurry. You and Bright Scales will help me. It was not a question, but Aragon nodded in agreement. It must be dark when we work the metal, if we are to correctly judge its color. We shall not rest tonight, but I promise you, Shade Slayer, you shall have your sword by tomorrow morning. But how will you make it? I won't. You shall make the sword instead of me, Shade Slayer. Me? But I was never apprenticed to a blacksmith or a bladesmith. I have not the skill to forge even a common brush knife. I shall guide your actions from within your mind, so that your hands may do what mine cannot. I can think of no other means of evading my oath. Aragon frowned. If you move my hands for me, how is that any different from making the sword yourself? In a brusque voice, Runan said, Making the sword through you is different because I think it is different. If I believed otherwise, then my oath would prevent me from participating in the process. So, unless you wish to return to the Varden empty-handed, you would be wise to remain silent on the subject. Yes, Runan Elda. Runan gestured toward the setting sun, went to one of the poles that supported the roof of the forge, and sat with her back against it. Are you ready, Shadeslayer? I am, said Aragon, despite the tension gathered in his belly. It felt to Aragon like a piece of raw wool sliding over his skin as Runan enveloped his mind with hers, insinuating herself into the most private areas of his being. He shivered at the contact and almost withdrew from it, but then Runan's rough voice sounded within his skull. Relax, Shadeslayer, and all shall be well. Yes, Runan Elda. While they waited for the last of the light to fade from the velvet sky, Runan prepared the forge and practiced wielding various tools. Her initial clumsiness with Aragon's body soon disappeared. When they were about to begin, she commented, It is fortunate you have the speed and strength of an elf, Shadeslayer, else we would have no hope of finishing this tonight. Taking the pieces of hard and soft bright steel she had decided to use, Runan placed them into the forge. At the elf's request, Sephira heated the steel, opening her jaws only a fraction of an inch so that the blue and white flames that poured from her mouth remained focused in a narrow stream and did not spill over into the rest of the workshop. Six times Runan heated and folded the bright steel, and each time the metal became smoother and more flexible.
until it could bend without tearing. As Aragon hammered the steel, his every action dictated by Runan, the elf woman began to sing, both with his tongue and her own. Together, their voices formed a not unpleasant harmony that rose and fell with the beats of the hammer. A tingle crawled down Aragon's spine as he felt Runan channel a steady flow of energy into the words they were mouthing, and he realized that the song contained spells of making, shaping, and binding. Of Aragon's hammer arm, Runan also sang, and, under the gentle influence of her crooning, every blow she struck with his arm landed upon its intended target. Amid the frenzy of noise, fire, sparks, and exertion, Aragon thought he glimpsed, as Runan raked his eyes across the forge, a trio of slender figures standing by the edge of the atrium. Sephira confirmed his suspicion a moment later when she said, Aragon, we are not alone. Who are they? he asked. Sephira sent him an image of the short, wizened werecat, Maud, in human form, standing between two pale elves who were no taller than she. Aragon queried Runan as to the identity of the elves when she paused to allow his body a brief rest. Runan glanced at them, affording him a slightly better view then. Without interrupting her song, she said with her thoughts, They are Alana and Dusan, the only elf children in Elismira. There was much rejoicing when they were conceived twelve years ago. Runan wasted no more time talking, and Aragon watched with amazement as his hands transformed the crude lump of metal into an elegant instrument of war. At last the forging came to a close, and there on the anvil, lay a long black blade, which, although it was still rough and incomplete, already radiated a sense of deadly purpose. Enough, said Runan, and she removed herself from Aragon's mind without further ado. You are tired. Now that the blade is done, I can attend to the rest without interference from my oath, so go. You will find a bed on the second floor of my house. If you are hungry, there is food in the pantry. Aragon hesitated, reluctant to leave then nodded and shambled away from the bench, his feet dragging in the dirt. As he passed her, he ran a hand over Sephira's wing and bade her good night, too weary to say more. In return, she tousled his hair with a warm puff of air and said, I shall watch and remember for you, little one. Aragon paused on the threshold of Runan's house and looked across the shadowy atrium to where Maud and the two elf children were standing. He raised a hand in greeting, and Maud smiled at him, baring her sharp, pointed teeth. A tingle crawled down Aragon's neck as the elf children gazed at him. Their large, slanted eyes were slightly luminous in the gloom. When they made no other motion, he ducked his head and hurried inside, eager to lie down upon a soft mattress. Wake, little one, said Sephira. The sun has risen, and Runan is impatient. Outside, Runan stood leaning against the edge of the bench. There were dark bags under her eyes, and the lines on her face were heavier than before. The sword lay before her, concealed beneath a length of white cloth. I have done the impossible, she said, the words hoarse and broken. I made a sword when I swore I would not. What is more, I made it in less than a day and with hands that were not my own. Yet the sword is not crude or shoddy. No, it is the finest sword I have ever forged. Behold. Grasping the corner of the cloth, Runan pulled it aside, revealing the sword. 
Aragorn gasped. Covering the blade was a glossy scabbard of the same dark blue as the scales on Zephyra's back. The curved crossguard was also made of blued bright steel, as were the four ribs that held in place the large sapphire that formed the pommel. The hands-and-a-half hilt was made of hard black wood. Overcome by a sense of reverence, Aragon reached out toward the sword, then paused and glanced at Runan. May I? he asked. She inclined her head. You may? I give it to thee, Shade Slayer. Aragon lifted the sword from the bench. The scabbard and the wood of the hilt were cool to the touch. For several minutes, he marveled at the details on the scabbard and the guard and the pommel. Then he tightened his grip around the hilt and unsheathed the blade. Like the rest of the sword, the blade was blue, but of a slightly lighter shade. It was the blue of the scales in the hollow of Sephira's throat, rather than the blue of those on her back. With a single hand, Aragon swung the sword through the air, and he laughed at how light and fast it felt. Here, said Runan, and pointed at a bundle of three iron rods planted upright in the ground outside the forge. Try it on those. Aragon allowed himself a moment to focus his thoughts, then took a single step toward the rods. With a yell, he slashed downward and cut through all three. The blade emitted a single pure note that slowly faded into silence. When Aragon examined the edge where it had struck the iron, he saw that the impact had not damaged it in the slightest. Are you well pleased, Dragon Rider? Runan asked. More than pleased, Runan Elda, said Aragon, and bowed to her. I do not know how I can thank you for such a gift. You may thank me by killing Galbatorix. Well, you finally have a sword of your own, which is as it ought to be. Now you are truly a dragon rider. Yes, said Aragon, and held the sword up toward the sky, admiring it. Now I am truly a rider. Before you leave... One last thing remains for you to do, said Runan. Oh? You must name it so I can mark the blade and scabbard with the appropriate glyph. Aragon walked over to Sephira and said, What do you think? I am not the one who must carry the blade. Name it as you see fit. What if I named it Hope in the ancient language? Zarok means misery, so wouldn't it be fitting if I were to wield a sword that, by its very name, would counteract misery? A noble sentiment. But do you really want to give your enemies hope? Do you want to stab Galbatorix with hope? It's an amusing pun, he said, chuckling. Once, maybe, but no more. As Aragon gazed into the depths of the steel, his eye chanced upon the flame-like pattern that marked the transition between the softer steel of the spine and that of the edges, and he recalled the word Brahm had used to light his pipe during the memories Sephira had shared with him. Aragon consulted with Sephira, and when she agreed with his choice, he lifted the weapon to shoulder level and said, I am decided. Sword, I name thee Brissinger. And with a sound like rushing wind, the blade burst into fire, an envelope of sapphire-blue flames writhing about the razor-sharp steel. Uttering a startled cry, Aragon dropped the sword and jumped back, afraid of being burned. The blade continued to blaze on the ground, the translucent flames charring a nearby clump of grass. It was then that Aragon realized it was he 
who was providing the energy to sustain the unnatural fire. He quickly ended the magic, and the fire vanished from the sword. Puzzled by how he could have cast a spell without intending to, he picked up the sword again and tapped the blade with the tip of a finger. It was no hotter than before. A heavy scowl on her brow, Runan stalked forward, seized the sword from Aragon, and examined it from tip to pommel. You are fortunate. I have already protected it with wards against heat and damage. Did you set fire to it on purpose? No, said Aragon, unable to explain what had happened. I wasn't trying to cast a spell. Say it again. What? The name. The name. Say it again. Holding the sword as far away from his body as he could, Aragon exclaimed, Brissinger! A column of flickering flames engulfed the blade of the sword, the heat warming Aragon's face. This time, Aragon noticed the slight drain on his strength from the spell. After a few moments, he extinguished the smokeless fire. May I? asked Ronan, extending a hand toward Aragon. He gave her the sword, and she too said, Brissinger! A shiver seemed to run down the blade, but other than that it remained inanimate. Her expression contemplative, Runan returned the sword to Aragon and said, I can think of two explanations for this marvel. One is that because you were involved with the forging, you imbued the blade with a portion of your personality, and therefore it has become attuned to your wishes. My other explanation is that you have discovered the true name of your sword. Perhaps both these things are what has happened. In any event, you have chosen well, Shadeslayer. Brissinger. Yes, I like it. It is a good name for a sword. A very good name, Zephira agreed. Then Runan placed her hand over the middle of Brissinger's blade and murmured an inaudible spell. The elvish glyph for fire appeared upon both sides of the blade. She did the same to the front of the scabbard. Again, Aragon bowed to the elf woman and both he and Zephira expressed their gratitude to her. A smile appeared on Runan's aged face, and she touched each of them upon their brows with her calloused thumb. I am glad I was able to help the riders this once more. Go, Shadeslayer. Go, Brightscares. Return to the Varden, and may your enemies flee with fear when they see the sword you now wield. Although he hated to leave Katrina, Roran raised his shield and strode out of the tent into the pale light of dawn. Men, dwarves, and ergles streamed westward through the camp, heading toward the trampled field where the Varden were assembling. Roran filled his lungs with the cool morning air and then followed, knowing that his band of warriors would be waiting for him. After reporting to Jormunder, Roran made his way to the front of the group where he chose to stand next to Yarbog. The Urgle glanced at him, then grunted, A good day for a battle. A good day. A horn sounded at the forefront of the Varden as soon as the sun broke over the horizon. Roran hefted his spear and began to run forward, like everyone else around him, howling at the top of his lungs as arrows rained down upon them and boulders whistled past overhead, flying in either direction, Ahead of him, a stone wall eighty feet tall loomed. The siege of Feinster had begun. Sephira descended toward the clearing by Oramus's pinewood house, where Glader and Oramus stood waiting for them. 
Aragon was startled to see that Glader was wearing a saddle, and that Oramus was garbed in heavy traveling robes of blue and green, over which he wore a corselet of golden-scale armor. Around his waist was belted his bronze-colored sword, Nagling. Sephira alighted upon the sward of grass and clover. As Aragon slid to the ground, she asked, Are you going to fly with us to the Vardin? The tip of her tail twitched with excitement. We shall fly with you as far as the edge of Dueldenvarten, but there our paths must part, said Oramus. Disappointed, Aragon asked, Will you return to Elismera then? Oramus shook his head. No, Aragon, then we shall continue onward to the city of Gilead. Sephira hissed with surprise, a sentiment Aragon shared. Why to Gilead? he asked, bewildered. Because Islanzade and her army have marched there from Cunon, and they are about to lay siege to the city, said Glader. But do not you and Oramus wish to keep your existence hidden from the Empire? Sephira asked. Oramus closed his eyes for a moment, his expression withdrawn and enigmatic. The time for hiding has passed, Sephira. Glader and I are satisfied that you now know everything that might help you to defeat Galbatorix. Therefore, it is more important that we help Islanzade and the Varden than tarry here. When Galbatorix learns that we are still alive, it shall undermine his confidence, for he shall not know if other dragons and riders have survived his attempt to exterminate them. Aragon glanced at Nagling and said, Surely, though, master, you do not intend to venture into battle yourselves. And why should we not? inquired Oramus, tilting his head to one side. Forgive me, master, but how can you fight when you cannot cast spells that require more than a small amount of energy? And what of the spasms you sometimes suffer? If one were to strike in the middle of a battle, it could prove fatal. Oramus replied, As you ought to know well by now, mere strength— Rarely decides the victor when two magicians duel. Even so, I have all the strength I need here, in the jewel of my sword. And he reached across his body and placed the palm of his right hand on the yellow diamond that formed the pommel of Nagling. As for my seizures, I have attached certain wards to the stone that will protect me from harm if I become incapacitated upon the battlefield. So you see, Aragon, Gleda and I are far from helpless. Chastened, Aragon dipped his head and murmured, Yes, master. Ormus's expression softened somewhat. You are right to be concerned, Aragon, for war is a perilous endeavor. If Gleda and I go to our deaths— then we go willingly, for by our sacrifice we may help to free Alagasia from the shadow of Galbatorix's tyranny. But if you die, said Aragon, feeling very small, and yet we still succeed in killing Galbatorix and freeing the last dragon egg, who will train that dragon and his rider? If that should come to pass, said the elf, his face grave, then it shall be your responsibility, Aragon, and yours, Sephira, to instruct the new dragon and rider in the ways of our order. Ah, do not look so apprehensive, Aragon. You would not be alone in the task. No doubt Islanzade and Naswada would ensure that the wisest scholars of both our races would be there to help you. A strange sense of unease troubled Aragon. For the first time, he understood that he would eventually become part of the older generation, 
and that when he did, he would have no mentor to rely upon for guidance. His throat tightened. Oramus gestured at Brissinger. At his request, Aragon handed his newly forged sword to Oramus and held his helm for him, while the elf examined the sword. Runun has outdone herself, Oramus declared. Few weapons, swords or otherwise, are the equal of this. You are fortunate to wield such an impressive blade, Aragon. One of Oramus's sharp eyebrows rose a fraction of an inch as he read the glyph on the blade. Brissinger, <laughs> a most apt name for the sword of a dragon rider. Aye, said Aragon, but for some reason, every time I utter its name, the blade bursts into... He hesitated, and instead of saying fire, which of course was Brissinger in the ancient language, he said, Flames. Oramis's eyebrow climbed even higher. Indeed! Did Renan have an explanation for this unique phenomenon? As he spoke, Oramis returned Brissinger to Aragon in exchange for his helm. Yes, master, said Aragon, and he recounted Renan's two theories. When he had finished, Oramis murmured, I wonder. And his gaze drifted past Aragon toward the horizon. Then Oramis gave a brief shake of his head, and again focused his gray eyes upon Aragon and Sephira. His face became even more solemn than before. I am afraid I have let my pride speak for me. Gleder and I may not be helpless, but neither, as you pointed out, Aragon, are we entirely whole. Gleder has his wound, and I have my own impairments. It is not for nothing I am called the cripple who is whole. As much as I dislike acknowledging it, Gleder and I are at a disadvantage, and it is quite possible that we shall not survive the battles yet to come. But I believe your prospects of defeating Galbatorix are greater than those of anyone else. Oramus glanced at Gleder, and the elf's face became troubled. Therefore, in order to help ensure your survival— and as a precaution against our possible demise. Glader has, with my blessing, decided to— I have decided, said Glader, to give you my heart of hearts, Sephira Brightscales, Aragon Shadeslayer. Sephira's astonishment was no less than Aragon's. Sephira said, Master, you honor us beyond words, but— are you sure that you wish to entrust your heart to us? I am sure, said Glader. For many reasons, I am sure. If you hold my heart, you shall be able to communicate with Oramus and me, no matter how far apart we may be, and I shall be able to aid you with my strength whenever you are in difficulty. And, if Oramus and I should fall in battle, our knowledge and experience, and also my strength, shall still be at your disposal. Long have I pondered this choice, and I am confident it is the right one. So, now I ask you, Sephira Brightscales and Aragon Shadeslayer, will you accept my gift and all that it entails? I will, said Sephira. I will, replied Aragon after a brief hesitation. Then Glader drew back his head. The muscles of his abdomen rippled and clenched several times, and his throat began to convulse as if something were stuck in it. A second later, 
a round object about a foot in diameter, slid down Glader's crimson tongue and out of his mouth, so fast Aragon nearly missed catching it. As his hands closed around the slippery Eldunari, Aragon gasped and staggered backward, for he suddenly felt Glader's every thought and emotion and all of the sensations of his body. The amount of information was overwhelming, as was the closeness of their contact. Aragon had expected as much, but it still shocked him to realize he was holding Glader's entire being between his hands. Glader flinched, shaking his head as if he had been stung, and quickly shielded his mind from Aragon, although Aragon could still sense the flicker of his shifting thoughts, as well as the general color of his emotions. The Eldenari itself was like a giant gold jewel. Here, yeah, said Aramis, and handed Aragon a sturdy cloth sack. To Aragon's relief, his connection with Glader vanished as soon as he placed the Eldenari in the bag, and his hands were no longer touching the gem-like stone. Thank you, master, said Aragon, bowing his head toward Glader. We shall guard your heart with our lives, Sephira added. No! exclaimed Oramus, his voice fierce. Not with your lives. That is the very thing we wish to avoid. Do not allow any misfortune to befall Glader's heart because of carelessness on your part. But neither should you sacrifice yourself to protect him or me or anyone else. You have to stay alive at all costs, else our hopes shall be dashed and all will be darkness. Yes, master, Aragon and Sephira said at the same time. Said Glader, Because you swore fealty to Noswada, and you owe her your loyalty and obedience, you may tell her of my heart, if you must, but only if you must. For the sake of dragons everywhere, what few of us remain, the truth about the Eldunari cannot become common knowledge. May we tell Arya? asked Sephira. And what about Bloodgarm and the other elves Islanzari sent to protect me? asked Aragon. I allowed them into my mind when Sephira and I last fought Murtag. They will notice your presence, Glader, if you help us in the midst of a battle. You may inform Bloodgarm and his spellcasters of the Eldunari, said Glader, but only after they have sworn oaths of secrecy to you. Oramus placed his helm on his head. Arya is Islanzadi's daughter, and so I suppose it is proper she should know. However, if you can be so disciplined, do not even think of it, so that no one may steal the information from your minds. Yes, master. Now let us be gone from here, said Oramus, and drew a pair of thick gauntlets over his hands. I have heard from Islanzadi that Naswada has laid siege to the city of Feinster, and the Varden have great need of you. We have spent too long in Elismera, said Sephira. Perhaps, said Glader, but it was time well spent. Keep safe your heart, Sephira, and mine as well. I will, master, Sephira replied. And Oramus said, Fair winds to you both, Aragon, Sephira. When next we meet, let it be before the gates of Urubain. Hours after dusk, on their third day of traveling, Sephira wobbled and dropped several feet in a single sickening lurch. I think we just reached the Jeet River, she said. The air here is cool and moist, as it would be over water. Then Feinster shouldn't be much farther ahead. Later that night, when dawn was only a few hours away, 
a dull red glow appeared upon the western horizon. As they drew closer, the glow resolved into thousands of individual points of light, from small handheld lanterns to cook fires to bonfires to huge patches of burning pitch that poured a foul black smoke into the night sky. By the ruddy light of the fires, Aragon saw a sea of flashing spear points and gleaming helmets surging against the base of the large, well-fortified city, the walls of which teemed with tiny figures busy firing arrows at the army below. Faint calls and cries floated upward from the ground, as well as the boom of a battering ram crashing against the city's iron gates. A thrill of feral excitement ran through Aragon, and he felt Sephira shiver under him at the same time. Shall we announce our arrival? Sephira answered by loosing a roar that made his teeth rattle. He gripped the hilt of Brissinger. The first thing we should do is find a horse that just died, or some other animal, so that I can replenish your strength with theirs. You don't have— Sephira stopped talking as another mind touched theirs. After a half-second of panic, Aragon recognized the consciousness as that of Triana. Aragon, Sephira, cried the sorceress, you're just in time. Arya and another elf scaled the walls, but they were trapped by a large group of soldiers. They won't survive another minute unless someone helps them. Hurry! Swooping low over the outer city walls, Sephira lashed out with her claws and tail, knocking groups of screaming men off the parapet and toward the hard ground eight feet below. Inside the curtain wall, she and Aragon spotted a hundred or so soldiers gathered round a pair of warriors. Even in the gloom and from high above, Aragon recognized one of the warriors as Arya. Sephira leapt down from the parapet and landed in the midst of the soldiers, crushing several men beneath her feet. The rest scattered, screaming with fear, and vanished among the buildings. Aragon quickly jumped to the ground. Aragon! cried Arya, running up to him. She was panting and drenched with sweat. Welcome, Yartskalar. Welcome, Shade Slayer, purred Bloodgarm from her side. What are you doing here without reinforcements? asked Sephira. The gates, said Arya gasping. For three days, we tried to break them, but they're impervious to magic, and the battering ram has barely dented the wood, so I convinced Naswada to— When Arya paused to regain her breath, Bloodgarm picked up the thread of her narrative. Arya convinced Naswada to stage tonight's attack so that we could sneak into Feinster without being noticed and open the gates from within. Unfortunately, we encountered a trio of spellcasters. They engaged us with their minds and prevented us from using magic while they summoned soldiers to overwhelm us with sheer numbers. As Bloodgarm spoke, Aragon placed a hand on the chest of one of the dead soldiers and transferred what energy remained in the man's flesh to his own body and thence to Sephira. Well then, he said, let us go and open the gates for the Varden, shall we? Yes, and without delay, Arya pointed to the guard towers. Then she and Bloodgarm disappeared into the pools of inky shadows that surrounded the houses. Aragon and Sephira followed. The steady boom of the battering ram became even louder as they approached the forty-foot-tall gates of the city. Aragon saw two men and a woman, who were garbed in dark robes, standing before the iron-bound doors chanting in the ancient language and swaying from side to side with upheld arms. The three spellcasters fell silent when they noticed Aragon and Sephira, and with their robes flapping, 
ran up the main street of Feinster, which led to the keep at the far side of the city. Arya and Bludgarm emerged from the guard towers just as the gates groaned and swung outward, revealing a mass of grim-faced Varden, men and dwarves alike, crowded in the archway beyond. Shade Slayer, they shouted, and also Argent Lamb, and welcome back, the hunting is good today. The Varden rushed forward, streaming into the city. Aragon was pleased to see Roran and Horst and several other men from Carvajal in the fourth rank of the warriors. He hailed them, and Roran raised his hammer in greeting and ran toward him. Aragon grasped Roran's right forearm and pulled him into a rough hug. Drawing back, he noticed that Roran seemed older and hollow-eyed compared with before. About time you got here, Roran grunted. We've been dying by the hundreds trying to take the walls. Then he pointed at Brissinger and said, Where did you get the sword? From the elves. What's it called? Brissinger, Aragon started to say, but then Jormundur rode through the gates and hailed him, shouting, Shade Slayer, well met indeed. Aragon greeted him in return and asked, What shall we do now? Whatever you see fit. Jormunder replied, reining in his brown charger. We have to fight our way up to the keep. It doesn't look as if Sephira would fit between most of the houses, so fly around and harry their forces where you can. If you could break open the keep or capture Lady Lorana, it would be a great help. Where's Naswada? Jormunder gestured over his shoulder. At the rear of the army, coordinating our forces with King Orin. Then the lean, wiry commander spurred his horse forward. As Roran and Arya started to follow, Aragon grabbed Roran by the shoulder and tapped Arya's blade with his own. Wait, he said. What? both Arya and Roran demanded in exasperated tones. Yes, what? Sephira asked. We should not be sitting and talking when there is sport to be had. My father, Aragon exclaimed. It's not Morzan. It's Brahm. Roran blinked. Brahm? Yes, Brahm! Even Arya appeared surprised. Are you sure, Aragon? How do you know? Of course I'm sure. I'll explain later, but I couldn't wait to tell you the truth. Roran shook his head. Brahm? I never would have guessed. But I suppose it makes sense. You must be glad to be rid of Morzan's name. More than glad, Aragon said, grinning. Roran clapped him on the back, then said, Watch yourself, eh? and trotted after Horst and the other villagers. Arya moved away in the same direction, but before she went more than a few steps, Aragon called her name and said, The cripple who is whole has left to Weldenvarden and joined Islanzadi at Gilead. Arya's green eyes widened and her lips parted, as if she were about to ask a question. Before she could, the column of inrushing warriors swept her deeper into the city. Bloodgarm sidled closer to Aragon. Shade Slayer, why did the morning sage leave the forest? He and his companion felt that the time had come to strike against the Empire and to reveal their presence to Galbatorix. The elf's fur rippled. That is indeed momentous news. Aragon climbed back onto Sephira. To Bloodgarm and his other guards, he said, Work your way up to the keep. We'll meet you there. Throughout the city, the soldiers fought with a tenacity that impressed Aragon. Because of their determined resistance, the Varden did not arrive at the western side of the city, where the keep stood, until the first faint light of dawn began to spread across the sky. The keep was an imposing structure. 
It was tall and square and adorned with numerous towers of differing height. The roof was made of slate, so attackers could not set it on fire. In front of the keep was a large courtyard, in which were several low outbuildings and a row of four catapults, and encircling the lot was a thick curtain wall interspersed with smaller towers of its own. Hundreds of soldiers manned the battlements, and hundreds more teamed within the courtyard. The only way to enter the courtyard on the ground was through a wide arched passageway in the curtain wall, which was closed off by both an iron portcullis and a set of thick oaken doors. Several thousand of the Varden stood pressed against the curtain wall, striving to break through the portcullis with the battering ram they had brought from the main gate of the city, or else to surmount the walls with grappling hooks and ladders, which the defenders kept pushing away. Flocks of whining arrows arched back and forth over the wall. Neither side seemed to have the advantage. The gate, said Aragon, pointing. Sephira swept down from on high and cleared the parapet above the portcullis with a jet of billowing fire, smoke venting from her nostrils. She dropped onto the top of the wall, jarring Aragon, and said, Go, I'll see to the catapults before they start lobbing rocks at the Varden. Be careful. He lowered himself to the parapet from her back. It is they who must be careful, she replied. She snarled at the pikemen gathering around the catapults. Half of them turned and fled inside. The wall was too high for Aragon to comfortably jump to the street below, so Sephira draped her tail over the side and wedged it between two merlons. Aragon sheathed Brissinger, then climbed down, using the spikes on her tail like rungs on a ladder. When he reached the tip, he released his hold and fell the remaining twenty feet. He rolled to lessen the impact as he landed amid the press of the Varden. Aragon strode toward the lowered portcullis. Give me room! he shouted, gesturing at the warriors. The Varden backed away from him, forming an open area twenty feet across. A javelin shot from a ballista, glanced off his wards, and flew spinning down a side street. Sephira roared from inside the courtyard, and there came the sounds of timbers breaking and of taut rope snapping in twain. Grasping his sword with both hands, Aragon lifted it overhead and shouted, Brissinger! The blade burst into blue fire. Aragon stepped forward then, and moving at a quick but steady pace, cut as large a hole as he could in the portcullis. Then he aligned Brissinger with the hairline crack between the two doors, put his weight behind the sword, and pushed the blade through the narrow gap and out the other side. Then he increased the flow of energy to the fire blazing around the blade until it was hot enough to burn its way through the dense wood as easily as a knife cuts through fresh bread. Aragon worked the sword upward, burning through the immense wood beam that barred the doors shut from the inside. As soon as he felt the resistance against Brissinger's blade lessen, he withdrew the sword and extinguished the flame. He wore thick gloves, so he did not shrink from grasping the glowing edges of one door and pulling it open with a mighty heave. The other door also swung outward, seemingly of its own accord, although a moment later Aragon saw that it was Sephira who had pushed it open. She sat to the right of the entryway, peering at him with sparkling sapphire eyes. Behind her, the four catapults lay in ruins. Aragon went to stand with Sephira as the Varden poured into the courtyard. 
Among the warriors who streamed past was Angela, garbed in her strange flanged armor of green and black, and carrying her Huthfer, the double-bladed staff weapon of the dwarf priests. The herbalist paused next to Aragon, and with an impish expression said, An impressive display, but don't you think you're overdoing it a bit? What do you mean? asked Aragon, frowning. She lifted an eyebrow. Come now, was it really necessary to set your sword on fire? Aragon laughed. Not for the portcullis, no, but I enjoyed it. By then, Bloodgarm and his fellow elves had joined Aragon and Sephira in the courtyard. But Aragon ignored them and looked for Arya. When he spotted her, running alongside Jormunder on his charger, Aragon hailed her and brandished his shield to attract her attention. Arya heeded his call and loped over. As she drew to a stop, Aragon said, Sephira and I are going to enter the keep from above and try to capture Lady Lorana. Do you want to come with us? Arya agreed with a terse nod. Springing from the ground onto one of Sephira's front legs, Aragon climbed into her saddle. Arya followed his example an instant later and sat close behind him. Sephira unfurled her velvety wings and took flight, leaving Bloodgarm and the other elves gazing up at her with looks of frustration. You should not abandon your guards so lightly, Arya murmured in Aragon's left ear. She wrapped her sword arm around his waist and held him tightly as Sephira wheeled above the courtyard. Before Aragon could respond, he felt the touch of Glader's vast mind. For a moment, the city below vanished, and he saw and felt only what Glader's saw and felt. Little stinging hornet arrows bounced off his belly as he rose above the scattered wood caves of the two legs' round ears. The air was smooth and firm beneath his wings, perfect for the flying he would need to do. On his back, the saddle rubbed against his scales as Oramus altered his position. The lazy one-eyed sun hovered just above the horizon. To the north, the big water Isenstar was rippling a sheet of polished silver. Below, the herd of pointed ears, commanded by Islanzadi, was arrayed around the broken anthill city. And from the south, the small, angry Ripclaw Thorn winged his way toward Gilead, bellowing his challenge for all to hear. Morzan, son Murtag, sat upon his back, and in Murtag's right hand, Zarok shone as bright as a nail. Sorrow filled Glader as he beheld the two miserable hatchlings. He wished he and Oramus did not have to kill them. Once more, he thought, dragon must fight dragon, and rider must fight rider, and all because of that eggbreaker Galbatorix. His mood grim, Glader quickened his flapping and spread his claws in preparation for tearing at his oncoming foes. Aragon's head whipped on his neck as Sephira lurched to one side and dropped a score of feet before she regained her equilibrium. Did you see that as well? she asked. I did. Worried, Aragon glanced back at the saddlebags, where Glader's heart of hearts was hidden, and wondered if he and Sephira should try to help Oramus and Glader, but then reassured himself with the knowledge that there were numerous spellcasters among the elves. His teachers would not want for assistance. What is wrong? asked Arya, her voice loud in Aragon's ear. Oramus and Glader are about to fight Thorn and Murtag, said Sephira. Aragon felt Arya stiffen against him. How do you know? she asked. I'll explain later. I just hope they don't get hurt. As do I, said Arya. 
Sephira flew high above the keep, then floated downward on silent wings and alighted upon the spire of the tallest tower. As Aragon and Arya clambered onto the steep roof, Sephira said, I will meet you in the chamber below. The window here is too small for me. And she took off, the gusts from her wings buffeting them. Aragon and Arya lowered themselves over the edge of the roof and dropped to a narrow stone ledge eight feet below. Aragon inched along the ledge to a cross-shaped window, where he pulled himself into a large square room. Arya climbed through the window after him. She inspected the room, then gestured at the stairs in the far corner and padded toward them, her leather boots silent on the stone floor. As Aragon followed her, he sensed a strange confluence of energies below them, and also the minds of five people whose thoughts were closed to him. Wary of a mental attack, Aragon withdrew into himself and concentrated upon reciting a scrap of elvish poetry. He touched Arya on the shoulder and whispered, Do you feel that? She nodded. We should have brought Bloodgarm with us. Together they descended the stairs, making every effort to be quiet. The next room in the tower was much larger than the last. The ceiling was over thirty feet high. A row of tall wooden shutters, set within the northern wall, opened onto a balcony with a stone balustrade. Opposite the window, near the far wall, was a collection of small round tables littered with scrolls, three padded chairs, and two oversized brass urns filled with bouquets of dried flowers. A stout gray-haired woman, garbed in a lavender dress, sat in one of the chairs. A silver diadem adorned with jade and topaz rested upon her head. In the center of the room stood the three magicians Aragon had glimpsed before in the city. The two men and a woman were facing each other, their arms extended out to each side, so that the tips of their fingers touched. They swayed in unison, murmuring an unfamiliar spell in the ancient language. A fourth person sat in the middle of the triangle they formed, a man, garbed in an identical fashion, but who said nothing, and who grimaced as if in pain. Aragon threw himself at the mind of one of the male spellcasters, but the man was so focused on his task, Aragon failed to gain entry to his consciousness, and thus was unable to subordinate him to his will. The man did not even seem to notice the attack. Arya must have attempted the same thing, for she frowned and whispered, They were trained well. Do you know what they're doing? He murmured. She shook her head. Then the woman in the lavender dress looked up and saw Aragon and Arya crouched upon the stone stairs. To Aragon's surprise, the woman did not call for help, but rather placed a finger upon her lips, then beckoned. Aragon exchanged a perplexed glance with Arya. It could be a trap, he whispered. It most likely is, she said. What should we do? Is Sephira almost here? Yes. Then let us go and greet our host. Matching their steps, they padded down the remaining stairs and snuck across the room, never taking their eyes off the engrossed magicians. Are you Lady Lorana? asked Arya in a soft voice as they halted before the seated woman. The woman inclined her head. That I am, fair elf. She turned her gaze upon Aragon then, and said, And are you the dragon rider, of whom we have heard so much about recently? Are you Aragon Shadeslayer? I am, said Aragon. A relieved expression appeared upon the woman's distinguished face. Ah, I had hoped you would come. You must stop them, Shadeslayer. And she gestured at the magicians. Why don't you order them to surrender? whispered Aragon. I cannot. 
said Lorana. They answer only to the king and his new rider. I have sworn myself to Galbatorix. I had no choice in the matter, so I cannot raise a hand against him or his servants. Otherwise, I would have arranged their destruction myself. Why? asked Arya. What is it you fear so much? The skin around Lorana's eyes tightened. They know they cannot hope to drive off the Varden as they are, and Galbatorix has not sent reinforcements to our aid, so they are attempting, I do not know how, to create a shade in the hope that the monster will turn against the Varden and spread sorrow and confusion throughout your ranks. Horror enveloped Aragon. He could not imagine having to fight another Durza. But a shade might just as easily turn against them and everyone else in Feinster as it would against the Varden. Lorana nodded. They do not care. They only wish to cause as much pain and destruction as they can before they die. They are insane, Shadeslayer. Please, you must stop them for the sake of my people. As she finished speaking, Sephira landed upon the balcony outside the room, cracking the balustrade with her tail. She knocked aside the shutters with a single blow of her paw, breaking their frames like so much tinder, and then pushed her head and shoulders into the chamber and growled. The magicians continued to chant, seemingly oblivious to her presence. Oh, my, said Lady Lorana, gripping the arms of her chair. Right, said Aragon. He hefted Brissinger and started toward the magicians, as did Sephira from the opposite direction. Together, Aragon, Sephira, and Arya advanced toward the magicians and struck at a separate one each. A metallic peal filled the room as Brissinger glanced aside before it reached its intended target, wrenching Aragon's shoulder. Likewise, Arya's sword rebounded off a ward, as did Sephira's right front paw. Her claws screeched against the stone floor. Concentrate on this one, Aragon shouted and pointed at the tallest spellcaster. Hurry, before they manage to summon any spirits! Aragon or Arya could have attempted to circumvent or deplete the spellcaster's wards with spells of their own, but using magic against another magician was always a perilous proposition, unless the magician's mind was under your control. Neither Aragon nor Arya wanted to risk being killed by a ward they were as yet ignorant of. Attacking in turns, Aragon, Sephira, and Arya cut, stabbed, and battered at the bearded spellcaster for nearly a minute. None of their blows touched the man. Then, at last, after only the slightest hint of resistance, Aragon felt something give way beneath Brissinger, and the sword continued on its way and lopped off the spellcaster's head. The air in front of Aragon shimmered. At the same instant, he felt a sudden drain on his strength as his wards defended him from an unknown spell. The assault ceased after a few seconds, leaving him dizzy and lightheaded. He grimaced and fortified himself with energy from the belt of Beloth the Wise. The only response the other two magicians evinced at the death of their companion was to increase the speed of their invocation. As Aragon moved toward the female spellcaster, a cluster of multicolored lights hurtled into the room through the broken shutters and converged upon the man seated on the floor. The glowing spirits flashed with angry virulence as they whirled around the man, forming an impenetrable wall. A bolt of fear shot through Aragon. No, he thought, feeling sick. Not now, not after all we've gone through. He was stronger than he had been when he faced Durza in Trondheim. But if anything, he was even more aware of just how dangerous a shade could be. And then everything around Aragon winked out of existence. And in its place, 
he beheld whiteness, blank whiteness. The cold, soft sky water was soothing against Glader's limbs after the stifling heat of combat. Glader, behind us! Oramis shouted. Glader twisted, but he was too slow. The red dragon crashed into his right shoulder, knocking him, tumbling. Snarling, Glader wrapped his single remaining foreleg around the hatchling and strove to crush the life out of Thorn's squirming body. As they plummeted downward, Glader heard the sound of swords striking shields as Oramus and Murtag exchanged a flurry of blows. Thorn convulsed, and Glader glimpsed Morzan's son Murtag. Glader thought the human appeared frightened, but he was not entirely sure. The clanging of metal ceased, and Murtag shouted, Curse you for not showing yourself sooner! Curse you! You could have helped us! You could have— Murtag seemed to choke on his tongue for a moment. Glader grunted as an unseen force brought their fall to an abrupt halt, nearly shaking him loose from Thorn's leg, and then lifted the four of them up through the sky, higher and higher, until the broken anthill city was only a faint blotch below, and even Glader had difficulty breathing in the rarefied air. Then Murtag resumed speaking, and when he did, his voice was richer and deeper than before, and it echoed as if he were standing in an empty hall. Glader felt the scales on his shoulders crawl as he recognized the voice of their ancient foe. So, you survived, Ordemus, Glader, said Galbatorix. His words were round and smooth, like those of a practiced orator, and their tone was deceptively friendly. Long have I thought that the elves might be hiding a dragon or a rider from my sight. It is gratifying to have my suspicions confirmed. Be gone, foul oath-breaker, cried Oramus. You shall not have any satisfaction from us. Galbatorix chuckled. Such a harsh greeting. For shame, Oramus Eldar. Have the elves forgotten their fabled courtesy over the past century? You deserve no more courtesy than a rabid wolf! Ha 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 ha! Remember what you said to me when I stood before you and the other elders? Anger is a poison. You must purge it from your mind, or else it will corrupt your better nature. You should heed your own advice. You cannot confuse me with your snake's tongue, Galbatorix. You are an abomination, and we shall see to it that you are eliminated, even if it costs us our lives. Why should it, Oremus? Why should you pit yourself against me? It saddens me that you have allowed your hate to distort your wisdom, for you were wise once, Oremus. Perhaps the wisest member of our entire order. You were the first to recognize the madness eating away at my soul. And it was you who convinced the other elders to deny my request for another dragon egg. A brief pause marked Galbatorix's speech. There is no need 
to continue fighting me. I freely admit that I committed terrible crimes in my youth. But those days are long past, and when I reflect upon the blood I have shed, it torments my conscience. Still, what would you have of me? I cannot undo my deeds. Now my greatest concern is ensuring the peace and prosperity of the empire over which I find myself lord and master. Cannot you see that I have lost my thirst for vengeance? The rage that drove me for so many years has burned itself to ashes. Ask yourself this, Oremus. Who is responsible for the war that has swept across Allegasia? Not I. The Varden were the ones who provoked this conflict. I would have been content to rule my people and leave the elves and the dwarves and the Serdans to their own devices. But the Varden could not leave well enough alone. It was they who chose to steal Sephira's egg, and they who cover the earth with mountains of corpses, not I. You were wise once before, Oremus, and you can become wise once again. Give up your hatred and join me in Illyria. With you by my side, we can bring an end to this conflict and usher in an era of peace that will endure for a thousand years or more. Glader was not persuaded. He tightened his crushing, piercing jaws, causing Thorn to yowl. The pain noise seemed incredibly loud after Galbatorix's speech. In clear, ringing tones, Oremus said, No, you cannot make us forget your atrocities with a balm of honeyed lies. Release us. You have not the means to hold us here much longer, and I refuse to exchange pointless banter with a traitor like yourself. Ma! You are a senile old fool, said Galbatorix, and his voice acquired a harsh, angry cast. You should have accepted my offer. You would have been first and foremost among my slaves. I will make you regret your mindless devotion to your so-called justice. And you are wrong. I can keep you thus as long as I want, for I have become as powerful as a god, and there are none who can stop me. You shall not prevail, said Oremus. Even gods do not endure forever. At that, Galbatorix uttered a foul oath. Your philosophy does not constrain me, elf. I am the greatest of magicians, and soon I will be even greater still. Death will not take me. You, however, shall die. And I shall take your heart of hearts, Gleda, and you will serve me until the end of time. Never! exclaimed Oramus, and Gleda again heard the clash of swords on armor. 
Glader had excluded Oramus from his mind for the duration of the flight, but their bond ran deeper than conscious thought, so he felt it when Oramus stiffened, incapacitated by the searing pain of his bone-blight nerve rot. Alarmed, Glader released Thorn's leg and tried to kick the red dragon away. Thorn howled at the impact, but remained where he was. Galbatorix's spell held the two of them in place, neither able to move more than a few feet in any direction. There was another metallic clang from above, and then Glader saw Nagling fall past him. For the first time, the cold claw of fear gripped Glader. Most of Oramus's word-will energy was stored within the sword, and his wards were bound to the blade. Without it, he would be defenseless. Glader threw himself against the limits of Galbatorix's spell, struggling with all his might to break free. In spite of his efforts, however, he could not escape, and just as Oramus began to recover, Glader felt Zarok slash Oramus from shoulder to hip. Glader howled, as Oramus had howled when Glader lost his leg. An inexorable force gathered inside of Glader's belly. Without pausing to consider whether it was possible, he pushed Thorn and Murtag away with a blast of magic, sending them flying like wind-blown leaves, and then tucked his wings against his sides and dove toward Gilead. If he could get there fast enough, then Islanzadi and her spellcasters would be able to save Oramis. The city was too far away, though. Oramis's consciousness was faltering, fading, slipping away. Glader poured his own strength into Oramis's ruined frame, trying to sustain him until they reached the ground, but he could not stop the bleeding. Glader, release me, Oramis murmured with his mind. A moment later, in an even fainter voice, he whispered, Do not mourn me. And then the partner of Glader's life passed into the void. Blackness. Emptiness. He was alone. A crimson haze descended over the world, throbbing in unison with his pulse. He saw the red shrike dragon diving toward him, and he roared his grief and redoubled his speed, but the smaller dragon was too quick, too nimble. Glader felt a sharp pain at the base of his skull, and then his vision flickered and failed. Where was he? He was alone. He was alone and in the dark. He was alone and in the dark, and he could not move or see. He could feel the minds of other creatures close by, but they were not the minds of Thorn and Murtag, but of Arya, Aragon, and Sephira. And then Glader realized where he was, and the true horror of his situation broke upon him, and he howled into the darkness. He was alone. He howled and he howled, and he abandoned himself to his agony, not caring what the future might bring, for Oramus was dead, and he was alone. Alone. With a start, Aragon returned to himself. It took him a moment to comprehend what he saw. The female spellcaster Aragon had been about to attack lay before him, slain by a single sword thrust. The spirits she and her companions had summoned were nowhere to be seen. Lady Lorana was still ensconced in her chair, 
Sephira was in the process of struggling to her feet on the opposite side of the room, and the man who had been sitting on the floor amid the other three spellcasters was standing next to him, holding Arya in the air by her throat. In every aspect of appearance and bearing, the man resembled Durza. Our name is Varog, said the Shade. Fear us. Arya kicked at him, but her blows seemed to have no effect. The burning pressure of the Shade's consciousness pressed against Aragon's mind, trying to break down his defenses. For whatever reason, Varog was even stronger than Durza, and Aragon was not sure how long he could withstand the Shade's might. He saw that Sephira was also under attack. She sat stiff and motionless by the balcony, a snarl carved on her face. You shall die, growled Varog. You shall all die for imprisoning us in this cold, hard clay. Knowing that Arya's and Sephira's lives were in peril, stripped Aragon of every emotion save that of implacable determination. He surrounded Varog's mind with his own. Every time Varog attempted to reach out toward Sephira or Arya, Aragon blocked the mental ray, and every time the Shade attempted to shift his body, Aragon counteracted the urge with a command of his own. They battled at the speed of thought, fighting back and forth along the perimeter of the Shade's mind, which was a landscape so jumbled and incoherent, Aragon feared it would drive him mad if he gazed at it for long. Aragon pushed himself to the utmost as he dueled with Varog, striving to anticipate the Shade's every move, but he knew that their contest could only end with his own defeat. As fast as he was, Aragon could not outthink the numerous intelligences contained within the Shade. Aragon's concentration eventually wavered, and Varog seized upon the opportunity to force himself further into Aragon's mind, trapping him, transfixing him, suppressing his thoughts, until Aragon could do no more than stare at the shade with dumb rage. Your ring is full of light, exclaimed Varog, his eyes widening with pleasure. Beautiful light, it will feed us for a long time. Then he growled with anger as Arya grabbed his wrist and broke it in three places. She twisted free of Varog's grip before he could heal himself and dropped to the ground, gasping for air. Varog kicked at her, but she rolled out of the way. She reached for her fallen sword. Aragon trembled as he struggled to cast off the Shade's oppressive presence. Arya's hand closed around the hilt of her sword. A wordless bellow escaped the Shade. He pounced on her and they rolled across the floor, wrestling for control of the weapon. Arya shouted and struck Varog in the side of his head with the pommel of the sword. The shade went limp for an instant, and Arya scrambled backward, pushing herself upright. In a flash, Aragon freed himself from Varog. Without consideration for his own safety, he resumed his attack on the shade's consciousness, his only thought to restrain the shade for a few moments. Varog faltered as Aragon redoubled his efforts. Get him! Aragon shouted. Arya lunged forward, her dark hair flying, and she stabbed the shade through his heart. Aragon winced and extricated himself from Varog's mind, even as the shade recoiled from Arya, pulling himself off her blade. The shade opened his mouth and uttered a piercing wail that shattered the panes of glass in the lantern above. He reached out toward Arya and tottered in her direction, then stopped as his skin faded and became transparent, revealing the dozens of glittering spirits trapped within the confines of his flesh. 
the spirits throbbed, growing in size, and Varog's skin split along the bellies of his muscles. With a final burst of light, the spirits tore Varog apart and fled the tower room, passing through the walls as if the stone were insubstantial. Aragon's pulse gradually slowed. Then, feeling very old and very tired, he walked over to Arya, who stood leaning against a chair, cupping the front of her neck with a hand. She coughed, spitting up blood. Since she seemed incapable of talking, Aragon placed his hand over hers and said, Waysahil. As the energy to mend her injuries flowed out of him, Aragon's legs weakened, and he had to brace himself against the chair. Better? he asked as the spell finished its work. Better, Arya whispered, and favored him with a weak smile. She motioned toward where Verog had been. We killed him. We killed him. And yet, we did not die. She sounded surprised. So few have ever killed a shade and lived. That is because they fought alone, not together, like us. No, not like us. I had you to help me in Farthendur, and you had me to help you here. Yes. Now I shall have to call you Shadeslayer. We are both. Sephira startled them by loosing a long, mournful keen. Still keening, she raked her claws across the floor, chipping and scratching the stones. Her tail whipped from side to side, smashing the furniture and the paintings on the walls. Gone, she said. Gone, gone forever. Sephira, what's wrong? exclaimed Arya. When Sephira did not answer, Arya repeated the question to Aragon. Hating the words he spoke, Aragon said, Aramis and Glader are dead. Galbatorix killed them. Arya staggered as if she had been hit. Ah, she said. She gripped the back of the chair so hard her knuckles turned white. Tears filled her slanted eyes, then spilled over onto her cheeks and coursed down her face. Aragon! She reached out and grasped his shoulder, and almost by accident he found himself holding her in his arms. Aragon felt his own eyes grow wet. He clenched his jaw in an effort to maintain his composure. If he started crying, he knew he would not be able to stop. He and Arya remained locked together for a long while, consoling each other. Then Arya withdrew and said, How did it happen? Oramus had one of his seizures, and while he was paralyzed, Galbatorix used Murtag to— Aragon's voice broke and he shook his head. I'll tell you about it, along with Naswada. She should know about this, and I don't want to have to describe it more than once. Arya nodded. Then let us go and see her. Bloodgarm and the elves under his command accompanied Aragon, Sephira, and Arya as they searched Feinster for Naswada. They found her riding her stallion through the gray streets, inspecting the damage to the city. Naswada greeted Aragon and Sephira with evident relief. I'm glad you have finally returned. We needed you here these past few days. I see you have a new sword, Aragon, a dragon rider's sword. Did the elves give it to you? In an indirect way, yes. Aragon eyed the various people standing nearby and lowered his voice. 
Naswara, we must talk with you alone. It's important. Very well. Naswara studied the buildings that lined the street, then pointed at a house that appeared abandoned. Let us talk in there. Two of Naswara's guards, the Nighthawks, ran forward and entered the house. They reappeared a few minutes later and bowed to Naswada, saying, It's empty, my lady. Good. Thank you. She dismounted and strode inside. Aragon and Arya followed. The three of them wandered through the shabby building until they found a room, the kitchen, with a window large enough to accommodate Zephyra's head. We may speak without fear, Arya announced after casting spells that would prevent anyone from eavesdropping on their conversation. What is this all about, Aragon? Naswada asked. Aragon swallowed, wishing that he did not have to dwell upon Oramus and Glader's fate. Then he said, Naswada, Sephira and I were not alone. There was another dragon, and another rider, fighting against Galbatorix. I knew it, breathed Naswada, her eyes shining. It was the only explanation that made sense. They were your teachers in Elismira, weren't they? They were, said Sephira. But no more. No more? Aragon pressed his lips together and shook his head, tears blurring his vision. Just this morning, they died at Gilead. Galbatorix used Thorn and Murtag to kill them. I heard him speak to them with Murtag's tongue. Tell me about them, Aragon, would you please? So for the next half hour, Aragon spoke of Oramus and Glader. Afterward, Naswada said, There is one thing I still do not understand, Aragon. You said you heard Galbatorix speaking to them. How could you? Yes, I would like to know that as well, said Arya. Starting with the truth about his parentage, Aragon proceeded in quick succession through the events of their stay at Elasmira, from their discovery of the bright steel under the Manoa tree to the forging of Brissinger. Last of all, he told Arya and Naswada about the dragon's heart of hearts. Well, said Naswada, you, the son of Brom, and Galbatorix leeching off the souls of dragons whose bodies have died. It's almost too much to comprehend. She rubbed her arms. At least we now know the true source of Galbatorix's power. Arya stood motionless, breathless, her expression stunned. The dragons are still alive, she whispered. They are still alive after all these years. Oh, if only we could tell the rest of my race. But we cannot tell them, said Zephira. No, said Arya, and lowered her gaze. Naswada looked at her. Please do not take offense, but I wish that your mother, Queen Islanzadi, had seen fit to share this information with us. We could have made use of it long ago. I agree, said Arya, frowning. Oremus and Glede, and my mother too, had sound reasons for keeping the Eldunari a secret. But their reticence was nearly our undoing. I will discuss this with my mother when next we speak. Naswada said, You have given me much to think about, Aragon. She tapped the floor with the tip of her boot. For the first time in the history of the Varden, we know of a way to kill Galbatorix that might actually succeed. If we can separate him from these heart of hearts, he will lose the better part of his strength, and then you and our other spellcasters will be able to overpower him. Yes, but how can we separate him from his hearts? 
Aragon asked. Naswada shrugged. I could not say, but I am sure it must be possible. From now on, you will work on devising a method. Nothing else is as important. Then Arya said, Aragon, may we see Gleders Eldunari? Aragon hesitated, then went outside and retrieved the pouch from Zephyra's saddlebags. Careful not to touch the Eldunari, he loosened the drawstring at the top and allowed the pouch to slide down around the golden gem-like stone. In contrast to when he had last seen it, the glow within the Heart of Hearts was dim and feeble, as if Glader were barely conscious. Naswada leaned forward and stared into the swirling center of the Eldenari, her eyes gleaming with reflected light. And Glader is really inside of here? He is, said Zephira. Can I speak with him? You could try, but I doubt he would respond. He just lost his rider. It will take him a long time to recover from the shock, if ever. Please leave him be, Naswada. If he wished to speak with you, he would have done so already. Of course, it was not my intention to disturb him in his time of grief. I shall wait to meet him until such time as he has regained his composure. Arya moved closer to Aragon and placed her hands on either side of the Eldunari, her fingers less than an inch away from its surface. She gazed at the stone with an expression of reverence, seemingly lost within its depths. Then whispered something in the ancient language. Glader's consciousness flared slightly, as if in response. Aragon covered the Eldenari with the pouch again, and fumbled with the drawstring, exhaustion rendering him clumsy. The Varden had won an important victory, and the elves had taken Gilead, but the knowledge brought him little joy. He looked at Naswada and asked, What now? Naswada lifted her chin, now we will march north to Bellatona, and when we have captured it, we will proceed onward to Drasleona and seize it as well, and then to Uruben, where we will cast down Galbatorix or die trying. That is what we shall do now, Aragon. After they left Naswada, Aragon and Sephira agreed to leave Feinster for the Varden's camp, so that they could both rest undisturbed by the cacophony of noises within the city. With Bloodgarm and the rest of Aragon's guards ranged around them, they walked toward the main gates of Feinster, Aragon still carrying Glader's heart of hearts in his arms. We are the last, Sephira said. Aragon frowned, not understanding. The last free dragon and rider, she explained. We are the only ones left. We are alone. Yes. When they arrived at the city gates, Aragon paused, reluctant to push his way through the large crowd gathered in front of the opening, trying to flee Feinster. He glanced around for another route. As his eyes passed over the outer walls, a sudden desire gripped him to see the city in the light of day. Veering away from Sephira, he ran up a staircase that led to the top of the walls. Sephira uttered a short growl of annoyance and followed, half-opening her wings as she jumped from the street to the parapet in a single bound. They stood together on the battlements for the better part of an hour and watched as the sun rose. One by one, rays of pale gold light streaked across the verdant fields from the east, illuminating the countless motes of dust that drifted through the air. As the sun warmed Aragon through his armor, 
his melancholy gradually dissipated. He took a deep breath and exhaled, relaxing his muscles. No, he said. We are not alone. I have you, and you have me. And there is Arya, and Naswada, and Oryk, and many others besides who will help us along our way. And Glade too, said Zephira. Aye. Aragon gazed down at the Eldenare that lay covered within his arms, and felt a rush of sympathy and protectiveness toward the dragon who was trapped inside the heart of hearts. He hugged the stone closer to his chest, and laid a hand upon Sephira, grateful for their companionship. We can do this, he thought. Galbatorix isn't invulnerable. He has a weakness, and we can use that weakness against him. We can do this. We can, and we must, said Sephira. For the sake of our friends and our family, and for the rest of Allegasia, we must do this. Aragon lifted Glader's Eldenari over his head, presenting it to the sun and the new day, and he smiled, eager for the battles yet to come, so that he and Sephira might finally confront Galbatorix and kill the Dark King. Hi, I'm Michelle Fry, editor at Knopf and Crown Books for Young Readers, and I'm sitting here today with Christopher Paolini, the author of The Inheritance Cycle and of Brissinger, the book that you are listening to right now. Hi, Christopher. Hi. I'm going to ask you a few questions just to chat a little about Brissinger and about your writing process and have a conversation with you. Question for you. What is it like for you to sit down and write a new book? How do you start a book? And... Do you miss the characters in between books? Actually, I do miss the characters. I was, since I just finished Brissinger, I was just working on a short story for my own amusement. And about a few pages into it, I walked over and found my mom, and I was telling her that I did. I found I was missing writing about Aragon and Sephira and Arya and all the other characters uh, from Allegasia. I've been with them so long now. Actually, this year, 2008, when Brissinger is being released, is this marks the 10th year since I began the Inheritance Cycle. Wow. Yeah. That's a long time to live with these characters. It is, and I've found that I've become very, very comfortable with them. It's easy for me to slip into their voices. I've done so much with Aragon at this point and Sephira and the other characters that writing a scene from their point of view or about them is... I won't say it's easy at this point. I mean, writing is never easy, <laughs> but sure. it's comfortable. So uh, as far as how I approach writing a new book, I would probably approach a book outside of this series a little bit differently. But in general, my approach for each book in the inheritance cycle has been to plot out the main events of the book in fairly explicit detail, uh, usually about a paragraph or so for every main event that happens. Mm -hmm. And I try to get a good feel for where the story is going, the general flow and arc of structure of the plot. And that usually, I usually spend a few weeks or a month on that, just trying to nail that down to my satisfaction. And then I, I dive in and <laughs> start chewing away. And, and of course, when I'm actually writing the book, the outline 
although it serves as a useful guide, I don't I don't adhere to it religiously. I feel free to make changes and alter things as I'm going along because sometimes something that seemed to make sense before I began the book no longer makes sense when I'm actually in the scene with the characters and they want to do something other than what I had originally planned. Do you have an example of that from Brissinger, a moment that deviated <laughs> from your original plan? Sure. Um, when Aragon finds Sloane in Hellgrind, mm-hmm. when I was first imagining the overall structure of the book, I had thought that I might, might have Aragon kill Sloane. Wow. Well, there are, there were a lot of reasons for it. I mean, Sloan had committed all these crimes, and taking Sloan back, I mean, he would have only been executed in any case for his crimes. So I thought, well, you know, Aragon is a dragon rider, and I don't want to maybe drag out the storyline anymore. I could just have him kill Sloan. But when I actually got to that point in the story, and Aragon was there staring at the butcher, and it just didn't feel right to go in that direction with Aragon. It didn't feel like Aragon would do that. You know, maybe Roran would have done it, maybe. Certainly, Arya might have done it, or I know Safira would have done it. She she would have just eaten slow. <laughs> and a tasty meal, too. And a tasty meal, but but not Aragon. So, and as a result of that decision, the book ended up being a good 100 pages longer, I'd say. Uh, because then everything that happened afterward with... Uh, Aragon having to run back to the Varden and Roran and Katrina flying back to the Varden on Safira, and all the scenes with Nasawada and Roran at the Varden while Aragon's returning to the Varden, none of that, none of that was originally in the story. So, and that was actually one reason the book ended up getting split into two then because this it got episode so long. was added. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's actually one of my favorite parts of the book. And one of the things I love about it is I feel like it really is a moment where Aragon is struggling with his role as a leader, that he's pretty newly in still, and discovering what that means and what his own limitations are, which is a really interesting part of that interaction between them. Thank you. That's actually something I think that's a big theme in this book is there There are a lot of the characters are struggling with how to lead properly. Mm-hmm. We see Nasuwata really dealing with some more of the problems that, that come with leading the Varden, and Roran as well is becoming, a, sort of assuming a position of greater authority within the Varden, and he's presented with, presented with a number of difficult choices with how to do that and how to lead the men that he's given command over, and also how to obey orders as well. And, uh, even Safira has a few cho- choices like that, I think. <laughs> Do you have a favorite character from the cycle? That's a difficult question. Um, I'm very fond of Angela because she's based on my sister, of course, Angela. But she's not really a true character in that sense. She's more like a, a uh, an exaggerated version of my sister. I'm very fond of Nasuata and Aragon, of course, and Arya. But... Um, Probably Safira is my favorite character. I've said that before, but it's the truth. How could it be any other way? <laughs> In fact, that's one of the things I really love about Brissinger was getting a chance to write a few few chapters from Safira's point of view. And I wanted to ask you about that. How did you decide to go about capturing her point of view? You do it so beautifully. It's such a unique and even non-human view of the world that you capture in those chapters. How did that come about? I was a little uncertain about how to tackle it at first. I thought it was going to be a big problem. And I knew that I had to do it right or not at all because she is such an integral part of the series. You know, if I messed up 
uh, chapters from her point of view, it's kind of like, well, why even do them then? But it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be because I've spent so many years now writing dialogue from her point, not from her point of view, but writing dialogue of hers in Aragon's mind. And I had sort of constructed a certain mindset of my own that when I went to write a piece of Sephira's dialogue, I think, okay, this is how she thinks. This is how she's going to react to the situation. Uh, and oftentimes her reaction isn't the way anyone else would react. You know, it's a bit of an unusual reaction. So when I went to write her point of view, I already had sort of a framework for the way her thoughts and her, her dialogue would work. And I just started to try to build on that, okay? How would she react to everything else? How would she observe everything else? I think the biggest unique thing I did with her point of view was the way she and other dragons view things with chains of association, I guess, you know, where she won't look at something and say, oh, that's a campfire. She'll look at that and say, well, that's a campfire that smells smoky, that uh, burns and bites and flickers. And she thinks, she doesn't think of a name necessarily. She thinks of all the associations with an item. And that's that's actually a holdover from my idea, from when the dragons were a wild race, because at least within my the mythology of my world, they never invented a language of their own. The way they communicated was through telepathy and through these connections, if you will, these associations. And it's still how dragons think to this day, even though now they have the structure of language to provide a framework for those associations. So Sephira doesn't always use words. You know, sometimes it's feelings or, or sense or stuff like that. And that, that's what I was trying to convey as well. And of course, my <laughs> growing up with a with a dog and cats in the house helped a great deal when writing about a dragon. Yeah. I had those moments of connecting Sephira with animals that I know in my own life, too. Mm -hmm. Just especially dis descriptions of her movement or a certain look in her eyes that felt, although dragons are these mythical creatures, felt so authentically alive. Well, it's a bit of a cliche to sort of base a dragon on a cat, but I think dragons are very feline. But at the same time watching our family's dog, Annie, as I was growing up and bringing her up, uh, she also, I think, brings some elements to Sephira or provided with me with some some observations that I was able to use with Sephira. Like sometimes the way Sephira moves or pounces around reminds me of Annie. Yeah, that sense of playfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, cats don't really, I mean, cats do play, but when they play, they're still serious. Yeah. You know, they're, they're still a, a whisker's breath away from actually killing something. <laughs> Uh, whereas, whereas a dog will actually play and yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, real joy there. Mm -hmm. How has your home state of Montana shaped the inheritance cycle? Oh boy. As I've said in other interviews, I think I might have still written fantasy if I had grown up somewhere other than where I did, but growing up in Montana really filled me with a love for the outdoors and the mountains especially. You know, you've been to, <laughs> you visited. It's spectacular. Yeah, I mean, the view of the mountains is just awesome, and and looking at them every day just gives me constant inspiration. And also getting to watch the wildlife. Watching the animals interact gives me a, more of a feeling for how Safira would act, maybe. Um, and also, I think, more of a feeling for how the world works outside of humans as well. Does the sheer physical beauty of your environment, because it truly is spectacular out there, breathtaking sustain you as a writer? Oh, it does. And in fact, whenever I visit other locations that are beautiful as well, they, they inspire me as well. It's Again, it's not that a writer can't 
write in a on a gray concrete block or something. Like room. New York, yeah. for chance. Well, <laughs> New York's a lot more colorful than that. <laughs> um, but I do think having having beautiful things around you and having inspiring things around you makes a big difference for a writer, especially when you're writing something that's set in the natural world with incredible, fantastical features. Seeing some of those very things in, in your own life definitely helps. And also... Yeah, I can't speak for other writers, but as for my, myself, I sometimes can't think of the little details that you only learn by actually going out and feeling something or looking at something or experiencing something yourself. There's just no way to find that information unless you do it yourself. How would you describe your writing process? I don't know. How would you describe it? <laughs> Turning it back around on me. <laughs> well, I'd say... It's a very intensive experience that you really live and breathe these characters in this story and these books, and you immerse yourself 110% from mm. the moment you dive in. Yeah, intensive. That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it. from the moment I begin a book, I sort of enter, my life enters suspended animation for a year and a half, two years. I'm not the fastest writer most of the time, and I write big books, so I have to really, really buckle down and focus every single day if I'm going to get a book done in a, in a semi-timely fashion. <laughs> uh, for the, and part of the problem is, is sometimes, no matter how much I plan and, and, and try to work things out beforehand, the story ends up surprising me, as Brissinger did, where... It just ended up a lot longer than I had thought. And that, of course, ends up putting on certain pressures with regards to the like the deadline and stuff. But, um, I mean, as far as the day-to-day process goes, you know, I get up, I grab breakfast, I sit in front of the computer, and I usually work straight through till about an hour before dinner when I get up to exercise and go watch a movie with my parents. A full day of writing. It is. And it's actually, it's weird because as a career, this is definitely a career of extremes. You know, one day I'll be sitting at my desk, not having left the house for a month. And and the next day I'm, you know, talking in front of a crowd somewhere. And it's a real switch. And I've, both elements of of the process require different skills. And I've known some writers who have excelled at both. And I've known some writers who excel at one and don't excel at the other. And they don't necessarily go hand in hand, you know, doing the sort of the promotion and public relations aspect of a writer's life with the writing. And it's something that you have to, it helps to keep separate from, it helps me to keep the two separate, actually. So I don't write when I'm out and traveling, and I don't, <laughs> I don't do uh, uh, talks and stuff when I'm at home. That makes sense. Actually, it's funny because when I write, I, I'm not even aware of this sometimes, but I say things out loud oftentimes, trying out the sound of the words or the way a sentence is. Sure. When my sister and I used to, we used to have rooms very close together in the house we grew up in, and she used to get so annoyed with me because she could hear me talking. (laughs) Aloud. Talking aloud, (laughs) reading the sentences out loud. And I remember she'd come and say, you know, Stop doing that. Be quiet. I said, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. You didn't even notice you were doing it. No, but now I have my own space to work in, and it's uh, I can talk as much as I like. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I really loved as watching these books progress and watching these characters develop is how Aragon and Roran are each really coming into their own. So what do you think is the biggest character difference between Aragon and Roran? 
Murren. Murren. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be doing that back and forth for another few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, we, we can tackle the question about the pronunciation in a second, but as far as the characters go, Aragon worries about things. Rorin worries about certain things. Rorin worries about the people he cares about. Katrina, his friends from the from Carvajal, the people he serves under, and the people he commands eventually in Brissinger. But that's pretty much where his concerns end. He doesn't really worry about the land as a whole. I mean, he thinks about it occasionally, but his concerns are very personal. And he is decisive in a way that Aragon isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's put it this way. If Katrina's in danger, he'll say to himself, Rorin will say to himself, okay, I'm going to go over there and rescue Katrina. And that's it. He goes and he does it. And it doesn't matter what's in his way, he goes and he does it. Even if it were to kill him, he he would go and try to rescue her. He's not a hand-wringer. No, uh, whereas Aragon, if he saw, for example, Arya was in danger, he's going to look at her and say, okay, I'm going to go rescue Arya, and let's see, I have to run this way and run that way, and I have to, you know, chop off this guy's head, but but he's kind of turning to flee, so maybe I should just let him go. And and this other guy, well, maybe I shouldn't really kill him, but maybe I can just cripple him instead. He and, spends a long time in his head and in the process, mm-hmm. and Roran is really active. A part of that is is the fact that Aragon has to use magic, and magic means that you really have to think about the consequences of your words and your actions, because if you say the wrong thing... You could not only kill people you care about, but you could kill yourself. And, of course, Aragon has been saddled with responsibilities far larger than those of Rorin's. When I was originally plotting out the series, I actually envisioned it as the story of three pseudo-brothers, I guess you could call it. Hmm. We had Aragon, we had Murtag, and we had Rorin. And they don't all get equal screen time. Aragon gets the most, of course, and Rorin ends up getting the second most. In fact, when I was writing Aragon, I actually debated at one point having Rorin accompany Aragon from Carvajal all the way up to when when he and Brom go to Tyrm, and then having Rorin go back to Carvajal at that point. But didn't work out with the story. But I've always envisioned it as a sort of, you know, the story of these three half-brothers, if you will. And... That's actually something like in the fourth book, we'll be seeing more of Murtag then. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. Wait, you know, equal out the balance here. Well, he is an intriguing character. We haven't seen much of him in the middle two books. And, of course, we really can't because he's he's fighting against Aragon and the Varden now. But we'll see a lot more of him in the fourth book. And I think readers will get to know him a little bit better and especially, hopefully, they'll they'll understand the situation he's been forced to deal with now a little bit better. Have a little bit of sympathy, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, he's not hes not a bad person. He's just been raised in a difficult environment and then stuck in an impossible situation. Now, he and Aragon have both become very strong over the course of these past couple of books. And have you ever found yourself kind of written into a corner in terms of magic? <laughs> well, I have written scenes where I write it the way I I want to write it, the way I originally envisioned it. And two weeks later, when I'm working on a different chapter, I'll suddenly think, wait a minute, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he just use this or that? Like when, for example, in Brissinger, when Aragon and Murtag fight, one of the questions was, well, why wouldn't Aragon use the energy that's in the ring that he got from Brom? Right. Um, And those questions have to be answered, because when I was 
growing up and I was reading a lot of fantasy at a certain point, I remember having lots of questions like that myself. And I won't name books here, but <laughs> there were plenty of occasions where you had characters who could use magic. And I'd say, well, you know, okay, they're in a fight. They're in this difficult situation. Why doesn't he just cast a spell to get him out of it? One way authors have gotten around this and, and something that I think I might do in the future is to set up a more limited system of magic, mm-hmm. something that only works under certain circumstances or that's much more limited in terms of power or strength that just isn't as flexible, can't be used for as wide a range of circumstances. Right. Um, that's one of the nice contrasts between Aragon and Roran. You know, Roran has to fight his way out of any situation, pretty much. He has to just rely on his own body and his brute strength. Whereas Aragon, you know, he can pretty much get out of most any situation at this point. However, he has to become this powerful if he's to have even a slight fighting chance against Murtag. And we're not even going to mention Galbatorix here because he's still not as powerful as Galbatorix. Right. He's still working on getting that fighting chance against Galbatorix. Yeah. And on one hand, it's almost like a superhero story where we have Aragon gradually becoming more than human. You know, now he's sort of half-elf, half-human, mm-hmm. and he has all this incredible power. And the question is, how do you keep the character real at that point? Part of it is giving him emotional problems instead of just physical problems. Sure. And it is quite a burden on him, this entire battle. So there's certainly a lot of emotional heft to his life just based on the circumstances that he finds himself in. And, of course, the other half of the solution is giving him more and more dangerous enemies. He has that as well. (laughs) Do you have a favorite scene in Brissinger or a scene that was a favorite scene to write? Oh, boy. I think I have a number of favorite scenes throughout the book. I like the scene where Saphira fuses or heals the the star sapphire Mm. among the dwarves. I love the scene where... Aragon and Arya are sitting around the campfire, and Arya makes the grass ship that flies off into the night. Beautiful. All the scenes between Roran and Katrina in their tent late at night were special favorites of mine. I loved writing those. I think that they just really have a connection none of the other characters really share. I love those scenes, too. They felt really intimate and connected to me. Well, and and one of the nice things about their relationship is that when the series begins and when we first start seeing scenes from Roran's point of view in Eldest, he's already courted Katrina. He's already won Katrina, and we don't need to see them going through that. They already have a relationship. Of course, when he rescues her, then in this book, it's just sort of a confirmation of what they both already knew. So I get to show sort of a different kind of relationship with them than exists between, say, Aragon and Arya, who are just sort of dancing around each other. Right. Yeah, you really feel the history between Roran and Katrina. And actually, I don't want to embarrass them here too much, but Roran and Katrina's relationship is really based on my parents. Wow. I've seen them share sort of moments like that. I mean, they they trust each other implicitly. Actually, a lot of Roran is based on my dad, to be honest. I have absolutely no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that if ever, anything had ever happened to my mom, <laughs> uh, he would have crossed the country and done uh, who knows what to, to get her back. So, you know, write what you know. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think that's a huge compliment to them. I'm sure they're honored to be that inspiration. Well, I I just hope that someday I... I'll have a marriage that lives up to theirs. Let's put it that way. One of my favorite scenes, switching to relationship that was not as strong as we could cast back uh, from the story from Elvis, <laughs> is the scene with the Minoa tree. 
Oh yes, I love that scene. It's so powerful, and it just draws you in, and you cannot take your eye from the page until the destiny behind that scene has unfolded. How did you do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, it was just a series of questions, you know, asking what happens next, what needs to happen next. Aragon needed to find the ore, the bright steel, and. You know he can't dig under the tree, so and the tree's alive, so it seemed natural that he and Safira would talk to the tree, and it seemed also natural that a gigantic, well, certainly a tree that large, isn't going to pay the slightest attention to two little gnats running around its trunk. So, and Safira, despite all her wisdom and advantages, Safira is not patient. That's so. <laughs> I mean, on one hand, dragons are patient, but Safira is a young dragon, and Safira is not patient. And that certainly plays a role in their interaction with the slow-moving consciousness of the tree. Yes, and when the tree starts reacting in a hostile manner, I was sort of thinking about times when I've been out hiking in the forest and a wind has sprung up, and you hear the branches, and especially the dead branches, rubbing against each other, and the whole forest creaks and groans and sways, and it's very. Ominous. I mean, it feels threatening, and sometimes you'll even hear a tree crashing down somewhere in the forest, and it can actually feel as if the whole forest wants you gone, or that there's something very strange heading toward you, strange and dangerous. And I was thinking of that when I was writing the the Manoa tree's reaction of the whole forest sort of coming alive and going after Aragon and Safira. And if the Manoa tree had you know wanted to do them in, let's just say Aragon and Safira's chances would be. Minuscule, negative two. <laughs> <laughs> If we had to quantify, <laughs> yeah, not not good in the slightest. I mean, you can be as strong as you want. You're not as strong as a forest. That's very true. That is such a grand force as compared to the individual force of all of these characters、mm-hmm. moving through the world. Well, one of the strange things or unusual things, as far as the the forest in that section of Duveldenvarden is, is that it it's a pine wood forest. It's a pine tree forest, which Most elf forests that you see in fantasy, so to speak, tend to be broadleaf forests. You know, oak trees and or invented trees, but they tend to be leafy trees, not evergreens. And I made it a pine wood forest because I've seen some of the forests on the the west coast, sure, like Oregon, and then heading up toward Alaska, where it's almost like a rainforest. Well, it is a rainforest actually, but. It is a pine forest. It is an evergreen forest, but you still get a lush feeling from it. But you also get a—I get you know, kind of a cliche to say this about a needled tree, but you get a spiky feeling from the forest. And—and <laughs>、um, and I kind of wanted that for the elves, and also with their language. You know, I wanted a bit of a harder feel for my elves, just because I think sometimes there's a tendency to forget that the elves can be very, very, very dangerous. I don't think you let us forget that <laughs> the elves can be very dangerous. From watching Arya kill an animal to put it out of its misery,、mm-hmm. to Islanzadi's assessment of various situations, they're also very decisive, very clear cut, and not afraid to take action. Well, Islanzadi is an odd character. I always kind of think of her as an opera singer. <laughs> She's very dramatic. She、uh, is dramatic. I've always thought that's actually part of the problem between her and Arya. That Islanzadi is prone to being controlling, and in, certainly for an elf, being over emotional from an elf's standpoint. And she's very—I mean, like the first scene between Arya and Islanzadi, 
when they first meet an eldest, Islanzadi is very theatrical about it almost.、Mm. And that's kind of how I approach each of her scenes. She's very sweeping and broad and. That's really true. There is kind of an awareness of her presence in a scene. You、yeah. know, I think from her own point of view, she's really aware of the impact that she's conveying. And I've always thought that's one reason Arya is much quieter, actually,、mm. and much more contained. You know, that she sort of grew up around this presence and is much more withdrawn as a result. It's interesting. Now, you also really explore politics in your books in a way that a lot of other fantasies. Don't necessarily. You get into the politics of the Varden, the politics of the Dwarves. What made you interested? Well, I have read fantasy books where there are lots of politics,、mm-hmm. and I'm always wary of putting them in my own book, just because I know from personal experience that sometimes reading politics can be boring, <laughs> really, really boring. The reason I've put in some what I have is simply because I feel it's necessary to make the world make sense.、Mm-hmm. On one hand, yeah, Aragon's powerful and he's fighting to overthrow Galbatorix, but at the other hand, people wouldn't just be handing him responsibility and favors. I mean, they are, but at the same time, they don't want to give up their own power. Same thing with Nasawada; she has to fight for everything she has and everything she's going to get. And I really tried to show this in that book, especially with the trial of the long knives.、Um, That's a powerful scene. Same thing with the dwarves, with Oric becoming king,、uh, taking the throne after Hrothgar. Because on one hand, you could say it's obvious that Oric is going to take the throne after Hrothgar dies, because Oric is the dwarf we've come to know throughout the series. He's a friend of Aragon's. He was Hrothgar's adopted son. It makes sense in、it、terms makes of sense, the story. But, yeah, and it and it does make political sense as well. But I also wanted to show that. He doesn't get it handed to him on a silver plate. He has to fight for it, and it makes the world more realistic. I think it does, and, I mean, and thankfully, thanks to your red pencil, <laughs> the graphite the, pencil, <laughs> the graphite pencil, the I don't think the politics gets too thick either. Well, I think what's so interesting about the politics as well is that. Orc doesn't have it handed to him on a silver platter, and you really see how he's been groomed by Hrothgar and how where his skills lie, and how he has a chance to shine in rising to that position. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed writing the speech between him, or the the talk between him and Aragon during the Forest of Stone, but then also writing Ara, or excuse me, Orc's speech before the clan meet when they're talking about banishing Vermund the. Traitorous、uh, Grimstaborif,、um, <laughs> and I thought again that because we hadn't seen Oric much in this book up until Aragon joins him in the Bjor Mountains, and I wanted to give him his due. Again, that's part of the thing with a series this big and books this big is you really have to juggle which characters you see when and where, and try not to let too much time go by before you start forgetting a certain character. Okay, just a couple more questions. Wait, 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 wait. I, I, I,、yep. about the dwarves again. I yeah, will yeah. say. I loved writing about Irunin, the dwarf. Yes, you did.、Woman. Yeah, and what was your inspiration for that? Okay, don't. Well, you can laugh.、Um, <laughs> oh, thanks for permission.、Uh, May West and Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm sure now that people have heard that, that will really make an impression. <laughs> well, I mean, you never, you just never hear much about dwarf women, and I always thought it'd be nice to not only show a dwarf woman, but one who was confident of being a woman. And she really is. I enjoyed every single sentence about her <laughs> immensely, and I would love to write. In fact, I would love to write a short story from her point of view. Ooh, maybe that will come down the line one day. Yes, although I'm not sure it would be entirely PG-13. <laughs> 
So talk to me a little bit about your languages, how you have created them, how you determine the pronunciations, uh, how you use them in the story. I used less of my languages in Brissinger than I did in Eldest or Aragon, at least proportionally. There are still a lot of the, the languages throughout the book. And I know this just because I can look at the translation guide in the back. <laughs> but proportionally, it's less. And I didn't try to do quite as ambitious things in this book. For example, I didn't do any songs or poems in the ancient language in this book. And that was partly because in Eldest, I wanted more of a sense of, of Aragon going to the elves and getting exposed to their culture and also getting exposed to the dwarves' culture as well. And this book, I was trying to focus a little bit more on just telling the story instead of revealing the world to readers. So most of the work that I did developing the languages, I did during Eldest and right after Eldest, because that was where I used more of the languages than I did in, like, Aragon. I really didn't do much with Dwarvish in Aragon at all, for example. So the main approach I have is trying not to make them too much of a tongue twister. <laughs> I, you know, I try to make sure that the sound of the words is halfway decent, of course, I'm not really great at, like, rolling my R's, which you need to do for Elvish, so I have to always approximate. But actually, more than the sound of the words, I try to make sure that they look good on the page. And, in fact, <laughs> when I invented a lot of the names for Aragon, I did it without knowing how they were pronounced. Really? Yeah, I did not know how to say Allegasia until I, long after I finished the book. <laughs> really? So how did you decide how to say it? Did you look at the structure of the different words and say, okay, it makes sense that this mm -hmm. word we pronounce this way? In fact, that's how I started figuring out the structure of the language, is saying, okay, this is what I've done, this is how I think it would be said, and so I'm going to start basing things off those sounds in the future. And I'd done some non-standard sentence structure and stuff, so I said, okay, this is my sentence structure going forward. I did a few interesting things with sounds in this book. For example, the nomad tribes, I gave a, I started giving a hint of their own language in this book. I actually worked out more of it than I actually put in the book. So what they do is, like Japanese, for example, they pronounce, they alternate between consonants and vowels for the most part. You pronounce every single consonant and vowel in their language. But whenever they have a double letter, whether it's a double vowel or a double consonant, they pronounce it twice as long. So they have a, for example, one of the names is Inapashuna, and you hold the n sound twice. Inapashuna. I'm not, again, I'm not a native speaker. But, <laughs> You're as native as they get. Uh, I was trying to give a, a little bit different feel for that language than the Dwarvish or the the ancient language. And of course, we see a little bit of the Urgle language here and there. And for the look of the Urgle language and the sound, I actually I pulled out an Aragon translation of an Aragon foreign edition that was translated into Polish. Oh, really? Just because Polish, compared with English, looks so spiky. Yeah, there are a chunky. lot of up and down cadences. Yeah. So I didn't too. copy any words from Polish, but just the look of some of the words gave me an idea of where to go. I feel like the languages also really reflect the people. The ancient language feels like elves would speak it, just in the way the words roll off the tongue mm -hmm. and the kinds of noises that are used in the more guttural dwarvish language really feels like the dwarves, too. Yeah, I love the dwarf language. That's my favorite of the lot, partly because I've it's not based on anything else. It's all my own. The ancient language is kind of an odd mix because on one hand, it alternates very flowing words like edur karthungave, which is the tailbone of the spine, with 
much more jagged words like garzla or garzla garzla which Durza used in the beginning of Aragon and part of that comes from the old Norse influence that informed a lot of the ancient language cuz a lot of Norse words tend to be pretty rough to our ears in fact all the words in english which have the sk sound like sky or skirt yes so sk all of those come from norse wow which actually tells you how much of an influence we have when our word for sky comes from norse so anyway i tend to look at all that stuff when i'm working on the languages especially like the ancient language saying well do i want to use sort of a nordic word here do i want to just invent a word with a nordic feel or do i want to use go slightly more in a more flowing feeling it's always a mixture in fact every time i hit one of these sections they slow me down immensely because i have to think about all this different stuff and you think about it chronologically as you encounter it mm-hmm. rather than going back to it later um a few times in this book i went back and put stuff in because during the writing process uh, i was moving so quickly i said okay i'll just deal with the languages later in a few places especially since sometimes it's not worth putting something in when you know there's a chance the scene might be cut for example right so much happened in brissinger and there is still so much left to happen <laughs> in the very me. last book <laughs> of the cycle have you thought about a name for book 4 yet Oh, I have. I think I have a name chosen actually. Readers who are interested in this might be able to guess the name themselves if they think about it very, very hard. The theme of the series of course is inheritance. Aragon is the name of the first book, which that's not really anything he inherits, but you could say that he's inheriting the mantle of the very first Aragon. Actually, what he's inheriting in that book is Safira and Zarok. Eldest of course speaks about, you know, who receives the inheritance. It's Mertag in that case because he's the eldest member of their family or so they think and Brissinger of course he inherits a writer's sword he's given finally inherits or gets a writer's sword a true writer's sword for himself part of that legacy that's right so the question is what does he get if you will in the fourth book and i have the answer to that but i'm not going to tell you <laughs> well that's an interesting question to leave us with thank you so much christopher oh, for having this conversation about brissinger and about the inheritance cycle yeah, it was fun this was fun brissinger is published by random house audiobooks the division of the random house group copyright christopher paolini 2008 copyright in recording random house audiobooks Christopher Paolini has asserted his right under the CDPA 1988 to be identified as the author of this work. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.